The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien Book One The Fellowship of the Ring Chapter One A Long Expected Party When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his eleventy-first birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar, and had been the wonder of the Shire for sixty years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigour to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At ninety, he was much the same as fifty. At ninety-nine, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth, as well as, reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. "'It'll have to be paid for,' they said. "'It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it.' But so far, trouble had not come, and as Mr. Baggins was generous with his money, most people were willing to forgive him his oddities and his good fortune. He remained on visiting terms with his relatives, except, of course, the Sackville Bagginses, and he had many devoted admirers among the hobbits of poor and unimportant families. But he had no close friends, until some of his younger cousins began to grow up. The eldest of these, and Bilbo's favourite, was young Frodo Baggins. When Bilbo was ninety-nine, he adopted Frodo as his heir, and brought him to live at Bag End, and the hopes of the Sackville Bagginses were finally dashed. Bilbo and Frodo happened to have the same birthday, September the twenty-second. "'You had better come and live here, Rhoda, my lad,' said Bilbo one day, "'and then we can celebrate our birthday parties comfortably together.' At that time Frodo was still in his tweens, as the hobbits called the irresponsible twenties between childhood and coming of age at thirty-three. Twelve more years passed. Each year the Bagginses had given very lively combined birthday parties at Bag End, but now it was understood— that something quite exceptional was being planned for that autumn. Bilbo was going to be eleventy-one. One, one, one. A rather curious number, and a very respectable age for a hobbit. The old Duke himself had only reached one hundred thirty. And Frodo was going to be thirty-three. Three, three. An important number. The date of his coming of age. Tongues began to wag in Hobbiton and Bywater, and rumour of the coming event travelled all over the Shire. The history and character of Mr. Bilbo Baggins became once again the chief topic of conversation, and the older folk suddenly found their reminiscences in welcome demand. No one had a more attentive audience than old Ham Gamgee, commonly known as the Gaffer. He held forth at the Ivy Bush, a small inn on the Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he attended the garden at Bag End for forty years and had helped old Holman in the same job before that. Now that he was himself growing old and stiff in the joints, the job was mainly carried on by his youngest son. 
Sam Gamgee. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself, in number three, Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken, gentle hobbit is Mr. Bilbo, as I've always said, the gaffer declared, with perfect truth, for Bilbo was very polite to him, calling him Master Hanfast, and consulting him constantly upon the growing of vegetables in the matter of roots, especially potatoes. The gaffer was recognized as the leading authority by all in the neighborhood, including himself. But what about this Frodo that lives with him? asked old Noakes of Bywater. Maggins is his name. But he's more than half a brandy buck, they say. It beats me why any baggage in Hobbiton should go looking for a wife away there in Buckland, where folks are so queer. And no wonder they're queer, put in Daddy Twofoot, the gaffer's next-door neighbour. If they live on the wrong side of the brandy wine river and right again the old forest, that's a dark place if half the tales be true. You're right, then, said the gaffer. Not that the brandy bucks of Buckland live in the old forest. They're a queer breed, seemingly. They fall about with boats on that big river, and that's, that is a natural. Small wonder that trouble came of it, I say. But be that as it may, Mr. Frodo is as nice a young hobbit as you could wish to meet. Very much like Mr. Bilbo. And in more than looks. After all, his father was a Baggins. A decent, respectable hobbit was Mr. Drogo Baggins. Well, there never was much to tell of him. Till he was drowned. Said several voices. They had heard this and other darker rumors before, of course, but hobbits have a passion for family history, and they were ready to hear it again. Well, so they say, said the gaffer. You see, Mr. Drogo, he married poor Miss Primula Brandybuck. She was our Mr. Bibble's first cousin on her mother's side, or her mother being the youngest of the old Took's daughters, and Mr. Drogo was his second cousin, so Mr. Frodo is his first and second cousin once removed either way, as the saying is, if you follow me. And Mr. Drogo was staying at Brandy Hall with his father-in-law, Master Gorbanok, as he often did after his marriage, him being partial to his victuals, uh, and old Gorbanok keeping a mighty generous table. And he went out boating on the Brandywine River, and he and his wife were drowned, and Poor Mr. Frodo, only a child and all. I've heard they went on the water after dinner in the moonlight, said old Noakes. And it was Drogo's weight that sunk the boat. And I heard she pushed him in. And he pulled her in after him, said Sandyman, the Hobbiton Miller. You shouldn't listen to all you hear, Sandyman, said the gaffer, who did not much like the miller. There isn't no call to go talking of pushing and pulling. Boats are quite tricky enough for those that sit still without looking further for the cause of trouble. Anyway, there was this Mr. Frodo left an orphan and stranded, as you might say, among those queer booklanders. Being brought up anyhow in Brandy Hall, a regular warren by all accounts, old Master Gorbadoc never had fewer than a couple of hundred relations in the place. Uh, Mr. Bilbo never did a kinder deed than when he brought the lad back to live among decent folk. <laughs> but I reckon it was a nasty shock for those Sackville Bagginses. They thought they were going to get back again that time when he went off and was thought to be dead. And then he comes back and orders them off. And goes on living and living and never looking a day older, bless him. And suddenly he produces an heir. 
And as all the paper's made up proper, the Sackville packages will never see them inside of back in now. Or it is to be hoped not. There's a tidy bit of money tucked away up there, I hear tell, said a stranger, a visitor on business from Mikkel Delving in the West Farthing. All the top of your hill is full of tunnels packed with chests of gold and silver and jewels by what I've heard. Then you've heard more than I can speak to, answered the gaffer. I know nothing about jewels. Mr. Pilpo's free with his money, and there seems no lack of it. But I know of no tunnel making. I saw Mr. Pilpo when he came back, a matter of sixty years ago when I was a lad. I had not long come apprentice to old Holman, him being my dad's cousin, but he had me up at Baggown helping him to keep folks from trampling and traipsing all over the garden while the sale was on. And in the middle of it all, Mr. Bilbo comes up the hill with a pony and some mighty big bags and a couple of chests. I don't doubt they were mostly full of treasure he had picked up in foreign parts. Where there be mountains of gold, they say. There wasn't enough to fill tunnels. But my lad Sam, we'll know more about that. He's in and out of Bag End. (laughs) Crazy about stories of the old days he is. And he listens to all Mr. Bilbo's tales. Mr. Bilbo has learned him his letters, meaning no harm, mark you, and I hope no harm will come of it. Hells and dragons, I says to him. Cabbages and potatoes are better for me and you. Don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters, or your land and trouble too big for you, I says to him. And I might say it to others, he added with a look at the stranger and the miller. But the gaffer did not convince his audience. The legend of Bilbo's wealth was now too firmly fixed in the minds of the younger generation of hobbits. Ah, but he has likely enough been added to what he brought at first argued the miller, voicing common opinion. He's often away from home. And look at the outlandish folk that visit him. Dwarves coming at night, and that old wandering conjurer, Gandalf and all. You can say what you like, Gaffer, but Bag End's a queer place. And it folk are queerer. And you can say what you like about what you know no more than you do at Bolton, Mr. Sandyman, hmm. retorted the Gaffer, disliking the miller even more than usual. If that's being queer, then we could do with a bit more queerness in these parts. There's some not far away that wouldn't offer a pint of beer to a friend if they lived in a hole of golden walls. But they do things proper at Bag End. Our Sam said that everyone's going to be invited to the party. And there's going to be presents, mark you. Presents for all. This very month, as is. Huh. That very month was September, and as fine as you could ask. A day or two later, a rumor, probably started by the knowledgeable Sam, was spread about that there were going to be fireworks. Fireworks, what is more, such as had not been seen in the Shire for nigh on a century. Not indeed since the old Duke died. Days passed, and the day drew nearer. An odd-looking wagon, laden with odd-looking packages, rolled into Hobbiton one evening and toiled up the hill to Bag End. The startled hobbits peered out of lamplit doors to gape at it. It was driven by outlandish folk, singing strange songs, dwarves with long beards and deep hoods. A few of them remained at Bag End. At the end of the second week in September, 
A cart came in through by water from the direction of the Brandywine Bridge in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall, pointed blue hat, a long grey cloak and a silver scarf. He had a long white beard and bushy eyebrows that stuck out beyond the brim of his hat. Small hobbit children ran after the cart all through Hobbiton and right up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks, as they rightly guessed. At Bilbo's front door, the old man began to unload. There were great bundles of fireworks of all sorts and shapes, each labelled with a large red Fionorian G and the elf rune G. That was Gandalf's mark, of course, and the old man was Gandalf the wizard, whose fame in the Shire was due mainly to his skill with fires, smokes, and lights. His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. To them, he was just one of the attractions at the party. Hence, the excitement of the Hobbit children. Gee for grand! They shouted, and the old man smiled. They knew him by sight, though he only appeared in Hobbiton occasionally, and never stopped long. But neither they nor any but the oldest of their elders had seen one of his firework displays. They now belonged to the legendary past. When the old man, helped by Bilbo and some dwarves, had finished unloading, Bilbo gave a few pennies away, but not a single squib or cracker was forthcoming, to the disappointment of the onlookers. Run away now," said Gandalf. "Of you will get plenty when the time comes." Then he disappeared inside with Bilbo, and the door was shut. The young hobbits stared at the door in vain for a while, and then made off, feeling that the day of the party would never come. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting at the open window of a small room, looking out west onto the garden. The late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and golden, snapdragons and sunflowers and asturians trailing all over the turf walls and peeping in at the round windows. <laughs> How bright your garden looks," said Gandalf. "Yes," said Bilbo. "I am very fond indeed of it, and of all the dear old Shire. But I think I need a holiday." "You mean to go on with your plan then?" "I do. I made up my mind months ago, and I, and I haven't changed it." "Very well. It is no good saying any more." Stick to your plan, your whole plan, mind, and I hope it will turn out for the best, for you, and for all of us. I hope so. <laughs> anyway, I mean to enjoy myself on Thursday and have my little joke. Who will laugh? I wonder," said Gandalf, shaking his head. <clears throat> We shall see," said Bilbo. The next day, more carts rolled up the hill. And still more carts. There might have been some grumbling about dealing locally, but that very week orders began to pour out of Bag End for every kind of provision, commodity, or luxury that could be obtained in Hobbiton or Bywater or anywhere in the neighbourhood. People became enthusiastic, and they began to tick off the days on the calendar. And they watched eagerly for the postman, hoping for invitations. Before long, the invitations began pouring out, and the Hobbiton Post Office. Was blocked, and the Bywater Post Office was snowed under, and voluntary assistant postmen were called for. There was a constant stream of them going up the hill, 
carrying hundreds of polite variations on "Thank you, I shall certainly come." A notice appeared on the gate at Bag End: "No admittance except on party business." Even those who had or pretended to have party business were seldom allowed inside. Bilbo was busy, writing invitations, ticking off answers, packing up presents, and making some private preparations of his own. From the time of Gandalf's arrival, he remained hidden from view. One morning, the hobbits woke to find the large field south of Bilbo's front door covered with ropes and poles for tents and pavilions. A special entrance was cut into the bank leading to the road, and wide steps and a large white gate were built there. And there, the three hobbit families of Bagshot Row adjoining the field were intensely interested and generally envied. Old Gaffer Gamgee stopped even pretending to work in his garden. The tents began to go up. There was a specially large pavilion, so big that the tree that grew in the field was right inside it and stood proudly near one end, at the head of the chief table. Lanterns were hung on all its branches. More promising still, to the hobbit's mind, an enormous open-air kitchen was erected in the north corner of the field. A draft of cooks from every inn and eating house for miles around arrived to supplement the dwarves and other odd folk that were quartered at Bag End. Excitement rose to its height. Then the weather clouded over. That was on Wednesday, the eve of the party. Anxiety was intense. Then Thursday, September the twenty-second, actually dawned. The sun got up, the clouds vanished, flags were unfurled, and the fun began. Bilbo Baggins called it a party, but it was really a variety of entertainments rolled into one. Practically everybody living near was invited. A very few were overlooked by accident, but as they turned up all the same, that did not matter. Many people from other parts of the Shire were also asked, and there were even a few from outside the borders. Bilbo met the guests and additions at the new white gate in person. He gave away presents to all and sundry. The latter were those who went out again by a back way and came in again by the gate. Hobbits give presents to other people on their own birthdays, not very expensive ones as a rule, and not so lavishly as on this occasion. But it was not a bad system. Actually, in Hobbiton and Bywater, every day in the year it was somebody's birthday, so that every Hobbit in those parts had a fair chance of at least one present at least once a week. But they never got tired of them. On this occasion, the presents were unusually good. The Hobbit children were so excited that for a while they almost forgot about eating. There were toys the like of which they had never seen before, all beautiful, and some obviously magical. Many of them had indeed been ordered a year before, and had come all the way from the mountain and from dale, and were of real dwarf make. When every guest had been welcomed and was finally inside the gate, there were songs, dances, music, games, and of course, food and drink. There were three official meals: lunch, tea, and dinner, or supper. But lunch and tea were marked chiefly by the fact that at those times all the guests were sitting down and eating together. At other times, there were merely lots of people eating and drinking continuously from eleven seas until six thirty, when the fireworks started. The fireworks were by Gandalf. They were not only brought by him, but designed and made by him. 
and the special effects, set pieces and flights of rockets were let off by him. But there was also a generous distribution of squibs, crackers, backer wrappers, sparklers, torches, dwarf candles, elf fountains, goblin barkers and thunderclaps. They were all superb. The art of Gandalf improved with age. There were rockets like a flight of scintillating birds singing with sweet voices. There were green trees with trunks of dark smoke. Their leaves opened like a whole spring unfolding in a moment, and their shining branches dropped glowing flowers down upon the astonished hobbits, disappearing with a sweet scent just before they touched their upturned faces. There were fountains of butterflies that flew, glittering into the trees. There were pillars of coloured fires that rose and turned into eagles, or sailing ships, or a phalanx of flying swans. There was a red thunderstorm and a shower of yellow rain. There was a forest of silver spears that sprang suddenly into the air with a yell like an embattled army, and came down again into the water with a hiss like a hundred hot snakes. And there was also one last surprise. In honor of Bilbo, and it startled the hobbits exceedingly, as Gandalf intended. The lights went out. A great smoke went up. It shaped itself like a mountain seeming in the distance, and began to glow at the summit. It spouted green and scarlet flames. Out flew a red golden dragon, not life-size, but terribly lifelike. Fire came from its jaws. Its eyes glared down. There was a roar, and he whizzed three times over the heads of the crowd. They all ducked, and many fell flat on their faces. The dragon passed like an express train, turned a somersault, and burst over by water with a deafening explosion. That is the signal for supper said Bilbo. The pain and alarm vanished at once, and the prostrate hobbits leapt to their feet. There was a splendid supper for everyone. For everyone, that is, except those invited to the special family dinner party. This was held in the great pavilion with the tree. The invitations were limited to twelve dozen, a number also called by the hobbits one gross, though the word was not considered proper to use of people. And the guests were selected from all the families to which Bilbo and Frodo were related. With the addition of a few special unrelated friends, such as Gandalf. Many young hobbits were included, and present by parental permission. For hobbits were easygoing with their children in the matter of sitting up late, especially when there was a chance of getting them a free meal. Bringing up young hobbits took a lot of provender. There were many bagginses and boffins, and also many tooks and brandybucks. There were various grubs, relations of Bilbo Baggins' grandmother, and various chubs, connections of his took grandfather, and a selection of burroses, bulges, brace girdles, brockhouses, good bodies, horn blowers, and proudfuls. Some of these were only very distantly connected with Bilbo, and some of them had hardly ever been in Hobbiton before, as they lived in remote corners of the Shire. The Sackville Bagginses were not forgotten. Otho and his wife Lobelia were present. They disliked Bilbo and detested Frodo, but so magnificent was the invitation card written with golden ink that they had felt it was impossible to refuse. Besides, their cousin, Bilbo, had been specializing in food for many years, and his table had a high reputation. 
all the 144 guests expected a pleasant feast, though they rather dreaded the after-dinner speech of their host, an inevitable item. He was liable to drag in bits of what he called poetry, and sometimes after a glass or two would allude to the absurd adventures of his mysterious journey. The guests were not disappointed. They had a very pleasant feast. In fact, an engrossing entertainment, rich, abundant, varied, and prolonged. The purchase of provisions fell almost to nothing throughout the district in the ensuing weeks. But as Bilbo's catering had depleted the stocks of most stores, cellars and warehouses for miles around, that did not matter much. After the feast, more or less, came the speech. Most of the company were, however, now in a tolerant mood, at that delightful stage which they called filling up the corners. They were sipping their favourite drinks, and nibbling at their favourite dainties, and their fears were forgotten. They were prepared to listen to anything, and to cheer at every full stop. My dear people, began Bilbo, rising in his place. Hear, 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 they shouted, and kept on repeating it in chorus, seeming reluctant to follow their own advice. Bilbo left his place, and went and stood on a chair under the illuminated tree, The light of the lanterns fell on his beaming face. The golden buttons shone on his embroidered silk waistcoat. They could all see him standing, waving one hand in the air. The other was in his trouser pocket. My dear Bagginses and Boffins! He began again. And my dear Tooks and Brandybucks! And Grubs! And Chubs! And Burrowses! And Hornblowers! And Bulgers! Brace Girdles! Good Bodies! Brockhouses and Proudfoots. Proud feet! shouted an elderly hobbit from the back of the pavilion. His name, of course, was Proudfoot and well merited. His feet were large, exceptionally furry, and both were on the table. Proudfoots, repeated Bilbo. Also, my good Sackville Bagginses that I welcome back at last to Bag End. Today is my 111th birthday! I am 111 today. Hooray! Hooray! Many happy returns, they shouted. And they hammered joyously on the tables. Bobo was doing splendidly. This was the sort of stuff they liked. Short and obvious. I hope you're all enjoying yourselves as much as I am. Deafening cheers. Cries of yes and no. Noises of trumpets and horns, pipes and flutes, and other musical instruments. There were, as has been said, many young hobbits present. Hundreds of musical crackers had been pulled. Most of them bore the mark Dale on them, which did not convey much to most of the hobbits, but they all agreed they were marvellous crackers. They contained instruments, small but of perfect make, and enchanting tones. Indeed, in one corner, some of the young tukes and brandybucks, supposing Uncle Bilbo to have finished, since he had plainly said all that was necessary, now got up an impromptu orchestra and began a merry dance tune. Master Everard Duke and Miss Mellilock Brandybuck got on the table and with bells in their hands began to dance the Springle Ring. A pretty dance, but rather vigorous. But Bilbo had not finished. Seizing a horn from a youngster nearby, he blew three loud hoots. The noise subsided. I shall not keep you long! He cried. Cheers from all the assembly. I have called you all together. 
for a purpose. Something in the way that he said this made an impression. There was almost silence, and one or two of the Tukes pricked up their ears. Indeed, for three purposes. First of all, to tell you that I am immensely fond of you all, and that eleventy-one years is too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. Tremendous outburst of approval. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. This was unexpected and rather difficult. There was some scattered clapping, but most of them were trying to work it out and see if it came to a compliment. Secondly, to celebrate my birthday. Cheers again. I should say our birthday, for it is, of course, also the birthday of my heir and nephew Frodo. He comes of age and into his inheritance today. Some perfunctory clapping from the elders. And some loud shouts of Frodo, Frodo, jolly old Frodo from the juniors. The Sackville Bagginses scowled and wondered what was meant by coming into his inheritance. Together, we score 144. Your numbers were chosen to fit this remarkable total. One gross, if I may use the expression. No cheers. This was ridiculous. Many of his guests, and especially the Sackville Bagginses, were insulted, feeling sure they had only been asked to fill up the required number, like goods in a package. One gross indeed. Vulgar expression. It is also, if I may be allowed to refer to ancient history, the anniversary of my arrival by Beryl at Esgaroth on the Long Lake. Though the fact that it was my birthday slipped my memory on that occasion, I was only fifty-one then, and... Birthdays did not seem so important. The banquet was very splendid, however, though I had a bad cold at the time, I remember, and could only say, Thank you very much. I now repeated more correctly, Thank you very much for coming to my little party. Obstinate silence. They all feared that the song, or some poetry, was now imminent, and they were getting bored. Why couldn't he stop talking and let them drink his health? But Bilbo did not sing or recite. He paused for a moment. Thirdly and finally, he said, I wish to make an announcement! He spoke this last word so loudly and suddenly that everyone sat up who still could. I regret to announce that. Though, as I said, eleventy-one years is far too short a time to spend among you. This is the end. I am going. I am leaving. Now. Goodbye. He stepped down and vanished. There was a blinding flash of light, and the guests all blinked. When they opened their eyes, Bilbo was nowhere to be seen. One hundred and forty-four flabbergasted hobbits sat speechless. Old Dodo Proudfoot removed his feet from the table and stamped. Then there was a dead silence. Until suddenly, after several deep breaths, every Baggins, Boffin, Tuke, Brandybuck, Grub, Chub, Burrows, Bulger, Bracegirdle, Brockhouse, Goodbody, Hornblower, and Proudfoot began to talk at once. 
it was generally agreed that the joke was in very bad taste, and more food and drink were needed to cure guests of shock and annoyance. It's mad, I always said so, was probably the most popular comment. Even the Tukes, with a few exceptions, thought Bilbo's behavior was absurd. For the moment, most of them took it for granted that his disappearance was nothing more than a ridiculous prank. But old Rory Brandybuck was not so sure. Neither age nor an enormous dinner had clouded his wits, and he said to his daughter-in-law, Esmeralda, There's something fishy in this, my dear. I believe that mad Baggins is off again. <laughs> Silly old fool, but why worry? He hasn't taken the vittles with him. He called loudly to Frodo to send the wine round again. Frodo was the only one present who had said nothing. For some time he had sat silent beside Bilbo's empty chair and ignored all remarks and questions. He had enjoyed the joke, of course, even though he had been in the know. He had difficulty in keeping from laughter at the indignant surprise of the guests, but at the same time he felt deeply troubled. He realized suddenly that he loved the old hobbit dearly. Most of the guests went on eating and drinking, and discussing Bilbo Baggins' oddities, past and present, but the Sackville Bagginses had already departed in wrath. Frodo did not want to have any more to do with the party. He gave orders for more wine to be served. Then he got up and drained his own glass silently, to the health of Bilbo, and slipped out of the pavilion. As for Bilbo Baggins, even while he was making his speech, he had been fingering the golden ring in his pocket his magic ring that he had kept secret for so many years. As he stepped down, he slipped it on his finger, and he was never seen by any hobbit in Hobbiton again. He walked briskly back to his hole, and stood for a moment listening with a smile to the din in the pavilion and to the sounds of merrymaking in other parts of the field. Then he went in. He took off his party clothes, folded up and wrapped in tissue paper his embroidered silk waistcoat, and put it away. Then he put on quickly some old untidy garments and fastened round his waist a worn leather belt. On it he hung a short sword in a battered black leather scabbard. From a locked drawer, smelling of old mothballs, he took out an old cloak and hood. They had been locked up as if they were very precious. But they were so patched and weather-stained that their original colour could hardly be guessed. It might have been dark green. They were rather too large for him. He then went into his study, and from a large strong box took out a bundle wrapped in old cloths and a leather-bound manuscript and also a large bulky envelope. The book and bundle he stuffed into the top of a heavy bag that was standing there, already nearly full. Into the envelope he slipped his golden ring and its fine chain and then sealed it and addressed it to Frodo. At first he put it on the mantelpiece but suddenly he removed it and stuck it in his pocket. At that moment the door opened and Gandalf came quickly in. Oh! Hello, said Bilbo. I wondered if you would turn up. I am glad to find you visible, replied the wizard, sitting down in a chair. I wanted to catch you and have a few final words. I suppose you feel that everything has gone off splendidly and according to plan? Yes, I do, said Bilbo. Though that flash was surprising. It quite startled me, let alone the others. A little addition of your own, I suppose. It was. You have wisely kept the ring secret all these years, and it seemed to me necessary to give your guests something else that would seem to explain your sudden vanishment. I would spoil my joke. <laughs> oh, you are an interfering old busybody, <laughs> laughed Bilbo. 
But I expect uh, you know best, as usual. I do, when I know anything. But I don't feel too sure about this whole affair. It has now come to the final point. You've had your joke, and alarmed or offended most of your relations, and given the whole Shire something to talk about for nine days, or ninety-nine more likely. Are you going any further? Yes, I am. I feel I need a holiday. A very long holiday, as I have told you before. Probably a permanent holiday. I don't expect I shall return. In fact, I don't mean to, and I have made all arrangements. I am old, Gandalf. I don't look it, but I am beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. Well preserved indeed. He snorted. Why, I feel all thin. Sort of stretched, if you know what I mean. Like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. I can't be right. I need a change. Or something. Gandalf looked curiously and closely at him. No, it does not seem right. He said thoughtfully. No, after all, I believe your plan is probably the best. Well, I've made up my mind anyway. I want to see mountains again, Gandalf. Mountains! And then find somewhere where I can rest. In peace and quiet. Without a lot of relatives prying around and a string of confounded visitors hanging on the bell. I might find somewhere where I can finish my book. I have thought of a nice ending for it. And he lived happily ever after. To the end of his days. Gandalf laughed. <laughs> I hope he will. But nobody will read the book however it ends. Oh, they may in years to come. Frodo has read some already, as far as it has gone. You'll keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Yes, I will. Two eyes, as often as I can spare them. <laughs> he would come with me, of course, if I asked him. In fact, he offered to once, just before the party. But he does not really want to yet. I want to see the wild country again before I die, and the mountains. But he is still in love with the Shire, with the woods and the fields and little rivers. He ought to be comfortable here. I am leaving everything to him, of course, except a few oddments. I hope he will be happy when he gets used to being on his own. It's time he was his own master now. Everything? said Gandalf. The ring as well. You agreed to that, you remember? Well, uh, yes, I, I suppose so, stammered Bilbo. Where is it? In an envelope, if you must know, said Bilbo impatiently. There, on the mantelpiece. Well, no. Here it is in my pocket, he hesitated. <laughs> Isn't that odd now, he said softly to himself. Yet, after all, why not? Why shouldn't it stay there? Gandalf looked again very hard at Bilbo, and there was a gleam in his eyes. I think, Bilbo, he said quietly, I should leave it behind. Don't you want to? Well, yes. Uh, and no. Now it comes to it, I, I don't feel like parting with it at all, I might say. And I don't really see why I should. Why do you want me to? He asked. And a curious change came over his voice. It was sharp with suspicion and annoyance. 
you, you are always badgering me about my ring, but you have never bothered me about the other things that I got on my journey. No, but I had to badger you, said Gandalf. I wanted the truth. It was important. Magic rings are, well, magical, and they are rare and curious. I was professionally interested in your ring, you may say, and I still am. I should like to know where it is if you go wandering again. Also, I think you have had it quite long enough. You don't need it anymore, Bilbo, unless I am quite mistaken. Bilbo flushed, and there was an angry light in his eyes. His kindly face grew hard. Why not? He cried. And what business is it of yours anyway to know what I do with my own things? It is my own. I found it. It came to me. Yes, yes, said Gandalf. There is no need to get angry. If I am angry, it is your fault, said Bilbo. It is mine, I tell you. My own. My precious. Yes, my precious. The wizard's face remained grave and attentive, and only a flicker in his deep eyes showed that he was startled and indeed alarmed. It has been called that before, he said, but not by you. But I say it now, and why not? Even if Gollum said the same once, it's not his now, but mine. I shall keep it, I say. Gandalf stood up. He spoke sternly. You will be a fool if you do, Bilbo, he said. You make that clearer in every word you say. It has got far too much hold on you. Let it go, and then you can go yourself and be free. I'll do as I choose and go as I please, said Bilbo obstinately. Now, now, my dear hobbit, said Gandalf. All your long life we have been friends, and you owe me something. Come, do as you promised. Give it up. Well, if you want my ring yourself, say so, cried Bilbo. But she won't get it. I won't give my precious away, I tell you. His hand strayed to the hilt of his small sword. Gandalf's eyes flashed. It will be my turn to get angry soon, he said. If you say that again, I shall. Then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. He took a step towards the hobbit, and he seemed to grow tall and menacing. His shadow filled the little room. Bilbo backed away to the wall, breathing hard, his hand clutching at his pocket. They stood for a while facing one another, and the air of the room tingled. Gandalf's eyes remained bent on the hobbit. Slowly, his hands relaxed, and he began to tremble. I don't know what has come over you, Gandalf, he said. You have never been like this before. What is it all about? It is mine, isn't it? I found it. Ed Gollum would have killed me if I hadn't kept it. I'm not a thief, whatever he said. I have never called you one, Gandalf answered. And I am not one either. I'm not trying to rob you, but to help you. I wish you would trust me as you use. He turned away and the shadow passed. He seemed to dwindle again into an old grey man, bent and troubled. Bilbo drew his hand over his eyes. I'm sorry, he said. But I felt so queer. And yet it would be a relief in a way not to be bothered with it anymore. It has been so growing on my mind lately. Sometimes I have felt it was like an eye looking at me. And I'm always wanting to put it on and disappear, don't you know? <laughs> Wondering if it is safe. And pulling it out to make sure. I, I tried locking it up, but I found I couldn't rest without it in my pocket. I don't know why, and I don't seem able to make up my mind. Then trust mine, said Gandalf. It is quite made up. Go away and leave it behind. Stop possessing it. 
Give it to Frodo, and I will look after him. Bilbo stood for a moment, tense and undecided. Presently, he sighed. <sighs> All right, he said with an effort. I will. Then he shrugged his shoulders and smiled rather ruefully. <laughs> After all, that's what this party business was all about, really. To give away lots of birthday presents and somehow make it easier to give it away at the same time. It hasn't made it any easier in the end, but it would be a pity to waste all my preparations. It would quite spoil the joke. Indeed, it would take away the only point I ever saw in the affair, said Gandalf. <laughs> Very well, said Bilbo. He goes to Frodo. With all the rest, he drew a deep breath. And now I really must be starting or someone else will catch me. I have said goodbye and I couldn't bear to do it all over again. He picked up his bag and moved to the door. You have still got the ring in your pocket, said the wizard. Oh, well, so I have, cried Bilbo. And with my will and all the other documents too. Oh, you, you had better take it and deliver it for me. That will be safest. No, don't give the ring to me, said Gandalf. Put it on the mantelpiece. He'll be safe enough there till Frodo comes. I shall wait for him. Bilbo took out the envelope, but just as he was about to set it by the clock, his hand jerked back, and the packet fell on the floor. Before he could pick it up, the wizard stooped and seized it and set it in its place. A spasm of anger passed swiftly over the hobbit's face again. Suddenly it gave way to a look of relief and a laugh. <laughs> well, that's that, he said. Now, I'm off. They went out into the hall. Bilbo chose his favorite stick from the stand, and then he whistled. Three dwarves came out of different rooms where they had been busy. Is everything ready? asked Bilbo. Everything packed and labeled? Everything, everything they answered. Well, let's start then. He stepped out of the front door. It was a fine night, and the black sky was dotted with stars. He looked up, sniffing the air. What fun! What fun to be off again, off on the road with wolves! This is what I've really been longing for, for years! Goodbye, he said, looking at his old home and bowing to the door. Goodbye, Gandalf. Goodbye for the present, Bilbo. Take care of yourself. You are old enough, and perhaps wise enough. Take care. I don't care. Don't you worry about me. I'm as happy now as I have ever been. And that is saying a great deal. But the time has come. I am being swept off my feet at last, he added. And then in a low voice, as if to himself, he sang softly in the dark. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet, until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. He paused, silent for a moment. Then, without another word, he turned away from the lights and voices in the fields and tents, and followed by his three companions, went round into his garden, and trotted down the long sloping path. He jumped over a low place in the hedge at the bottom, and took to the meadows, passing into the night like a rustle of wind in the grass. 
Gandalf remained for a while staring after him into the darkness. Goodbye, my dear Bilbo. Until our next meeting, he said softly and went back indoors. Frodo came in soon afterwards and found him sitting in the dark, deep in thought. Has he gone? he asked. Yes, answered Gandalf. He has gone at last. I wish... I mean, I hoped until this evening that it was only a joke, said Frodo. But I knew in my heart that he really meant to go. He always used to joke about serious things. I wish I'd come back sooner, just to see him off. I think really he preferred slipping off quietly in the end, said Gandalf. Don't be too troubled. He'll be all right. Now, he left a packet for you. There it is. Frodo took the envelope from the mantelpiece and glanced at it, but did not open it. You'll find his will and all other documents in there, I think, said the wizard. You are the master of Bag End now. And also, I fancy, you will find a golden ring. The ring? exclaimed Frodo. Has he left me that? wonder why. Still, may be useful. It may, and it may not, said Gandalf. I should not make use of it if I were you. But keep it secret, and keep it safe. Now... I am going to bed. As master of Bag End, Frodo felt it his painful duty to say goodbye to the guests. Rumors of strange events had by now spread all over the field, but Frodo would only say, No doubt everything will be cleared up in the morning. About midnight, carriages came for the important folk. One by one they rolled away, filled with full but very unsatisfied hobbits. Gardeners came by arrangement, and removed in wheelbarrows those that had inadvertently remained behind. Night slowly passed. The sun rose, the hobbits rose rather later. Morning went on. People came and began, by orders, to clear away the pavilions and the tables and the chairs, and the spoons and knives and bottles and plates, and the lanterns, and the flowering shrubs and boxes, and the crumbs and cracker paper, the forgotten bags and gloves and handkerchiefs, and the uneaten food, a very small item. Then a number of other people came, without orders. Bagginses and boffins and bulgers and toques and other guests that lived or were staying near. By midday, when even the best fed were out and about again, there was a large crowd at Bag End, uninvited, but not unexpected. Frodo was waiting on the step, smiling but looking rather tired and worried. He welcomed all the callers, but he had not much more to say than before. His reply to all inquiries was simply this. Mr. Bilbo Baggins has gone away, as far as I know, for good. Some of the visitors he invited to come inside as Bilbo had left messages for them. Inside in the hall there was piled a large assortment of packages and parcels and small articles of furniture. On every item was a label tied. There were several labels of this sort. For Adelard Duke, for his very own. From Bilbo, on an umbrella. Adelard had carried off many unlabeled ones. For Dora Baggins, in memory of a long correspondence. With love, from Bilbo. On a large waste paper basket. Dora was Drogo's sister, and the eldest surviving female relative of Bilbo and Frodo. She was 99, and had written reams of good advice. For more than half a century. For Milo Burrows, hoping it will be useful, from B.B. On a gold pen and ink bottle. Milo never answered letters. For Angelica's use, from Uncle Bilbo, on a round convex mirror, 
She was a young Baggins, and too obviously considered her face shapely. For the collection of Hugo Bracegirdle. From a contributor on an empty bookcase. Hugo was a great borrower of books, and worse than usual at returning them. For Lobelia Sackville Baggins, as a present, on a case of silver spoons. Bilbo believed that she had acquired a good many of his spoons while he was away on his former journey. Lobelia knew that quite well. When she arrived later in the day, she took the point at once. But she also took the spoons. This is only a small selection of the assembled presents. Bilbo's residence had got rather cluttered up with things in the course of his long life. It was a tendency of hobbit holes to get cluttered up, for which the custom of giving so many birthday presents was largely responsible. Not, of course, that the birthday presents were always new. They were one or two old mathems of forgotten uses that had circulated all around the district. But Bilbo had usually given new presents and kept those that he received. The old hole was now being cleared a little. Every one of the various parting gifts had labels, written out personally by Bilbo, and several had some point or some joke. But of course, most of the things were given where they would be wanted and welcome. The poorer hobbits, and especially those of Backshot Row, did very well. Old Gaffer Ganges got two sacks of potatoes, a new spade, a woolen waistcoat, and a bottle of ointment for creaking joints. Old Rory Brandybuck, in return for much hospitality, got a dozen bottles of old vineyards. A strong red wine from the South Farthing, and now quite mature, as it had been laid down by Bilbo's father. Rory quite forgave Bilbo and voted him a capital fellow after the first bottle. There was plenty of everything left for Frodo, and of course all the chief treasures as well as the books, pictures, and more than enough furniture were left in his possession. There was, however, no sign nor mention of money or jewellery. Not a penny piece or a glass bead was given away. Frodo had a very trying time that afternoon. A false rumour that the whole household was being distributed free spread like wildfire, and before long, the place was packed with people who had no business there, but could not be kept out. Labels got torn off and mixed, and quarrels broke out. Some people tried to do swaps and deals in the hall, and others tried to make off with minor items not addressed to them or with anything that seemed unwanted or unwatched. The road to the gate was blocked with barrows and handcarts. In the middle of the commotion, the Sackville Bagginses arrived. Frodo had retired for a while and left his friend Mary Brandybuck to keep an eye on things. When Otho loudly demanded to see Frodo, Mary bowed politely. He is indisposed, he said. He is resting. Why don't you been? said Lobelia. Anyway, we want to see him, and we mean to see him. Just go and tell him so. Mary left them a long while in the hall, and they had time to discover their parting gift of spoons. It did not improve their tempers. Eventually, they were shown into the study. Frodo was sitting at a table with a lot of papers in front of him. He looked indisposed, to see the sack of baggages at any rate, and he stood up, fidgeting with something in his pocket. But he spoke quite politely. The Sackville Bagginses were rather offensive. They began by offering him bad bargain prices, as between friends, or various valuables and unlabeled things. When Frodo replied that only the things especially directed by Bilbo were being given away, they said the whole affair was very fishy. Only one thing is clear to me, said Otho, and that is that you're doing exceedingly well out of it. I insist on seeing the will. Otho would have been Bilbo's heir, but for the adoption of Frodo. He read the will carefully and snorted. It was unfortunately very clear and correct, according to the legal customs of hobbits which demand, among other things, seven signatures of witnesses in red ink. 
I've foiled again, he said to his wife. And after waiting 60 years, spoons, fiddlesticks. He snapped his fingers under Frodo's nose and stumped off. But Lobelia was not so easily got rid of. A little later, Frodo came out of the study to see how things were going on and found her still about the place, investigating nooks and corners and tapping the floors. He escorted her firmly off the premises after he had relieved her of several small but rather valuable articles that had somehow fallen inside her umbrella. Her face looked as if she was in the throes of thinking out a really crushing parting remark, but all she found to say, turning round on the step, was, You look to regret it, young fellow. Why didn't you go too? You don't belong here. You're no Baggins. You, you're a brandy buck. Did you hear that, Mary? That was an insult, if you like. Said Frodo as he shut the door on her. Oh. I was a compliment, said Mary Brandybuck. And so, of course, not true. Then they went round the hole and evicted three young hobbits, two boffins and a bolger, who were knocking holes in the walls of one of the cellars. Frodo also had a tussle with young Sancho Proudfoot, old Odo Proudfoot's grandson, who had begun an excavation in a larger pantry where he thought there was an echo. The legend of Bilbo's gold excited both curiosity and hope, for legendary gold, mysteriously obtained if not positively ill-gotten, is, as everyone knows, anyone's for the finding, unless the search is interrupted. When he had overcome Sancho and pushed him out, Frodo collapsed on a chair in the hall. It's time to close the shop, Mary, he said. Lock the door and don't open it to anyone today. Not even if they bring a battering ram. Then he went to revive himself with a belated cup of tea. He had hardly sat down when there came a soft knock at the front door. <sighs> Lobelia again, most likely, he thought. She must have thought of something really nasty and have come back again to say it. I can wait, he went on with his tea. The knock was repeated, much louder, but he took no notice. Suddenly, the wizard's head appeared at the window. If you don't let me in, Frodo, I shall blow your door right down your hole and out through the hill, he said. My dear Gandalf, a half a minute, cried Frodo, running out of the room to the door. Come in, come in. I thought it was Lobelia. Well, then I forgive you. But I saw her some time ago, driving a pony trap towards Bywater, with a face that would have curdled new milk. She had nearly curdled me, honestly. I nearly tried on Bilbo's ring. I longed to disappear. Don't do that, said Gandalf, sitting down. Do be careful of that ring, Frodo. In fact, it is partly about that that I have come to say a last word. Well, well, what about it? What do you know already? Only what Bilbo told me. I've heard his story, how he'd found it and how he used it. On his journey, I mean. Which story, I wonder, said Gandalf. Oh, not what he told the dwarves and put in his book, said Frodo. He told me the true story soon after I came to live here. He said you had pestered him till he told you. So I had better know too. No secrets between us, Frodo, he said. But they're not to go any further. It's mine anyway. That's interesting, said Gandalf. Well, what did you think of it all? If you mean inventing all that about a present, well, I thought the true story much more likely, and I couldn't see the point of altering it at all. It was very unlike Bilbo to do so anyway, and I thought it rather odd. So did I. But old things may happen to people that have such treasures, if they use them. Let it be a warning to you to be very careful with it. It may have other powers than just making you vanish when you wish to. I don't understand, said Frodo. Neither do I.
answered the wizard. I have merely begun to wander about the ring, especially since last night. No need to worry, but if you take my advice, you will use it very seldom, or not at all. At least I beg you not to use it in any way that will cause talk or rouse suspicion. I say again, keep it safe and keep it secret. You are very mysterious. What are you afraid of? I am not certain, so I will say no more. I may be able to tell you something when I come back. I'm going off at once, so this is goodbye for the present. He got up. Uh, at once? Cried Frodo. Well, I thought you were staying on for at least a week. I, I was looking forward to your help. I did mean to, but I have had to change my mind. I may be away for a good while, but I'll come and see you again as soon as I can. Expect me when you see me. I shall slip in quietly. I shan't often be visiting the Shire openly again. I find that I have become rather unpopular. They say I am a nuisance and a disturber of the peace. Some people are actually accusing me of spiriting Bilbo away, or worse. If you want to know, there is supposed to be a plot between you and me to get hold of his wealth. Some people, exclaimed Frodo. You mean Otho and Lobelia? How abominable. I would give the back end and everything else if I could get Bilbo back and go off tramping in the country with him. I love the Shire, but I begin to wish somehow that I had gone too. I wonder if I shall ever see him again. So do I, said Gandalf, and I wonder many other things. Goodbye now. Take care of yourself. Look out for me, especially at unlikely times. Goodbye. Frodo saw him to the door. He gave a final wave of his hand and walked off at a surprising pace. But Frodo thought the old wizard looked unusually bent, almost as if he was carrying a great weight. The evening was closing in, and his cloaked figure quickly vanished into the twilight. Frodo did not see him again. For a long time. The talk did not die down in nine or even ninety-nine days. The second disappearance of Mr. Bilbo Baggins was discussed in Hobbiton and indeed all over the Shire for a year and a day, and was remembered much longer than that. It became a fireside story for young hobbits, and eventually, Mad Baggins, who used to vanish with a bang and a flash and reappear with bags of jewels and gold, became a favorite character of legend and lived on long after all the true events were forgotten. But in the meantime, the general opinion of the neighborhood was that Bilbo. Who had always been rather cracked, had at last gone quite mad and had run off into the blue. There he had undoubtedly fallen into a pool or a river and come to a tragic, but hardly an untimely end. The blame was mostly laid on Gandalf. If only that dreaded wizard will leave young Frodo alone. Perhaps he'll settle down and grow some hobbit sense. They said, and to all appearance, the wizard did leave Frodo alone, and he did settle down. But the growth of Hobbit sense was not very noticeable. Indeed, he at once began to carry on Bilbo's reputation for oddity. He refused to go into mourning, and the next year he gave a party in honor of Bilbo's hundred and twelfth birthday, which he called a hundredweight feast. But that was short of the mark, for twenty guests were invited, and there were several meals at which it snowed food and rained drink. As hobbits say, some people were rather shocked. But Frodo kept up the custom of giving Bilbo's birthday party year after year, until they got used to it. He said that he did not think Bilbo was dead when they asked, "Where is he then?" He shrugged his shoulders. 
He lived alone, as Bilbo had done, but he had a good many friends, especially among the younger hobbits, mostly descendants of the old Tuke, who had as children been fond of Bilbo and often in and out of Bag End. Felco Boffin and Frederica Bolger were two of these, but his closest friends were Peregrine Tuke, usually called Pippin, and Mary Brandybuck. His real name was Mariadoc, but that was seldom remembered. Frodo went tramping all over the Shire with them, but more often he wandered by himself, and to the amazement of the sensible folk, he was sometimes seen far from home, walking in the hills and woods, under the starlight. Merry and Pippin suspected that he visited the elves at times, as Bilbo had done. As time went on, people began to notice that Frodo also showed signs of good preservation. Outwardly, he retained the appearance of a robust and energetic hobbit just out of his tweens. Some folk have all the luck, they said. But it was not until Frodo approached the usually more sober age of fifty that they began to think it queer. Frodo himself, after the first shock, found that being his own master and the Mr. Baggins of Bag End was rather pleasant. For some years he was quite happy and did not worry much about the future. But half unknown to himself, the regret that he had not gone with Bilbo was steadily growing. He found himself wondering at times, especially in the autumn, about the wild lands and strange visions of mountains that he had never seen came into his dreams. He began to say to himself, Perhaps I shall cross the river myself one day. To which the other half of his mind always replied, Not yet. So it went on until his forties were running out, and his fiftieth birthday was drawing near. Fifty was a number that he felt was somehow significant or ominous. It was, at any rate, at that age that adventure had suddenly befallen Bilbo. Frodo began to feel restless, and the old path seemed too well trodden. He looked at maps and wondered what lay beyond their edges. Maps made in the Shire showed mostly white spaces beyond its borders. He took to wandering further afield and more often by himself, and Merry and his other friends watched him anxiously. Often he was seen walking and talking with the strange wayfarers that began at this time to appear in the Shire. There were rumors of strange things happening in the world outside, and as Gandalf had not at the time appeared or sent any message for several years, Frodo gathered all the news he could. Elves, who seldom walked in the Shire, could now be seen passing westward through the woods in the evening, passing and not returning. But they were leaving Middle-earth and were no longer concerned with its troubles. There were, however, dwarves on the road in unusual numbers. The ancient east-west road ran through the Shire to its end at the Grey Havens, and dwarves had always used it on their way to their mines in the Blue Mountains. They were the hobbit's chief source of news from distant parts, if they wanted any. As a rule, dwarves said little, and hobbits asked no more. But now Frodo often met strange dwarves of far countries, seeking refuge in the west. They were troubled, and some spoke in whispers of the enemy, and of the land of Mordor. That name the hobbits only knew in legends of the dark past, like a shadow in the background of their memories. But it was ominous and disquieting. It seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. The Dark Tower had been rebuilt, it was said. 
From there the power was spreading far and wide, and away far east and south there were wars and growing fear. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains, trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. And there were murmured hints of creatures more terrible than all these. But they had no name. Little of all this, of course, reached the ears of ordinary hobbits. But even the deafest and most stay-at-home began to hear queer tales, and those whose business took them to the borders saw strange things. The conversation in the Green Dragon at Bywater, one evening in the spring of Frodo's fiftieth year, showed that even in the comfortable heart of the Shire, rumours had been heard, though most hobbits still laughed at them. Sam Gamgee was sitting in one corner near the fire, and opposite him was Ted Sandyman, the miller's son, and there were various other rustic hobbits listening to their talk. Oh, queer things you do here these days, to be sure, said Sam. Ah, said Ted. You do if you listen. But I can hear fireside tales and children's stories at home if I want to. <laughs> no doubt you can, retorted Sam. And I dare say there's more truth in some of them than you reckon. Who invented the stories anyway? Take dragons now. No, thank ye, said Ted. I won't. I heard tell of them when I was a youngster, but there's no call to believe in them now. There's only one dragon in Bywater, and that's Grain, <laughs> he said, getting a general laugh. <laughs> All right, said Sam, laughing with the rest. But what about these tree men? These giants, as you might call them. They do say that one bigger than a tree was seen up away beyond the North Moors not long back. Who's they? Well, my cousin Hal, for one. He works for Mr. Buffin in Overhill and goes up to the North Farley for the hunting. He saw one. Says he did, perhaps. Your Hal's always saying he's seen things and maybe he's seen things that ain't there. But this one was as big as an elm tree and walking. Walking seven yards to a stride if it was an inch. Then I bet it wasn't an inch. What he saw was an elm tree like as not. But this one was walking, I tell you. And there ain't no elm tree on the North Moors. And Hall can't have seen one, said Ted. There was some laughing and clapping. The audience seemed to think that Ted had scored a point. <laughs> All the same, said Sam. You can't deny that others beside our Halfast have seen queer folk crossing the Shire. Crossing it, mind you. There are more that are turned back at the borders. The Bounders have never been so busy before. And I've heard tell the elves are moving west. They do say they're going to the harbours. Out away, beyond the White Towers. Sam waved his arm vaguely. Neither he nor any of them knew how far it was to the sea. Past the old towers, beyond the western borders of the Shire but it was an old tradition that away over there stood the grey havens, from which at times elven ships set sail, never to return. They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They're going to the west and leaving us, said Sam, half chanting the words, shaking his head sadly and solemnly. But Ted laughed. <laughs> well, that isn't anything new if you believe the old tales. And I don't see what it matters to me or you. Let them sail. But I warrant you haven't seen them doing it, nor anyone else in the Shire. Well, I, I don't know, said Sam thoughtfully. He believed he had once seen an elf in the woods, and still hoped to see more one day. Of all the legends that he had heard in his early years, such fragments of tales and half-remembered stories about the elves as the hobbits knew 
had always moved him most deeply. There are some, even in these parts, as, as know the fair folk and get news of them, he said. There's Mr. Baggins now, that I work for. He told me that they were sailing and he knows a bit about elves. And old Mr. Bilbo knew more. Many's the talk that I had with him when I was a little lad. Oh, they're both cracked, said Ted. Least we suppose Bilbo was cracked. Frodo's cracking. If that's where you get your news from, you'll never walk for moonshine. Well, friends, I'm off home. Your good health. He drained his mug and went out noisily. Sam sat silent and said no more. He had a good deal to think about. For one thing, there was a lot to do up in the Bag End Garden, and he would have a busy day tomorrow. If the weather cleared, the grass was growing fast, but Sam had more on his mind than gardening. After a while, he sighed, and got up and went out. It was early April, and the sky was now clearing after heavy rain. The sun was down, and a cool, pale evening was quietly fading into the night. He walked home under the early stars through Hobbiton and up the hill, whistling softly and thoughtfully. It was just at this time that Gandalf reappeared after his long absence. For three years after the party, he had been away. Then he paid Frodo a brief visit, and after taking a good look at him, he went off again. During the next year or two, he had turned up fairly often, coming unexpectedly after dusk and going off without warning before sunrise. He would not discuss his own business and journeys, and seemed chiefly interested in small news about Frodo's health and doings. Then suddenly his visits had ceased. It was over nine years since Frodo had seen or heard of him, and he had begun to think that the wizard would never return, and had given up all interest in hobbits. But that evening, as Sam was walking home and twilight was fading, there came the once familiar tap on the study window. Frodo welcomed his old friend with surprise and great delight. They looked hard at one another. Ah, well, eh? said Gandalf. You look the same as ever, Frodo. So do you, Frodo replied. But secretly, he thought that Gandalf looked older and more careworn. He pressed him of news of himself and of the wide world, and soon they were deep in talk, and they stayed up far into the night. Next morning, after a late breakfast... The wizard was sitting with Frodo by the open window of the study. A brief fire was on the hearth, but the sun was warm, and the wind was in the south. Everything looked fresh, and the new green of spring was shimmering in the fields and on the tips of the tree's fingers. Gandalf was thinking of a spring, nearly eighty years before, when Bilbo had run out of Bag End without a handkerchief. His hair was perhaps whiter than it had been then, and his beard and eyebrows were perhaps longer and his face more lined with care and wisdom, but his eyes were as bright as ever, and he smoked and blew smoke rings with the same vigor and delight. He was smoking now in silence, for Frodo was sitting still, deep in thought. Even in the light of morning, he felt the dark shadow of the tidings that Gandalf had brought. At last he broke the silence. Last night you began to tell me strange things about my ring, Gandalf, he said. And then you stopped because you'd said that such matters were left until daylight. Don't you think you had better finish now? You say the ring is dangerous. Far more dangerous than I guess. In what way? In many ways, answered the wizard. It is far more powerful than I ever dared to think at first. 
so powerful that in the end it would utterly overcome anyone of mortal race who possessed it. It would possess him. You know, Egion, long ago many elven rings were made. Magic rings, as you call them. And they were, of course, of various kinds. Some more potent and some less. The lesser rings were only essays in the craft before it was full grown. And to the elven smiths, they were but trifles, yet still to my mind dangerous for mortals. And the great rings, the rings of power, they were perilous. A mortal Frodo, who keeps one of the great rings, does not die, but he does not grow or obtain more life. He merely continues until at last every minute is a weariness. And if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. He becomes, in the end, invisible permanently, and walks in the twilight under the eye of the dark power that rules the rings. Yes, sooner or later. Later, if he is strong or well-meaning to begin with, but neither strength nor good purpose will last, Sooner or later, the dark power will devour him. How terrifying, said Frodo. There was another long silence. The sound of Sam Gamgee cutting the lawn came in from the garden. How long have you known this? asked Frodo at length. And how much did Bilbo know? Bilbo knew no more than he told you, I am sure said Gandalf. He would certainly never have passed on to you anything that he thought would be a danger, even though I promised to look after you. He thought the ring was very beautiful, and very useful at need, and if anything was wrong or queer, it was himself. He said that it was growing on his mind, and he was always worrying about it. But he did not suspect that the ring itself was to blame. Though he had found out that the thing needed looking after, it did not seem always of the same size or weight. It shrank or expanded in an odd way, and might suddenly slip off a finger where it had been tight. Yes, he warned me of that in this last letter, said Frodo. So I have always kept it on his chain. Very wise, said Gandalf. But as for his long life, Bilbo never connected it with the ring at all. He took all the credit for that to himself, and he was very proud of it. Though he was getting restless and uneasy, thin and stretched, he said. A sign that the ring was getting control. How long have you known all this? Asked Frodo again. No, said Gandalf. I have known much that only the wise know, Frodo. But if you mean known about this ring, well, I still do not know, one might say. There is a last test to make. But I no longer doubt my guess. When did I first begin to guess? He mused, searching back in memory. Let me see. It was in the year that the White Council drove the dark power from Mirkwood, just before the Battle of Five Armies, where Bilbo found this ring. A shadow fell on my heart then, though I did not know yet what I feared. I wondered often how Gollum came by a great ring as plainly it was. That at least was clear from the first. Then I heard Bilbo's strange story of how he had won it. And I could not believe it. 
When I at last got the truth out of him, I saw at once that he had been trying to put his claim on the ring. Beyond doubt, much like Gollum with his birthday present. The lies were too much alike for my comfort. Clearly the ring had an unwholesome power that set to work on its keeper at once. That was the first real warning I had that all was not well. I told Bilbo often that such rings were better left unused, but he resented it, and soon got angry. There was little else that I could do. I could not take it from him without doing greater harm, and I had no right to do so anyway. I could only watch and wait. I might perhaps have consulted Saruman the White, but something always held me back. Who is he? Asked Frodo. I have never heard of him before. Maybe not, answered Gandalf. Hobbits are or were no concern of his. Yet he is great among the wise. He is the chief of my order and the head of the council. His knowledge is deep, but his pride has grown with it, and he takes ill any meddling. The Lord of the Elven Rings, great and small, is his province. He has long studied it seeking the lost secrets of their making. But when the rings were debated in the council, all that he would reveal to us of his ring law told against my fears. So my doubt slept, but uneasily. Still I watched, and I waited. And all seemed well with Bilbo, and the years passed. Yes, they passed, and they seemed not to touch him. He showed no signs of age. The shadow fell on me again, but I said to myself, after all, he comes of a long-lived family on his mother's side. There is time yet. Wait. And I waited, until that night when he left his house. He said and did things then that filled me with a great fear that no words of Saruman could allay. I knew at last that something dark and deadly was at work. And I have spent most of the years since then in finding out the truth of it. There wasn't any permanent harm done, was there? Asked Frodo anxiously. He would get all right in time, wouldn't he? Be able to rest in peace, I mean. He felt better at once, said Gandalf. There is only one power in this world that knows all about the rings and their effects. And as far as I know, there is no power in the world that knows all about hobbits. Among the wise, I am the only one that goes in for Hobbit lore, an obscure branch of knowledge, but full of surprises. Soft as butter they can be, and yet sometimes as tough as old tree roots. I think it likely that some would resist the ring far longer than most of the wise would believe. I don't think you need to worry about Bilbo. Of course, he possessed the ring for many years and used it, so it might take a long while for the influence to wear off before it was safe for him to see it again, for instance. Otherwise, he might live on for years, quite happily, just stop as he was when he parted with it, for he gave it up in the end of his own accord. An important point. No, I was not troubled about dear Bilbo anymore, once he had let the thing go. It is for you that I feel responsible. Ever since Bilbo left, I have been deeply concerned about you, and about all these charming, absurd, helpless hobbits. It would be a grievous blow to the world if the dark power overcame the Shire. 
If all your kind, jolly, stupid boaters, hornblowers, boffins, brace girdles, and the rest, not to mention the ridiculous Bagginses, became enslaved. Frodo shuddered. But why should we be? he asked. And why would he want such slaves? To tell you the truth, replied Gandalf, I believe that hitherto, hitherto, mark you, he has entirely overlooked the existence of hobbits. You should be thankful. But your safety has passed. He does not need you. He has many more useful servants. But he won't forget you again. And hobbits as miserable slaves would please him far more than hobbits happy and free. There is such a thing as malice. And revenge. Revenge? said Frodo. Revenge for what? I still don't understand what all this has to do with Bilbo and myself, and our ring. It has everything to do with it, said Gandalf. You do not know the real peril yet, but you shall. I was not sure of it myself when I was last here, but the time has come to speak. Give me the ring for a moment. Frodo took it from his breeches pocket, where it was clasped to a chain that hung from his belt. He unfastened it and handed it slowly to the wizard. It felt suddenly very heavy, as if either it or Frodo himself was in some way reluctant for Gandalf to touch it. Gandalf held it up. It looked to be made of pure and solid gold. Uh, Can you see any markings on it? he asked. No, said Frodo. There are none. It is quite plain, and, and it never shows a scratch or sign of wear. Well then, look. To Frodo's astonishment and distress, the wizard threw it suddenly into the middle of a glowing corner of the fire. Frodo gave a cry and groped for the tongs, but Gandalf held him back. Wait, he said in a commanding voice, giving Frodo a quick look from under his bristling brows. No apparent change came over the ring. After a while, Gandalf got up, closed the shutters outside the window and drew the curtains. The room became dark and silent, though the clack of Sam's shears now nearer to the windows could still be heard faintly from the garden. For a moment, the wizard stood looking at the fire. Then he stooped and removed the ring from the hearth with the tongs and at once picked it up. Frodo gasped. It's quite cool, said Gandalf. Take it. Frodo received it on his shrinking palm. It seemed to have become thicker and heavier than ever. Hold it up, said Gandalf. Look closely. As Frodo did so, he now saw fine lines, finer than the finest pen strokes, running along the ring. Outside and inside, lines of fire that seemed to form the letters of a flowing script. They shone piercingly bright, and yet remote, as if out of a great depth. I I cannot read the fiery letters, said Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. The letters are elvish, of an ancient mode, but the language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. But this, in the common tongue, is what it said close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. It is only two lines of a verse long known in elven lore. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. 
Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the Dark Lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bite them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. He paused and then said slowly in a deep voice, This is the Master Ring, the one ring to rule them all. This is the one ring that he lost many ages ago to the great weakening of his power. He greatly desires it, but he must not get it. Frodo sat silent and motionless. Fear seemed to stretch out a vast hand like a dark cloud rising in the east and looming up to engulf him. This ring, he stammered. How on earth did it come to me? Ah, said Gandalf. That is a very long story. The beginnings lie back in the black years, which only the law masters now remember. If I were to tell you all that tale, we should be sitting here when spring had passed into winter. But last night I told you of Sauron the Great, the Dark Lord. The rumors that you have heard are true. He has indeed arisen again and left his hold in Mirkwood and returned to his ancient fortress in the Dark Tower of Mordor. That name even you hobbits have heard of, like a shadow on the borders of old stories. Always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. The enemy is fast becoming very strong. His plans are far from ripe, I think, but they are ripening. We shall be hard put to it. We should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. The enemy still lacks one thing to give him strength and knowledge to beat down all resistance, break the last defenses, and cover all the lands in a second darkness. He lacks the one ring. The three, fairest of all the elf lords, hid from him, and his hand never touched them or sullied them. Seven the dwarf kings possessed, but three he has recovered, and the others the dragons have consumed. Nine he gave to mortal men, proud and great, and so ensnared them. Long ago they fell under the dominion of the One, and they became ringwraiths. Shadows under his great shadow, his most terrible servants. Long ago, it is many a year since the Nine walked abroad, yet who knows? As the shadow grows once more, they too may walk again. But come, we will not speak of such things, even in the morning of the Shire.
So it is now. The nine he has gathered to himself. The seven also, or else they are destroyed. The three are hidden still, but that no longer troubles him. He only needs the one. For he made that ring himself. It is his. And he let a great part of his own former power pass into it, so that he could rule all the others. If he recovers it, then he will command them all again, wherever they be, even the three. And all that has been wrought with them will be laid bare, and he will be stronger than ever. And this is the dreadful chance, Frodo. He believed that the one had perished, that the elves had destroyed it, as should have been done. But he knows now that it has not perished, that it has been found. So he is seeking it, seeking it, and all his thought is bent on it. It is his great hope, and our great fear. Why, why wasn't it destroyed? cried Frodo. And how did the enemy ever come to lose it if it was so strong and it was so precious to him? He clutched the ring in his hand, as if he saw already dark fingers snatching out to seize it. It was taken from him, said Gandalf. The strength of the elves to resist him was greater long ago, and not all men were estranged from them. The men of Westerness came to their aid. That is a chapter of ancient history which it might be good to recall, for there was sorrow then too and gathering dark. But great valor and great deeds that were not wholly vain. One day, perhaps, I will tell you all that tale, or you shall hear it told in full by one who knows it best. But for the moment, since most of all you need to know how this thing came to you, and that will be tale enough. This is all I will say. It was Gil-Galad, elven king, and Elendil of Westerness who overthrew Sauron though they themselves perished in the deed. And Isildur, Elendil's son, cut the ring from Sauron's hand and took it for his own. Then Sauron was vanquished, and his spirit fled and was hidden for long years, until his shadow took shape again in Mirkwood. But the ring was lost. It fell into the great river Anduin and vanished. For Isildur, was marching north along the east banks of the river, and near the gladden fields he was waylaid by the orcs of the mountains, and almost all his folk were slain. He leapt into the waters, but the ring slipped from his finger as he swam, and then the orcs saw him and killed him with arrows. Gandalf paused. And there in the dark pools amid the gladden fields, he said, the ring passed out of knowledge and legend. And even so much of its history is known now only to a few. And the counsel of the wise could discover no more. But at last, I can carry on the story, I think. Long after, but still very long ago, there lived by the banks of the great river on the edge of Wilderland, a clever-handed and quiet-footed little people. I guess they were of hobbit kind, akin to the fathers of the fathers of the stores, for they loved the river, and often swam in it, or made little boats of reeds. There was among them a family of high repute, for it was large and wealthier than most, and it was ruled by a grandmother of the folk, stern and wise in old law, 
such as they had. The most inquisitive and curious-minded of that family was called Smeagol. He was interested in roots and beginnings, and dived into deep pools. He burrowed under trees and growing plants. He tunneled into green mounds, and he ceased to look up at the hilltops, over the leaves on the trees, or the flowers opening in the air. His head and his eyes were downward. He had a friend called Deagle, of similar sort, sharper-eyed but not so quick and strong. On a time they took a boat and went down to the gladden fields where there were great beds of iris and flowering reeds. There Smeagol got out and went nosing about the banks, but Deagle sat in the boat and fished. Suddenly a great fish took his hook, and before he knew where he was, he was dragged out and down into the water to the bottom. Then he let go of his line, for he thought he saw something shining in the riverbed. And holding his breath, he grabbed at it. Then up he came, spluttering, with weeds in his hair and a handful of mud, and he swam to the bank. And behold, when he washed the mud away, there in his hand lay a beautiful golden ring, and it shone and glittered in the sun, so that his heart was glad. But Smeagol had been watching him from behind a tree, and as Deagle gloated over the ring, Smeagol came softly up behind. Give us that, Deagle, my love, said Smeagol over his friend's shoulder. Why? said Deagle. Because it's my birthday, my love. And I want it, said Smeagol. I don't care, said Deagle. I've given you a present already. More than I could afford. I found this. And I'm going to keep it. Are you indeed? My love, said Smeagle. And he caught Deagle by the throat and strangled him because the gold looked so bright and beautiful. Then he put the ring on his finger. No one ever found out what had become of Deagle. He was murdered far from home, and his body was cunningly hidden. But Smeagol returned alone, and he found that none of his family could see him when he was wearing the ring. He was very pleased with his discovery, and he concealed it, and he used it to find out secrets, and he put his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses. He became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. The ring had given him power, according to his stature. It is not to be wondered at that he became very unpopular and was shunned, when visible, by all his relations. They kicked him, and he bit their feet. He took to thieving and going about muttering to himself and gurgling in his throat. So they called him Gollum and cursed him, and told him to go far away. And his grandmother, desiring peace, expelled him from the family and turned him out of their home. He wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world. And he journeyed up the river, till he came to a stream that flowed down from the mountains. And he went that way. He caught fish in deep pools with invisible fingers and ate them raw. 
One day it was very hot, and as he was bending over a pool, he felt a burning on the back of his head, and a dazzling light from the water pained his wet eyes. He wondered at it, for he had almost forgotten about the sun. Then, for the last time, he looked up and shook his fist at her. But as he lowered his eyes, he saw far above the tops of the misty mountains, out of which the stream came. And he thought suddenly, it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun could not watch me there. The roots of those mountains must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there which have not been discovered since the beginning. So he journeyed by night up into the highlands, and he found a little cave out of which the dark stream ran. And he wormed his way like a maggot into the heart of the hills and vanished out of all knowledge. The ring went into the shadows with him, and even the maker, when his power had begun to grow again, could learn nothing of it. Gollum! cried Frodo. Gollum! Do you mean that this is the very Gollum creature that Bilbo met? How loathsome! I think it is a sad story," said the wizard. It might have happened to others, even to some hobbits that I have known. I can't believe that Gollum was connected with hobbits, however distantly," said Frodo with some heat. "What an abominable notion!" It is true, all the same," replied Gandalf. "About their origins, at any rate, I know more than hobbits do themselves." And even Bilbo's stories suggest the kinship. There was a great deal in the background of their minds and memories that was very similar. They understood one another remarkably well, very much better than a hobbit would understand, say, a dwarf or an orc, or even an elf. Think of the riddles they both knew, for one thing. Yes, said Frodo. Though other folk beside hobbit asked riddles, and much of the same sort, and hobbits don't cheat. Gollum meant to cheat all the time. He was just trying to put poor Bilbo off his guard, and I dare say it amused his wickedness to start a game which might end in providing him with an easy victim. But if he lost, would not hurt him. Only too true, I fear," said Gandalf. "But there was something else in it, I think, which you do not see yet. Even Gollum was not wholly ruined. He had proved tougher than even one of the wise would have guessed, as a hobbit might. There was a little corner of his mind that was still his own." And light came through it as through a chink in the dark, light out of the past. It was actually pleasant, I think, to hear a kindly voice again, bringing up memories of wind and trees, sun of the grass, and such forgotten things. That, of course, could only make the evil part of him angrier in the end. Unless it could be conquered, unless it could be cured. Gandalf sighed. Alas, there is little hope of that for him. Yet not no hope. No, not though he possessed the ring so long, almost as far back as he can remember. For it was long since he had worn it much. In the black darkness, it was seldom needed. Certainly, he had never faded. He is thin and tough still, but the thing was eating up his mind, of course, and the torment had become almost unbearable. All the great secrets under the mountains had turned out to be just an empty night. There was nothing more to find out, nothing worth doing, only nasty, furtive eating, and resentful remembering. He was altogether wretched. 
He hated the dark, and he hated the light more. He hated everything, and the ring most of all. Well, what do you mean? said Frodo. Surely the ring was his precious and the only thing he cared for. But if he hated it, why didn't he get rid of it or go, or go away or, and, and, and leave it? You ought to begin to understand, Frodo. After all you have heard, said Gandalf. He hated and loved it as he hated and loved himself. He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. A ring of power looks after itself, Frodo. It may slip off treacherously, but its keeper never abandons it. At most, he plays with the idea of handing it to someone else's care, and that only at an early stage, when it first begins to grip. But as far as I know, Bilbo alone in history has ever gone beyond playing, and really done it. He needed all my help, too. And even so, he would never have just forsaken it. Or cast it aside. It was not Gollum, Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. The ring left him. What, just in time to meet Bilbo? Said Frodo. Wouldn't an orc have suited it better? This is no laughing matter, said Gandalf. Not for you. It was the strangest event in the whole history of the ring so far. Bilbo's arrival just at that time and putting his hand on it, blindly, in the dark... There was more than one power at work, Frodo. The ring was trying to get back to its master. It had slipped from Isildur's hand and betrayed him, and when chance came, it caught poor Deagle, and he was murdered. And after that, Gollum and it had devoured him. It could make no further use of him. He was too small and mean. And as long as it stayed with him, he would never leave his deep pool again. So now, when its master was awake once more and sending out his dark thought from Mirkwood, it abandoned Gollum, only to be picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable. Bilbo, from the Shire. Behind that, there was something else at work, beyond any design of the Ring Maker. I can put it to no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the Ring, and not by its Maker. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. It is not, said Frodo. Though I'm not sure that I understand you. But how have you learned all this about the ring? And about Gollum? Do you really know it all, or are you just guessing still? Gandalf looked at Frodo. His eyes glinted. I knew much, and I have learned much, he answered. But I am not going to give an account of all my doings to you. The history of Elendil and Isildur and the One Ring is known to all the wise. Your ring is shown to be that One Ring by the fire writing alone, apart from any other evidence. When did you discover that? Asked Frodo, interrupting. Just now in this room, of course, answered the wizard sharply. But I expected to find... I have come back from dark journeys and long search to make that final test. It is the last proof, and all is now only too clear. Making out Gollum's part and fitting it into the gap in the history required some thought. I may have started with guesses about Gollum, but I am not guessing now. I know. I have seen him. You have seen Gollum? exclaimed Frodo with amazement. Yes. The obvious thing to do, of course, if one could. I tried long ago, but I have managed it at last. 
Then what happened after Bilbo escaped from him? Do you, do you know that? Not so clearly. What I have told you is what Gollum was willing to tell, though not, of course, in the way that I have reported it. Gollum is a liar. And you have to sift his words. For instance, he called the ring his birthday present, and he stuck to that. He said it came from his grandmother, who had lots of beautiful things of that kind. A ridiculous story. I have no doubt that Smeagol's grandmother was a matriarch, a great person in her way, but to talk of her possessing many elven rings was absurd. And first for giving them away, it was a lie. And a lie with a grain of truth. The murder of Deagle haunted Gollum, and he had made up a defense, repeating to his precious over and over again as he gnawed bones in the dark, until he almost believed it. It was his birthday. Deagle ought to have given the ring to him. It had previously turned up just so as to be a present. It was his birthday present, so on and on. I endured him as long as I could, but the truth was desperately important, and in the end I had to be harsh. I put the fear of fire on him, and wrung the true story out of him, bit by bit, together with much sniveling and snarling. He thought he was misunderstood and ill-used, but when he had at last told me his history, as far as the end of the riddle game and Bilbo's escape, he would not say any more, except in dark hints. Some other fear was on him greater than mine. He muttered that he was going to get his own back. People would see if he would stand being kicked and driven into a hole and then robbed. Gollum had good friends now. Good friends, and very strong. They would help him. Baggins would pay for it. That was his chief thought. He hated Bilbo and cursed his name. What is more, he knew where he came from. But how did he find that out? Asked Frodo. Well, as for the name, Bilbo very foolishly told Gollum himself. And after that, it would not be difficult to discover his country once Gollum came out. Oh, yes, he came out. His longing for the ring proved stronger than his fear of the orcs or even the light. After a year or two, he left the mountains. You see, though still bound by desire of it... The ring was no longer devouring him. He began to revive a little. He felt old, terribly old, yet less timid, and he was mortally hungry. Light, light of sun and moon, he still feared and hated. And he always will, I think. But he was cunning. He found out he could hide from daylight and moonshine and make his way swiftly and softly by dead of night with his pale, cold eyes and catch small, frightened or unwary things. He grew stronger and bolder with new food and new air. He found his way into Mirkwood, as one would expect. Is that where you found him? asked Frodo. I saw him there, answered Gandalf. But before that, he had wandered far, following Bilbo's trail. It was difficult to learn anything from him for certain, for his talk was constantly interrupted by curses and threats. What has he got in his pockets? He said, It wouldn't say no precious little cheat. Not a fair question. It cheated first at that. It broke the rules. We ought have squeezed it. Yes, precious, and we will. Precious. That is a sample of his talk. 
I don't suppose you want any more. I had weary days of it. But from hints dropped among the snarls, I even gathered that his padding feet had taken him at last to Esgaroth, and even to the streets of Dale, listening secretly and peering. Well, the news of the great events went far and wide in Wilderland, and many had heard Bilbo's name and knew where he came from. We had made no secret of our return journey to his home in the West. Gollum's sharp ears would soon learn what he wanted. Then why didn't he track Bilbo further? asked Frodo. Why didn't he come to the Shire? Ah, said Gandalf. Now we come to it. I think Gollum tried to. He set out and came back westward, as far as the Great River. But then he turned aside. He was not daunted by the distance, I am sure. No, something else drew him away. So my friends think, those that hunted him for me. The Wood Elves tracked him first, an easy task for them, for his trail was still fresh then. Through Mirkwood and back again it led them, though they never caught him. The wood was full of the rumor of him, dreadful tales even among beasts and birds. The woodman said that there was some new terror abroad, a ghost that drank blood. It climbed trees to find nests. It crept into holes to find the young. It slipped through windows to find cradles. But at the western edge of Mirkwood, the trail turned away. It wandered off southwards and passed out of the Wood Elf's ken and was lost. And then I made a great mistake. Yes, Frodo, and not the first, though I fear it may prove the worst. I let the matter be. I let him go, for I had much else to think of at that time, and I still trusted the Lord of Saruman. Well, that was years ago. I have paid for it since with many dark and dangerous days. The trail was long cold when I took it up again after Bilbo left here, and my search would have been in vain but for the help that I had from a friend. Aragorn, the greatest traveler and huntsman of this age of the world. Together we sought for Gollum down the whole length of Wilderland, without hope and without success. And at last, when I had given up the chase and turned to other parts, Gollum was found. My friend returned out of great perils, bringing the miserable creature with him. What he had been doing, he would not say. He only wept and called us cruel, with many a golem in his throat. And when we pressed him, he whined and cringed and rubbed his long hands, licking his fingers as if they pained him, as if he remembered some old torture. But I'm afraid there is no possible doubt. He had made his slow, sneaking way, step by step, mile by mile, south, down at last... To the land of Mordor. A heavy silence fell in the room. Frodo could hear his heart beating. Even outside everything seemed still. No sound of Sam's shears could now be heard. Yes, to Mordor, said Gandalf. Alas, Mordor draws all wicked things and the dark power was bending all its will to gather them there. The ring of the enemy would leave its mark too. Leave him open to the summons. And all folk were whispering then of the new shadow in the south, and its hatred of the west. There were his fine new friends who would help him in his revenge. 
Wretched fool. In that land he would learn much. Too much for his comfort. And sooner or later, as he lurked in pride on the borders, he would be caught. And taken for examination. That was the way of it, I fear. When he was found, he had already been there long, and was on his way back, on some errand of mischief. But that does not matter much now. His worst mischief was done. Yes, alas, through him the enemy has learned that the one has been found again. He knows where Isiltur fell. He knows where Gollum found his ring. He knows that it is a great ring, for it gave long life. He knows that it is not one of the three, for they have never been lost. And they endure no evil. He knows that it is not one of the seven or the nine, for they are accounted for. He knows that it is the one. And he has at last heard, I think, of hobbits and the Shire. The Shire. He may be seeking for it now if he has not already found out where it lies. Indeed, Frodo, I fear that he may even think that the long-unnoticed name of Baggins has become important. This is terrible, cried Frodo. Far worse than the worst that I imagined from your hints and warnings. Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, what am I to do? For now I am really afraid. What am I to do? What a pity that Bilbo did not stab the vile creature when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy. Not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so. With pity. I'm sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened. And I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have let him live on after all those horrible deeds? Now at any rate he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it, and he is bound up with the fate of the ring. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end. And when that comes... The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. In any case, we did not kill him. He is very old and very wretched. The wood elves have him in prison, where they treat him with such kindness as they can find in their wise hearts. All the same, said Frodo, even if Bilbo could not kill Gollum, I wish he had not kept the ring. I wish he had never found it and that I had not got it. Why did you let me keep it? Why didn't you make me throw it away or or destroy it? Let you? Make you? Said the wizard. Haven't you been listening to all that I've said? You are not thinking of what you are saying. But as for throwing it away, that was obviously wrong. These rings have a way of becoming found. In evil hands it might have done great evil. Worst of all, it might have fallen into the hands of the enemy. 
Indeed, it certainly would, for this is the one, and he is exerting all his power to find it, or draw it to himself. Of course, my dear Frodo, it was dangerous for you, and that has troubled me deeply, but there was so much at stake that I had to take some risk, though even when I was far away, there has never been a day when the Shire has not been guarded by watchful eyes, as long as you never used it. I did not think that the ring would have any lasting effect on you. Not for evil, not at any rate for a very long time. And you must remember that nine years ago when I last saw you, I still knew little for certain. But why not destroy it as you say should have been done long ago? Cried Frodo again. If you had warned me or even sent me a wet message, I would have done away with it. Would you? How would you do that? Have you ever tried? Uh, No, but I suppose one could hammer it or melt it. Try, said Gandalf. Try now. Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket again and looked at it. It now appeared plain and smooth, without mark or device that he could see. The gold looked very fair and pure, and Frodo thought how rich and beautiful was its color, how perfect was its roundness. It was an admirable thing, and altogether precious. When he took it out, he had intended to fling it from him into the very hottest part of the fire, but he found now that he could not do so. Not without a great struggle. He weighed the ring in his hand, hesitating, and forcing himself to remember all that Gandalf had told him. And then with an effort of will, he made a movement, as if to cast it away, but he found that he had put it back in his pocket. Gandalf laughed grimly. (laughs) You see? Already you do, Frodo, cannot easily let it go. No will to damage it. And I could not make you, except by force, which would break your mind. But as for breaking the ring, force is useless. Even if you took it and struck it with a heavy sledgehammer, it would make no dint in it. It cannot be unmade by your hands, or by mine. Your small fire, of course, would not melt even ordinary gold. This ring has already passed through it unscathed, and even unheated. But there is no smith's forge in the Shire that could change it at all. Not even the anvils and furnaces of the dwarfs could do that. It has been said that dragonfire could melt and consume the rings of power, but there is not now any dragon left on earth in which the old fire is hot enough. Nor was there ever any dragon, not even Ancalagon the Black, who could have harmed the one ring, the ruling ring, for that was made by Sauron himself. There is only one way. To find the cracks of doom, the depths of Orodruin, the fire mountain, and cast the ring in there if you really wish to destroy it, to put it beyond the grasp of the enemy forever. I do really wish to destroy it, cried Frodo. Oh, well, to have it destroyed, I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered said Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. But I have so little of any of these things. You are wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, The ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed and his face was lit by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself, 
Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity. Pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it. Not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. I shall have such need of it. Great perils lie before me. He went to the windows and drew aside the curtains and the shutters. Sunlight streamed back again into the room. Sam passed along the path outside, whistling. And now, said the wizard, turning back to Frodo, the decision lies with you. But I will always help you. He laid his hand on Frodo's shoulder. I will help you bear this burden, as long as it is yours to bear. We must do something soon. The enemy is moving. There was a long silence. Gandalf sat down again and puffed at his pipe, as if lost in thought. His eyes seemed closed, but under the lids he was watching Frodo intently. Frodo gazed fixedly at the red embers of the hearth until they filled all his vision, and he seemed to be looking down into profound wells of fire. He was thinking of the fabled cracks of doom and the terror of the fiery mountain. Well, said Gandalf at last, what are you thinking about? Have you decided what to do? No, answered Frodo, coming back to himself out of darkness and finding to his surprise that it was not dark and that out of the window he could see the sunlit garden. Or perhaps, yes, as far as I understand what you have said, I suppose I must keep the ring and guard it, at least for the present, whatever it may do to me. Whatever it may do, it will be slow, slow to evil if you keep it with that purpose, said Gandalf. I hope so, said Frodo, but I hope that you may find some other better keeper soon. But in the meantime, it seems that I am a danger, a danger to all that live near me. I cannot keep the ring and stay here. I ought to leave back end, leave the Shire, leave everything and go away, he sighed. I should like to save the Shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words, and have felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. Of course, I have sometimes thought of going away, but I imagined it as a kind of holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's or better, ending in peace. But this would mean exile, a flight from danger into danger, drawing it after me. And I suppose I must go alone if I am to do that and save the Shire. But I feel very small and very uprooted and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart. To follow Bilbo, and even perhaps to find him again. It was so strong that it overcame his fear. He could almost have run out there and then down the road without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. My dear Frodo, exclaimed Gandalf. Hobbits really are amazing creatures, as I have said before. You can learn all that there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years, they can still surprise you at a pinch. I hardly expected to get such an answer, not even from you. 
But Bilbo made no mistake in choosing his heir, though he little thought how important it would prove. I'm afraid you are right. The ring will not be able to stay hidden in the Shire much longer, and for your own sake, as well as for others, you will have to go, and leave the name of Baggins behind you. That name will not be safe to have outside the Shire, or in the wild. I will give you a traveling name now. When you go, go as Mr. Underhill. But I don't think you need to go alone. Not if you know anyone you can trust, and who would be willing to go by your side and that you would be willing to take into unknown perils. But if you look for a companion, be careful in choosing, and be careful of what you say, even to your closest friends. The enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing. Suddenly he stopped as if listening. Frodo became aware that all was very quiet, inside and outside. Gandalf crept to one side of the window. Then with a dart he sprang to the sill and thrust the long arm out and downwards. There was a squawk, and up came Sam Ganji's curly head, hauled by one ear. Well, well, bless my beard, said Gandalf. Sam Ganji, is it now? What may you be doing? Ah, uh, Lord, Lord, bless you, Mr. Gandalf, sir. Nothing. Leastways, I was just trimming the grass border under the window, if you follow me. He picked up the shears and exhibited them as evidence. I don't, said Gandalf grimly. It is some time since I heard the sound of your shears. How long have you been eavesdropping? Uh, eavesdropping, sir? I don't follow you, begging your pardon. There ain't no eaves in Bag End, and that's a fact. Don't be a fool. What have you heard, and why did you listen? Gandalf's eyes flashed, and his brows stuck out like bristles. Uh, Mr. Frodo, sir! Cried Sam, quaking. Don't let him hurt me, sir. Don't let him turn me into anything unnatural. My old dad will take on so. I mean, I meant no harm. Oh, my honor, sir. He won't hurt you, said Frodo, hardly able to keep from laughing, although he was himself startled and rather puzzled. He knows as well as I do that you mean no harm. But just you up and answer his question straight away. Uh, uh, well, sir, said Sam, dithering a little. I heard a great deal that I didn't rightly understand. Uh, about an enemy, and rings, and Mr. Bilbo, sir, and dragons in a fiery mountain, and... and oh, sir, I listened because I couldn't help myself, if you know what I mean. Nor bless me, sir, but I do love tales of that sort. And I believe them, too, whatever Ted may say... Elves, sir, I, I would dearly love to see them. Couldn't you take me to see elves, sir, when you go? Suddenly Gandalf laughed. <laughs> Come inside, he shouted, and putting out both his arms, he lifted the astonished Sam, shears, grass clippings and all, right through the window, and stood him on the floor. Take you to see elves, eh? He said, eyeing Sam closely, but with a smile flickering on his face. So you heard that Mr. Frodo is going away? I did, sir. And that's why I choked, which you heard seemingly. I tried not to, sir, but it burst out of me. I was so upset. It can't be helped, Sam, said Frodo sadly. He had suddenly realized that flying out of the Shire would mean more painful partings than merely saying farewell to the familiar comforts of Bag End. I shall have to go. But, and here he looked hard at Sam, if you really care about me, you will keep that dead secret. See, if you don't... If you even breathe a word of what you've heard here, then I hope Gandalf will turn you into a spotted toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes. Sam fell to his knees, trembling. Get up, Sam, said Gandalf. I have thought of something better than that. Something to shut your mouth and punish you properly for listening. You shall go away with Mr. Frodo. <gasps> Me, sir! cried Sam, springing up like a dog invited for a walk. Me go and see elves and all! 
Oh, hooray! He shouted and then burst into tears. You ought to go quietly, and you ought to go soon, said Gandalf. Two or three weeks had passed, and still Frodo made no sign of getting ready to go. I know, but it's difficult to do both, he objected. If I just vanished like Bilbo, the tale would be all over the Shire in no time. Of course you mustn't vanish, said Gandalf. That wouldn't do at all. I said soon, not instantly. If you can think of any way of slipping out of the Shire without this being generally known, it will be worth a little delay. But you must not delay too long. What about the autumn? On or after our birthday? asked Frodo. I think I could probably make some arrangements by then. To tell the truth, he was very reluctant to start, now that it had come to the point. Bag End seemed a more desirable residence than it had for years, and he wanted to savor as much as he could of his last summer in the Shire. When autumn came, he knew that part at least of his heart would think more kindly of journeying, as it always did in that season. He had indeed privately made up his mind to leave on his fiftieth birthday, Bilbo's one hundred and twenty-eighth. It seemed somehow the proper day on which to set out and follow him. Following Bilbo was uppermost in his mind, and the one thing that made the thought of leaving bearable. He thought as little as possible about the ring. And where it might lead him in the end, but he did not tell all his thoughts to Gandalf. What the wizard guessed was always difficult to tell. He looked at Frodo and smiled. Very well, he said. I think that will do, but it must not be any later. I am getting very anxious. In the meanwhile, do take care and don't let out any hint of where you are going, and see that Sam Gamgee does not talk. If he does, I really shall turn him into a toad. As for where I'm going," said Frodo, "it will be difficult to give that away, for I have no clear idea myself yet." "Don't be absurd," said Gandalf. "I'm not warning you against leaving an address at the post office, but you are leaving the Shire, and that should not be known until you are far away. And you must go, or at least set out, either north, south, west, or east, and the direction should certainly not be known." I've been so taken up with the thought of leaving Bag End and of saying farewell that I have never even considered the direction," said Frodo. "For where am I to go, and by what shall I steer? What is to be my quest?" Bilbo went to find a treasure, there and back again. But I go to lose one, and not return as far as I can see. But you cannot see very far," said Gandalf. "Neither can I. It may be your task to find the cracks of doom, but that quest may be for others." I do not know. At any rate, you are not ready for that long road yet. No, indeed," said Frodo. "But in the meantime, what course am I to take?" "Towards danger, but not too rashly, nor too straight," answered the wizard. "If you want my advice, make for Rivendell. That journey should not prove too perilous, though the road is less easy than it was, and it will grow worse as the year fails." "Rivendell," said Frodo. "Very good." I will go east, and I will make for Rivendell. I will take Sam to visit the elves. He will be delighted. He spoke lightly, but his heart was moved suddenly with the desire to see the house of Elrond Half-Elven, and breathe the air of that deep valley where many of the fair folk still dwelt in peace.
One summer's evening, an astonishing piece of news reached the ivy bush and green dragon. Giants and the other portents on the borders of the Shire were forgotten for more important matters. Mister Frodo was selling Bag End. Indeed, he had already sold it to the Sackville Bagginses for a nice bit too," said some. "At a bargain price," said others. "And that's more likely when Mistress Lobelia is the buyer." Otho had died some years before, at the ripe but disappointed age of one hundred and two. Just why Mister Frodo was selling his beautiful hole was even more debatable than the price. A few held a theory, supported by nods and hints, of Mister Baggins himself, that Frodo's money was running out. He was going to leave Hobbiton and live in a quiet way on the proceeds of the sale down in Buckland among his Brandybuck relations, as far from the Sackville Baggins as may be. Some added. But so firmly fixed had the notion of the immeasurable wealth of the Bagginses of Bag End become that most found this hard to believe, harder than any other reason or unreason that their fancy could suggest. To most, it suggested a dark and yet unrevealed plot by Gandalf. Though he kept himself very quiet and did not go about by day, it was well known that he was hiding up in Bag End. But however a removal might fit with the designs of his wizardry. There was no doubt about the fact. Frodo Baggins was going back to Buckland. Yes, I shall be moving this autumn, he said. Mary Brandybuck is looking out for a nice hole for me, or perhaps a small house. As a matter of fact, with Mary's help, he had already chosen and bought a little house at Crick Hollow in the country beyond Bucklebury. To all but Sam, he pretended he was going to settle down there permanently. The decision to set out eastwards had suggested the idea to him. For Buckland was on the eastern borders of the Shire, and as he had lived there in childhood, his going back would at least seem credible. Gandalf stayed in the Shire for over two months. Then one evening, at the end of June, soon after Frodo's plan had been finally arranged, he suddenly announced that he was going off again the next morning. Only for a short while, I hope, he said. But I'm going down beyond the southern borders to get some news, if I can. I have been idle longer than I should. He spoke lightly. But it seemed to Frodo that he looked rather worried. Has anything happened? He said. Well, no. But I have heard something that has made me anxious and needs looking into. If I think it necessary, after all, for you to get off at once, I shall come back immediately, or at least send word. In the meantime, stick to your plan, but be more careful than ever, especially of the ring. Let me impress on you once more. Don't use it. He went off at dawn. I may be back any day. He said, "At the very latest, I shall come back to the farewell party. I think, after all, you may need my company on the road." At first, Frodo was a good deal disturbed, and wondered often what Gandalf could have heard. But his uneasiness wore off, and in the fine weather, he forgot his troubles for a while. The Shire had seldom seen so fair a summer, or so rich an autumn. The trees were laden with apples; honey was dripping from the cones. And the corn was tall and full. Autumn was well under way before Frodo began to worry about Gandalf again. September was passing, and there was still no news of him. The birthday and the removal drew nearer, and still he did not come or send word. Bagend began to be busy. Some of Frodo's friends came to stay and help him with the packing. There was Fredegar Bolger and Thorco Boffin. And of course, his special friends Pippin Tuke and Merry Brandybuck. Between them, they turned the whole place upside down. On September twentieth, 
two covered carts went off laden to Buckland, conveying the furniture and goods that Frodo had not sold to his new home, by way of the Brandywine Bridge. The next day, Frodo became really anxious and kept a constant lookout for Gandalf. Thursday, his birthday morning, dawned as fair and clear as it had long ago for Bilbo's great party. Still, Gandalf did not appear. In the evening, Frodo gave his farewell feast. It was quite small, just a dinner for himself and his four helpers. But he was troubled and fell in no mood for it. The thought that he would so soon have to part with his young friends weighed on his heart. He wondered how he would break it to them. The four younger hobbits were, however, in high spirits, and the party soon became very cheerful in spite of Gandalf's absence. The dining room was bare except for a table and chairs, but the food was good, and there was good wine. Frodo's wine had not been included in the sale to the Sackville Bagginses. Whatever happens to the rest of my stuff when the SBs get their claws on it, at any rate, I have found a good home for this, said Frodo as he drained his glass. It was the last drop of old Winyards. When they had sung many songs and talked of many things they had done together, they toasted Bilbo's birthday. And then they drank his health and Frodo's together according to Frodo's custom. Then they went out for a sniff of air and glimpse of the stars. And then they went to bed. Frodo's party was over and Gandalf had not come. The next morning they were busy packing another cart with the remainder of the luggage. Mary took charge of this and drove off with Fatty, that is, Fredegar Bulger. Someone must get these and warm the house before you arrive, said Mary. Well, see you later. The day after tomorrow if you don't go to sleep on the way. Falco went home after lunch, but Pippin remained behind. Frodo was restless and anxious, listening in vain for a sound of Gandalf. He decided to wait until nightfall. After that, if Gandalf wanted him urgently, he would go to Crick Hollow, and might even get there first, for Frodo was going on foot. His plan, for pleasure and a last look of the Shire as much as any other reason, was to walk from Hobbiton to Buckleberry Ferry, taking it fairly easy. I shall get myself a bit into training too, he said, looking at himself in a dusty mirror in the half-empty hall. He had not done any strenuous walking for a long time, and the reflection looked rather flabby, he thought. After lunch, the Sackville Bagginses, Lobelia and her sandy-haired son, Lotho, turned up, much to Frodo's annoyance. Ours at last, said Lobelia as she stepped inside. It was not polite nor strictly true, for the sale of Bag End did not take effect until midnight. But Lobelia can perhaps be forgiven. She had been obliged to wait about 77 years longer for Bag End than she once hoped and she was now a hundred years old. Anyway, she had come to see that nothing she had paid for had been carried off, and she wanted the keys. It took a long while to satisfy her, as she had brought a complete inventory with her, and went right through it. In the end, she departed with Lotho and the spare key, and the promise that the other key would be left at the Gamgees in Bagshot Row. She snorted, and showed plainly that she thought the Gamgees capable of plundering the hole during the night. Frodo did not offer her any tea. He took his own tea with Pippin and Sam Gamgee in the kitchen. It had been officially announced that Sam was coming back to Buckland to do for Mr. Frodo and look after his bit of garden, an arrangement that was approved by the gaffer, though it did not console him for the prospect of having Lobelia as a neighbor. 
our last meal at Bag End, said Frodo, pushing back his chair. They left the washing up for Lobelia. Pippin and Sam strapped up their three packs and piled them in the porch. Pippin went out for a last stroll in the garden. Sam disappeared. The sun went down. Bag End seemed sad and gloomy and disheveled. Frodo wandered round the familiar rooms and saw the light of the sunset fade on the walls and shadows creep out of the corners. It grew slowly dark indoors. He went out and walked down to the gate at the bottom of the path and then on a short way down the hill road. He half expected to see Gandalf come striding up through the dusk. The sky was clear and the stars were glowing bright. It's going to be a fine night, he said aloud. That's good for a beginning. I feel like walking. I can't bear any more hanging about. I'm going to start. And Gandalf must follow me. He turned to go back and then stopped, for he heard voices just round the corner by the end of Bagshot Row. One voice was certainly the old gaffer's. The other was strange and somehow unpleasant. He could not make out what it said, but he heard the gaffer's answers, which were rather shrill. The old man seemed put out. No, Mr. Baggins has gone away. Went this morning, and my Sam went with him. And anyway, all his stuff went. Yet sold out and gone, I tell ye. But why? Why's none one of my business or yours? Where to? That ain't no secret. He's moved to Bucklebury or some such place, away down yonder. Yes, yes it is. A, a tidy way. I've never been so far myself. They queer folks in Buckland. No, I can't give no message. Good night to you. Footsteps went away down the hill. Frodo wondered vaguely why the fact that they did not come up on the hill seemed a great relief. I am sick of questions and curiosity about my doings, I suppose, he thought. Oh, what an inquisitive lot they all are. He had half a mind to go and ask the gaffer who the inquirer was, but he thought better, or worse of it, and turned and walked quickly back to Bag End. Pippin was sitting on his pack in the porch. Sam was not there. Frodo stepped inside the dark door. Sam? He called. Sam! Time! Coming, sir! Came the answer from far within, followed soon by Sam himself, wiping his mouth. He had been saying farewell to the beer barrel in the cellar. All aboard, Sam, said Frodo. Yes, sir. I'll ask for a bit now, sir. Frodo shut and locked the round door, and gave the key to Sam. Run down with this to your home, Sam, he said. Then cut along the row and meet us as quick as you can at the gate in the lane beyond the meadows. We're not going through the village tonight. Too many ears pricking and eyes prying. Sam ran off at full speed. <sighs> well, now we're off at last, said Frodo. They shouldered their packs and took up their sticks and walked round the corner to the west side of Bag End. Goodbye, said Frodo, looking at the dark blank windows. He waved his hand and then turned and following Bilbo if he had known it, hurried after Peregrine, down the garden path. They jumped over the low place in the hedge at the bottom and took to the fields, passing into the darkness like a rustle in the grasses. At the bottom of the hill on its western side they came to the gate opening on to a narrow lane. 
There they halted and adjusted the straps for their packs. Presently Sam appeared, trotting quickly and breathing hard. His heavy pack was hoisted high on his shoulders, and he had put on his head a tall, shapeless felt bag, which he called a hat. In the gloom, he looked very much like a dwarf. I'm sure you have given me all the heaviest stuff, said Frodo. I pity snails, and all that carry their homes on their backs. I could take a lot more yet, sir. My packet is quite light, said Sam stoutly and untruthfully. No, you don't, Sam, said Pippin. It is good for him. He's got nothing except what he ordered us to pack. He's been slack lately, and he'll feel the weight less when he's walked off some of his own. <laughs> Be kind to a poor old hobbit, laughed Frodo. I shall be as thin as a willow wand, I'm sure, before I get to Buckland. But I was talking nonsense. I suspect you have taken more than your share, Sam. And I shall look into it at our next packing. He picked up his stick again. Well, we all like walking in the dark, he said. So let's put some miles behind us before bed. For a short way, they followed the lane westwards. Then leaving it, they turned left and took quietly to the fields again. They went in single file, along hedgerows and the borders of capices, and night fell dark about them. In their dark cloaks, they were as invisible as if they all had magic rings. Since they were all hobbits, and were trying to be silent, they made no noise that even hobbits would hear. Even the wild things in the fields and woods hardly noticed their passing. After some time, they crossed the water, west of Hobbiton, by a narrow plank bridge. The stream was there no more than a winding black ribbon, bordered with leaning Ardler trees. A mile or two further south, they hastily crossed the great road from the Brandywine Bridge. They were now in the Tukland, and bending southeastwards, they made for the Green Hill country. As they began to climb its first slopes, they looked back and saw the lamps in Hobbiton far off twinkling in the gentle valley of the water. Soon it disappeared in the folds of the darkened land, and was followed by Bywater beside its grey pool. When the light of the last farm was far behind, peeping among the trees, Frodo turned and waved a hand in farewell. I wonder if I shall ever look down into that valley again, he said quietly. When they had walked for about three hours, they rested. The night was clear, cool, and starry, but smoke-like wisps of mist were creeping up the hillsides from the stream and deep meadows. Thin-clad birches swaying in a light wind above their heads made a black net against the pale sky. They ate a very frugal supper, for hobbits, and then went on again. Soon they struck a narrow road that went rolling up and down, fading grey into the darkness ahead. The road to Woodhall and Stock and the Buckleberry Ferry. It climbed away from the main road in the water valley and wound over the skirts of the green hills towards Woody End, a wild corner of the east farthing. After a while they plunged into a deeply cloven track between tall trees that rustled their dry leaves in the night. It was very dark. At first they talked, or hummed a tune softly together, being now far away from inquisitive ears. Then they marched on in silence and Pippin began to lag behind. At last they began to climb a steep slope. He stopped and yawned. <sighs> I am so sleepy, he said. That soon I shall fall down on the road. Are you going to sleep on your legs? It's nearly midnight. I thought you liked walking in the dark, said Frodo. <laughs> but there is no great hurry. Mary expects us sometime the day after tomorrow. 
But that leaves us nearly two days more. We'll halt at the first likely spot. The wind's in the west, said Sam. If we get to the other side of this hill, we shall find a spot that is sheltered and snug enough, sir. There is a dry fir wood just ahead, if I remember rightly. Sam knew the land well within twenty miles of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography. Just over the top of the hill, they came on the patch of fir wood. Leaving the road, they went into the deep, resin-scented darkness of the trees and gathered dead sticks and cones to make a fire. Soon they had a merry crackle of flame at the foot of a large fir tree, and they sat round it for a while, until they began to nod. Then, each in an angle of the great tree's roots, they curled up in their cloaks and blankets and were soon fast asleep. They set no watch. Even Frodo feared no danger yet, for they were still in the heart of the Shire. A few creatures came and looked at them when the fire had died away. A fox, passing through the wood on business of his own, stopped several minutes and sniffed. Hobbits? He thought. Well, what's next? I heard of strange doing in this land, but I seldom heard of a hobbit sleeping outdoors under a tree. Three of them. There's something mighty queer behind this. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. The morning came, pale and clammy. Frodo woke up first and found that the tree root had made a hole in his back and that his neck was stiff. Walking for pleasure. Why didn't I drive? He thought, as he usually did at the beginning of an expedition. And all my beautiful feather beds are sewed to the Sackville Packinses. These tree roots would do them good. He stretched. Wake up, hobbits! He cried. It's a beautiful morning. Oh, what's so beautiful about it? Said Pippin, peering over the edge of his blanket with one eye. Sam, get breakfast ready for half past nine. Have you got the bath water hot? Sam jumped up, looking rather bleary. Oh, no, sir, uh, I haven't, sir, he said. Frodo stripped the blankets from Pippin and rolled him over and then walked off to the edge of the wood. Away eastward, the sun was rising red out of the mist that lay thick in the world. Touched with gold and red, the autumn trees seemed to be sailing rootless in a shadowy sea. A little below him, to the left, the road ran down steeply into a hollow and disappeared. When he returned, Sam and Pippin had got a good fire going. Water! shouted Pippin. Where's the water? I don't keep water in my pockets, said Frodo. We thought you had gone to find some, said Pippin, busy setting out the food in cups. You had better go now. You can come too, said Frodo. And bring all the water bottles. There was a stream at the foot of the hill. They filled their bottles, and the small camping kettle at a little fall where the water fell, a few feet over an outcrop of grey stone. It was icy cold, and they spluttered and puffed as they bathed their faces and hands. When their breakfast was over, and their packs all trussed up again, it was after ten o'clock, and the day was beginning to turn fine and hot. They went down the slope and across the stream where it divided under the road, and up the next slope, and up and down another shoulder of the hills. And by that time, their cloaks, blankets, water, food, and other gear already seemed a heavy burden. The day's march promised to be warm and tiring work. After some miles, however, the road ceased to roll up and down. It climbed to the top of a steep bank in a weary, zigzagging sort of way, and then prepared to go down for the last time. 
In front of them, they saw the lower lands, dotted with small clumps of trees that melted away in the distance to a brown woodland haze. They were looking across the woody end towards the Brandywine River. The road wound away before them like a piece of string. The roads go on forever, said Pippin. But I can't without rest. It's high time for lunch. He sat down on the bank at the side of the road and looked away east into the haze, beyond which lay the river and the end of the shire in which he had spent all his life. Sam stood by him. His round eyes were wide open, for he was looking across lands he had never seen to a new horizon. Do elves live in those woods? He asked. Not that I've ever heard, said Pippin. Frodo was silent. He too was gazing eastward along the road, as if he had never seen it before. Suddenly he spoke, aloud but as if to himself, saying slowly, The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can. Pursuing it with weary feet, until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then, I cannot say. That sounds a bit like old Bilbo's rhyming, said Pippin. Or is it one of your imitations? It does not sound altogether encouraging. I don't know, said Frodo. It came to me then as if I was making it up, but I may have heard it long ago. Certainly it reminds me very much of Bilbo in the last years, before he went away. He used to often say that there was only one road, and it was like a great river. Its springs were at every doorstep, and every path was its tributary. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door, he used to say. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Do you realize that this is the very path that goes through Mirkwood, and if you let it, might take you to the Lonely Mountain, or even further and to worse places? He used to say that on the path outside the front door at Bag End. Especially after he had been out for a long walk. Well, the road won't sweep me anywhere for an hour at least, said Pippin, unslinging his pack. The others followed his example, putting their packs against the bank and their legs out into the road. After a rest, they had a good lunch, and then more rest. The sun was beginning to get low, and the light afternoon was on the land as they went down the hill. So far they had not met a soul on the road. This way was not much used, being hardly fit for carts, and there was little traffic to the woody end. They had been jogging along again for an hour or more when Sam stopped for a moment as if listening. They were now on level ground, and the road after much winding lay straight ahead through grassland sprinkled with tall trees, outliers of the approaching woods. I can hear a pony or a horse coming along the road behind, said Sam. They looked back, but the turn of the road prevented them from seeing far. I wonder if that's Gandalf coming after us. But even as he said it, he had a feeling that it was not so. And a sudden desire to hide from the view of the rider came over him. It may not matter much, he said apologetically. But I would rather not be seen on the road by anyone. 
I'm sick of my doings being noticed and discussed. And if it is Gandalf, he added as an afterthought, we can give him a little surprise to pay him out for being so late. Let's get out of sight. The other two ran quickly to the left and down into a little hollow not far from the road. There they lay flat. Frodo hesitated for a second. Curiosity or some other feeling was struggling with his desire to hide. The sound of hoofs drew nearer. Just in time, he threw himself down in a patch of long grass behind the tree that overshadowed the road. Then he lifted his head and peered cautiously above one of the great doors. Round the corner came a black horse. No hobbit pony, but a full-sized horse. And on it sat a large man who seemed to crouch in the saddle, wrapped in a great black cloak and hood, so that only his boots in the high stirrups showed below. His face was shadowed and invisible. When it reached the tree and was level with Frodo, the horse stopped. The riding figure sat quite still with his head bowed, as if listening. From inside the hood came a noise as of someone sniffing to catch an elusive scent. The head turned from side to side of the road. A sudden, unreasoning fear of discovery laid hold on Frodo, and he thought of his ring. He hardly dared to breathe, and yet the desire to get it out of his pocket became so strong that he began slowly to move his hand. He felt that he had only to slip it on, and he would be safe. The advice of Gandalf had seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I am still in the Shire, he thought, as his hand touched the chain on which it hung. At that moment the rider sat up and shook the reins. The horse stepped forward, walking slowly at first, and then breaking into a quick trot. Frodo crawled out to the edge of the road and watched the rider until he dwindled into the distance. He could not be quite sure, but it seemed to him that suddenly, before it passed out of sight, the horse turned aside and went into the trees on the right. Well, I call that very queer indeed disturbing, said Frodo to himself as he walked towards his companions. Pippin and Sam had remained flat in the grass and had seen nothing, so Frodo described the rider and his strange behaviour. I can't say why, but I felt certain he was looking or smelling for me, and also I felt certain that I did not want him to discover me. I've never seen or felt anything like it in a shire before. What has one of the big people got to do with us? said Pippin. And what is he doing in this part of the world? There are some men about, said Frodo. Down in the south, Farthing, have had trouble with big people, I believe. But I have never heard of anything like this rider. I wonder where he comes from. Begging your pardon, put in Sam suddenly. But I know where he comes from. It's from Hobbiton that this here black rider comes, unless there's more than one, and I know where he's going to. What do you mean? said Frodo sharply looking at him in astonishment. Why didn't you speak up before? I, I've only just remembered it, sir. Um, it was like this. When I got back to our hole yesterday evening with the key, my dad, he says to me, Hello, Sam. He says, I thought you might be away with Mr. Frodo this morning. There's been a strange customer asking for Mr. Baggins of Bag End. He's only just gone. I've sent him to Bucklebury. Not that I like the sound of him. He seemed mighty put out when I told him Mr. Baggins had left his old home for good. Hissed at me, he did. It gave me quite a shudder. What sort of a fellow was he? 
says I to the gaffer. I don't know, says he. But he wasn't a hobbit. He was tall and black-like, and he stooped over me. I reckon it was one of the big folk from foreign parts. He spoke funny. I couldn't stay to hear more, sir, since, since you were waiting. I didn't give much heed to it myself. The gaffer is getting old, and more than a bit blind. And it must have been near dark when this fellow came up the hill, and I found him taking the air at the end of our row. I hope he does none no harm, sir, nor me. The gaffer can't be blamed anyway, said Frodo. As a matter of fact, I heard him talking to a stranger who seemed to be inquiring for me, and I nearly went to ask him who it was. I wish I had, or you had told me about it before. I might have been more careful on the road. Still, there may be no connection between the rider and the gaffer stranger, said Pippin. We left Hobbit and secretly enough, and I don't see how he could have followed us. What about the smelling, sir? said Sam. And the gaffer said he was a black chap. I wish I had waited for Gandalf, Frodo muttered. But perhaps it would only have made matters worse. Then you know or guess something about this rider, said Pippin, who had caught the muttered words. I don't know, and I would rather not guess, said Frodo. All right, cousin Frodo. You can keep your secret for the present if you want to be mysterious. In the meanwhile, what are we to do? I should like a bite and a sup. But somehow I think we had better move on from here. Your talk of sniffing riders with invisible noses has unsettled me. Yes, I think we will move on now, said Frodo. But not on the road, in case the rider comes back, or another follows him. We ought to do a good step more today. Buckland is still miles away. The shadows of the trees were long and thin on the grass as they started off again. They now kept the stone's throw to the left of the road, and kept out of sight of it as much as they could. This hindered them, for the grass was thick and tussocky, and the ground uneven, and the trees began to draw together into thickets. The sun had gone down red behind the hills at their backs, and evening was coming on before they came back to the road at the end of the long level, over which it had run straight for some miles. At that point it bent left, and went down into the lowlands of the Yale, making for stock. But a lane branched right, winding through a road of ancient oak trees on its way to Woodhall. That is the way for us, said Frodo. Not far from the road meeting, they came on the huge hulk of a tree. It was still alive and had leaves on the small branches that it had put out round the broken stumps of its long-fold limbs. But it was hollow, and could be entered by a great crack on the side away from the road. The hobbits crept inside, and sat there upon the floor of old leaves and decayed wood. They rested and had a light meal, talking quietly and listening from time to time. Twilight was about them as they crept back into the lane. The west wind was sighing in the branches. Leaves were whispering. Soon the road began to fall gently, but steadily, into the dusk. A star came out above the trees in the darkening east before them. They went abreast, and in step, to keep up their spirits. After a time, as the stars grew thicker and brighter, the feeling of disquiet left them, and they no longer listened for the sound of hoofs. They began to hum softly, as hobbits have a way of doing as they walk along, especially when they are drawing near to home at night. With most hobbits, it is a supper song or a bed song, but these hobbits hummed a walking song, though not, of course, without any mention of supper and bed. Bilbo Baggins had made the words to a tune that was as old as the hills, and taught it to Frodo as they walked in the lanes of the water valley and talked about adventure.
a sudden tree or standing stone that none hath seen but we alone. Tree and flower, leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass. Hill under water, under sky, pass them by, pass them by. Still round the corner there they may wait, a new road or secret gate. And though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. Apple, thorn, and nut and slow, let them go, let them go. Sand and stone and pool and bell, fare you well, fare you well. Home is behind the wall ahead. And there are many paths to tread through shadow to the edge of night. You're going to follow the stars are all alive. Then the world behind Then the world behind and home ahead. There you go. You'll wander back and home to bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade. Away shall fade, away shall fade. Fire and lamp and meat and bread. And then to bed, and then to bed. The song ended. And now to bed. And now to bed. Sang Pippin in a high voice. Hush, said Frodo. I think I hear hoots again. They stopped suddenly and stood as silent as three shadows, listening. There was a sound of hoofs in a lane, some way behind, but coming slow and clear down the wind. Quickly and quietly they slipped off the path and ran into the deeper shade under the oak trees. Don't let us go too far, said Frodo. I don't want to be seen, but I, but I want to see if this is another black rider. Very well, said Pippin. But don't forget the sniffing. The hoofs drew nearer. They had no time to find any hiding place better than the general darkness under the trees. Sam and Pippin crouched behind a large tree bowl, while Frodo crept back a few yards towards the lane. It showed grey and pale, a line of fading light through the wood. Above it the stars were thick in the dim sky, but there was no moon. The sound of hoofs stopped. As Frodo watched, he saw something dark pass across the lighter space between two trees, and then halt. It looked like the black shade of a horse, led by a smaller black shadow. The black shadow stood close to the point where they had left the path, and it swayed from side to side. Frodo thought he heard the sound of snuffling. The shadow bent to the ground, and then began to crawl towards him. Once more the desire to slip on the ring came over Frodo, but this time it was stronger than before. So strong that almost before he realized what he was doing, his hand was groping in his pocket. But at that moment, there came a sound like mingled song and laughter. Clear voices rose and fell in the starlit air. The black shadow straightened up and retreated. It climbed on the shadowy horse and seemed to vanish across the lane into the darkness on the other side. Frodo breathed again. exclaimed Sam in a hoarse whisper. Elves, sir! He would have burst out of the trees and dashed off towards the voices if they had not pulled him back. Yes, it is elves, said Frodo. One can meet them sometimes in the woody end, but they wander into it in spring and autumn, out of their own lands away beyond the Tower Hills. I'm thankful that they do. You did not see, but that black rider stopped just here and was actually crawling towards us when the song began. As soon as he heard the voices, he slipped away. 
What about the elves? Said Sam, too excited to trouble about the rider. Can't we go and see them? Listen. They're coming this way. Said Frodo. We have only to wait. The singing drew nearer. One clear voice rose now above the others. It was singing in the fair elven tongue of which Frodo knew only a little, and the others knew nothing. Yet the sound blending with the melody seemed to shape itself in their thought into words which they only partly understood. This was the song as Frodo heard it. Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen beyond the Western Seas, O Light to us that wander here. Amid the world of woven trees, Gilthorniel, O Elbereth, clear are thy eyes and bright thy breath. Snow White, Snow White, we sing to thee in a far land beyond the sea. O stars in the sunless year, with shining hand by her were sown. In windy fields now bright and clear, we see your silver blossom blown. O Elbereth, Gilthorniel. We still remember we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. The song ended. These are high elves. They spoke the name of Elbereth," said Frodo in amazement. Few of the fairest folk are ever seen in the Shire. Not many now remain in Middle Earth, east of the Great Sea. This is indeed a strange chance. The hobbits sat in shadow by the wayside. Before long, the elves came down the lane towards the valley. They passed slowly, and the hobbits could see the starlight glimmering on their hair and in their eyes. They bore no lights, yet as they walked, a shimmer, like the light of the moon above the rim of the hills before it rises, seemed to fall about their feet. They were now silent, and as the last elf passed. He turned and looked towards the hobbits and laughed. <laughs> Hail, Frodo! He cried. You are abroad late, or are you perhaps lost? Then he called aloud to the others, and all the company stopped and gathered round. This is indeed wonderful, they said. Three hobbits in a wood at night. We have not seen such a thing since Bilbo went away. What is the meaning of it? The meaning of it, fair people," said Frodo, "is simply that we seem to be going the same way as you are. I like walking under the stars, but I would welcome your company. But <laughs> we have no need for other company, and hobbits are so dull. They laughed. And how do you know that we go the same way as you? For you do not know whither we are going.、Uh, and how do you know my name? Asked Frodo in return. <laughs> we know many things," they said. We have seen you often before with Bilbo. Though you may not have seen us, who are you, and, and who is your lord? Asked Frodo. I am Gildor, answered their leader, the elf who had first hailed him. Gildor and Glorian of the House of Finrod, we are exiles, and most of our kindred have long ago departed, and we too are now only tarrying here a while, ere we return over the great sea. But some of our kinsfolk dwell still in peace in Rivendell. Come now, Frodo. Tell us what you are doing, for we see that there is some shadow of fear upon you. All wise people, interrupted Pippin eagerly. Tell us about the Black Riders. 
Black Riders, they said in low voices. Why do you ask about Black Riders? Because two Black Riders have overtaken us today. Or one has done so twice, said Pippin. Only a little while ago he slipped away as you drew near. The elves did not answer at once, but spoke together softly in their own tongue. At length, Gildor turned to the hobbits. We will not speak of this here, he said. We think you had best come now with us. It is not our custom, but for this time we will take you on your road, and you shall lodge with us tonight if you will. Oh, fair folk! This is good fortune beyond my hope, said Pippin. Sam was speechless. I thank you indeed, Gildor and Glorian, said Frodo, bowing. Elensila lumen, omentielve. A star shines on the hour of our meeting, he added in high elven speech. Be careful, friends, cried Gildor, laughing. Speak no secrets. Here is a scholar in the ancient tongue. Bilbo was a good master. Hail, elf friend, he said, bowing to Frodo. Come now with your friends and join our company. You had best walk in the middle so that you may not stray. You may be weary before we halt. Why, where are you going? asked Frodo. For tonight we shall go to the woods on the hills above Woodhall. It is some miles, but you shall have rest at the end of it, and it will shorten your journey tomorrow. They now marched on again in silence, and passed like shadows and faint lights. For elves, even more than hobbits, could walk when they wished without sound or footfall. Pippin soon began to feel sleepy, and staggered once or twice, but each time a tall elf at his side put out his arm and saved him from a fall. Sam walked along Frodo's side, as if in a dream, with an expression on his face, half of fear and half of astonished joy. The woods on either side became denser. The trees were now younger and thicker, and as the lane went lower, running down into a fold of the hills, there were many deep breaks of hazel on the rising slopes at either hand. At last the elves turned aside from the path. A green ride lay almost unseen through the thickets in the right, and this they followed as it would, away back up the wooded slopes on the top of the shoulder of the hills that stood out into the lower land of the river valley. Suddenly they came out of the shadow of the trees, and beyond them lay a wide space of grass, grey under the night. On three sides the woods pressed upon it, but eastward the ground fell steeply, and the tops of the dark trees, growing at the bottom of the slope, were below their feet. Beyond, the low lands lay dim and flat under the stars. Nearer at hand, a few lights twinkled in the village of Woodhall. The elves sat on the grass and spoke together in soft voices. They seemed to take no further notice of the hobbits. Frodo and his companions wrapped themselves in cloaks and blankets, and drowsiness stole over them. The night grew on, and the lights in the valley went out. Pippin fell asleep, pillowed on a green hillock. Away high in the east swung Remirath, the netted stars, and slowly above the mists, red Borgil rose glowing like a jewel of fire. Then, by some shift of airs, all the mists was drawn away like a veil, and there leaned up, as he climbed over the rim of the world, the swordsman of the sky, Menelvagor with his shining belt. The elves all burst into song. Suddenly, under the trees, a fire sprang up with a red light. Come, the elves called to the hobbits. Come, now is the time for speech and merriment. Pippin sat up and rubbed his eyes. He shivered. There is a fire in the hall, and food for hungry guests, said an elf standing before him. At the south end of the greensward there was an opening. There the green floor ran into the wood, 
and formed a wide space like a hall, roofed by the boughs of trees. Their great trunks ran like pillars down each side. In the middle there was a wood fire blazing, and upon the tree pillars, torches with lights of gold and silver were burning steadily. The elf sat round the fire upon the grass, or upon the sawn rings of old trunks. Some went to and fro bearing cups and pouring drink. Others brought food on heaped plates and dishes. Well, this is poor fare, they said to the hobbits, for we are lodging in the greensward far from our halls. If ever you are our guests at home, we will treat you better. It seems to me good enough for a birthday party, said Frodo. Pippin afterwards recalled little of either food or drink, for his mind was filled with the light upon the elf faces, and the sound of voices so various and so beautiful that he felt in a waking dream. But he remembered that there was bread, surpassing the savour of a fair white loaf to one who is starving, and fruits sweet as wild berries, and richer than the tended fruits of gardens. He drained a cup that was filled with fragrant draught, cool as a clear fountain, golden as a summer afternoon. Sam could never describe in words, nor picture clearly to himself, what he felt or thought that night, though it remained in his memory as one of the chief events of his life. The nearest he ever got was to say, Well, sir, if I could grow apples like that, I would call myself a gardener. But it was the singing that went to my heart, if you know what I mean. Frodo sat, eating, drinking and talking with delight, but his mind was chiefly on the words spoken. He knew a little of the elf speech and listened eagerly. Now and again he spoke to those that served him and thanked them in their own language. They smiled at him and said laughing, Here is a jewel among hobbits. After a while Pippin fell fast asleep and was lifted up and borne away to a bower under the trees. There he was laid upon a soft bed and slept the rest of the night away. Sam refused to leave his master. When Pippin had gone, he came and sat curled up at Frodo's feet where at last he nodded and closed his eyes. Frodo remained long awake, talking with Gildor. They spoke of many things, old and new, and Frodo questioned Gildor much about happenings in the wide world outside of the Shire. The tidings were mostly sad and ominous, of gathering darkness, the walls of men, and the flight of the elves. At last Frodo asked the question that was nearest to his heart. Tell me, Gildor... Have you ever seen Bilbo since he left us? Gildor smiled. Yes, he answered. Twice. He said farewell to us on this very spot. But I saw him once again, far from here. He would say no more about Bilbo, and Frodo fell silent. You do not ask me or tell me much that concerns yourself, Frodo, said Gildor. But I already know a little, and I can read more in your face and in the thought behind your questions. You are leaving the Shire, and yet you doubt that you will find what you seek, or accomplish what you intend, or that you will ever return. Is that not so? It is, said Frodo. But I thought my going was a secret known only to Gandalf and my faithful Sam. He looked down at Sam, who was snoring gently. <laughs> the secret will not reach the enemy from us, said Gildor. The enemy, said Frodo. Then you know why I am leaving the Shire? I do not know what reason the enemy is pursuing you, answered Gildor, but I perceive that he is. Strange indeed, though that seems to me, and I warn you that peril is now both before you and behind you, and upon either side. You mean the riders? 
I fear that they were servants of the enemy. What are the Black Riders? Has Gandalf told you nothing? Nothing about such creatures? Then I think it is not for me to say more, lest terror should keep you from your journey. For it seems to me that you have set out only just in time, if indeed you are in time. You must now make haste, and neither stay nor turn back, for the Shire is no longer any protection to you. I cannot imagine what information would be more terrifying than your hints and warnings, exclaimed Frodo. I knew that danger lay ahead, of course, but I did not expect to meet it in our own Shire. Can't a hobbit walk from the water to the river in peace? But it is not your own Shire, said Gildor. Others dwelt there before hobbits were, and others will dwell there again when hobbits are no more. The wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in. But you cannot forever fence it out. I know. And yet it has always seemed so safe and familiar. What can I do now? My plan was to leave the Shire secretly and make my way to Rivendell. But now my footsteps are dogged before I ever get to Buckland. I think you should still follow that plan, said Gildor. I do not think the road would prove too hard for your courage. But if you desire clearer counsel, you should ask Gandalf. I do not know the reason for your flight. These things Gandalf must know. I suppose that you will see him before you leave the Shire? I hope so. But that is another thing that makes me anxious. I've been expecting Gandalf for many days. He was to have come to Hobbiton at the latest two nights ago, but he has never appeared. Now I am wondering, what can have happened? Should I wait for him? Gildor was silent for a moment. I do not like this news, he said at last. That Gandalf would be late does not bode well. But it is said, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. The choice is yours, to go or wait. And it is also said, answered Frodo, go not to the elves for counsel, for they will say both no and yes. <laughs> is it indeed? laughed Gildor. Elves seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. But what would you do? You have not told me all concerning yourself, and how then shall I choose better than you? But if you demand advice, I will, for friendship's sake, give it. I think you should now go at once, without delay, and if Gandalf does not come before you set out, then I also advise this. Do not go alone. Take such friends as are trusty and willing. Now you should be grateful, for I do not give this counsel gladly. The elves have their own labours and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits or of any other creatures upon earth. Our paths cross theirs seldom, by chance or purpose. In this meeting there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. I am deeply grateful, said Frodo. But I wish you could tell me plainly what the Black Riders are. If I take your advice, I may not see Gandalf for a long while, and I ought to know what is the danger that pursues me. Is it not enough to know that they are servants of the enemy? Answered Gildor. Flee them! Speak no words to them! They are deadly. Ask no more of me. But my heart forebodes that, ere all is ended, you, Frodo, son of Drogo, will know more of these fell things than Gildor and Glorian. May Elbereth protect you. But 
Where shall I find courage? Asked Frodo. That is what I chiefly need. Courage is found in unlikely places, said Gildor. Be of good hope. Sleep now. In the morning we shall have gone, but we will send our messages through the lands. The wandering company shall know of your journey, and those that have power for good shall be on the watch. I name you Elf Friend, and may the stars shine upon the end of your road. Seldom have we had such delight in strangers, and it is fair to hear words of the ancient speech from the lips of other wanderers in the world. Frodo felt sleep coming upon him, even as Gildor finished speaking. I will sleep now, he said, and the elf led him to a bower beside Pippin. And he threw himself upon a bed and fell at once into a dreamless slumber. In the morning, Frodo woke refreshed. He was lying in a bower made by a living tree with branches laced and drooping to the ground. His bed was of fern and grass, deep and soft and strangely fragrant. The sun was shining through the fluttering leaves, which were still green upon the tree. He jumped up and went out. Sam was sitting on the grass near the edge of the wood. Pippin was standing, studying the sky and weather. There was no sign of the elves. They've left us food and drink and bread, said Pippin. Come and have your breakfast. The bread tastes almost as good as it did last night. I did not want to leave you any, but Sam insisted. Frodo sat down beside Sam and began to eat. What is the plan for today? asked Pippin. To walk to Buckleberry as quick as possible, answered Frodo, and gave his attention to the food. Do you think we shall see anything of those riders? asked Pippin cheerfully. Under the morning sun, the prospect of seeing a whole troop of them did not seem very alarming to him. Yes, probably, said Frodo, not liking the reminder. But I hope to get across the river without their seeing us. Did you find anything about them from Gildor? Not much, only hints and riddles, said Frodo evasively. Did you ask about the sniffing? We didn't discuss it, said Frodo with his mouth full. Oh, you should have. I'm sure it is very important. In that case, I'm sure Gildor would have refused to explain it, said Frodo sharply. And now leave me in peace for a bit. I don't want to answer a string of questions while I'm eating. I want to think. For good heavens, said Pippin. At breakfast. He walked away towards the edge of the green. From Frodo's mind, the bright morning, treacherously bright, he thought, had not banished the fear of pursuit, and he pondered the words of Gildor. The merry voice of Pippin came to him. He was running on the green turf and singing. No, I could not, he said to himself. It is one thing to take my young friends walking over the shire with me until we are hungry and weary and food and bed are sweet. To take them into exile, where hunger and weariness may have no cure, is quite another. Even if they are willing to come, the inheritance is mine alone. I don't think I ought even to take Sam. He looked at Sam Gamgee and discovered that Sam was watching him. Well, Sam... He said. What about it? I am leaving the Shire as soon as ever I can. In fact, I have made my mind now not even to wait a day at Crick Hollow, if it can be helped. Very good, sir. You, you still mean to come with me? I do. It is going to be very dangerous, Sam. 
It is already dangerous. Most likely neither of us will come back. If you don't come back, sir, then I shan't. That's certain, said Sam. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said. I never meant to. I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon. And if any of those black riders try to stop him... I'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said. They laughed. Who are they and what are you talking about? Yell, sir. We had, we had some talk last night and they seemed to know you were going away. So I didn't see the use of denying it. Wonderful folk elves are, sir. Wonderful. They are, said Frodo. Do you like them still now you have had a closer view? They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak, answered Sam slowly. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They are quite different from what I expected. So old and young, and so gay and sad, as it were. Frodo looked at Sam rather startled, half expecting to see some outward sign of the odd change that seemed to have come over him. It did not sound like the voice of the old Sam Gamgee that he thought he knew, but it looked like the old Sam Gamgee sitting there, except that his face was unusually thoughtful. Do you feel any need to leave the Shire now, now that your wish to see them has come true already? He asked. Yes, sir. I don't know how to say it, but after last night, I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we're going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. I don't altogether, but I understand that Gandalf chose me a good companion. I am content. We will go together. Frodo finished his breakfast in silence. Then, standing up, he looked over the land ahead and called to Pippin. All ready to start? He said as Pippin ran up. We must be getting off at once. We slept late, and there are a good many miles to go. You slept late, you mean, said Pippin. I was up long before, and we are only waiting for you to finish eating and thinking. I have finished both now, and I'm going to make for Buckleberry Ferry as quick as possible. I'm not going out of the way. Back to the road we left last night. I'm going to cut straight across country from here. Then you are going to fly, said Pippin. You won't cut straight on foot anywhere in this country. We can cut straight to the road anyway, answered Frodo. The ferry is east from Woodhall, but the hard road curves away to the left. You can see a bend of it away north over there. It goes round the north end of the marish so as to strike the causeway from the bridge above Stock. But that is miles out of the way. We could save a quarter of the distance if we made a line for the ferry from where we stand. Shortcuts make long delays, argued Pippin. The country is rough around here, and there are bogs and all kinds of difficulties down in the marish. I know the land in these parts, and if you are worrying about black riders... I can't see it is any worse meeting them on a road than in the wood or a field. It is less easy to find people in the woods and fields, answered Frodo. And if you're supposed to be on the road, there's some chance that you will be looked for on the road and not off it. All right, said Pippin. I will follow you into every bog and ditch, but it is hard. 
I had counted on passing the golden perch I'd stopped before sundown. The best beer in the East Farthing. Or it used to be. It was a long time since I tasted it. Well, that settles it, said Frodo. Shortcuts make delays, but inns make longer ones. At all costs, we must keep you away from the golden perch. We want to get to Buckleberry before dark. What do you say, Sam? I will go along with you, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. In spite of private misgiving and a deep regret for the best beer in the East Farthing. Then if we are going to toil through bog and briar, let's go now, said Pippin. It was already nearly as hot as it had been the day before. But clouds were beginning to come up from the west. It looked likely to turn to rain. The hobbits scrambled down a deep green bank and plunged into the thick trees below. Their course had been chosen to leave Woodhall on their left and to cut slanting through the woods that clustered along the eastern side of the hills, until they reached the flats beyond. Then they could make straight for the ferry, over country that was open, except for a few ditches and fences. Frodo reckoned they had eighteen miles to go in a straight line. He soon found that the thicket was closer and more tangled than it had appeared. There were no paths in the undergrowth, and they did not get on very fast. When they had struggled to the bottom of the bank, they found a stream running down from the hills behind in a deeply dug bed with steep, slippery sides overhung with brambles. Most inconveniently, it cut across the line they had chosen. They could not jump over it, nor indeed get across it at all without getting wet, scratched and muddy. They halted, wondering what to do. <laughs> First check, said Pippin, smiling grimly. Sam Gamgee looked back. Through an opening in the trees, he caught a glimpse of the top of a green bank from which they had climbed down. Look, he said, clutching Frodo by the arm. They all looked. And on the edge high above them, they saw against the sky a horse standing. Beside it stooped a black figure. They at once gave up any idea of going back. Frodo led the way and plunged quickly into the thick bushes behind the stream. He said to Pippin. We were both right. The shortcut had gone crooked already. But we got undercovered only just in time. You got sharp ears, Sam. Can you hear anything coming? They stood still, almost holding their breath as they listened. But there was no sound of pursuit. I don't fancy he would try bringing his horse down that bank, said Sam. But I guess he knows we came down it. We had better be going on. Going on was not altogether easy. They had packs to carry, and the bushes and brambles were reluctant to let them through. They were cut off from the wind by the ridge behind, and the air was still and stuffy. When they forced their way at last into more open ground, they were hot and tired, and very scratched, and they were also no longer certain of the direction in which they were going. The banks of the stream sank as it reached the levels, and became broader and shallower, wandering off towards the marish and the river. Why, this is Stockbrook, said Pippin. If we are going to try and get back onto our course, we must cross at once and bear right. They waded the stream and hurried over a wide open space, rush-grown and treeless on the further side. Beyond that, they came again to a belt of trees, tall oaks for the most part, with here and there an elm tree or an ash. The ground was fairly level and there was little undergrowth, but the trees were too close for them to see far ahead. The leaves blew upwards in sudden gusts of wind, and spouts of rain began to fall from the overcast sky. Then the wind died away, and the rain came streaming down. 
They trudged along as fast as they could, over patches of grass and through thick drifts of old leaves, and all about them the rain pattered and trickled. They did not talk, but kept glancing back and from side to side. After half an hour, Pippin said, I hope you have not turned too much towards the south. We are not walking long ways through this wood. It is not a very broad belt. I should have said no more than a mile at the widest. And we ought to have been through it by now. It is no good our starting to go in zigzags, said Frodo. That won't mend matters. Let us keep on as we are going. I'm not sure that I want to come out into the open yet. They went on for perhaps another couple of miles. Then the sun gleamed out of ragged clouds again, and the rain lessened. It was now past midday, and they felt it was high time for lunch. They halted under an elm tree. Its leaves, though fast turning yellow, were still thick, and the ground at its feet was fairly dry and sheltered. When they came to make their meal, they found that the elves had filled their bottles with a clear drink, pale golden in color. It had the scent of a honey made of many flowers and was wonderfully refreshing. Very soon, they were laughing and snapping their fingers at rain and at black riders. The last few miles, they felt, would soon be behind them. Frodo propped his back against the tree trunk and closed his eyes. Sam and Pippin sat near, and they began to hum, and then to sing softly. Oh, oh, to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow, and many miles be still to go. But under a tall tree I will lie, and and let let the clouds go sailing by. They began again louder. They stopped short suddenly. Frodo sprang to his feet. A long-drawn wail came down the wind, like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. It rose and fell and ended on a high, piercing note. Even as they sat and stood, as if suddenly frozen, it was answered by another cry, fainter, and further off, but no less chilling to the blood. There was then a silence, broken only by the sound of the wind and the leaves. Uh, 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 What do you think that was? Pippin asked at last, trying to speak lightly, but quavering a little. If it was a bird, it was one that I, I have never heard in the Shire before. It was not a bird or beast, said Frodo. It was a call, or a signal. There were words in that cry, though I could not catch them. But no hobbit had such a voice. No more was said about it. They were all thinking of the riders, but no one spoke of them. They were now reluctant either to stay or go on, but sooner or later they had got to get across the open country to the ferry, and it was best to go sooner and in daylight. In a few moments, they had shouldered their packs again and were off. Before long, the wood came to a sudden end. Wide grasslands stretched before them. They now saw that they had, in fact, turned too much to the south. Away over the flats they could glimpse the low hill of Buckleberry across the river. But it was now to their left. Creeping cautiously out from the edge of the trees, They set off across the open as quickly as they could. At first they felt afraid, away from the shelter of the wood. Far back behind them stood the high place where they had breakfasted. 
Frodo half expected to see a small distant figure of a horseman on the ridge, dark against the sky. But there was no sign of one. The sun escaping from the breaking clouds, as it sank towards the hills they had left, was now shining brightly again. Their fear left them, though they still felt uneasy. But the land became steadily more tame and well-ordered. Soon they came into well-tended fields and meadows. There were hedges and gates and dikes for drainage. Everything seemed quiet and peaceful, just an ordinary corner of the Shire. Their spirits rose with every step. The line of the river grew nearer, and the black riders began to seem like phantoms of the woods now left far behind. They passed along the edge of a huge turnip field and came to a stout gate. Beyond it, a rutted lane ran between low, well-laid hedges towards a distant clump of trees. Pippin stopped. I know these fields and this gate, he said. This is Furlong, old farmer Maggot's land. That's his farm away there in the trees. Oh, one trouble after another, said Frodo, looking nearly as much alarmed as if Pippin had declared the lane was the slot leading to a dragon's den. The others looked at him in surprise. What's wrong with old Maggot? asked Pippin. He's a good friend to all the brandybucks. Of course, there's a terror to trespassers and keeps ferocious stalks, but after all, folk down here are near the border and have to be more on their guard. I know, said Frodo. But all the same, he added with a shame-faced laugh, I'm terrified of him and his dogs. I have avoided this farm for years and years. He caught me several times trespassing after mushrooms when I was younger at Brandy Hall. On the last occasion, he beat me and then took me and showed me to his dogs. See, lads, he said, next time this young varmint sets foot on my land, you can eat him. Now see him off. And they chased me all the way to the ferry. I've never got over the fright. Though I dare say the beasts knew their business and would not really have touched me. Pippin laughed. <laughs> well, it's time you made it up, especially if you are coming back to live in Buckland. Old Maga is really a state fellow. If you leave his mushrooms alone. Let's get into the lane and then we shan't be trespassing. If we meet him, I'll do the talking. He's a friend of Mary's and I used to come here with him a good deal at one time. They went along the lane. Until they saw the thatched roofs of a large house and farm buildings peeping out among the trees ahead. The maggots and the puddyfoots of stock and most of the inhabitants of the marish were house dwellers. And this farm was stoutly built of brick and had a high wall all around it. There was a wide wooden gate opening out of the wall into the lane. As they drew nearer, a terrific baying and barking broke out and a loud voice was heard shouting, Frodo and Sam stopped dead, but Pippin walked on a few paces. The gate opened and three huge dogs came pelting out into the lane and dashed towards the travellers, barking fiercely. They took no notice of Pippin, but Sam shrank against the wall, while two wolvish-looking dogs sniffed at him suspiciously and snarled if he moved. The largest and most ferocious of the three halted in front of Frodo, bristling and growling. Through the gate there now appeared a broad, thick-set hobbit with a round red face. Hello, hello. And who may you be and what may you be wanted? He asked. Oh, good afternoon, Minister Maggot, said Pippin. The farmer looked at him closely. Well, if it isn't Master Pippin. Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say. He cried, changing from a scowl to a grin. That's a long time since I saw you round here. It's lucky for you that I know you. I was just going out to set my dogs on any strangers. There are some funny things going on today. 
Of course, we do get queer folk wandering in these parts at times. Too near the river. He said, shaking his head. But this fellow was the most outlandish I've ever set eyes on. He won't cross my land without leave a second time, not if I can stop it. What fellow do you mean? Then you haven't seen him, said the farmer. He went up the lane towards the causeway not a long while back. He was a funny customer and asking funny questions. Perhaps you'll come along inside and we'll pass the news more comfortable. Have a drop of good ale on tap, if you and your friends are willing, Mr. Duke. It seemed plain that the farmer would tell them more, if allowed to do it in his own time and fashion. So they all accepted the invitation. Uh, what What about the docks? Asked Frodo anxiously. The <laughs> farmer laughed. They won't harm you. Not unless I tell them to. There! Rip, bang! Heel! He cried. Heel, wolf! To the relief of Frodo and Sam, the dogs walked away and let them go free. Pippin introduced the other two to the farmer. Mr. Frodo Baggins, he said. You may not remember him, but he used to live at Brandy Hall. At the name Baggins, the farmer started and gave Frodo a sharp glance. For a moment, Frodo thought that the memory of stolen mushrooms had been aroused and that the dogs would be told to see him off. But Farmer Maggot took him by the arm. Well, if that isn't queerer than ever, he exclaimed. Mr. Baggins, is it? Come inside. We must have a talk. They went into the farmer's kitchen and sat by the wide fireplace. Mrs. Maggot brought out beer in a huge jug and filled four large mugs. It was a good brew and Pippin found himself more than compensated for missing the golden perch. Sam sipped his beer suspiciously. He had a natural mistrust of the inhabitants of other parts of the Shire, and also he was not disposed to be quick friends with anyone who had beaten his master, however long ago. After a few remarks about the weather and the agricultural prospects, which were no worse than usual, Farmer Maggot put down his mug and looked at them all in turn. Now, Mr. Peregrine, he said, where might you be going from and where might you be going to? Were you coming to visit me? For if, if so, you had gone past my gate without my seeing you. Well, no, answered Pippin. To tell you the truth, since you have guessed it, we got into the lane from the other end. We had come over your fields, but that was quite by accident. We lost our way in the woods back near Woodhall, trying to get a shortcut to the ferry. Well, if you were in a hurry, the road would have served you better, said the farmer. But I wasn't worrying about that. You have leave to walk over my land, if you have a mind, Mr. Peregrine. And you, Mr. Beckins, though I dare say you still like mushrooms, he laughed. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, I recognize the name. I recollect the time when young Frodo Baggins was one of the worst young rascals in Buckland. But it wasn't the mushrooms I was thinking of. I just heard the name Baggins before you turned up. What do you think that funny customer asked me? They waited anxiously for him to go on. Well, the farmer continued, approaching his point with slow relish. He came riding on a big black horse, in at the gate, which happened to be open and right up to my door. All black he was himself too and cloaked and hooded up as if as if he did not want to be known. Now what in the Shire can they want? I thought to myself. We don't see many of the big folk over the border. And anyway, I had never heard of any like this black fellow. Good day to you, I says going out to her. This lane don't lead anywhere and wherever you may be going, 
Your quickest way will be back to the road. I didn't like the looks of him. And when Grip came out, he took one sniff and let out a yelp as if he had been stung. They put down his tail and bolted off howling. The blackfellow sat quite still. I come from yonder, he said, slow and stiff-like, pointing back west, over my fields, if you please. Have you seen Baggins? He asked in a queer voice and bent down towards me. I could not see any face, for his hood fell down so low, and I felt a sort of shiver down my back. But I did not see why he should come riding over my land so bold. Be off, I said. Or no Baggins is here. You've been, you're in the wrong part of the Shire. You had better go back west to Hobbiton, but you can go by road this time. Baggins has left, he answered in a whisper. He is coming. He is not far away. I wish to find him. If he passes, will you tell me? I will come back with gold. No, you won't, I said. You'll go back where you belong. Double quick. I'll give you one minute before I call all my dogs. He gave a sort of hiss. It might have been laughing and it might not. Then he spurred his great horse right at me. And I jumped out of the way only just in time. I called the dogs, but he swung off. And rode through the gate and up the lane towards the causeway, like a bolt of thunder. What do you think of that? Ferdo sat for a moment, looking at the fire. But his only thought was how on earth would they reach the ferry? I don't know what to think, he said at last. Then I'll tell you what to think. Then I'll tell you what to think, said Maggot. You should never have gone mixing yourself up with Hobbit and folk, Mr. Frodo. Folk are queer up there. Sam stirred in his chair and looked at the farmer with an unfriendly eye. But you were always a reckless lad. When I heard you had left the brandy box and got off to that old Mr. Bilbo, I said that you were going to find trouble. Mark my words, this all comes from those strange doings of Mr. Bilbo's. His money was got in some strange fashion in foreign parts, they say. Maybe there is some that want to know what has become of the golden jewel that he found buried in the hill in Hobbiton, as I hear. Frodo said nothing. The shrewd guesses of the farmer were rather disconcerting. Well, Mr. Frodo, Maggot went on, I'm glad that you've made the sense to come back to Buckland. My advice is, stay there. Don't get mixed up with these outlandish folk. You'll have friends in these parts. If any of these black fellows come after you again, I'll deal with them. I'll say you're dead, or I've left the Shire, or anything you like. For as like as not, it is old Mr. Bilbo they want news of. Maybe you're right, said Frodo, avoiding the farmer's eye and staring at the fire. Maggot looked at him thoughtfully. Mm, well, I see you have ideas of your own, he said. It is as plain as my nose that no accident brought you and that rider here on the same afternoon. And maybe my news was no great news to you, after all. I'm not asking you to tell me anything you have a mind to keep yourself, but I see you are in some kind of trouble. Perhaps you're thinking it won't be too easy to get to the ferry without being caught. I was thinking so, said Frodo. But we have got to try and get there, and it won't be done by sitting and thinking. So I'm afraid we must be going. Thank you very much indeed for your kindness. I've been in terror of you and your dogs for over thirty years, Farmer Maggot, though you may laugh to hear it. It's a pity. For I've missed a good friend. And now, I'm sorry to leave you so soon, but I'll come back, perhaps one day, if I get the chance. You'll be welcome when you come, said Maggot. But now I've a notion. 
It's near sundown already, and we're going to have our supper, for we mostly go to bed soon after the sun. If you and Mr. Peregrine and all would stay and have a bite with us, we would be pleased. And so should we, said Frodo. But we must be going at once, I'm afraid. Even now, it will be dark before we can reach the ferry. Ah, but wait a minute. I was going to say, after a bit of supper, I'll get out a small wagon, and I'll drive you all to the ferry, and that will save you a good step, and it might also save you trouble of another sort. Frodo now accepted the invitation gracefully. To the relief of Pippin and Sam, the sun was already behind the western hills, and the light was failing. Two of Maggot's sons and his three daughters came in, and a generous supper was laid on the large table. The kitchen was lit with candles, and the fire was mended. Mrs. Maggot bustled in and out. One or two other hobbits belonging to the farm household came in. In a short while, fourteen sat down to eat. There was beer aplenty, and a mighty dish of mushrooms and bacon. Besides much other solid farmhouse fare, the dogs lay by the fire and gnawed rinds and cracked bones. When they had finished, the farmer and his sons went out with a lantern and got the wagon ready. It was dark in the yard when the guests came out. They threw their packs on board and climbed in. The farmer sat in the driving seat and whipped up his two stout ponies. His wife stood in the light of the open door. You be careful of yourself, Maggot. She called. Don't go arguing with any foreigners and come straight back. I will, said he, and drove out of the gate. There was now no breath of wind stirring. The night was still and quiet, and a chill was in the air. They went without lights and took it slowly. After a mile or two, the lane came to an end, crossing a deep dike, and climbing a short slope up on to the high-banked causeway. Maggot got down and took a good look either way, north and south. But nothing could be seen in the darkness, and there was not a sound in the still air. Thin strands of river mist were hanging above the dikes and crawling over the fields. It's going to be thick, said Maggot, but I'll not light my lantern till I turn for home. We'll hear anything on the road long before we meet it tonight. It was five miles or more from Maggot's Lane to the ferry. The hobbits wrapped themselves up, but their ears were strained for any sound above the creak of the wheels and the slow clop of the pony's hoofs. The wagon seemed slower than a snail to Frodo. The wagon seemed slower than a snail to Frodo. Beside him, Pippin was nodding towards sleep, but Sam was staring forwards into the rising fog. They reached the entrance to the ferry lane at last. It was marked by two tall white posts that suddenly loomed up on their right. Farmer Maggot drew in his ponies, and the wagon creaked to a halt. They were just beginning to scramble out when suddenly they heard what they had all been dreading. Hoofs on the road ahead. The sound was coming towards them. Maggot jumped down and stood holding the ponies' heads and peering forward into the gloom. Clip-clop, clip-clop, came the approaching rider. The fall of the hoofs sounded loud in the still foggy air. You'd better be hidden, Mr. Frodo, said Sam anxiously. You get down in the wagon and cover up with blankets, and we'll send this rider to the rightabouts. He climbed out and went to the farmer's side. Black riders would have to ride over him to get near the wagon. Clop, 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 clop. The rider was nearly on them. Hello there, said the farmer. 
throwing the reins to Sam and striding forward. Won't you come a step nearer? What do you want, and where are you going? I want Mr. Baggins. Have you seen him? But the voice was the voice of Mary Brandybuck. A dark lantern was uncovered, and its light fell on the astonished face of the farmer. Mr. Mary! He cried. Yes, of course. Who did you think it was? Frodo sprang out of the wagon to greet him. So there you are at last, said Mary. I was beginning to wonder if you would turn up at all today. And I was just going back to supper. When it grew foggy, I came across the road towards Stock to see if you had fallen any ditches. But I'm blessed if I know which way you have come. Where did you find them, Mr. Maggot? And your duck pond? No, I caught on trespassing, said the farmer. I nearly set my dogs on him. But they'll tell you all the story, I've no doubt. Now, if you'll excuse me... Mr. Mary and Mr. Frodo and all, I'd best be turning for home. Mrs. Maggot will be worrying with the night getting thick. He backed the wagon into the lane and turned it. Well, good night to you all, he said. It's been a queer day, on no mistake. But all's well that ends well, though perhaps we should not say that until we reach our own doors. I'll not deny that I'll be glad now when I do. He lit his lanterns and got up. Suddenly, he produced a large basket from under the seat. Oh, I was nearly forgetting, he said. Mrs. Maggot put this up for Mr. Baggins, with her compliments. He handed it down and moved off, followed by a chorus of thanks and good nights. They watched the pale rings of light round his lanterns as they dwindled into the foggy night. Suddenly, Frodo laughed. From the covered basket he held, the scent of mushrooms was rising. Now we had better get home ourselves, said Mary. There's something funny about all this, I see, but it must wait till we get in. They turned down the ferry lane, which was straight and well kept, and edged with large whitewashed stones. In a hundred yards or so, it brought them to the river bank, where there was a broad wooden landing stage. A large flat ferry boat was moored beside it. The white bollards near the water's edge glimmered in the light of two lamps on high posts. Behind them, the mists in the flat fields were now above the hedges, but the water before them was dark, with only a few curling wisps like steam among the reeds by the bank. There seemed to be less fog on the further side. Mary led the pony over a gangway onto the ferry, and the others followed. Mary then pushed slowly off with a long pole. The brandywine flowed slow and broad before them. On the other side, the bank was steep, and up it a winding path climbed from the further landing. Lamps were twinkling there. Behind loomed up the Buck Hill, and out of it, through stray shrouds of mist, shone many round windows, yellow and red. They were the windows of Brandy Hall, the ancient home of the Brandy Bucks. Long ago, Gorhendad Old Buck head of the Old Buck family, one of the oldest in the Marish or indeed in the Shire, had crossed the river 
which was the original boundary of the land eastwards. He built and excavated Brandy Hall, changed his name to Brandybuck, and settled down to become master of what was virtually a small independent country. His family grew and grew, and after his days continued to grow until Brandy Hall occupied the whole of the low hill and had three large front doors, many side doors, and about a hundred windows. The Brandybucks and their numerous dependents then began to burrow, and later to build, all round about. That was the origin of Buckland, a thickly inhabited strip between the river and the old forest. A sort of colony from the Shire. Its chief village was Bucklebury, clustering in the banks and slopes behind Brandy Hall. The people in the Murrish were friendly with the Bucklanders, and the authority of the master of the hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy. But most of the folk of the old shire regarded the Bucklanders as peculiar, half-foreigners as it were, though as a matter of fact, they were not very different from the other hobbits of the Four Farthings, except in one point, they were fond of boats, and some of them could swim. Their land was originally unprotected from the east, but on that side they had built a hedge, the High Hay. It had been planted many generations ago, and was now thick and tall, for it was constantly tended. It ran all the way from Brandywine Bridge in a big loop curving away from the river to Hastened, where the Withy Windle flowed out of the forest into the Brandywine. Well over twenty miles from end to end. But of course, it was not a complete protection. The forest drew close from the hedge in many places. The Bucklanders kept their doors locked after dark, and that also was not usual in the Shire. The ferry boat moved slowly across the water. The Buckland shore drew nearer. Sam was the only member of the party who had not been over the river before. He had a strange feeling as the slow, gurgling stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mists. Dark adventure lay in front. He scratched his head, and for a moment had a passing wish that Mr. Frodo could have gone on living quietly at Bag End. The four hobbits stepped off the ferry. Mary was tying it up, and Pippin was already leading the pony up the path, when Sam, who had been looking back as if to take farewell of the Shire, said in a hoarse whisper, Look back, Mr. Frodo. Do you see anything? On the far stage, under the distant lamps, they could just make out a figure. It looked like a dark, black bundle left behind, but as they looked, it seemed to move and sway this way and that, as if searching the ground. It then crawled, or went crouching back into the gloom beyond the lamps. What in the Shire was that? exclaimed Mary. Something that's following us, said Frodo. But don't ask any more now. Let's get away at once. They hurried up the path to the top of the bank, but when they looked back, the far shore was shrouded in mist, and nothing could be seen. Thank goodness you don't keep any boats on the west bank, said Frodo. Can horses cross the river? Oh, they can go twenty miles north of the Brandywine Bridge. Or they might swim, answered Mary. Though I never heard of any horse swimming in the Brandywine. But what have horses to do with it? I'll tell you later. Let's get indoors and then we can talk. Uh, all right. Uh, you and Pippin know your way, so I'll just ride on and tell Fatty Bolger that you're coming. We'll see about supper and things. We had our supper early with Farmer Maggot, said Frodo. But we could do with another. You shall have it, 
Give me that basket, said Mary and rode ahead into the darkness. It was some distance from the Brandywine to Frodo's new house at Crick Hollow. They passed Buck Hill and Brandy Hall on their left, and on the outskirts of Buckleberry struck the main road of Buckland that ran south from the bridge. Half a mile northward along this, they came to a lane opening on their right. This they followed a couple of miles as it climbed up and down into the country. At last, they came to a narrow gate in a thick hedge. Nothing could be seen of the house in the dark. It stood back from the lane in the middle of a wide circle of lawns, surrounded by a belt of low trees inside the outer hedge. Frodo had chosen it because it stood in an out-of-the-way corner of the country, and there were no other dwellings close by. You could get in and out without being noticed. It had been built a long while before by the Brandybucks, for the use of guests or members of the family that wished to escape from the crowded life of Brandy Hall for a time. It was an old-fashioned, countrified house, as much like a hobbit hole as possible. It was long and low, with no upper story, and it had a roof of turf, round windows, and a large round door. As they walked up the green path from the gate, no light was visible. The windows were dark and shuttered. Frodo knocked on the door, and Fatty Bolger opened it. A friendly light streamed out. They slipped in quietly and shut themselves and the light inside. They were in a wide hall with doors on either side. In front of them, a passage ran back down the middle of the house. Well, what do you think of it? Asked Mary, coming up the passage. We've done our best in a short time to make it look like home. After all, Fatty and I only got here with the last cartload yesterday. Frodo looked round. It did look like home. Many of his own favorite things, or Bilbo's things, they reminded him sharply of him in their new setting. Were arranged as nearly as possible as they had been at Bag End. It was a pleasant, comfortable, welcoming place, and he found himself wishing that he was really coming here to settle down in quiet retirement. It seemed unfair to have put his friends to all this trouble, and he wondered again how he was going to break the news to them that he must leave them so soon, indeed at once. Yet that would have to be done that very night, before they all went to bed. It's delightful," he said with an effort. "I hardly feel that I have moved at all." <laughs> the travelers hung up their cloaks and piled their packs on the floor. Mary led them down the passage and threw open a door at the far end. Firelight came out, and a puff of steam. A bath! cried Pippin. Oh, blessed Meriadoc! Which order shall we go in? said Frodo. Eldest first or quickest first? You'll be the last either way, Master Peregrine. Trust me to arrange things better than that," said Mary. "We can't begin life at Crick Hollow with a quarrel over baths. In that room, there are three tubs and a copper full of boiling water. There are also towels, mats, and soap. Get inside and be quick." Right. Mary and Fatty went into the kitchen on the other side of the passage and busied themselves with the final preparations for a late supper. Snatches of competing songs came from the bathroom, mixed with the sound of splashing and wallowing. The voice of Pippin was suddenly lifted up above the others in one of Bilbo's favorite bath songs. Sing hey for the bath that flows of day that washes the weary mud away. Hey noon is he that will not sing. Oh water hot is a noble thing. Oh sweet is the sound of falling rain and the brook that leaps from hill to plain. But better than rain or rippling streams is water hot that smokes and steams. 
water cold wave made for at me down a thirsty throat and glad indeed but better is beer if drink we like and water hot pour down the back a water fair that leaps on high with a fountain wide beneath the sky but never did fountain sound so sweet as splashing hot water with my feet there was a terrific splash and a shout of from Frodo it appeared that a lot of Pippin's bath had imitated a fountain and left on high. Merry went to the door. What about supper and beer in the throat? He called. Frodo came out drying his hair. There's so much water in the air. I'm coming into the kitchen to finish. He said. Locks! Said Merry, looking in. The stone floor was swimming. You ought to mop all that up before you get anything to eat, Peregrine. He said. Hurry up or we shan't wait for you. They had supper in the kitchen on the table near the fire. I suppose you three don't want mushrooms again, said Fridigar, without much hope. Yes, we shall, cried Pippin. They're mine, said Frodo, given to me by Mrs. Maggot, a queen among farmers' wives. Take your greedy hands away and I'll serve them. Hobbits have a passion for mushrooms, surpassing even the greediest likings of big people, a fact which partly exclaims young Frodo's long expedition to the renowned fields of the Marish, and the wrath of the injured maggot. On this occasion, there was plenty for all, even according to Hobbit standards. There were also many other things to follow. And when they had finished, even Fatty Bolger heaved a sigh of content. They pushed back the table and drew chairs around the fire. We'll clean up later, said Mary. Now, tell me all about it. I guess that you have been having adventures, which was not quite fair without me. I want a full account, and most of all, I want to know what was the matter with old Maggot, and why he spoke to me like that. He sounded almost as if he was scared. That was possible. We have all been scared, said Pippin after a pause, in which Frodo stared at the fire and did not speak. You would have been too, if you had been chased before two days by black riders. And what are they? Black figures, riding on black horses, answered Pippin. If Frodo won't talk, I will tell you the whole tale from the beginning. He then gave a full account of their journey from the time when they left Hobbiton. Sam gave various supporting nods and exclamations. Frodo remained silent. I should think you were making it all up, said Mary. If I had not seen that black shape on the landing stage and heard that queer sound in Maggot's voice... What do you make of it all, Frodo? Cousin Frodo has been very close, said Pippin. But the time has come for him to open out. So far we have been given nothing more to go on than Farmer Maggot's guess that it was something to do with old Bilbo's treasure. That was only a guess, said Frodo hastily. Maggot doesn't know anything. Old Maggot is a shrewd fellow, said Merry. A lot goes on behind his round face that does not come out in his talk. I've heard that he used to go into the old forest at one time. And he has the reputation of knowing a good many strange things. But you can at least tell us, Frodo, whether you think his guess is good or bad. I think, answered Frodo slowly, that it was a good guess as far as it goes. There is a connection with Bilbo's old adventures, and the riders are looking, or perhaps one ought to say, searching for him. Or for me. I also fear, if you want to know, that it is no joke at all, and that I am not safe here, nor anywhere else. 
He looked round at the windows and walls as if he was afraid they would suddenly give way. The others looked at him in silence and exchanged meaning glances among themselves. It's coming out in a minute, whispered Pippin to Mary. Mary nodded. Well, said Frodo at last, sitting up and straightening his back as if he had made a decision. I can't keep it dark any longer. I have got something to tell you all. But I don't quite know how to begin. I think I could help you, said Mary quietly. By telling some of it myself. What do you mean? said Frodo, looking at him anxiously. Just this, my dear old Frodo. You're miserable, because you don't know how to say goodbye. You meant to leave the Shire, of course. But danger has come on you sooner than you expected. And now you are making up your mind to go at once. And you don't want to. We are very sorry for you. Frodo opened his mouth and shut it again. His look of surprise was so comical that they laughed. <laughs> Dear old Frodo, said Pippin. Did you really think you had thrown dust in all our eyes? You've not been nearly careful or clever enough for that. You have obviously been planning to go and saying farewell to all your haunts all this year since April. We have constantly heard you muttering, shall I ever look down into that valley again, I wonder, and things like that. And pretending that you had come to the end of your money. And actually selling your beloved bag end to the Sackville Bagginses. And all those close talks with Gandalf? Good heavens! said Frodo. I thought I had been both careful and clever. I don't know what Gandalf would say. Is all the Shire discussing my departure then? Oh no, said Mary. Don't worry about that. The secret won't keep for long, of course. But at present, it is, I think, only known to us conspirators. After all, you must remember that we know you well, and are often with you. We can usually guess what you are thinking. I knew Bilbo, too. To tell you the truth, I had been watching you rather closely ever since he left. I thought you would go after him sooner or later. Indeed, I expected you to go sooner. Lately, we've been very anxious. We have been terrified that you might give us the slip and go off suddenly, all on your own like he did. Ever since this spring, we have kept our eyes open and done a good deal of planning on our own account. You're not going to escape so easily. But I must go, said Frodo. It cannot be helped, dear friends. It is wretched for us all, but it is no use your trying to keep me. Since you have guessed so much, please help me and do not hinder me. You do not understand, said Pippin. You must go, and therefore we must too. Mary and I are coming with you. Sam is an excellent fellow and would jump down a dragon's throat to save you. If he did not trip over his own feet, you will need more than one companion on your dangerous adventure. Oh, my dear and most beloved hobbits, said Frodo, deeply moved. But I could not allow it. I decided that long ago, too. You speak of danger, yet you do not understand. There is no treasure hunt, no there and back journey. I am flying from deadly peril into deadly peril. Of course we understand, said Mary firmly. That is why we've decided to come. We know the ring is no laughing matter, but we are going to do our best to help you against the enemy. The ring, said Frodo, now completely amazed. Yes, the ring, said Mary. My dear old hobbit, you don't allow for the inquisitiveness of friends. I've known about the existence of the ring for years. 
before Bilbo went away, in fact. But since he obviously regarded it as a secret, I kept the knowledge in my head until we formed our conspiracy. I did not know Bilbo, of course, as well as I know you. I was too young, and he was also more careful. But he was not careful enough. If you want to know how I first found out, I will tell you. Go on, said Frodo faintly. It was the Sackville Bagginses that were his downfall, as you might expect. One day, a year before the party, I happened to be walking along the road. When I saw Bilbo ahead, suddenly in the distance, the SBs appeared, coming towards us. Bilbo slowed down. And then, hey, presto, he vanished. I was so startled that I hardly had the wits to hide myself in a more ordinary fashion. But I got through the hedge and walked along the field inside. I was peeping through into the road after the SBs had passed and was looking straight at Bilbo when he suddenly reappeared. I caught a glint of gold as he put something back in his trouser pocket. After that, I kept my eyes open. In fact, I confessed that I spied. But you must admit that it is very intriguing, and I was only in my teens. I must be the only one in the Shire besides you, Frodo, that has ever seen the old fellow's secret book. You have read his book? cried Frodo. Good heavens above! Is nothing safe? Hmm. Not too safe, I should say, said Merry. But I've only had one rapid glance, and that was difficult to get. He never left the book about. I wonder what became of it. I should like another look. Have you got it, Frodo? No, it was not at Bag End. He must have taken it away. Well, as I was saying, Merry proceeded, I kept my knowledge to myself. Till spring, when things got serious. Then we formed our conspiracy. And as we were serious too, and meant business, we have not been too scrupulous. You're not a very easy nut to crack, and Gandalf is worse. But if you want to be introduced to our chief investigator, I can produce him. Well, where is he? Said Frodo, looking round, as if he expected a masked and sinister figure to come out of a cupboard. Step forward, Sam, said Merry, and Sam stood up with a face scarlet up to the ears. Here's our collector of information, and he collected a lot, I can tell you, before he was finally caught. After which I may say he seemed to regard himself as on parole and dried up. Sam! cried Frodo, feeling that amazement could get no further, and quite unable to decide whether he felt angry, amused, relieved, or merely foolish. Yes, sir, said Sam. Begging your pardon, sir, but I meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo, nor to nor to Mr. Gandalf, for that matter. He has some sense, mind you, and when you said go alone, he said no. Take someone as you can trust. But it does not seem that I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. Oh, it all depends on what you want, put in Merry. You can trust us to stick to you, through thick and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours, closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We're your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid. But we are coming with you. Or following you like hounds. After all, sir, added Sam, you did all to take the elves' advice. Gildor said you should take them as willing, and you can't deny it. I don't deny it, said Frodo, looking at Sam, who was now grinning. I don't deny it. But I'll never believe you are sleeping again. Whether you snore or not, I shall kick you hard to make sure. (laughs) 
you are a set of deceitful scoundrels, he said, turning to the others. <laughs> but bless you, he laughed, getting up and waving his arms. <laughs> I give in. I will take Gildor's advice. If the danger were not so dark, I should dance for joy. Even so, I cannot help feeling happy. Happier than I have felt for a long time. Oh, I had dreaded this evening. Good. That's settled. They shouted, and they danced around him. Merry and Pippin began a song, which they had apparently got ready for the occasion. It was made on the model of the dwarf song that started Bilbo on his adventure long ago, and went to the same tune. Farewell we call to hearth and hall, the wind may blow and rain may fall. We must away ere break of day, far over wood and mountain to Rivendell where elves yet dwell, in glades beneath the misty fell. Through moor and waste we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell. With foes ahead behind us tread, beneath the sky shall be our bed. Until at last our toil be past, our journey done, our errand sped. We must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. Very good, said Frodo, but in that case there are a lot of things to do before we go to bed, under a roof for tonight or at any rate. Oh, that was poetry, said Pippin. Do you really mean to start before the break of day? I don't know. I fear those black riders and I'm sure it is unsafe to stay in one place long especially in a place which it is known I was going. Also, Gildor advised me not to wait, but I should very much like to see Gandalf. I could see that even Gildor was disturbed when he heard that Gandalf had never appeared. It really depends on two things. How soon could the riders get to Bucklebury? And how soon should we get off? It will take a good deal of preparation. The answer to your second question, said Mary, is that we could get off in an hour. I've prepared practically everything. There are six ponies in the stable across the fields. Doors and tackle are all packed, except for a few extra clothes and the perishable food. It seems to have been a very efficient conspiracy, said Frodo. But what about the Black Riders? Would it be safe to wait one day for Gandalf? Oh, that all depends on what you think the Riders would do if they found you here, answered Merry. They could have reached here by now, of course, if they were not stopped at the north gate, where the hedge runs out to the river bank. Just this side of the bridge. The gate guards would not let them through by night. Though they might break through, even in the daylight they would try to keep them out, I think. At any rate, until they got the message through to the master of the hole, for they would not like the look of the riders, and would certainly be frightened of them. But of course, Buckland cannot resist a determined attack for long, and it is possible that in the morning even a black rider that rode up and asked for Mr. Baggins would be let through. It is pretty generally known that you are coming back to live at Crick Hollow. Frodo sat for a while in thought. I have made up my mind, he said finally. I'm starting tomorrow, as soon as it is light. But I'm not going by road. It would be safer to wait here than that. If I go through the north gate, my departure from Buckland will be known at once. 
instead of being secret for several days at least, as it might be. And what is more, the bridge and the east road near the borders will certainly be watched, whether any rider gets into Buckland or not. We don't know how many there are, but there are at least two, and possibly more. The only thing to do is to go off in a quite unexpected direction. But, but that can be... But, but that can only mean going into the old forest! Said Fredegar, horrified. You can't be thinking of doing that. It is quite as dangerous as Black Riders. Not quite, said Mary. It sounds very desperate, but I believe Frodo is right. It is the only way of getting off without being allowed at once. With luck, we might get a considerable start. Uh, but, but, but you won't have any luck in the old forest, objected Fredegar. No one ever has luck in there. You'll get lost. People don't go in there. Oh, yes, they do, said Mary. The brandy bucks go in occasionally when the fit takes them. We have a private entrance. Frodo went in once, long ago. I've been in several times, usually in daylight, of course, when the trees are sleepy and fairly quiet. <laughs> well, do as you think best, said Fredegar. I'm more afraid of the old forest than of anything I know about. The stories about it are a nightmare. My vote hardly counts as I'm not going on the journey. Still, I'm very glad someone is stopping behind to tell Gandalf what you've done when he turns up, as I'm sure he will before long. Fond as he was of Frodo, Fratty Bolger had no desire of leaving the Shire, nor to see what lay outside it. His family came from East Farthing, from Budgeford and Bridgefields, in fact, but he had never been over the Brandywine Bridge. His task, according to the original plans of the conspirators, was to stay behind and deal with inquisitive folk, and to keep up as long as possible the pretense that Mr. Baggins was still living at Crick Hollow. He had even brought along some old clothes of Frodo's to help him in playing the part, they little thought how dangerous that part might prove. Excellent, said Frodo, when he understood the plan. He could not have left any message behind for Gandalf otherwise. I don't know whether these riders can read or not, of course, but I should not have dared to risk a written message in case they got in and searched the house. But if Fatty is willing to hold on the fort, and I can be sure of Gandalf knowing the way we have gone, that decides me. I'm going into the old forest. First thing tomorrow. Well, that's that said Pippin. On the whole, I would rather have our job than Fatty's, waiting here till Black Riders come. You wait well till you are well inside the forest, said Fredegar. You'll wish you were back here with me before this time tomorrow. It's no good arguing about it anymore, said Mary. We have still got to tidy up and put the finishing touches to the packing before we get to bed. I shall call you all before the break of day. When at last he had gone to bed, Frodo could not sleep for some time. His legs ached. He was glad that he was riding in the morning. Eventually, he fell into a vague dream, in which he seemed to be looking out of a high window over a dark sea of tangled trees. Down below, among the roots, there was the sound of creatures crawling and sniffing. He felt sure they would smell him out sooner or later. Then he heard a noise in the distance. At first he thought it was a great wind coming over the leaves of the forest. Then he knew that it was not leaves, but the sound of the sea, far off. A sound he had never heard in waking life, though it had often troubled his dreams. Suddenly he found he was out in the open. There were no trees after all. He was on a dark hearth, and there was a strange salt smell in the air. 
Looking up, he saw before him a tall white tower, standing alone on a high ridge. A great desire came over him to climb towards the tower, but suddenly a light came in the sky, and there was a noise of thunder. Frodo woke suddenly. It was still dark in the room. Mary was standing there with a candle in one hand and banging on the door with the other. All right. What is it? Said Frodo, still shaken and bewildered. What is it? Cried Mary. It's time to get up. It's half past four and very foggy. Come on. Sammy's already getting breakfast ready. Even Pippin is up. I'm just going to saddle the ponies and fetch the one that is to be the baggage carrier. Wake that sluggard fatty. At least he must get up and see us off. Soon after six o'clock, the five hobbits were ready to start. Fatty Bolger was still yawning. They stole quietly out of the house. Mary went in front, leading a laden pony, and took his way along a path that went through a spinney behind the house and then cut across several fields. The leaves of trees were glistening, and every twig was dripping. The grass was grey with cold dew. Everything was still, and faraway noises seemed near and clear, Fowls chattering in a yard, someone closing a door of a distant house. In their shed they found the ponies, sturdy little beasts of the kind loved by hobbits, not speedy, but good for a long day's work. They mounted, and soon they were riding off into the mist, which seemed to open reluctantly before them and close forbiddingly behind them. After riding for about an hour, slowly and without talking, they saw the hedge looming suddenly ahead. It was tall and netted over with silver cobwebs. How are you going to get through this? asked Fredegar. Follow me, said Mary, and you will see. He turned to the left along the hedge, and soon they came to a point where it bent inwards, running along the lip of a hollow. A cutting had been made at some distance from the hedge, and went slopingly gently down into the ground. It had walls of bricks at the sides which rose steadily, until suddenly they arced over and formed a tunnel that dived deep under the hedge and came out in the hollow on the other side. Here, Fatty Bolger halted. Goodbye, Frodo, he said. I wish you were not going into the forest. I only hope you will not need rescuing before the day is out. Good luck to you, today and every day. If there are no worse things ahead than the old forest, I shall be lucky, said Frodo. Tell Gandalf to hurry along the east road. We shall soon be back on it and going as fast as we can. Goodbye, 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 they cried, and rode down the slope and disappeared from Fredegar's sight into the tunnel. It was dark and damp. At the far end it was closed by a gate of thick set iron bars. Mary got down and unlocked the gate, and when they all had passed through, he pushed it to again. It shut with a clang, and the lock clicked. The sound was ominous. There, said Mary. You have left the Shire and are now outside and on the edge of the old forest. Are the stories about it true? asked Pippin. I don't know what stories you mean, Mary answered. If you mean the old bogey stories Fatty's nurses used to tell him about goblins and wolves and things of that sort, I should say no. At any rate, I don't believe them. But the forest is queer. Everything in it is very much more alive and more aware of what's going on, so to speak, than things that are in the Shire. 
And the trees do not like strangers. They watch you. They are usually content merely to watch you as long as daylight lasts, and don't do much. Occasionally the most unfriendly ones may drop a branch, or stick a root out, or grasp you with a long trailer. But at night, things can be most alarming, or so I'm told. I've only once or twice been here after dark, and then only near the hedge. I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, passing news and plots along the unintelligible language, and the branches swayed and groped without any wind. They do say the trees do actually move, and can surround strangers and hem them in. In fact, not long ago they attacked the hedge. They came and planted themselves right by it and leaned over it. But the hobbits came and cut down hundreds of trees and made a great bonfire in the forest and burned all the ground in a long strip east of the hedge. After that, the trees gave up the attack, but they became very unfriendly. There is still a wide bare space, not far inside, where a bonfire was made. Is it only the trees that are dangerous? asked Pippin. There are various queer things living deep in the forest, and on the far side, said Mary, or at least I've heard so, but I've never seen any of them. But something makes paths. Whenever one comes inside, one finds open tracks, but they seem to shift and change from time to time in a queer fashion. Not far from this tunnel there is, or was for a long time, the beginnings of a quite broad path leading to the bonfire glade, and then on more or less in our direction, east and a little north. That is the path I'm trying to find. The hobbits now left the tunnel gates and rode across the wide hollow. On the far side there was a faint path leading up to the floor of the forest, a hundred yards and more beyond the hedge. But it vanished as soon as it brought them under the trees. Looking back, they could see the dark line of hedge through the stems of trees that were already thick about them. Looking ahead, they could see only tree trunks of innumerable sizes and shapes, straight or bent, twisted, leaning squat or slender, smooth or gnarled and branched, and all the stems were green or grey with moss and slimy shaggy growths. Mary alone seemed fairly cheerful. You had better lead on and find that path, Frodo said to him. Don't let us lose one another. I forget which way the hedge lies. They picked away among the trees, and their ponies plodded along, carefully avoiding the many writhing and interlacing roots. There was no undergrowth. The ground was rising steadily, and as they went forward it seemed that the trees became taller, darker, and thicker. There was no sound, except an occasional drip of moisture falling through the still leaves. For the moment there was no whispering or movement among the branches, but they all got an uncomfortable feeling that they were being watched with disapproval, deepening to dislike and even enmity. The feeling steadily grew until they found themselves looking up quickly or glancing back over their shoulders as if they expected a sudden blow. There was not as yet any sign of a path, and the trees seemed constantly to bar their way. Pippin suddenly felt that he could not bear it any longer and without warning let out a shout. Oi! Oi! I'm not going to do anything! Just let me pass through, will you? The others halted, startled, but the cry fell as if muffled by a heavy curtain. There was no echo or answer, though the woods seemed to become more crowded and more watchful than before. I should not shout if I were you, said Mary. It does more harm than good. Frodo began to wonder if it were possible to find a way through, and if he had been right to make the others come into this abominable wood. 
Mary was looking from side to side, and seemed already uncertain which way to go. Pippin noticed it. It has not taken you long to lose us, he said. But at that moment, Mary gave a whistle of relief and pointed ahead. Well, well, he said. These trees do shift. There is a bonfire glade in front of us, or I hope so. But the path to it seems to have moved away. The light grew clearer as they went forward. Suddenly, they came out of the trees and found themselves in a wide, circular space. There was sky above them, blue and clear to their surprise. For down under the forest roof, they had not been able to see the rising morning and the lifting of the mist. The sun was not, however, high enough yet to shine down into the clearing, though its light was on tree tops. The leaves were all thicker and greener about the edges of the glade, enclosing it with an almost solid wall. No tree grew there; only rough grass and many tall plants, stocky and faded hemlocks, and wood parsley, fireweed sending into fluffy ashes, and rampant nettles and thistles. A dreary place, but it seemed a charming and cheerful garden after the close forest. The hobbits felt encouraged, and looked up hopefully at the broadening daylight in the sky. At the far side of the glade, there was a break in the wall of trees and a clear path beyond it. They could see it running on into the wood, wide in places and open above. Though every now and again the trees drew in and overshadowed it with their dark boughs. Up this path, they rode. Up this path they rode. They were still climbing gently, but they now went much quicker and with better heart, for it seemed to them that the forest had relented and was going to let them pass unhindered after all. But after a while, the air began to get hot and stuffy. The trees drew close again on either side, and they could no longer see far ahead. Now stronger than ever, they felt again the ill will of the wood pressing on them. So silent was it that the fall of their ponies' hoofs, rustling on dead leaves, and occasionally stumbling on hidden roots, seemed to thud in their ears. Frodo tried to sing a song to encourage them, but his voice sank to a murmur. The wanderers in the shadowed land, despair not, for though dark they stand, all woods there be must end at last. And see the open sun go past, the setting sun, the rising sun, the day's end or the day begun. For at for east or west, all woods must fail. Fail. Even as he said the word, his voice faded into silence. The air seemed heavy, and the making of wood wearisome. Just behind them, a large branch fell from an old overhanging tree with a crash into the path. The tree seemed to close in before them. They do not like all that about yending and failing," said Mary. "I should not sing any more at present. Wait till we get to the edge, and then we'll turn and give them a rousing chorus." He spoke cheerfully, and if he felt any great anxiety. He did not show it. The others did not answer. They were depressed. A heavy weight was settling steadily on Frodo's heart, and he regretted now, with every step forward, that he had ever thought of challenging the menace of the trees. He was indeed just about to stop and propose going back, if that was still possible, when things took a new turn. The path stopped climbing, and became for a while nearly level. The dark trees drew aside, 
and ahead they could see the path going almost straight forward. Before them, but some distance off, there stood a green hilltop, treeless, rising like a bald head out of the encircling wood. The path seemed to be making directly for it. They now hurried forward again, delighted, with the thought of climbing out for a while above the roof of the forest. The path dipped, and then again began to climb upwards, leading them at last to the foot of the steep hillside. There it left the trees and faded into the turf. The wood stood all around the hill like thick hair that ended sharply in a circle around a shaven crown. The hobbits led their ponies up, winding round and round until they reached the top. There they stood and gazed about them. The air was gleaming and sunlit, but hazy, and they could not see to any great distance. Near at hand, the mist was now almost gone, though here and there it lay in hollows of the wood, and to the south of them, out of a deep fold cutting right across the forest, the fog still rose like steam or wisps of white smoke. That, said Merry, pointing with his hand, that is the line of the windy window. It comes down out of the downs and flows southwest through the midst of the forest to join the brandy wine below hastened. We don't want to go that way. With the Withywindle Valley, it is said to be the queerest part of the whole wood, the center of which all the queerness comes, as it were. The others looked in the direction that Mary pointed out, but they could see little but mists over the damp and deep-cut valley, and beyond the southern half of the forest faded from view. The sun on the hilltop was now getting hot. It must have been about eleven o'clock, but the autumn haze still prevented them from seeing much in other directions. In the west they could not make out either the line of the hedge or the, or the valley of the Brandywine beyond it. Northward, where they looked most hopefully, they could see nothing that might, that might be the line of the great east road of which they were making. They were on an island in a sea of trees, and the horizon was veiled. On the southeastern side the ground fell very steeply as if the slopes of the hill were continued far down under the trees, like island shores that really are the sides of a mountain rising out of deep waters. They sat on the green edge and looked out over the woods below them while they ate their midday meal. As the sun rose and passed noon, they glimpsed far off in the eastern the grey-green lines of the downs that lay beyond the old forest on that side. That cheered them greatly, for it was good to see a sight of anything beyond the wood's borders, though they did not mean to go that way, if they could help it. The Barrow Downs had a sinister reputation in Hobbit legend as the forest itself. At length, they made up their minds to go on again. The path that had brought them to the hill reappeared on the northward side, but they had not followed it far before they became aware that it was bending steadily to the right. Soon it began to descend rapidly, and they guessed that it must actually be heading towards the Withywindle Valley, not at all the direction they wished to take. After some discussion, they decided to leave this misleading path and strike northward. For although they had not been able to see it in front of the hilltop, the road must lie that way, and it could not be many miles off. Also northward and to the left of the path, the land seemed to be drier and more open, climbing up to slopes where the trees were thinner and pines and firs replaced the oaks and ashes and other strange and nameless trees of denser wood. At first their choice seemed to be good. They got along at a fair speed, though whenever they got a glimpse of the sun in an open glade, they seemed unaccountably to have veered eastwards. 
But after a time, the trees began to close in again, just where they had appeared from distance to be thinner and less tangled. The deep folds in the ground were discovered unexpectedly, like the ruts of great giant wheels or wide moats and sunken roads, long disused and choked with brambles. These lay unusually right across their line of march, and could not be crossed by scrambling down and out again, which was troublesome and difficult with their ponies. Each time they climbed down, they found the hollow filled with thick brushes and matted undergrowth, which somehow would not yield to the left, but only gave way when they turned to the right. And they had to go some distance along the bottom before they could find a way up the further bank. Each time they clambered out, the trees seemed deeper and darker, and always to the left and upwards it was most difficult to find a way, and they were forced to the right and downwards. After an hour or two, they had lost all clear sense of direction, though they knew well enough that they had long ceased to go northward at all. They were being headed off, and were simply following a course chosen for them, eastwards and southwards into the heart of the forest and not out of it. The afternoon was wearing away when they scrambled and stumbled into a fold that was wider and deeper than any they had yet met. It was so steep and overhung that it proved impossible to climb out of it again, either forwards or backwards, without leaving their ponies and their baggage behind. All they could do was to follow the fold downwards. The ground grew soft and in places boggy Springs appeared in the banks, and soon they found themselves following a brook that trickled and babbled through a weedy bed. Then the ground began to fall rapidly, and the brook, growing strong and noisy, flowed and leaped swiftly downhill. They were in a deep, dim-lit gully overarched with trees high above them. After stumbling along for some way along the stream, they came quite suddenly out of the gloom. As if through a gate, they saw the sunlight before them. Coming to the opening, they found that they had made their way down through a cleft in a high-speed bank, across a cliff. At its feet was a wide space of grass and reeds, and in the distance could be glimpsed another bank, almost as steep. A golden afternoon of late sunshine lay warm and drowsy upon the hidden land between. In the midst of it there wound lazily a dark river of brown water, bordered with ancient willows, arced over with willows, blocked with fallen willows, and flecked with thousands of faded willow leaves. The air was thick with them, fluttering yellow from the branches, for there was a warm and gentle breeze blowing softly in the valley, and the reeds were rustling and the willow bows were creaking. Well, now I have at least some notion of where we are, said Mary. We've come almost in the opposite direction in which we intended. This is the river Withywindle. I will go on and explore. He passed out into the sunshine and disappeared into the long grasses. After a while he reappeared and reported that there was fairly solid ground between the cliff foot and the river. In some places, firm turf went down to the water's edge. What's more, he said, there seems to be something like a footpath winding along this side of the river. If we turn left and follow it, we shall be bound to come out on the east side of the forest eventually. I dare say, said Pippin, that this is the track goes so far and does not simply lead us into a bog and leave us there. Who made the track, do you suppose, and why? I'm sure it was not for our benefit. 
I'm getting very suspicious of this forest and everything in it. And I begin to believe all the stories about it. And have you any idea how far eastward we should have to go? No, said Mary. I haven't. I don't know in the least how far down the Withy Winter we are, or who could possibly come here often enough to make a path along it. But there is no other way out that I can see or think of. There being nothing else for it, they filed out and Mary led them to the path that he had discovered. Everywhere the reeds and grasses were lush and tall, in places far above their heads. But once found, the path was easy to follow, as it turned and twisted, picking out the sounder ground among the bogs and pools. Here and there it passed over other rills, running down gullies into the withywindle out of the higher forest lands. And at these points, there were tree trunks or bundles of brushwood laid carefully across. The hobbits began to feel very hot. There were armies of flies, of all kinds, buzzing around their ears, and the afternoon sun was burning on their backs. At last they came suddenly into a thin shade. Great grey branches reached across the path. Each step forward became more reluctant than the last. Sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs and falling softly out of the air upon their heads and eyes. Frodo felt his chin go down and his head nod. Just in front of him, Pippin fell forward onto his knees. Frodo halted. It's no good, he heard Mary saying. Can't go another step without rest. Must have nap. It's cool under the willows. This flies. Frodo did not like the sound of this. Come on, he cried. We can't have a nap yet. We must get clear of the forest first. But the others were too far gone to care. Beside them, Sen stood yawning and blinking stupidly. Suddenly, Frodo himself felt sleep overwhelm him. His head swam. There now seemed hardly a sound in the air. The flies had stopped buzzing. Only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing, a soft fluttering as of a song half-whispered, seemed to stir in the boughs above. He lifted his heavy eyes and saw leaning over him a huge willow tree, old and hoary. Enormous it looked, its sprawling branches going up like reaching arms with many long-fingered hands. Its knotted and twisted trunk, graping in wide fissures that leaked faintly as the bows moved. The leaves, fluttering against the bright sky, dazzled him, and he toppled over, lying where he fell upon the grass. Merry and Pippin dragged themselves forward and lay down with their backs to the willow trunk. Behind them, the great cracks gaped wide to receive them as the tree swayed and creaked. They looked up at the grey and yellow leaves, moving softly against the light and singing. They shut their eyes, and then it seemed that they could almost hear words, cool words, saying something about water and sleep. They gave themselves up to the spell and fell fast asleep at the foot of the great grey willow. Frodo lay for a while, fighting with the sleep that was overpowering him. Then, with an effort, he struggled to his feet again. He felt a compelling desire for cool water. Oh, wait for me, Sam, he stammered. Must bathe feet a minute. Half in a dream, he wandered forward to the river ward's side of the tree, 
where the great winding roots grew into the stream, like gnarled dragonets straining down to drink. He straddled one of these and paddled his hot feet into the cool brown water, and there he too suddenly fell asleep with his back against the tree. Sam sat down and scratched his head and yawned like a cavern. He was worried. The afternoon was getting late, and he thought this sudden sleepiness uncanny. There's more behind this than sun and warm air, he muttered to himself. I don't like this great big tree. I don't trust it. Hark at it singing about sleep now. This won't do at all. He pulled himself to his feet and staggered off to see what had become of the ponies. He found that two had wandered on a good way along the path, and he had just caught them and brought them back towards the others. When he heard two noises, one loud and the other soft but very clear, one was a splash of something heavy falling into the water. The other was a noise like the snick of a lock when a door quietly closes fast. He rushed back to the bank. Frodo was in the water close to the hedge. And a great tree root seemed to be over him and holding him down. But he was not struggling. Sam gripped him by the jacket and dragged him from under the root. And then with difficulty, hauled him onto the bank. Almost at once he woke and coughed and spluttered. Do you know, Sam? He said at length. The beastly tree threw me in. I felt it. The big root just twisted around and tipped me in. You were dreaming, I expect, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. You shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy. But what about the others? Frodo asked. I wonder what sort of dreams they were having. Where they ran round to the other side of the tree and then Sam undertook the click they had heard. Pippin had vanished. The crack by which he had laid himself had closed together so that not a chink could be seen. Mary was trapped. Another crack had closed about his waist. His legs lay outside, but the rest of him was inside a dark opening, the edges of which gripped like a pair of pincers. Frodo and Sam beat first upon the tree trunk where Pippin had lain. They then struggled frantically to pull open the jaws of the crack that held poor Mary. It was quite useless. What a foul thing to happen, cried Frodo wildly. Why did we ever come to this dreadful forest? I wish we were all back in Crickolo. <laughs> he kicked the tree with all his strength, eager to his own feet. A hardly perceptible shiver ran through the stream and up to the branches. The leaves rustled and whispered, with a sound of now faint and far-off laughter. I suppose we haven't got an axe among our luggage, Mr. Frodo? Asked Sam. I brought a little hatchet for chopping firewood, said Frodo. That wouldn't be much use. Wait a minute, cried Sam, struck by an idea suggested by Firewood. We might do something with fire. We might, said Frodo doubtfully. We might succeed in roasting Pippin alive inside. We might try to hurt or frighten this tree to begin with, said Sam fiercely. If it don't let them go, I'll have it down, if I have to ignore it. He ran to the ponies and before long came back with two tinder boxes and a hatchet. Quickly they gathered dry grass and leaves and bits of bark and made a pile of broken twigs and chopped sticks. These they had heaped against the trunk on the far side of the tree and for the prisoners. As soon as Sam had struck a spark into the tinder, it kindled the dry grass and a flurry of flame and smoke went up. The twigs cackled. Little fingers of fire licked against the dry scored rind of the ancient tree and scorched it. A tremor ran through the whole willow. The leaves... The leaves seemed to hiss above their heads with a sound of pain and anger. A loud scream came from Mary, and from far inside the tree they heard Pippin give a muffled yell, 
Put it out! Put it out! Cried Mary. He'll squeeze me if you don't! He says no! Who? What? Shouted Frodo, rushing round to the corner of the side of the tree. Put it out! Put it out! Begged Mary. The branches of the willow began to sway violently. There was a sound as of a wind rising and spreading outwards to the branches of all the other trees at round about, as though they had dropped a stone into a quiet slumber of the river valley and set up ripples of anger that ran out over the whole forest. Sam kicked at the little fire and stamped out the sparks. But Frodo, without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for, ran along the path crying, Help! 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 It seemed to him that he could hardly hear the sound of his own shrill voice. It was blown away from him by the willow wind and drowned in the clamor of leaves as soon as the words left his mouth. He felt desperate, lost, and witless. Suddenly he stopped. There was an answer, or so he thought, but it seemed to come from behind him, away down the path further back into the forest. He turned round and listened, and soon there could be no doubt. Someone was singing a song. A deep, glad voice was singing carelessly and happily, but it was singing nonsense. Half hopeful and half afraid of some new danger, Frodo and Sam now both stood still. Suddenly out of a long string of nonsense words, or so they seemed, the voice rose up loud and clear and burst into the song. Shining in the sunlight, waiting on the force of the coldest of eyes. There the pretty lady is, river woman's daughter. Slender as the willow one, clearer as the water. Oh, Tom Bombadil, water lily springing. Come along, hopping home again. Can you hear him ringing? Hey, come, Derry Doll. Berry doll, a merry o, goldberry, goldberry, manly yellow berry o. Poor old willow man, you tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. Tom's going home again. Water lilies bringing. Hey, come, merry doll, can't you hear me singing? Frodo and Sam stood as if enchanted. The wind puffed out. The leaves hung silently again on stiff branches. There was another burst of song, and then suddenly, hopping and dancing along the path, there appeared above the reeds an old battered hat, with a tall crown, and a long blue feather stuck into the band. With another hop and a bound there came into view a man, or so it seemed. At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people, though he made noise enough for one, stumping along with great yellow boots on his thick legs, and charging through grass and rushes like a cow going down to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright. His face was red as a ripe apple, but creased into a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands he carried a large leaf as on a stray small pile of white water lilies. Help! cried Frodo and Sam running towards him with their hands stretched out. Whoa, whoa, steady there, cried the old man, holding up one hand, and they stopped short, as if they had been struck stiff. 
Mm. Now, my little fellows, where be you a-going to, puffin' like the bellows? What's the matter here, then? Do you know who I am? I'm Tom Bombadil. Tell me what's your trouble. Tom's in a hurry now. Don't you crush my lilies. My friends are caught in the rizzo tree, cried Frodo breathlessly. Master Mary's been squeezing a crack. What? shouted Tom Bombadil, leaping up the air. Old Val Willow. Not worse than that, eh? Oh, that can soon be mended. I know the tune for him, old Grey Willow man. I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away, old Ran Willow. Setting down his lilies carefully on the grass, he ran to the tree. There he saw Mary's feet still sticking out. The rest had already been drawn further inside. Tom put his mouth to the crack and began singing into it in a low voice. They could not catch the words, but evidently Mary was aroused. His legs began to kick. Tom sprang away, and breaking off a hanging branch, he smote the side of the willow with it. You let them out again, old man willow, he said. And what were you a-thinking of? You should not be waking. Eat earth, dig deep, drink water, go to sleep. Bombadil is talking. He then seized Mary's feet and drew him out of the suddenly widening crack. There was a tearing creak, and the other crack split open, and out of it Pippin sprang as if he had been kicked. Then with a loud snap, both cracks closed fast again. A shudder ran through the tree, from root to tip, and complete silence fell. Thank you, thank you, said the hobbits, one after another. Tom Bombadil burst out laughing. Well, my little fellows, said he, stooping so that he peered into their faces. Hmm. You shall come home with me. The table is all laden with yellow cream, honeycomb, and white bread and butter. Goldberries awaiting. Time enough for questions around the supper table. You follow after me as quick as you are able. With that, he picked up his lilies, and then with a beckoning wave of his hand, went hopping and dancing along the path eastward, still singing loudly and nonsensically. Too surprised and too relieved to talk, the hobbits followed after him as fast as they could. But that was not fast enough. Tom soon disappeared in front of them, and the noise of his singing got fainter and further away. Suddenly, his voice came floating back to them with a loud halloo. Hop along, my yellow friends, up the withy window. Tom's going on ahead with candles for to kindle. Down west sinks the sun, but soon you'll be groping. When the night shadows fall, then the door will open. Out from the window panes, light will twinkle yellow. Fear no alder black, heed no hoary willow. Fear neither root nor bough. Tom goes on before you. Hey now, married all, we'll be waiting for you. After that, the hobbits heard no more. Almost at once, the sun seemed to sink into the trees behind them. They thought of the slanting light of evening glittering into the Brandywine River, and the windows of Bucklebury beginning to gleam with hundreds of lights. Great shadows fell across them. Trunks and branches of trees hung dark and threatening all over the path. White mists began to rise and curl on the surface of the river, and stray about the roots of the trees upon its borders. Out of the very ground at their feet, a shadowy steam arose and mingled with the swiftly falling dusk. It became difficult to follow the path, and they were very tired. 
Their legs seemed laden. Strange furtive noises ran among the bushes and reeds on either side of them. And if they looked up to the pale sky, they caught sight of queer, gnarled and knobby faces that loomed dark against the twilight, and leered down at them from the high bank at the edges of the wood. They began to feel that all this country was unreal, and that they were stumbling through an ominous dream that led to no awakening. Just as they felt their feet slowing down to a standstill, they noticed the ground was gently rising. The water began to murmur. In the darkness they caught the white glimmer of foam, where the river flowed over a short fall. Then suddenly the trees came to an end, and the mists were left behind. They stepped out from the forest and found a wide sweep of grass welling up before them. The river, now small and swift, was leaping merrily down to meet them, glinting here and there in the light of the stars, which were already shining in the sky. The grass under their feet was smooth and short, as if it had been mown or shaven. The eaves of the forest behind were clipped and thin as a hedge. The path was now plain before them, well tended and bordered with stone. It wound up to the top of a grassy knoll, now grey under the pale starry night, and there, still high above them on a further slope, they saw the twinkling lights of a house. Down again the path went, and then up again, up a long smooth hillside of turf towards the light. Suddenly a wide yellow beam flowed out brightly from a door that was opened. There was Tom Bombadil's house before them, up, down, under hill. Behind it, a steep shoulder of the land lay grey and bare, and beyond that, the dark shapes of the Barrow Downs stalked away to the eastern night. They all hurried forward, hobbits and ponies, already half their weariness, and all their fears had fallen from them. Hey, come, merry doll! Rolled out the song to greet them. Hey, come, merry doll! Hope along my hearties. Hobbits, ponies all, we're all fond of parties. Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together. Then another clear voice, as young and ancient as spring, like the song of a glad water flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills, came falling like silver to meet them. By the shady pool, lilies by the water, Tom Bombadil, and the river daughter. That song, the hobbit stood upon the threshold, and a golden light was all about them. The four hobbits stepped over the wide stone threshold and stood still, blinking. They were in a long, low room filled with the light of lamps swinging from beams onto the roof, and on the table of dark, polished wood stood many candles, tall and yellow, burning brightly. In a chair at the far side of the room, facing the outer door, sat a woman. Her long yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. Her gown was green, green as young reeds, shot with silver like beads of dew. And her belt was of gold, shaped like a chain of flag lilies set in the pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. About her feet, 
In wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating, so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. Enter, good guests, she said, and as she spoke, they knew it was her clear voice they were heard singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, had been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. But before they could say anything, she sprang lightly up and over the lily bowls and ran laughing towards them. And as she ran, her gown rustled softly like the wind in the flowering borders of a river. Come, dear folk, she said, taking Frodo by the hand. Laugh and be merry. I am Goldberry, daughter of the river. Then lightly she passed them, and closing the door, she turned her back to it, with her white arms spread out across it. Let us shut out the night, she said, for you are still afraid, perhaps, of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. Fear nothing, for tonight you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil. The hobbits looked at her in wonder, and she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices, but the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to the mortal heart. Marvellous, and yet not strange. Fair Lady Goldberry, he said again, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. O oh, slender as the willow wand, O oh, clearer than clear water, O oh, reed by the living pool, fair river daughter, O oh, springtime and summertime, and spring again after, O oh, wind on the waterfall and leaves laughter. Suddenly he stopped and stammered, uh, overcome with his surprise to hear himself saying such things, but Goldberry laughed. <laughs> Welcome, she said. I have not heard that folk of the Shire was so sweet-tongued, but I see you are an elf friend. The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice tells it. It is a merry meeting. Sit now, sit and wait for the master in the house. He will not be long. He has tended your tired beasts. The hobbits sat down gladly in low, rush-seated chairs, while Goldberry busied herself around the table, and their eyes followed her, for the slender grace of her movement filled them with quiet delight. From somewhere behind the house came a sound of singing. Every now and again they caught among many a derry doll and merry doll and ring and ding and dillo the repeated words Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue as jacket is, and his boots are yellow. Fair lady, said Frodo again after a while, tell me if my asking does not seem foolish. Who is Tom Bombadil? He is, said Goldberry, staying her swift movements and smiling. Frodo looked at her questioningly. He is as you have seen him, she said in answer to his look. He is the master of the wood, water, and hill. Th then all this strange land belongs to him. No, indeed, she answered, and her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden, she added in a low voice, as if to herself. The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong to each of themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on the hilltops under the light and shadow. He has no fear. 
Bombadil is master. A door opened, and in came Tom Bombadil. He had now no hat, and his thick brown hair was covered with autumn leaves. He laughed, and going to Goldberry, took her hand. Here's my pretty lady," he said, bowing to the hobbits. "Here's my Goldberry clothed all in silver green with flowers in her griddle. Here's the table laden. I see yellow cream and honeycomb and white bread and butter, milk, cheese and green herbs and ripe berries gathered. Is that enough for us? Is the supper ready? It is," said Goldberry. "But the guests perhaps are not." Tom clapped his hands and cried. Tom, Tom, your guests are tired and old, and you had near forgotten. Come now, merry friends, and Tom will refresh you. You shall clean grimy hands and wash your weary faces, cast off your muddy cloaks, and comb out your tangles. He opened the door, and they folded him down the short passage and round a sharp turn. They came to a low room with a sloping roof, a penthouse it seemed. Built on the north end of the house, its walls were of clean stone, but they were mostly covered with green hanging mats with yellow curtains. The floor was flagged and strewn with fresh green rushes. There were four deep mattresses, each piled with white blankets, laid on the floor along one side. Against the opposite wall was a long bench laden with white earthenware basins, and beside it stood brown ewers filled with water, some cold, some steaming hot. There were soft green slippers set ready beside each bed. Before long, washed and refreshed, the hobbits were seated at the table, two on each side, while at either end sat Goldberry and the master. It was a long and merry meal. Though the hobbits ate as only famished hobbits can eat, there was no lack. The drink in their drinking bowls seemed to be clear, cold water, yet it went to their hearts like wine and set free their voices. The guests became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily, as if it was easier and more natural than talking. At last, Tom and Goldberry rose and cleared the table swiftly. The guests were commanded to sit quiet, and were set with chairs, each with a footstool to his tired feet. There was a fire in the wide hearth before them, and it was burning with a sweet smell, as if it were built of apple wood. When everything was set in order, all the lights in the room were put out, except one lamp. And a pair of candles at each end of the chimney shelf. Then Goldberry came and stood before them, holding a candle, and she wished them each a good night and deep sleep. Have peace now, she said, until the morning. Heed no nightly noises, for nothing passes door and window here save moonlight and starlight, and the wind off the hilltop. Good night. She passed out of the room with a glimmer and a rustle. The sound of her footsteps was like a stream falling gently away downhill over cool stones with the quiet of night. Tom sat on a while beside them in silence, while each of them tried to muster the courage to ask one of the many questions they had meant to ask at supper. Sleep gathered on their eyelids. At last, Frodo spoke. Did you hear me calling, Master? Or was it just chance that brought you at that moment? Tom stirred like a man shaken out of an unpleasant dream. Hey,、eh? hmm, what? Said he. Did I hear you calling? Nay, I did not hear. I was busy singing. Just chance brought me here then, if chance you call it. Why, 
it was no plan of mine. Though I was waiting for you. We heard news of you and learned that you were wandering. We guessed you'd come here long down the water. All paths lead that way, down to the wavy windle. Old Ray Willowman, he's a mighty singer, and it's hard for little folk to escape his cunning mazes. The Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder. Tom nodded, as if sleep was taking him again, but he went on in a soft singing voice. I had an errand there gathering water lilies, green leaves and lilies white to please my pretty lady. The last year the year's end to keep them from the winter, to flower by their pretty feet till the sound snows are melted. Each year at summer's end I go to find them for her, in a wide pool deep and clear far down the withy windle. There they open first in spring, and there they linger latest. By that pool long ago I found the river daughter, fair young goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. He opened his eyes and looked at them with sudden glint of blue. And that proved well for you, for now I shall no longer go down deep again along the forest water. Not while the year is old, nor shall I be passing old man Willow's house's side is of springtime, not till the merry spring, when the river daughter dances down the withy path to bathe in the water. He fell silent again, but Frodo could not help asking one more question, the one that most desired to have answered. Tell us, master, he said, about the willow man. What is he? I've never heard of him before. No, don't, said Merry and Pippin together, sitting suddenly upright. Not now, not until the morning. Oh, that is right, said the old man. Now is the time for resting. Some things are ill to hear when the world's in shadow. Sleep till the morning light, lest on the pillow. Heed no nightly noise, fear no grey willow. And with that he took down the lamp and blew it out. And grasping a candle in either hand, he led them out of the room. Their mattresses and pillows were soft as, were soft as down. And the blankets were of white wool. They had hardly laid themselves on the deep beds and drawn the light covers over them before they were asleep. In the dead night, Frodo lay in a dream without light. Then he saw the young moon rising. Under its thin light there loomed before him a black wall of rock, pierced by a dark arch like a great gate. It seemed to Frodo that he was lifted up, and passing over he saw that the rock wall was the circle of hills, and that within it was a plain. And in the midst of the plain stood a pinnacle of stone, like a vast tower, but not made by hands. On its top stood the figure of a man. The moon, as it rose, seemed to hang for a moment above his head and glistened in his white hair as the wind stirred it. Up from the dark plain below came the crying of fell voices and the howling of many wolves. Suddenly, a shadow, like the shape of great wings, passed across the moon. The figure lifted his arms, and a light flashed from the staff that he wielded. A mighty eagle swept down and bore him away. The voices wailed and the wolves yammered, 
there was a noise like a strong wind blowing, and on it was borne the sound of hoofs galloping, galloping from the east. Back riders, thought Frodo, as he wakened, with the sound of the hoofs still echoing in his mind. He wondered if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. He lay motionless, still listening, but all was now silent. And at last he turned and fell asleep again and wandered into some other unremembered dream. At his side Pippin lay dreaming pleasantly, but a change came over his dreams and he turned and groaned. Suddenly he woke, or, th or thought he had waked, and yet still heard in the darkness the sound that had disturbed his dream. The noise was like branches fretting in the wind, twig fingers scraping wall and window. He wondered if there were willow trees close to the house, and then suddenly he had a dreadful feeling that he was not in an ordinary house at all, but inside the willow, and listening to that horrible dry creaking voice laughing at him again. He sat up and felt the soft pillows yield to his hands, and he lay down again relieved. He seemed to hear the echo of words in his ears. Then he went to sleep again. It was the sound of water that Mary heard falling into his quiet sleep, water streaming down gently and then spreading and spreading irresistibly all around the house into a dark, shoreless pool. It gurgled under the walls and was rising slowly but surely. I shall be drowned, he thought. It will find its way in, and then I shall drown. He felt that he was lying in a soft, slimy bog, and springing up he set his foot on the corner of a cold, hard flagstone. Then he remembered where he was and lay down again. He seemed to hear or remember hearing, Nothing passes doors or windows save the moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. A little breath of sweet air moved the curtain. He breathed deep and fell asleep again. As far as he could remember, Sam slept through the night in a deep content, if logs are contented. They woke up, all four at once, in the morning light. Tom was moving about the room, whistling like a starling. When he heard them stir, he clapped his hands and cried, Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my hearties. He drew back the yellow curtains, and the hobbit saw that these had covered the windows at either end of the room, one looking east and the other looking west. They leapt up refreshed. Frodo ran to the eastern window and found himself looking into a kitchen garden, grey with dew. He had half expected to see turf right up to the walls, turf all pocked with hoof prints. Actually, his view was screened by a tall line of beans on poles, but above and far beyond them the grey top of the hill loomed up against the sunrise. It was a pale morning, in the east behind the long clouds like lines of soiled wool, stained red at the edges, lay glimmering deeps of yellow. The sky spoke of rain to come, but the light was broadening quickly, and the red flowers of the beans began to glow against the wet green leaves. Pippin looked out of the western window, down into a pool of mist. The forest was hidden under a fog. It was like looking down onto a sloping cloud roof from above. There was a fold or channel where the mist was broken into many plumes and billows, the valley of the Withy Windle. The stream ran down the hill of the left and vanished into the white shadows. Near at hand was a flower garden, and a clipped hedge silver-netted, 
and beyond that grey shaven grass pale with dewdrops, there was no willow tree to be seen. Good morning, merry friends, cried Tom, opening the eastern window wide. A cool air flowed in. It had a rainy smell. Sun won't show her face much today, I'm thinking. I have been walking wide, leaping on the hilltops since the grey dawn began, nosing wind and weather, wet grass underfoot, wet sky above me. I waken Goldberry singing under window, but naught wakes hobbit folk in the early morning. In the night little folk wake up in the darkness, and sleep after light has come. ring a ding a dillo Wake now, my merry friends, forget the nightly noises. Ring-a-ding-dill-o-dell, dell my hearties. If you come soon, you'll find breakfast on the table. If you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater. Needless to say, not that Tom's threat sounded very serious, the hobbits came soon, and left the table late and only when it was beginning to look rather empty. Neither Tom nor Goldberry were there. Tom could be heard about the house, clattering in the kitchen, and up and down the stairs, and singing the here and there outside. The room looked westward over the mist-clouded valley, and the window was open. Water dripped down from the thatched eaves above. Before they had finished breakfast, the clouds had joined into an unbroken roof, and a straight grey rain came softly and steadily down. Behind its deep curtain, the forest was completely veiled. As they looked out of the window, there came falling gently as if it was flowing down the rain out of the sky. The clear voice of Goldberry singing up above them. They could hear few words, but it seemed plain to them that the song was a rain song, as sweet as showers on dry hills, that told the tale of a river from the spring in the highlands to the sea far below. The hobbits listened with delight, and Frodo was glad in his heart and blessed the kindly weather, because it delayed them from departing. The thought of going had been heavy upon him from the moment he awoke, but he guessed now that they would not go further that day. The upper wind settled in the west, and deeper and wetter clouds rolled up to spill their laden rain on the bare heads of the downs. Nothing could be seen all around the house but falling water. Frodo stood near the open door and watched the white chalky path turn to a little river of milk and go bubbling away down into the valley. Tom Bombadil came trotting round the corner of the house, waving his arms as he was warding off the rain, and indeed, when he sprang over the threshold, he seemed quite dry, except for his boots. These he took off and put in the chimney corner. Then he sat in the largest chair and called the hobbits to gather around him. This is Goldberry's washing day, he said, and her autumn cleaning. Too wet for hobbit folk, yet them rest while they are able. It's a good day for long tales, for questions and for answers, so Tom will start talking. He then told them many remarkable stories, sometimes half as if speaking to himself, sometimes looking at them suddenly with a bright blue eye under his deep brows. Often his voice would turn to songs, and he would get out of his chair and dance about. He told them tales of bees and flowers, the ways of trees, and the strange creatures of the forest, about the evil things and good things, things friendly and things unfriendly, cruel things and kind things, and secrets hidden under brambles. As they listened, they began to understand the lives of the forest apart from themselves, indeed to feel themselves as the strangers where all other things were all at home. 
Moving constantly in and out of this talk was old man Willow, and Frodo learned now enough to content him, indeed more than enough, for it was not comfortable lore. Tom's words laid bare the hearts of trees and their thoughts, which were often dark and strange, and filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking and burning, destroyers and usurpers. It was not called the old forest without a reason, for it was indeed ancient, a survivor of vast forgotten woods, and in it there lived yet, aging no quicker than the hills, the fathers of the fathers of trees, remembering times when they were lords. The countless years had filled them with pride and rooted wisdom, and with malice. But none were more dangerous than the great willow. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green, and he was cunning, and a master of winds. And his song and thought ran through the woods on both sides of the river. His grey, thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth and spread like fine root threads in the ground, and invisible twig fingers in the air, till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest, from the hedge to the downs. Suddenly Tom's talk left the woods and went leaping up the young stream, over bubbling waterfalls, over pebbles and worn rocks, and among small flowers and close grass and wet crannies, wandering at last up on to the downs. They heard of the great barrows, and the green mounds, and the stone rings upon the hills, and in the hollows among the hills. Sheep were bleating in flocks, green walls and white walls rose. There were fortresses on the heights, kings of little kingdoms fought together, and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords. There was victory and defeat. The towers fell, fortresses were burned, and flames went up into the sky. Gold was piled on the byres of dead kings and queens, and mounds covered them. And the stone doors were shut, and the grass grew over all. Sheep walked for a while, biting the grass, but soon the hills were empty again. A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. The hobbits shuddered. Even in the Shire, the rumors of the barrow whites of the barrow downs beyond the forest had been heard. But it was not a tale that any hobbit liked to listen to, even by a comfortable fireside far away. These four now suddenly remembered what the joy of this house had driven from their minds. The house of Tom Bombadil nested under the very shoulder of those dreaded hills. They lost the thread of his tail and shifted uneasily, looking aside at one another. When they caught his words again, they found that he had now wandered into strange regions beyond their memory and beyond their waking thought, into times when the world was wider and the seas flowed straight into the western shore. And still on and back, Tom went singing out into ancient starlight, when only the elf sires were awake. Then suddenly he stopped, and he saw that he nodded as if he were falling asleep. The hobbits sat still before him, enchanted, and it seemed as if under the spell of his words, the wind had gone, and the clouds had dried up, and the day had been withdrawn. And darkness had come from east and west, and all the sky was filled with the light of white stars. 
Whether the morning and evening of one day or of many days had passed, Frodo could not tell. He did not feel either hungry or tired, only filled with wonder. The stars shone through the window, and the silence of the heavens seemed to be round him. He spoke at last, out of his wonder and sudden fear that silence. "Who are you, Master?" he asked. <laughs> "Eh? What?" said Tom, sitting up and his eyes glinting in the gloom. "Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? But you are young, and I am old, eldest. That's what I am. Mark my words, my friends." Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves of the Barrow Whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already, before the seas were bent. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless. Before the Dark Lord came from outside, a shadow seemed to pass by the window, and the hobbits glanced hastily through the panes. When they turned again, Goldberry stood in the door behind, framed in the light. She held a candle, shielding its flame from the draught in her hand, and the light flowed through it like sunlight through a white shell. The rain has ended, she said, and new waters are running downhill under the stars. Let us now laugh and be glad. And then let us have food and drink," cried Tom. "Long tales are thirsty, and long listening is hungry work. Morning, noon, and evening." Oh. With that, he jumped out of his chair and, with a bound, took a candle from the chimney shelf and lit it in the flame that Goldberry held. Then he danced about the table. Suddenly, he hopped through the door and disappeared. Quickly, he returned, bearing a large and laden tray. Then Tom and Goldberry set the table, and the hobbits sat half in wonder and half in laughter. So fair was the grace of Goldberry, and so merry and odd that the caperings of Tom, yet in some fashion they seemed to weave a single dance, neither hindering the other, in and out of the room and round about the table, and with great speed, food and vessels and lights were set in order. The boards blazed with candles, white and yellow. Tom bowed to his guests. Supper is ready," said Goldberry, and now the hobbit saw that she was clothed all in silver with a white girdle. And her shoes were like fish's mail, but Tom was all in clean blue, blue as rain washed forget-me-nots, and he had green stockings. It was a supper even better than before. The hobbits, under the spell of Tom's words, may have missed one meal or many, but when the food was before them, it seemed at least a week since they had eaten. They did not sing or even speak much for a while, and paid close attention to business. But after a time, their hearts and spirits rose high again, and their voices rang out in mirth and laughter. After they had eaten, Goldberry sang many songs for them—songs that began merrily in the hills and fell softly down into silence. And in the silences, they saw in their minds pools and waters wider than any they had known. And looking into them, they saw the sky below them and the stars like jewels in the depths. Then once more, she wished them each good night and left them by the fireside. But Tom now seemed wide awake and plied them with questions. He appeared already to know much about them and all their families, and indeed to know much of all the history and doings of the Shire, down from days hardly remembered among the hobbits themselves. It no longer surprised them, but he made no secret that he owed his recent knowledge largely to Farmer Maggot, 
whom he seemed to regard as a person of more importance than they had imagined. There's earth under his old feet, and clay on his fingers, wisdom in his bones, and both his eyes are open, said Tom. It was also clear that Tom had dealings with the elves, and it seemed that in some fashion news had reached him from Gildor concerning the flight of Frodo. Indeed, so much did Tom know, and so cunning was his questioning, that Frodo found himself telling him more about Bilbo and his own hopes and fears than he had, that he had told before, even to Gandalf. Tom wagged his head up and down, and there was a glint in his eyes when he heard of the riders. Show me the precious ring, he said suddenly in the midst of the story. And Frodo, to his own astonishment, drew out the chain from his pocket, and unfastening the ring, handed it at once to Tom. It seemed to grow larger as it lay for a moment on his big brown-skinned hand. Then suddenly he put it to his eye and laughed. For a second the hobbits had a vision, both comical and alarming, of his bright blue eye gleaming through a circle of gold. Then Tom put the ring round the end of his little finger and held it up to the candlelight. For a moment the hobbits noticed nothing strange about this. Then they gasped. There was no sign of Tom disappearing. Tom laughed again, and then he spun the ring in the air, and it vanished with a flash. Frodo gave a cry, and Tom leaned forward and handed it back to him with a smile. Frodo looked at it closely and rather suspiciously, like one who has lent a trinket to a juggler. It was the same ring, or looked the same and weighed the same, for that ring had always seemed to Frodo to weigh strangely heavy in the hand. But something prompted him to make sure. He was perhaps a trifle annoyed with Tom for seeming to make so light of what even Gandalf thought was so perilously important. He waited for an opportunity. When the talk was going on again, and Tom was telling an absurd story about badgers and their queer ways, then he slipped the ring on. Mary turned towards him to say something and gave a start and checked an exclamation. Frodo was delighted in a way. It was his own ring, all right. For Mary was staring blankly at his chair and obviously could not see him. He got up and crept quietly away from the fireside towards the outer door. Hey there! cried Tom, glancing towards him with the most seeing look in his shining eyes. Hey, come, Frodo, there! Where be you a going? Old Tom Bombadil's not as blind as that yet. Take off your golden ring, your hands more fair without it. Come back, leave your game, and sit down beside me. We must talk a little while more, and think of the morning. Tom must teach the right road, and keep your feet from wandering. Frodo laughed, <laughs> trying to feel pleased, and taking off the ring, he came and sat down again. Tom now told them that he reckoned the sun would shine tomorrow, and it would be a glad morning, and setting out would be hopeful. But they would not do well to start early, for weather in that country was a thing that even Tom could not be sure of for long and it would change some time, quicker than he could have changed his jacket. I am no weather master, he said, nor is aught that goes on two legs. By his advice, they decided to make early due north from his house, over the western and lower slopes of the downs. They might hope in that way to strike the east road, in a day's journey and avoid the barrows. He told them not to be afraid, but to mind their own business. Keep on the green grass, don't you go a-meddling with old stone or cold whites or prying in their houses, unless you be strong folk with hearts that never falter. He said this more than once, and he advised them to pass barrows by on the west side if they chanced to stray near one. Then he taught them a rhyme to sing. 
if they should by ill luck fall into any danger or difficulty the next day. Oh, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadil, oh, by water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, moon, and hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. When they had sung this all together after him, he clapped them each on the shoulder with a laugh, and taking candles, led them back to their bedroom. That night they heard no noises, but either in his dreams or out of them, he could not tell which. Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a grey rain curtain, and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver, until at last it was rolled back, and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. The vision melted into waking, and there was Tom whistling. Like a tree full of birds, and the sun was already slanting down the hill and through the open window. Outside, everything was green and pale gold. After breakfast, which they again ate alone, they made ready to say farewell, as nearly heavy of heart as was possible on such a morning, cool, bright, and clear under a washed autumn sky of thin blue. The air came fresh from the northwest. Their quiet ponies were almost frisky. Sniffing and moving restlessly, Tom came out of the house and waved his hat and danced upon the doorstep, bidding the hobbits to get up and be off and go with good speed. They rode off along a path that went away from behind the house and went slanting up towards the north end of the hillbrow under which it sheltered. They had just dismounted to lead their ponies up the vast steep slope when suddenly Frodo stopped. Goldberry. He cried, "My fair lady, clad all in silver green, we have never said farewell to her, nor seen her since the evening." He was so distressed that he turned back. But at that moment, a clear call came rippling down. There, on the hill brow, she stood, beckoning to them. Her hair was flying loose, and as it caught the sun, it shone and shimmered. A light, like the glint of water on dewy grass, flashed from under her feet as she danced. They hastened up the last slope and stood breathless beside her. They bowed, but with a wave of her arm, she bade them look around, and they looked out from the hilltop over lands under the morning. It was now as clear and far-seen as it had been, veiled and misty, when they stood upon the knoll in the forest, which would now be seen rising pale and green out of the dark trees in the west. In that direction, the land rose in wooden ridges, green, yellow, russet under the sun, beyond which lay hidden the valley of the Brandywine. To the south, over the line of the Withywindle, there was a distant glint, like pale glass, where the Brandywine River made a great loop in the lowlands and flowed away out of the knowledge of the hobbits. Northward, beyond the dwindling downs, the land ran away in flats and dwelling of grey and green and pale earth colours, until it faded into a featureless and shadowy distance. Eastward, the Barrow Downs rose, ridge behind ridge, into the morning, and vanished out of the eyesight into a guess. It was no more than a guess of blue and a remote white glimmer blending with the hem of the sky, but it spoke to them, out of memory and old tales of the high and distant mountains. They took a deep draught of air and felt that a skip and a few stout rides would bear them wherever they wished. It seemed faint-hearted to go jogging aside over the crumpled skirts of the downs towards the road, when they should be leaping as lusty as Tom over the stepping stones of the hills straight towards the mountains. 
Goldberry spoke to them and recalled their eyes and thoughts. Speed now, fair guests, she said, and hold to your purpose, north with the wind in the left eye and a blessing on your footsteps. Make haste while the sun shines. And to Frodo she said, Farewell, elf friend. It was a merry meeting. But Frodo found no words to answer. He bowed low and mounted his pony, and followed by his friends, jogged slowly down the gentle slope behind the hill. Tom Bombadil's house and the valley and the forest were lost to view. The air grew warmer between the green walls of hillside and hillside, and the scent of turf rose strong and sweet as they breathed. Turning back, when they reached the bottom of the green hollow, they saw Goldberry, now small and slender, like a sunlit flower against the sky. She was standing still, watching them, and her hands were stretched out towards them. As they looked, she gave a clear call, and lifting up her hand, she turned and vanished behind the hill. Their way round along the floor of the hollow, and round the green feet of a steep hill into another deeper and broader valley, and then over the shoulder of further hills, and down their long limbs, and up their smoother sides again, up on new hilltops, and down into new valleys. There was no tree nor any visible water. It was a country of grass and short springy turf, silent except for the whisper of the air over the hedges of the land and high lonely cries of strange birds. As they journeyed, the sun mounted and grew hot. Each time they climbed the ridge, the breeze seemed to have grown less. When they caught a glimpse of the country westward, the distant forest seemed to be smoking as if the fallen rain was steaming up again from leaf and root and mould. A shadow now lay round the edge of sight, a dark haze above which the upper sky was like a blue cap, hot and heavy. About midday they came to a hill whose top was wide and flattened, like a shallow saucer with a green-mounded rim. Inside there was no air stirring, and the sky seemed near their heads. They rode across and looked northwards, then their hearts rose, for it seemed plain that they had come further already than they had expected. Certainly the distances had now all become hazy and deceptive, but there could be no doubt that the downs were coming to an end. A long valley lay below them, winding away northwards until it came to an opening between two steep shoulders. Beyond there seemed to be no more hills. Due north they faintly glimpsed a long dark line. "'That is a line of trees,' said Mary." And that must mark the road. All along it, for many leagues east of the bridge, there are trees growing. Some say they were planted in the old days. Splendid, said Frodo. If you make as good going this afternoon as you've done this morning, we shall have left the downs before the sun sets and be jogging on in search for a camping place. But even as he spoke, he turned his glance eastwards, and he saw that on the side the hills were higher and looked down upon them and all those hills were crowned with green mounds, and on some were standing stones, pointing upwards like jagged teeth out of green gums. That view was somehow disquieting, for they turned from the site and went down into the hollow circle. In the midst of it there stood a single stone, standing tall under the sun above, and at its hour casting no shadow. It was shapeless and yet significant, like a landmark or a guarding finger, or more like a warning. But they were now hungry, and the sun was still at the fearless noon, so they set their packs against the east side of the stone. It was cool, as if the sun had no power to warm it, 
but at that time it seemed pleasant. There they took food and drink, and made as good a noon meal under the open sky as anyone could wish, for the food came from down under hill. Tom had provided them with plenty for the comfort of the day. Their ponies under burden strayed upon the grass. Riding over the hills and eating their fill, the warm sun and the scent of turf, lying a little too long, stretching out their legs and looking at the sky above their noses, these things are perhaps enough to explain what happened. However that may be, they woke suddenly and uncomfortably from a sleep they never meant to take. The standing stone was cold, and it cast a long pale shadow that stretched eastward over them. The sun, a pale and watery yellow, was gleaming through the mist just above the west wall of the hollow in which they lay. North, south, and east, beyond the wall the fog was thick, cold, and white. The air was silent, heavy, and chill. Their ponies were standing crowded together with their heads down. The hobbits sprang to their feet in alarm and ran to the western rim. They found that they were upon an island in the fog. Even as they looked out in dismay towards the setting sun, it sank before their eyes into a white sea, and a cold grey shadow sprang up in the east behind. The fog rolled up to the walls and rose above them, and as it mounted it bent over their heads until it became a roof. They were shut in a hole of mist, whose central pillar was the standing stone. They felt as if a trap was closing in about them, but they did not quite lose heart. They still remembered the hopeful view they had had on the line of the road ahead, and they still knew in which direction it lay. In any case, they now had so great a dislike for that hollow place above the stone that no thought of remaining there was in their minds. They packed up as quickly as their chilled fingers could work. Soon they were leading their ponies in single file over the rim and down the long northward slope of the hill, down into a foggy sea. As they went down, the mist became colder and damper, and their hair hung lank and dripping on their foreheads. When they reached the bottom, it was so cold that they halted and got out cloaks and hoods, which soon became bedewed with grey drops. Then, mounting their ponies, they went slowly on again, feeling their way by the rise and fall of the ground. They were steering, as well as they could guess, for the gate-like opening at the far northward end of the long valley, which they had seen in the morning. Once they were through the gap, they had only to keep on in anything like a straight line, and they were bound in the end to strike the road. Their thoughts did not go beyond that, except for a vague hope that perhaps away beyond the downs there might be no fog. Their going was very slow. To prevent their getting separated and wandering in different directions, they went in file, with Frodo leading. Sam was behind him, and after him came Pippin and Merry. The valley seemed to stretch on endlessly. Suddenly Frodo saw a hopeful sign. On either side ahead, a darkness began to gloom through the mist and he guessed that they were at last approaching the gap in the hills, the north gate of the Barrow Downs. If they could pass that, they would be free. Come on, follow me! He called back over his shoulder, and he hurried forward, but his hope soon changed to bewilderment and alarm. The dark patches grew darker, but they shrank, and suddenly he saw, towering ominous before him, and leading slightly towards one another like the pillars of a headless door, two huge standing stones. He could not remember having seen any sign of these in the valley when he looked out from the hill in the morning. He had passed between them almost before he was aware, and even as he did so, darkness seemed to fall around him. 
His pony reared and snorted and he fell off. When he looked back, he found that he was alone. And the others had not followed him. Sam! He called. Pippin! Mary! Come along! Well, why don't you keep up? There was no answer. Fear took him. And he ran back past the stones, shouting wildly. Sam! Sam! Mary! Pippin! The pony bolted into the mist and vanished. From some way off, or so it seemed, he thought he heard a cry. It was away eastward on his left as he stood under the grey stones, staring and straining into the gloom. He plunged off in the direction of the call and found himself going steeply uphill. As he struggled on, he called again and kept on calling more and more frantically, but he heard no answer for some time. And then it seemed faint and far ahead and high above him. came the thin voice out of the mist, and then a cry that sounded like, Help! Help! Often repeated, ending with the last, Help! That trailed off into a long wail, suddenly cut short. He stumbled forward with all the speed he could towards the cries, but the light was now gone, and clinging night had closed about him, so that it was impossible to be sure of any direction. He seemed all the time to be climbing up and up, Only the change in the level of the ground at his feet told him where he last came into the top of a ridge or hill. He was weary, sweating, and yet chilled. It was wholly dark. Where are you? He cried out miserably. There was no reply. He stood listening. He was suddenly aware that it was getting very cold, and that up here a wind was beginning to blow. An icy wind. A change was coming in the weather. The mist was flowing past him now in shreds and tatters. His breath was smoking, and the darkness was less near and thick. He looked up and saw with surprise that faint stars were appearing overhead amid the strands of hurrying cloud and fog. The wind began to hiss over the grass. He imagined suddenly that he caught a muffled cry, and he made towards it. And even as he went forward, the mist was rolled up and thrust aside, and the starry sky was unveiled. A glance showed him that he was now facing southwards, and was on a round hilltop, which he must have climbed from the north. Out of the east, the biting wind was blowing. To his right, there loomed against the westward stars a dark black shape. A great barrow stood there. Where are you? He cried again, both angry and afraid. said a voice, deep and cold, that seemed to come out of the ground. I am waiting for you. No! said Frodo, but he did not run away. His knees gave and he fell on the ground. Nothing happened, and there was no sound. Trembling, he looked up in time to see a tall, dark figure like a shadow against the stars. It leaned over him. He thought there were two eyes, very cold, though lit with a pale light that seemed to come from some remote distance. Then a grip, stronger and colder than iron, seized him. The icy touch froze his bones, and he remembered no more. When he came to himself again, for a moment he could recall nothing except a sense of dread. Then suddenly he knew that he was imprisoned, caught hopelessly. He was in a barrow. A barrow white had taken him 
and he was probably already under the dreadful spells of the Barrow Whites, about which whispered tales spoke. He dared not move, but lay as he found himself, flat on his back upon a cold stone with his hands on his breast. But though his fear was so great that it seemed to be part of the very darkness that was around him, he found himself as he lay thinking about Bilbo Baggins and his stories, and of their jogging along together in the lanes of the Shire, and walking about the roads and adventures. There is a seed of courage hidden, often deeply, it is true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid. Indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo and Gandalf had thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. He thought he had come to the end of his adventure, and a terrible end. But the thought hardened him. He found himself stiffening, as if for a final spring. He no longer felt limp like a helpless prey. As he lay there, thinking and getting a hold of himself, he noticed all at once that the darkness was slowly giving way. A pale greenish light was growing round him. It did not at first show him what kind of a place he was in, for the light seemed to be coming out of himself and from the floor beside him, and had not yet reached the roof or wall. He turned, and there in the cold glow he saw lying beside him Sam, Pippin, and Mary. They were on their backs, and their faces looked deathly pale, and they were clad in white. About them lay many treasures, of gold maybe, though in that light they looked cold and unlovely. On their heads were circlets, gold chains were about their waists, and on their fingers were many rings. Swords lay by their sides, and shields were at their feet, but across their three necks lay one long naked sword. Suddenly a song began, a cold murmur rising and falling. The voice seemed far away and immeasurably dreary, sometimes high in the air and thin, sometimes like a low moan on the ground. Out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds, strings of words could now and again shape themselves. Grim, hard, cold words, heartless and miserable. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Frodo was chilled to the marrow. After a while the song became clearer, and with dread in his heart he perceived that it had changed into an incantation. head a creaking and scraping sound. Raising himself on one arm, he looked and saw now in the pale light that they were in a kind of passage, which behind them turned a corner. Round the corner, a long arm was groping, walking on its fingers towards Sam, who was lying nearest, and towards the hilt of the sword that lay upon him. At first, Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned into stone by the incantation. Then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring, whether the Barrowite would miss him, and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, 
grieving for Merry and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do. But the courage that had been awakened in him was now too strong. He could not leave his friend so easily. He wavered, groping in his pocket, and then fought with himself again. And as he did so, the arm crept nearer. Suddenly, a resolve hardened in him, and he seized the short sword that lay beside him, and kneeling, he stooped low over the bodies of his companions. With what strength he had, he hewed at the crawling arm near the wrist, and the hand broke off. But at the same moment, the sword splintered up to the hilt. There was a shriek, and the light vanished. In the dark, there was a snarling noise. Frodo fell forward over Merry, and Merry's face felt cold. All at once, back into his mind from which it had disappeared with the first coming of the fog, came the memory of the house down under the hill, and of Tom singing. He remembered the rhyme that Tom had taught them. In a small, desperate voice he began, And with that name his voice seemed to grow strong. It had a full and lively sound, and the dark chamber echoed as if to a drum and trumpet. Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadil, oh, by water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. There was a sudden deep silence in which Frodo could hear his heart beating. After a long, slow moment, he heard plain, but far away, as if it was coming down through the ground or through thick walls, an answering voice singing, Oh, Tom Bombadil, he's a merry fellow, bright blue and jacket is, and his boots are yellow. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. There was a loud rumbling sound as of stones rolling and falling, and suddenly light streamed in. Real light, the plain light of day. A low door-like opening appeared at the end of the chamber beyond Frodo's feet, and there was Tom's head, hat, feather and all, framed against the light of the sun, rising red behind him. The light fell upon the floor, and upon the faces the three hobbits lying beside Frodo. They did not stir, but the sickly hue had left them. They looked now as if they were only very deeply asleep. Tom stooped, removed his hat, and came into the dark chamber singing, Get out, you old white, vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains, Come never here again, leave your barrow empty. Lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut, till the world is mended. At these words there was a cry, and part of the inner end of the chamber fell with a crash. Then there was a long trailing shriek, fading away into an unguessable distance. And after that... Silence. Come, friend Frodo, said Tom. Let us get out on green grass. You must help me bear them. Together they carried out Mary Pippin and Sam. As Frodo left the barrow for the last time, he thought he saw a severed hand wriggling still, like a wounded spider, 
in a heap of fallen earth. Tom went back in again, and there was a sound of much thumping and stamping. When he came out, he was bearing in his arms a great load of treasure. Things of gold, silver, copper, and bronze, many beads and chains, and jeweled ornaments. He climbed the green barrow and lay them all on top in the sunshine. There he stood, with his hat in his hand and the wind in his hair, and looked down upon the three hobbits that had been laid on their backs upon the grass at the west side of the mound. Raising his right hand, he said in a clear, commanding voice, Wake now, my merry lads! Wake and hear me calling! Warm now be heart and limb, the cold stone is fallen. Dark door is standing wide, dead hand is broken, night under night has flown, and the gates are open! To Frodo's great joy, the hobbits stirred, stretched their arms, rubbed their eyes, and then suddenly sprang up. They looked about in amazement, first at Frodo, and then at Tom standing larger as life on the barrow top above them, and then at themselves in their thin white rags, crowned and belted with pale gold and jingling with trinkets. Uh, what in the name of wonder? began Mary, feeling the golden circlet that slipped over one eye. Then he stopped, and a shadow came over his face, and he closed his eyes. Of course, I remember, he said. The men of Karn Dune came on us at night, and we were worsted. <sighs> a spear in my heart. He clutched at his breast. No, he said, opening his eyes. What am I saying? I've been dreaming. Where did you get to, Frodo? I thought I was lost, said Frodo. But I don't want to speak of it. Let us think of what we are to do now. Let us go on. Dressed up it like this, sir, said Sam. Where are my clothes? He flung his circlet, belt, and rings on the grass, and looked around helplessly as if he expected to find his cloak, jacket, and breeches and other hobbit garments lying somewhere to hand. You won't find your clothes again, said Tom, bounding down from the mound and laughing as he danced round in the sunlight. One would have thought that nothing dangerous or dreadful had happened, and indeed the horror faded out of their hearts as they looked at him and saw the merry glint in his eyes. But, but what do you mean? asked Pippin, looking at him, half puzzled and half amused. Why not? But Tom shook his head, saying, You found yourselves again, out of the deep water. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb. Cast off these cold rags. Run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. He sprang away downhill, whistling and calling. Looking down after him, Frodo saw him running away southwards along the green hollow between the hill and the next, still whistling and crying. Hey now, come boy now, will the do you wonder? Up down near and far here, do you wonder? Sharp bears, wise nose, swish tail and bumpkin, white socks, my little lad, and oh, fatty lumpkin. So he sang, running fast, tossing up his hat and catching it until it was hidden by a fold of the ground. But for some time his hey now, hoy now, came floating back down the wind, which had shifted round towards the south. The air was growing very warm again. The hobbits ran about for a while on the grass as he told them, and they lay basking in the sun with the delight of those that had been wafted suddenly from bitter winter to a friendly clime. Or of people that, after being long ill and bedridden, wake one day to find that they are unexpectedly well, and the day is again full of promise. 
By the time that Tom returned, they were feeling strong and hungry. He reappeared, hat first over the brow of the hill, and behind him came in an obedient line six ponies. Their own five, and one more. The last was plainly old Fatty Lumpkin. He was larger, stronger, fatter, and older than their own ponies. Mary, to whom the others belonged, had not, in fact, given them any such names, but they answered to their new names that Tom had given them for the rest of their lives. Tom called them one by one, and they climbed over the brow and stood in the line. Then Tom bowed to the hobbits. Here are your ponies now, he said. They've more sense, in some ways, than you wandering hobbits have. More sense in their noses. For they sniff danger ahead, which you walk right into. And if they run to save themselves, then they run the right way. You must forgive them all, for though their hearts are faithful, to face fear of Barrow Whites is not what they were made for. <laughs> See, here they come again, bringing all their burdens. Mary, Sam, and Pippin now clothed themselves in spare garments from their packs, and they soon felt too hot, for they were obliged to put on some of the thicker and warmer things that they had brought against the oncoming of winter. Where does that other old animal, that fatty lumpkin, come from? asked Frodo. Ah, oh, he's mine said Tom, my four-legged friend. Though I seldom ride him, and he wanders often far, free upon the hillsides. When your pony stayed with me, they got to know my lumpkin, and they smelt him in the night, and quickly ran to meet him. I thought he'd look for them, and with his words of wisdom, take all their fear away. But now, my jolly lumpkin, old Tom's going to ride. Hey, he's coming with you, just to set you on the road, so he needs a pony. Or you cannot easily talk to hobbits that are riding when they're on your own legs trying to trot beside them. The hobbits were delighted to hear this and thanked Tom many times. But he laughed and said that they were so good at losing themselves that he would not feel happy till he had seen them safe over the borders of his land. I've got things to do, he said. My making and my singing, my talking, my walking and my watching of the country. Tom can't be always near to open doors and willow cracks. Tom has his house to mind, and Goldberry's waiting. It was still fairly early by the sun, something between nine and ten, and the hobbits turned their minds to food. Their last meal had been lunch beside the standing stone the day before. They breakfasted now off the remainder of Tom's provisions, meant for their supper, with additions that Tom had brought with him. It was not a large meal considering hobbits and their circumstances, but they felt much better for it. While they were eating, Tom went up the mound and looked through the treasures. Most of these he made into a pile that glistened and sparkled on the grass. He bade them lie there, free to all finders, birds, beasts, elves, men, and all kindly creatures. For so the spell of the mound should be broken and scattered, and no white ever come back to it. He chose for himself from the pile a brooch set with blue stones, Many shaded like flax flowers or the wings of blue butterflies, he looked long at it, as if stirred by some memory, shaking his head and saying at last, Here is a pretty toy for Tom and for his lady. Fair was she who long ago wore this on her shoulder. Goldberry shall wear it now, and we will not forget her. For each of the hobbits he chose a dagger, long, leaf-shaped and keen, of marvellous workmanship damasked with serpent forms in red and gold. They gleamed as he drew them from their black sheaths, 
wrought of some strange metal, light and strong, and set with many fiery stones. Whether by some virtue in these sheaths, or because of the spell that lay on the mound, the blade seemed untouched by time, unrusted, sharp, glittering in the sun. Old knives are long enough as swords for hobbit people, he said. Sharp blades are good to have if shire folk go walking, east, south, or far away into dark and danger. Then he told them that these blades were forged many long years ago by men of Westerness. They were foes of the Dark Lord, but they were overcome by the evil king of Karandum in the land of Angmar. Hmm, few now remember them, Tom murmured. Yet still some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings, walking in loneliness, guarding from evil things, folk that are heedless. The hobbits did not understand his words, but as he spoke, they had a vision, as it were, of a great expanse of years behind them, like a vast shadowy plain over which there strode shapes of men, tall and grim, with bright swords, and last came one with a star on his brow. Then the vision faded, and they were back in the sunlit world. It was time to start again. They made ready, packing their bags and ladding their ponies. Their new weapons they hung on their leather belts under their jackets, feeling them very awkward and wondering if they would be of any use. Fighting had not before occurred to any of them as one of the adventures in which their flight would land them. At last they set off, and then mounting they trotted quickly along the valley. They looked back and saw the top of the old mound on the hill, and from it the sunlight on the gold went up like a yellow flame. Then they turned a shoulder of the downs, and it was hidden from view. Though Frodo looked about him on every side, he saw no sign of the great stone standing like a gate, and before long they came to the northern gap and rode swiftly through, and the land fell away before them. It was a merry journey with Tom Bombadil trotting gaily beside them, or before them, on Fatty Lumpkin, who could move much faster than his girth promised. Tom sang most of the time, but it was chiefly nonsense, or else perhaps a strange language unknown to the hobbits. An ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. They went forward steadily, but they soon saw that the road was further away than they had imagined. Even without a fog, their sleep at midday would have prevented them from reaching it until an after nightfall on the day before. The dark line they had seen was not a line of trees, but a line of bushes, growing on the edge of a deep dike within a steep wall on the further side. Tom said that it had once been boundary of a kingdom, but a very long time ago. He seemed to remember something sad about it, and would not say much. They climbed down and out of the dike, and through a gap in the wall. And then Tom turned due north, for they had been bearing somewhat to the west. The land was now open and fairly level, and they quickened the pace, but the sun was already sinking low, and at last they saw a line of tall trees ahead. And they knew that they had come back to the road after many unexpected adventures. They galloped their ponies over the last furlongs and halted under the long shadows of the trees. They were on the top of a sloping bank, and the road, now dim as evening drew on, wound away below them. At this point it ran nearly from southwest to northeast, and on their right it fell quickly down into a wide hollow. It was rutted and bore many signs of recent heavy rain. There were pools and potholes full of water. They rode down the bank and looked up and down. There was nothing to be seen. Well, here we are again, at last, said Frodo. 
I suppose we haven't lost more than two days by my shortcut through the forest, but perhaps the delay will prove useful. It may have put them off our trail. The others looked at him. The shadow of the fear of the Black Riders came suddenly over them again. Ever since they had entered the forest, they had thought chiefly of getting back on the road. Only now, when they lay beneath their feet, did they remember the danger which pursued them, and was more than likely to be lying in wait for them upon the road itself. They looked anxiously back towards the setting sun, but the road was brown and empty. Uh, do you think... asked Pippin hesitatingly. Do you think that we may be pursued tonight? No, I hope not tonight, answered Tom Bombadil, nor perhaps the next day. But do not trust my guess, for I cannot tell for certain. Out east my knowledge fails. Tom is not master of riders from the Black Land far beyond his country. All the same, the hobbits wished he was coming with them. They felt that he would know how to deal with Black Riders if anyone did. They would soon now be going forward into lands wholly strange to them, and beyond all but the most vague and distant legends of the Shire, and in the gathering twilight they longed for home. A deep loneliness and sense of loss was on them. They stood silent, reluctant to make the final parting, and only slowly became aware that Tom was wishing them farewell and telling them to have a good heart and to ride on till dark without halting. Tom will give you good advice till this day is over. After that, your own luck must go with you and guide you. Four miles along the road, you'll come upon the village. Bree under Bree Hill, with doors looking westward. There you'll find an old inn that is called the Prancing Pony. Barlemon Butterbur is the worthy keeper. There you can stay in the night, and afterwards the morning will speed you upon your way. Be bold, but wary. Keep up your merry hearts and ride to make your fortune. They begged him to come at least as far as the inn and drink once more with them, but he laughed and refused, saying, Tom's country ends here. He will not pass the borders. Tom has his house to mind, and Goldberry's waiting. Then he turned, tossed up his hat, leaped on Lumpkin's back, and rode up over the bank and away singing into the dusk. The hobbits climbed up and watched him until he was out of sight. I'm sorry to take leave of Master Bombadil, said Sam. He's a caution and no mistake. I reckon we may go a good deal further and see not better nor queerer. But I won't deny I'll be glad to see his prancing pony he spoke of. I hope it'll be like the Green Dragon away back home. What sort of folk are they in Bree? There are hobbits in Bree, said Mary, as well as big folk. I dare say it will be home-like enough. The pony is good in by all accounts. My people ride out there now and again. It may be all we could wish, said Frodo. But it is outside the Shire all the same. Don't make yourselves too much at home. And please remember, all of you, that the name of Baggins must not be mentioned. I am Mr. Underhill, if any name must be given. They now mounted their ponies and rode off silently into the evening. Darkness came down quickly as they plodded slowly downhill and up again, until at last they saw lights twinkling some distance ahead. Before them rose Bree Hill, barring the way, a dark mass against misty stars, 
and under its western flank nestled a large village. Towards it they now hurried, desiring only to find a fire, and a door between them and the night. Bree was the chief village of the Bree land, a small inhabited region like an island in the empty lands round about. Besides Bree itself, there was Staddle on the other side of the hill, Combe in the deep valley a little further eastward, and Archard on the edge of the Chetwood. Lying round Bree Hill and the villages was a small country of fields and tamed woodland only a few miles broad. The men of Bree were brown-haired, broad, and rather short, cheerful and independent. They belonged to nobody. But themselves, but they were more friendly and familiar with hobbits, dwarfs, elves, and other inhabitants of the world around them than was, or is, usual with big people. According to their own tales, they were the original inhabitants, and were the descendants of the first men that ever wandered into the west of the Middle World. Few had survived the turmoils of the Elder Days, but when the kings returned again over the Great Sea, they had found the Bree men still there, and they were still there now when the memory of the old kings had faded into the grass. In those days, no other men had settled dwellings so far west or within a hundred leagues of the Shire, but in the wildlands beyond Bree, there were mysterious wanderers. The Bree folk called them rangers and knew nothing of their origin. They were taller and darker than the men of Bree and were believed to have strange powers of sight and hearing, and to understand the languages of beasts and birds. They roamed at will southwards and eastwards, even as far as the misty mountains, but they were now few and rarely seen. When they appeared, they brought news from afar and told strange forgotten tales which were eagerly listened to, but the Bree folk did not make friends of them. There were also many families of hobbits in the Bree land, and they claimed to be the oldest settlement of hobbits in the world. Long before even the Brandywine was crossed and the Shire colonized, they lived mostly in Staddle, though there were some in Bree itself, especially on the higher slopes of the hill above the houses of the men. The big folk and the little folk, as they called one another, were on friendly terms, minding their own affairs in their own ways, but both rightly regarding themselves as necessary parts of the Bree folk. Nowhere else in the world was this peculiar, but excellent arrangement to be found. The Bree folk, big and little, did not themselves travel much, and the affairs of the four villages were their chief concern. Occasionally the hobbits of Bree went as far as Buckland or the East Farthing, but though their little land was not much further than a day's riding east of the Brandywine Bridge, the hobbits of the Shire now seldom visited it. An occasional Bucklander or an adventurous duke would come out to the inn for a night or two, but even that was becoming less and less usual. 
The Shire hobbits referred to those of Bree and to any others that lived beyond the borders as outsiders and took very little interest in them, considering them dull and uncouth. There were probably many more outsiders scattered about the west of the world in those days than the people of the Shire imagined. Some, doubtless, were no better than tramps, ready to dig a hole in any bank and stay only as long as it suited them. But in the Breeland, at any rate, the hobbits were decent and prosperous, and no more rustic than most of their distant relatives inside. It was not yet forgotten that there had been a time when there was much coming and going between the Shire and Bree. There was Bree blood in the Brandybucks, by all accounts. The village of Bree had some hundred stone houses of the big folk, mostly above the road, nestling on the hillside with windows looking west. On that side, running in more than half a circle down the hill and back to it, there was a deep dyke with a thick hedge on the inner side. Over this the road crossed by a causeway, but where it pierced the hedge it was barred by a great gate. There was another gate in the southern corner where the road ran out of the village. The gates were closed at nightfall, but just inside them were small lodges for the gatekeepers. Down on the road where it swept to the right to go round the foot of the hill, there was a large inn. It had been built long ago, where the traffic on the roads had been far greater, for Bree stood at an old meeting of ways. Another ancient road crossed the east road just outside the dike at the western end of the village, and in former days men and other folk of various sorts had travelled much on it. Strangers' news from Bree was still a saying in the east farthing, descending from those days, when news from the north, south and east could be heard in the inn, and when the Shire hobbits used to go more often to hear it. But the northern lands had long been desolate, and the north road was now seldom used. It was grass-grown, and the Bree folk called it the Greenway. The inn of Bree was still there, however, and the innkeeper was an important person. His house was a meeting place for the idle, talkative, and inquisitive among the inhabitants large and small of the four villages, and a resort of rangers and other wanderers, and for such travellers, mostly dwarves, as still journeyed on the east road to and from the mountains. It was dark, and white stars were shining when Frodo and his companions came at last to the Greenway crossing and drew near the village. They came to the west gate and found it shut, but at the door of the lodge beyond it there was a man sitting. He jumped up and fetched a lantern and looked over the gate at them in surprise. What are you, Wald, and where do you come from? He asked gruffly. We are making for the inn here, answered Frodo. We are journeying east and cannot go further tonight. Hobbits, four hobbits, and what's more out of the shire by their dog, said the gatekeeper softly as if speaking to himself. He stared at them darkly for a moment and slowly opened the gate and let them ride through. We don't often see Shire folk riding on the road at night, he went on, as they halted for a moment by his door. You'll pardon my wondering, what brings us takes you away east of Bree? What may your names be, might I ask? Our names and our business are our own, and this does not seem like a good place to discuss them, said Frodo, not liking the look of the man or the tone of his voice. Your business is your own, no doubt, said the man, but it's my business to ask questions after nightfall. We are hobbits of Buckland, and we have a fancy to travel and stay at the inn here. Put in Mary. I'm Mr. Brandybuck. Is that enough for you? The pre-folk used to be fair-spoken to travelers, or so I've heard. All right, all right, said the man. I meant no offense. 
But you'll find that maybe more folk than old Harriet the gate will be asking you questions. There's queer folk about. If you go on to the pony, you'll find you're not the only guests. He wished them good night, and they said no more. But Frodo could see in the lantern light that the man was still eyeing them curiously. He was glad to hear the gate clang behind them as they rode forward. He wondered why the man was so suspicious, and whether anyone had been asking for news of a party of hobbits. Could it have been Gandalf? He might have arrived while they were delayed in the forest in the downs. But there was something else in the look and the voice of the gatekeeper that made him uneasy. The man stared after the hobbits for a moment, and then he went back into his house. As soon as his back was turned, a dark figure climbed quickly in over the gate and melted into the shadows of the village street. The hobbits rode up a gentle slope, passing a few detached houses, and drew up outside the inn. The houses looked large and strange to them. Sam stared up at the inn with its three stories and many windows, and felt his heart sink. He had imagined himself meeting giants taller than trees and other creatures even more terrifying some time or other in the course of his journey, but at the moment he was finding his first sight of men in their tall houses quite enough. Indeed, too much for the dark end of a tiring day. He pictured black horses standing all saddled in the shadows of the inn yard, and black riders peering out of dark upper windows. We surely aren't going to stay here for the night, are we, sir? He exclaimed. There are hobbit folk in these parts. Why don't we look for someone that would be willing to take us in? It would be more home-like. What's wrong with the inn? Said Frodo. Tom Bombadil recommended it. I expect it's more home-like enough inside. Even from the outside, the inn looked a pleasant house to familiar eyes. It had a front on the road, and two wings running back on land partly cut out of the lower slopes of the hill, so that at the rear, the second-floor windows were level with the ground. There was a wide arch leading to a courtyard between the two wings, and on the left under the arch there was a large doorway, reached by a few broad steps. The door was open and light streamed out of it. Above the arch there was a lamp, and beneath it swung a large signboard. A fat white pony reared up in its hind legs. Over the door was painted in white letters, The Prancing Pony by Barleyman Butterbur. Many of the lower windows showed lights behind thick curtains. As they hesitated outside in the gloom, someone began singing a merry song inside, and many cheerful voices joined loudly in the chorus. They listened to this encouraging sound for a moment, and then got off their ponies. The song ended, and there was a burst of laughter and clapping. They led their ponies under the arch, and leaving them standing in the yard, they climbed up the steps. Frodo went forward and nearly bumped into a short fat man with a bald head and a red face. He had a white apron on, and was bustling out of one door and then through another carrying a tray laden with full mugs. Can we? Half a minute, if you please, shouted the man over his shoulder and vanished into a babble of voices and a cloud of smoke. In a moment he was out again, wiping his hands on his apron. Good evening, little master, he said, bending down. What may you be wanting? Uh, beds for four and stabling for five ponies, if it can be managed. Are you Mr. Butterbur? That's right. Barleyman's my name. Barleyman Butterbur, at your service. You're from the Shire, eh? He said. And then suddenly he clapped his hands to his forehead as if trying to remember something. Hobbits! He cried. Now what does that remind me of? May I ask your name, sir? Mr. Tuke and Mr. Brandybuck, said Frodo. 
And this is Sam Gamji. My name is Underhill. There now, said Mr. Butterbur, snapping his fingers. It's gone again, but it'll come back when I have time to think. I'm run off my feet, but I'll see what I can do for you. We don't often get a party out of the Shire nowadays, and I should be sorry not to make you welcome. But there is such a crowd already in the house tonight, as it hasn't been for long enough. It never rains, but it's pours, as we say in Bree. Hey, no! He shouted. Where are you, you woolly-footed snowcoat? Stop! Coming, sir? Coming? A cheery-looking hobbit bobbed out of the door, and seeing the travellers, stopped short and stared at them with great interest. Where's Bob? Asked the landlord. Don't you know? Well, find him! Double sharp! I haven't got six legs nor six eyes neither. Tell Bob there's five ponies that have to be stable. He must find room somehow. Nob trotted off with a grin and a wink. Well, now... What was I going to say? Said Mr. Butterbur, tapping his forehead. One thing drives out another, so to speak. I'm not busy tonight. My head's going round. There's a party that came up the Greenway from down south last night, and that was strange enough to begin with. Then there's a travelling company of boars going west come this evening, and now there's you. If you weren't hobbits, I doubt if we could house you. But we've got a room or two in the north wing that were made special for hobbits when this place was built. On the ground floor, as they usually prefer. Round windows and all as they like it. Well, I hope you'll be comfortable. You'll be wanting supper, I don't doubt. As soon as may be. This way now. He led them a short way down a passage and opened a door. Here is a nice little parlour, he said. Oh, I hope it will suit. Excuse me now, I'm that busy. No time for talking. I must be trotting. It's hard work for two legs, but I don't get thinner. I'll look in again later. If you want anything, ring the handbell, and no will come. If you don't come, ring and shout. Off he went at last, and left them feeling rather breathless. He seemed capable of an endless stream of talk, however busy he might be. They found themselves in a small and cosy room. There was a bit of bright fire burning on the hearth, and in front of it were some low and comfortable chairs. There was a round table, already spread with a white cloth, and on it was a large handbell. But Nob, the hobbit servant, came bustling in long before they thought of ringing. He brought candles and a tray full of plates. Will you be wanting anything to drink, masters? He asked. And shall I show you the bedrooms while your supper is got ready? They were washed, and in the middle of good deep mugs of beer when Mr. Butterbur and Nob came in again, in a twinkling the table was laid. There was hot soup, cold meats, a blackberry tart new loaves, slabs of butter, and half a ripe cheese. Good, plain food. As good as the Shire could show, and homelike enough to dispel the loss of Sam's misgivings. Already much relieved by the excellence of the beer. The landlord hovered round for a little, and then prepared to leave them. I don't know whether you'd care much to join the company when you have supped, he said, standing at the door. Perhaps you would rather go to your beds. Still, the company would be very pleased to welcome you, if you had a mind. We don't get outsiders, uh, travelers from the Shire, I would say, begging your pardon, often. And we like to hear a bit of news, or any story or song you have in mind. But as you please, ring the bell if you like anything. So refreshed and encouraged did they feel at the end of their supper, about three quarters of an hour's steady going, not hindered by unnecessary talk that Frodo, Pippin, and Sam decided to join the company. Mary said it would be too stuffy. I shall sit here quietly by the fire for a bit. Uh, perhaps go out later for a sniff of air. Mind your P's and Q's, and don't forget that you're supposed to be escaping in secret. And they're all still on the high road and not very far from the Shire. All right, said Pippin. Mind yourself, don't get lost, and don't forget that it's safer indoors. The company was in the big common room of the inn. 
The gathering was large and mixed, as Frodo discovered when his eyes got used to the light. This came chiefly from the blazing log fire, for the three lamps hanging from the beams were dim and half-veiled in smoke. Baliman Butterbur was standing near the fire, talking to a couple of dwarves and one or two strange-looking men. On the benches were various folk, men of Bree, a collection of local hobbits, sitting chattering together, a few more dwarves, and other vague figures difficult to make out away in the shadows and corners. As soon as the Shire hobbits entered, there was a chorus of welcome from the Breelanders. The strangers, especially those that had come up the greenway, stared at them curiously. The landlord introduced the newcomers to the Bree folk, so quickly that, though they caught many names, they were seldom sure who the names belonged to. The men of Bree seemed all to have rather botanical, and to the Shire folk rather odd names, like Rushlight, Goatleaf, Heathertoes, Appledore, Thistlewall, and Fernie, not to mention Butterbur. Some of the hobbits had similar names. The Mugwarts, for instance, seemed numerous, but most of them had natural names, such as Banks, Brockhouse, Longholes, Sandheaver, and Tunnelly, many of which were used in the Shire. There were several underhills from Staddle, and as they could not imagine sharing a name without being related, they took Frodo to their hearts as a long-lost cousin. The Bree Hobbits were, in fact, friendly and inquisitive, and Frodo soon found that some explanation of what he was doing would have to be given. He gave out that he was interested in history and geography, at which there was much wagging of heads, although neither of these words were much used in the Bree dialect. He said that he was thinking of writing a book, at which there was silent astonishment and that he and his friends wanted to collect information about hobbits living outside the Shire, especially in the eastern lands. At this, a chorus of voices broke out. If Frodo had really wanted to write a book and had had many ears, he would have learned enough for several chapters in a few minutes. And if that was not enough, he was given a whole list of names, beginning with Old Barleyman here, to whom he could go for further information. But after a time, as Frodo did not show any sign of writing a book on the spot, the hobbits returned to their questions about doings in the Shire. Frodo did not prove very communicative, and he soon found himself sitting alone, in a corner, listening and looking around. The men and dwarves were mostly talking of distant events and telling news of a kind that was becoming only too familiar. There was trouble away in the south, and it seemed that the men who had come up the Greenway were on the move looking for lands where they could find some peace. The Bree folk were sympathetic, but plainly not very ready to take a large number of strangers into their little land. One of the travelers, a squint-eyed, ill-favored fellow, was foretelling that more and more people would be coming north in the near future. If room isn't found for them, they'll find it for themselves. They've a right to live, same as other folk. He said loudly. The local inhabitants did not look pleased at the prospect. The hobbits did not pay much attention to all this, and it did not at the moment seem to concern hobbits. Big folk could hardly beg for lodgings in hobbit holes. They were more interested in Sam and Pippin, who were now feeling quite at home, and were chatting gaily about events in the Shire. Pippin roused a good deal of laughter with an account of the collapse of the roof of the town hole in Michel Delving. Will Whitford, the mayor and the fattest hobbit in the West Farthing had been buried in chalk and came out like a floured dumpling. But there were several questions asked that made Frodo a little uneasy. One of the Breelanders, who seemed to have been in the Shire several times, wanted to know where the Underhills lived and who they were related to. 
Suddenly, Frodo noticed that a strange-looking, weather-beaten man, sitting in the shadows near the wall, was also listening intently to the hobbit talk. He had a tall tankard in front of him, and was smoking a long-stemmed pipe, curiously carved. His legs were stretched out before him, showing high boots of supple leather that fitted him well, but had seen much wear and were now caked with mud. A travel-stained cloak of heavy dark green cloth was drawn close about him, and in spite of the heat of the room, he wore a hood that overshadowed his face. But the gleam of his eyes could be seen as he watched the hobbits. Who is that? Frodo asked when he got a chance to whisper to Mr. Butterbur. I don't think you introduced him. Him, said the landlord in an answering whisper, cocking an eye without turning his head. I don't rightly know. He's one of the wandering folk, rangers we call him. He sendled and talks, not but what he can tell a rare tale when he has the mind. He disappears for a month or a year, and then he pops up again. He was in and out pretty often last spring, but I haven't seen him about lately. What his right name is, I've never heard, but he's known around here as Strider. Goes about at a great pace on his long shanks, though he don't tell nobody what cause he is to hurry. But there's no accounting for east and west, as we say in Bree. Meaning the rangers and the shire folk, begging your pardon. Funny you should ask about him. But at that moment, Mr. Butterbur was called away by a demand for more ale, and his last remark remained unexplained. Frodo found that Strider was now looking at him, as if he had heard or guessed all that had been said. Presently, with a wave of his hand and a nod, he invited Frodo to come over and sit by him. As Frodo drew near, he threw back his hood, showing a shaggy head of dark hair flecked with grey, and in a pale stern face a pair of keen grey eyes. I'm called Strider, he said in a low voice. I'm very pleased to meet you, Master Underhill, if old Butterbur got your name right. He did, said Frodo stiffly. He felt far from comfortable under the stare of those keen eyes. Well, Master Underhill, said Strider, if I were you, I would stop your young friends from talking too much. Drink, fire, and a chance meeting are pleasant enough, but, well, this isn't the Shire. There are queer folk about. Though I say it as shouldn't, you may think. He added with a wry smile, seeing Frodo's glance. And there have been even stranger travelers through Bree lately. He went on, watching Frodo's face. Frodo returned his gaze but said nothing, and Strider made no further sign. His attention seemed suddenly to be fixed on Pippin. To his alarm, Frodo became aware that the ridiculous young Tuke, encouraged by his success with the fat mayor of Michel Delving, was now actually giving a comic account of Bilbo's farewell party. He was already giving an imitation of the speech, and was drawing near to the astonishing disappearance. Frodo was annoyed. It was a harmless enough tale for most of the local hobbits, no doubt. Just a funny story about those funny people away beyond the river. But some, old Butterbur, for instance, knew a thing or two, and had probably heard rumors long ago about Bilbo's vanishing. It would bring the name of Baggins to their minds, especially if there had been inquiries in Bree after that name. Frodo fidgeted, wondering what to do. Pippin was evidently much enjoying the attention he was getting, and had become quite forgetful of their danger. Frodo had a sudden fear that in his present mood he might even mention the ring, and that might well be disastrous. You had better do something quick, whispered Strider in his ear. Frodo jumped up and stood on a table and began to talk. The attention of Pippin's audience was disturbed. Some of the hobbits looked up at Frodo and laughed and clapped, thinking that Mr. Underhill had taken as much ale as was good for him. Frodo suddenly felt very foolish, and found himself, as was his habit when making a speech, 
fingering the things in his pocket, he felt the ring on its chain, and quite unaccountably the desire came over him to slip it on and vanish out of the silly situation. It seemed to him somehow as if the suggestion came to him from outside, from someone or something in the room. He resisted the temptation firmly and clasped the ring in his hand as if to keep hold on it and prevent it from escaping or doing any mischief. At any rate, it gave him no inspiration. He spoke a few suitable words, as they would have said in the Shire. We are all very much grateful by the kindness of your reception. And I venture to hope that my brief visit will help to renew the old ties of friendship between the Shire and Bree. And then he hesitated and coughed. (coughs) Everyone in the room was now looking at him. Shouted one of the hobbits. A song, a song, shouted all the others. Come on now, master, sing us something that we haven't heard before. For a moment, Frodo stood gaping. Then, in desperation, he began a ridiculous song that Bilbo had been rather fond of, and indeed rather proud of, for he had made up the words himself. It was about an inn, and that is probably why it came into Frodo's mind just then. Here it is in full. Only a few words of it are now, as a rule, remembered. There is an inn a merry old inn beneath an old grey hill, and there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. The oster has a tipsy cat that plays a five-string fiddle, and up and down he runs his bow, now squeaking high, now purring low, now sawing in the middle. The landlord keeps a little dog that's mighty fond of jokes. When there's good cheer among the guests, he cocks an ear at all the jests and laughs until he chokes. They also keep a horned cow as proud as any queen. But music turns her head like ale and makes her wave her tuft tail and dance upon the green. And oh, the rows of silver dishes and the store of silver spoons. For Sunday there's a special pair and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. The man in the moon was drinking deep and the cat began to wail. A dish and a spoon on the table danced, the cow in the garden madly pranced and the little dog chased his tail. The man in the moon took another mug and then rolled beneath his chair. And there he dozed and dreamed of ale till the sky and the stars were pale and dawn was in the air. Then the ostler said to his tipsy cat, The white horses of the moon, they neigh and chaff their silver bits, but their master's been and drowned his wits and the sun'll be rising soon. So the cat on his fiddle played hey diddle diddle, a jig that would wake the dead. He squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune while the landlord shook the man in the moon. It's after three, he said. They rolled the man slowly up the hill and bundled him into the moon while his horses galloped up in rear and the cow came capering like a deer and a dish ran up with the spoon. Now quicker the fiddle went deedle-dum-diddle, the dog began to roar. The cow and the horses stood on their heads, the guests all bounded from their beds and danced upon the floor. With a ping and a pong, the fiddle string broke, the cow jumped over the moon. And the little dog laughed to see such fun, and the Saturday dish went off at a run with the silver Sunday spoon. The round moon rolled behind the hill as the sun raised up her head. She hardly believed her fiery eyes, for though it was day to her surprise, they all went back to bed. There was loud and long applause. Frodo had a good voice, and the song tickled their fancy. Where's old Barley? They cried. He ought to hear this. Robot to learn his cat the fiddle, and we'd have a dance. They called for more ale and began to shout, Let's have it again, master. Come on now, once more. They made Frodo have another drink, 
and then begin his song again, while many of them joined in. For the tune was well known, and they were quick at picking up words. It was now Frodo's turn to feel pleased with himself. He capered about on the table, and when he came a second time to The Cow Jumped Over the Moon, he leapt in the air. Much too vigorously, for he came down, bang, into a tray full of mugs and slipped, and rolled off the table with a crash, clatter and bump. The audience all opened their mouths wide for laughter, then stopped short in gaping silence. For the singer disappeared. He simply vanished, as if he'd gone slapped through the floor without leaving a hole. The local hobbits stared in amazement, and then sprang to their feet and shouted for Barleman. All the company drew away from Pippin and Sam, who found themselves left alone in a corner, and eyed darkly and doubtfully from a distance. It was plain that many people regarded them now as the companions of a traveling magician of unknown powers and purpose. But there was one swarthy Brelander who stood looking at them with a knowing and half-mocking expression that made them feel very uncomfortable. Presently he slipped out of the door, followed by the squint-eyed southerner. The two had been whispering together a good deal during the evening. Harry the gatekeeper also went out just behind them. Frodo felt a fool. Not knowing what else to do, he crawled away under the tables to the dark corner by Strider, who sat unmoved, giving no sign of his thoughts. Frodo leaned back against the wall and took off the ring. How it came to be on his finger he could not tell. He could only suppose that he had been handling it in his pocket while he sang, and that somehow it had slipped on when he stuck out his hand with a jerk to save his fall. For a moment he wondered if the ring itself had not played him a trick. Perhaps it had tried to reveal itself in response to some wish or command that was felt in the room. He did not like the looks of the men that had gone out. Well, said Strider when he reappeared. Why did you do that? Worse than anything your friends could have said. Now you have put your foot in it. Or should I say your finger? I don't know what you mean said Frodo, annoyed and alarmed. Oh, yes, you do, answered Strider. But we had better wait until the uproar has died down. Then, if you please, Mr. Baggins, I should like a quiet word with you. What about? asked Frodo, ignoring the sudden use of his proper name. A matter of some importance to us both, answered Strider, looking Frodo in the eye. You may hear something to your advantage. Very well, said Frodo, trying to appear unconcerned. I'll talk to you later. Meanwhile, an argument was going on by the fireplace. Mr. Butterbur had come trotting in, and he was now trying to listen to several conflicting accounts of the event at the same time. I saw him, Mr. Butterbur, said a hobbit. Or leastways, I didn't see him, if you take my meaning. He, he just vanished into thin air, in a manner of speaking. You don't say, Mr. Mugwort, said the landlord, looking puzzled. Yes, I do, replied Mugwort. And I mean what I say, what's more. There's some mistake somewhere, said Butterbur, shaking his head. There was too much of that Mr. Arnehill to go vanishing into thin air or into thick air, as more likely in this room. Well, where is he now? cried several voices. How should I know? He's welcome to go where he will, so long as he pays in the morning. Where's Mr. Took now? He's not vanished. Well, I saw what I saw, and I saw what I didn't, said Mugwort obstinately. And I say there's some mistake, repeated Butterbur, picking up the tray and gathering up the broken crockery. Of course there's a mistake, said Frodo. I haven't vanished. Here I am. I've just been having a few words with Strider in the corner. He came forward into the firelight, but most of the company backed away, even more protrude than before. They were not in the least satisfied by his explanation that he had crawled away quickly under the tables after he had fallen. Most of the hobbits and the men of Bree went off then and there in a huff, having no fancy for further entertainment that evening. One or two gave Frodo a black look and departed muttering among themselves. 
The dwarves and the two or three strange men that still remained got up and said goodnight to the landlord, but not to Frodo and his friends. Before long, no one was left but Strider, who sat on, unnoticed by the wall. Mr. Butterbird did not seem much put out. He reckoned, very probably, that his house would be full again on many future nights, until the present mystery had been thoroughly discussed. Now what have you been doing, Mr. Underhill? He asked. Frightening my customers and breaking up my crocs with your acrobatics. I am very sorry to have caused any trouble, said Frodo. It was quite unintentional, I assure you. A most unfortunate accident. All right, Mr. Underhill, but if you're going to do any more tumbling or conjuring or whatever it was, you'd best warn folk beforehand. And warn me. We're a bit suspicious around here, if anything out of the way. Uncanny, if you understand me. And we don't take to it all of a sudden. I shan't be doing anything of the sort again, Mr. Butterbur, I promise you. And now I think I'll be getting to bed. We shall be making an early start. Uh, will you see that our ponies are ready by eight o'clock? Very good. Uh, but, but before you go, I should like a word with you in private, Mr. Underhill. Something has just come back to my mind that I ought to tell you. I hope that you'll not take it amiss. When I've seen a thing or two, I'll come along in your room, if you're willing. Uh, certainly, said Frodo, but his heart sank. He wondered how many private talks he would have before he got to bed, and what they would reveal. Were these people all in league against him? He began to suspect even old Butterbur's fat face of concealing dark designs. Frodo, Pippin, and Sam made their way back to the parlor. There was no light. Mary was not there, and the fire had burned low. It was not until they had puffed up the embers into a blaze and thrown on a couple of faggots that they discovered Strider had come with them. There he was, calmly sitting in a chair by the door. Hello, said Pippin. Who are you, and what do you want? I am called Strider, he answered. And though he may have forgotten it, your friend promised to have a quiet talk with me. You said I might hear something to my advantage, I believe, said Frodo. What have you to say? Several things, answered Strider. But of course I have my price. What do you mean? asked Frodo sharply. Don't be alarmed. I mean just this. I will tell you what I know, and give you some good advice, but I shall want a reward. And what will that be, pray? said Frodo. He suspected now that he had fallen in with a rascal and he thought uncomfortably that he had brought only a little money with him. All of it would hardly satisfy a rogue, and he could not spare any of it. No more than you can afford, answered Strider with a slow smile, as if he guessed Frodo's thoughts. Just this. You must take me along with you until I wish to leave you. Oh, indeed, replied Frodo, surprised but not much relieved. Even if I wanted another companion, I should not agree to any such thing until I knew a good deal more about you and your business. Excellent, exclaimed Strider, crossing his legs and sitting back comfortably. You seem to be coming to your senses again, and that is all to the good. You have been much too careless so far. Very well, I will tell you what I know, and leave the reward to you. You may be glad to grant it when you have heard me. Go on, then, said Frodo. What do you know? Too much. Too many dark things, said Strider grimly. But as for your business, he got up and went to the door, opened it quickly and looked out. Then he shut it quietly and sat down again. I have quick ears, he went on, lowering his voice. And though I cannot disappear, I have hunted many wild and weary things, and I can usually avoid being seen if I wish. Now, 
I was behind the hedge this evening on the road west of Bree, when four hobbits came out of the downlands. I need not repeat all that they said to old Bombadil or to one another, but one thing interested me. Please remember, said one of them, that the name of Baggins must not be mentioned. I am Mr. Underhill if any name must be given. That interested me so much that I followed them here. I slipped over the gate just behind them. Maybe Mr. Baggins has an honest reason for leaving his name behind, but if so, I should advise him and his friends to be more careful. I don't see what interest my name has for anyone in Bree, said Frodo angrily. And I have still to learn why it interests you. Mr. Strider may have an honest reason for spying and eavesdropping, but if so, I should advise him to explain it. (laughs) Well answered, said Strider laughing. But the explanation is simple. I was looking for a hobbit called Frodo Baggins. I wanted to find him quickly. I had learned that he was carrying out of the Shire, well, a secret that concerned me and my friends. Now, don't mistake me, he cried as Frodo rose from his seat and Sam jumped up with a scowl. I shall take more care of the secret than you do. And care is needed. He leaned forward and looked at them. Watch every shadow, he said in a low voice. Black horsemen had passed through Bree. On Monday, one came down the greenway, they say, and another appeared later, coming up the greenway from the south. There was silence. At last, Frodo spoke to Pippin and Sam. I ought to have guessed it from the way the gatekeeper greeted us, he said. And the landlord seems to have heard something. Why did he press us to join the company? And why on earth did we behave so foolishly? We ought to have stayed quiet in here. It would have been better, said Strider. I would have stopped your going into the common room if I could, but the innkeeper would not let me in to see you or take a message. Do you think he... Began Frodo. No, I don't think any harm of old Butterbur. Only he does not altogether like mysterious vagabonds of my sort. Frodo gave him a puzzled look. Well, I have a rather rascally look, have I not? Said Strider with a curl of his lip and a queer gleam in his eye. But I hope we shall get to know one another better. When we do, I hope you will explain what happened at the end of your song. For that little prank... It was sheer accident, interrupted Frodo. I wonder, said Strider. Accident, then. That accident has made your position dangerous. Hardly more than it was already, said Frodo. I knew these horsemen were pursuing me, but now at any rate they seem to have missed me and to have gone away. You must not count on that, said Strider sharply. They will return, and more are coming. There are others. I know their number. I know these riders. He paused, and his eyes were cold and hard. And there are some folk in Bree who are not to be trusted, he went on. Bill Fernie, for instance. He has an evil name in Breeland, and queer folk call at his house. You must have noticed him among the company. A swarthy, sneering fellow. He was very close with one of the southern rangers, and they slipped out together just after your accident. Not all of those southerners mean well, and as for Fernie, he would sell anything to anybody or make mischief for amusement. What will Fernie sell, and what has my accident got to do with him? Said Frodo, still determined not to understand Strider's hints. News of you, of course, answered Strider. An account of your performance would be very interesting to certain people. After that, they would hardly need to be told your real name. It seems to me only too likely that they will hear of it before this night is over. Is that enough? You can do as you like about my reward. Take me as a guide or not. 
but I may say that I know the lands between the Shire and the Misty Mountains, for I have wandered over them for many years. I am older than I look. I might prove useful. You will have to leave the open road after tonight, for the horsemen will watch it night and day. You may escape from Bree and be allowed to go forward while the sun is up, but you won't go far. They will come on you in the wild, in some dark place where there is no help. Do you wish them to find you? They are terrible. The hobbits looked at him and saw with surprise that his face was drawn as if with pain, and his hands clenched in the arms of his chair. The room was very quiet and still, and the light seemed to have grown dim. For a while he sat with unseeing eyes as if walking in distant memory or listening to sounds in the night far away. <sighs> he cried after a moment, drawing his hand across his brow. Perhaps I know more about these pursuers than you do. You fear them, but you do not fear them enough yet. Tomorrow you will have to escape if you can. Strider can take you by paths that are seldom trodden. Will you have him? There was a heavy silence. Frodo made no answer. His mind was confused with doubt and fear. Sam frowned and looked at his master, and at last he broke out. With your leave, Mr. Frodo, I'd say no. This strider here, he warns and he says, take care, and I say yes to that. But let's begin with him. He comes out of the wild, and I never heard no good of such folk. He knows something, that's plain and more than I like, but it's no reason why we should let him go leading us into some dark place far from help, as he puts it. Pippin fidgeted and looked uncomfortable. Strider did not reply to Sam, but turned his keen eyes on Frodo. Frodo caught his glance and looked away. No, he said slowly. I don't agree. I think... I think you are not really as you choose to look. You began to talk to me like the brief folk, but your voice has changed. Still, Sam seems right in this. I don't see why you should warn us to take care and yet ask us to take you on trust. Why the disguise? Who are you? What do you really know about... about my business? And how do you know it? A lesson in caution has been well learned, said Strider with a grim smile. But caution is one thing and wavering is another. You will never get to Rivendell now on your own, and to trust me is your only chance. You must make up your mind. I will answer some of your questions, if that will help you to do so. But why should you believe my story if you do not trust me already? Still, here it is. At that moment, there came a knock at the door. Mr. Butterbur had arrived with candles, and behind him was Nob with cans of hot water. Strider withdrew into a dark corner. I've come to bid you good night, said the landlord, putting the candles on the table. Nob, take the water to the rooms. He came in and shut the door. It's like this, he began, hesitating and looking troubled. If I've done any harm, I'm sorry indeed. But one thing drives out another, and, and as you'll admit, I'm a busy man. But first one thing and then another. This week have jogged my memory, as the saying goes. And not too late, I hope. You see, I was asked to look out for hobbits of the Shire. And for one by the name of Baggins in particular. And what has that got to do with me? Asked Frodo. Ah, you know best, said the landlord knowingly. I won't give you away, but I was told that these baggins would be going by the name of Underhill, and I was given a description that fits you well enough, if I may say so. Indeed. Let's have it, then, said Frodo, unwisely interrupting. Um, a stout little fellow with red cheeks, 
said Mr. Butterbur solemnly. <laughs> Pippin chuckled, but Sam looked indignant. That won't help you much. It goes for most hobbits, Barley, he says to me, continued Mr. Butterbur with a glance at Pippin. But this one is taller than some, and fairer than most, and he has a cleft in his chin. Perky chap with a bright eye, begging your pardon, but he said it, not me. He said it? And who was he? asked Frodo eagerly. Ah, that was Gandalf, if you know who I mean. A wizard, they say he is, but he's a good friend of mine, whether or no. But now I don't know what he'll have to say to me if I see him again. Turn all my ale sour on me into a block of wood, I shouldn't wonder. He's a bit hasty. Still, what's done can't be undone. Well, what have you done? said Frodo, getting impatient with the slow unravelling of Butterbur's thoughts. Where was I? said the landlord, pausing and snapping his fingers. Ah, yes, old Gandalf. Three months back, he walked right into my room without a knock. Barley, he says, I'm off in the morning. Will you do something for me? You've only to name it, I said. I'm in a hurry, said he, and I've no time myself. But I want a message took to the Shire. Have you anyone you can send and trust to go? I can find someone, I said. Tomorrow, maybe, or the day after. Make it tomorrow, he says, and then he gave me a letter. It's addressed plain enough said Mr. Butterbur, producing a letter from his pocket and reading out the address slowly and loudly. He valued his reputation as a lettered man. Mr. Frodo Baggins, Bag End, Hobbiton in the Shire. A letter for me from Gandalf, cried Frodo. Ah, said Mr. Butterbur. Then your right name is Baggins. It is, said Frodo. And you had better give me that letter at once and explain why you've never sent it. That's what you came to tell me, I suppose, though you've taken a long time to come to the point. Poor Mr. Butterbur looked troubled. You're right, master, he said. And I beg your pardon, and I'm mortal afraid of what Gandalf will say if harm comes of it. But I didn't keep it back a purpose. I put it in my safe. Then I couldn't find nobody willing to go to the Shire the next day, nor the day after, and none for my own folk were to spare, so... And then one thing after another drove it out of my mind. I'm a busy man. I'll do what I can and set matters right. If there's any help I can give, you've only to name it. Leaving the letter aside, I promise Gandalf no less. Barley, he says to me. This friend of mine from the Shire. He may be coming out this way before long. Him and another. He'll be calling himself Underhill. Mind that. But you need ask no questions, and if I'm not with him, he may be in trouble. And he may need help. Do whatever you can for him. And I'll be grateful, he says. And here you are. And trouble's not far off, seemingly. What do you mean? Asked Frodo. <laughs> These black men, said the landlord, lowering his voice. They're looking for Baggins, and if they mean well, then I'm a hobbit. It was on Monday that all the dogs were yammering, and all the geese screaming. Uncanny, I called it. Nope. He came and told me that two black men were at the door asking for a hobbit called Baggins. Nope's hair was all stood on end. I did the black fellows be off and slammed the door on them. They've been asking the same question all the way to Archit, I hear. And that ranger, Strider, he's been asking questions too. Tried to get in here to see you before you'd have everybody dress up, he did. He did, said Strider suddenly, coming forward into the light. And much trouble would have been saved if you had let him in, Barlamon. The landlord jumped with surprise. You! He cried. You're always popping up. What do you want now? He's here with my leave, said Frodo. He came to offer me his help. Well... You know your own business, maybe, said Mr. Butterbur, looking suspiciously at Strider. But if I was in your plight, I wouldn't take up with the ranger. Then who would you take up with? Asked Strider. A fat innkeeper who only remembers his own name because people shouted at him all day. They cannot stay in the pony forever. And they cannot go home. 
They have a long road before them. Will you go with them and keep the black men off? Me? Leave Bree? I wouldn't do that for any money, said Mr. Butterbur, looking really scared. But, but why can't you stay here quiet for a bit, Mr. Underhill? Where are all these queer goings on? And what are these black men after? And where do they come from, I'd like to know? I'm sorry. I can't explain it all, answered Frodo. I'm tired and very worried. And it's a long tale. But if you mean to help me, I ought to warn you that you will be in danger as long as I am in your house. These black riders... I'm not sure, but I think... I fear they come from... They come from Mordor, said Strider in a low voice. From Mordor, Barleman, if that means anything to you. <gasps> oh, save us! cried Mr. Butterbur, turning pale. The name evidently was known to him. That is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time. It is, said Frodo. Are you still willing to help me? I am, said Mr. Butterbur. More than ever. Though I don't know what the likes of me can do against... Against... He faltered. Against the shadow in the east, said Strider quietly. Not much, Barleman. But every little helps. You can let Mr. Underhill stay here tonight. As Mr. Underhill and you can forget the name of Baggins until he is far away. I'll do that, said Butterbur. Well, they'll find out he's here without help from me, I'm afraid. It's a pity Mr. Baggins drew attention to himself this evening to say no more. The story of that Mr. Bilbo's going off has been heard before tonight in Bree. Even our knob has been doing some guessing in his own slow pate. And there are others in Bree quicker in the uptake than he is. Well, we can only hope the riders won't come back yet, said Frodo. I hope not, indeed, said Butterbur. But spooks or no spooks, they won't get in the pony so easy. Don't you worry till the morning. No will say no word. No black man shall pass my doors while I can stand on my legs. Me and my folk will keep watch tonight. But you had best get some sleep if you can. In any case, we must be called at dawn, said Frodo. We must get off as early as possible. Breakfast at 6.30, please. Right. I'll see to the orders, said the landlord. Good night, Mr. Baggins. Underhill, I should say. Good night. Now, bless me. Where's your Mr. Brandybuck? I don't know, said Frodo with sudden anxiety. They had forgotten all about Merry, and it was getting late. I'm afraid he is out. He said something about going for a breath of air. Well, you do want looking after, and no mistake, your party might be on holiday, said Mr. Butterbur. I must go and bar the doors quick, but I'll see our friend is let in when he comes. I'll better send not to look for him. Good night to you all. At last, Mr. Butterbur went out with another doubtful look at Strider and a shake of his head. His footsteps retreated down the passage. Well, said Strider, when are you going to open that letter? Frodo looked carefully at the seal before he broke it. It seemed certainly to be Gandalf's. Inside, written in the wizard's strong but graceful script, was the following message. The Prancing Pony, Bree, Midia's Day, Shire, Year 1418. Dear Frodo, bad news has reached me here. I must go off at once. You had better leave Bag End soon, and get out of the Shire before the end of July at latest. I will return as soon as I can, and I will follow you if I find that you are gone. Leave a message for me here if you pass through Bree. You can trust the landlord, Butterbur. You may meet a friend of mine on the road, a man, lean, dark, tall, 
by some called Strider. He knows our business and will help you. Make for Rivendell. There I hope we may meet again. If I do not come, Elrond will advise you. Yours in haste, Gandalf. Postscript. Do not use it again. Not for any reason whatever. Do not travel by night. Post postscript. Make sure that it is the real Strider. There are many strange men on the roads. His true name is Aragorn. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. I hope Butterbur sends this promptly. A worthy man, but his memory is like a lumber room. Thing wanted, always buried. If he forgets, I shall roast him. Farewell. Frodo read the letter to himself, and then passed it to Pippin and Sam. Really, old Butterbur has made a mess of things, he said. He deserves roasting. If I had got this at once, we might have all been safe in Rivendell by now. But what can have happened to Gandalf? He writes as if he was going into great danger. He has been doing that for many years, said Strider. Frodo turned and looked at him thoughtfully, wondering about Gandalf's second postscript. Why didn't you tell me you were Gandalf's friend at once? He asked. It would have saved time. Would it? Would any of you have believed me till now? Said Strider. I knew nothing of this letter. For all I knew, I had to persuade you to trust me without proofs if I was to help you. In any case, I did not intend to tell you all about myself at once. I had to study you first and make sure of you. The enemy has set traps for me before now. As soon as I had made up my mind, I was ready to tell you whatever you asked. <laughs> but I must admit, he added with a queer laugh, that I hoped you would take me for my own sake. A hunted man sometimes wearies of distrust and longs for friendship. But there, I believe my looks are against me. Uh, they are. Uh, <laughs> first sight, at any rate. Laughed Pippin with sudden relief after reading Gandalf's letter. But handsome is as handsome does, as we say in the Shire... And I dare say we shall all look much the same after lying for days in hedges and ditches. It would take more than a few days or weeks or years of wandering in the wild to make you look like Strider, he answered. And you would die first unless you are made of sterner stuff than you'd look to be. Pippin subsided, but Sam was not daunted, and he still eyed Strider dubiously. How do we know you are the Strider that Gandalf speaks about? He demanded. You never mentioned Gandalf till this letter came out. You might be a play-acting spy, for all I can see. Trying to get us to go with you. Y you might have done the real Strider and took his clothes. What have you to say to that? That you are a stout fellow, answered Strider. But I am afraid my only answer to you, Sam Gamgee, is this. If I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you. And I would have killed you already without so much talk. If I was after the ring, I could have it. Now. He stood up and seemed suddenly to grow taller. In his eyes gleamed a light, keen and commanding. Throwing back his cloak, he laid his hand on the hilt of a sword that had hung concealed by his side. They did not dare to move. Sam sat wide-mouthed, staring at him dumbly. But I am the real Strider, fortunately. He said, looking down at them with his face softened by a sudden smile. 
I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by my life or death I can save you, I will. There was a long silence. At last, Frodo spoke with hesitation. I, I believed that you were a friend before the letter came, he said, or at least I wished to. You have frightened me several times tonight, but never in the way the servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. I think one of his spies would, well, seem fairer and feel fouler, if you understand. <laughs> I see, laughed Strider. <laughs> I look foul and feel fair, as that is. Oh, that his gold does not glitter. <laughs> not all those who wander are lost. Did the verses apply to you, then? asked Frodo. I could not make out what they were about, but but how did you know that they were in Gandalf's letter if you've never seen it? I did not know, he answered, but I am Aragorn, and those verses go with that name. He drew out his sword, and they saw that the blade was indeed broken a foot below the hilt. Not much use, is it, Sam? said Strider, but the time is near when it shall be forged anew. Sam said nothing. Well, said Strider, with Sam's permission, we will call that settled. Strider shall be your guide. We shall have a rough road tomorrow. Even if we're allowed to leave Bree unhindered, we can hardly hope now to leave it unnoticed. But I shall try to get lost as soon as possible. I know one or two ways out of Bree land other than the main road. If once we shake off the pursuit, we shall make for Weathertop. Weathertop, said Sam. What's that? It is a hill just to the north of the road. About halfway from here to Rivendell, it commands a wide view all around, and there we shall have a chance to look about us. Gandalf will make for that point if he follows us. After Weathertop, our journey will become more difficult, and we shall have to choose between various dangers. When did you last see Gandalf? asked Frodo. Do you know where he is or what he's doing? Strider looked grave. I do not know, he said. I came west with him in the spring. I have often kept watch on the borders of the Shire in the last few years when he was busy elsewhere. He seldom left it unguarded. We last met on the 1st of May, at Sarn Ford down the Brandywine. He told me that his business with you had gone well and that you would be starting for Rivendell in the last week of September. As I knew he was at your side, I went away on a journey of my own, and that has proved ill. For plainly some news reached him, and I was not at hand to help. I am troubled, for the first time since I have known him. We should have had messages, yet even if he would not come himself. When I returned many days ago, I heard the ill news. The tidings had gone far and wide that Gandalf was missing, and the horsemen had been seen. It was the elven folk of Gildor that told me this, and later they told me that you had left your home, but there was no news of your leaving Buckland. I have been watching the East Road anxiously. Do you think the Black Riders have anything to do with it? With Gandalf's absence, I mean, asked Frodo. I do not know of anything else that would have hindered him, except the enemy himself, said Strider. But do not give up hope. Gandalf is greater than you Shire folk know. As a rule, you can only see his jokes and toys. But this business of ours will be his greatest task. Pippin yawned. I am sorry, he said. But I am dead tired. In spite of all the danger and worry, I must go to bed or sleep where I sit. Where is that silly fellow, Merry? It would be the last straw if we had to go out in the dark to look for him. 
At that moment, they heard a door slam. Then feet came running along the passage. Mary came in with a rush, followed by Nob. He shut the door hastily and leaned against it. He was out of breath. They stared at him in alarm for a moment before he gasped. I have seen them, Frodo. I have seen them. Black riders. Black riders. Cried Frodo. Where? Here. In the village. I stayed indoors for an hour. Then, as you did not come back, I went out. I went out for a stroll, and had come again while standing just outside the light of the lamp, looking at the stars. Suddenly, I shivered and felt that something horrible was creeping near. There was a sort of deeper shade among the shadows across the road, just beyond the edge of the lamplight. I slid away at once into the dark without a sound. There was no horse. Which way did he go? Asked Strider suddenly and sharply. Mary, st- Mary started, looking at the stranger for the first time. Go on," said Frodo. "This is a friend of Gandalf's. I will explain later." It seemed to make off up the road eastward," continued Mary. "I tried to follow. Of course, it vanished almost at once. But I went round the corner and on as far as the last house on the road." Strider looked at Mary with wonder. "You have a stout heart," he said. "But it was foolish." "I don't know," said Mary. "Neither brave nor silly. I think I could hardly help myself." I seemed to be drawn somehow. Anyway, I went, and suddenly I heard voices by the hedge. One was muttering, and the other was whispering or hissing. I couldn't hear a word that was said. I did not creep any closer because I began to tremble all over. Then I felt terrified, and I turned back. I was going to bolt home when something came behind me, and I, I fell over. I found him, sir. Put in Nob. Mr. Butterbur sent me out with a lantern. I went down to the west gate, and then back up towards Southern Gate, just nigh Bill Fernie's house. I thought I could see something in the road. I wouldn't swear to it, but it looked to me as if two men were stooping over something, lifting it. I gave a shout, but when I got up to the spot, there was no signs of them. Only Mr. Brandybuck lying by the roadside. He seemed to be asleep. I thought I had fallen into deep water. He says to me. Then I shook him. Very queer he was. And as soon as I had roused him. He got up and ran back here like a hare. I'm afraid that's true," said Mary. "Though I don't know what I said, I had an ugly dream, which I can't remember. I went to pieces. I don't know what came over me. I do," said Strider. "The black breath. The riders must have left horses outside and passed back through the south gate in secret. They will know all the news now, for they have visited Bill Fernie, and probably that southerner was a spy as well." Something may happen in the night before we leave Bree. What will happen? Said Mary. Will they attack the inn? No, I think not. Said Strider. They are not all here yet, and in any case, and in any case, that is not their way. In dark and loneliness, they are the strongest. They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people. Not until they are desperate. Not while all the leagues of Eriador still lie before us. But their power is in terror, and already some in Bree. And already some in Bree are in that clutch. They will drive these wretches to some evil work. Fernie and some of the strangers, and maybe the gatekeeper too. They had words with Harry at the West Gate on Monday. I was watching them. He was white and shaking when they left him. We seem to have enemies all around," said Frodo. "What shall we do? Stay here and do not go to your rooms. They are sure to have found out which those are." The Hobbit rooms have windows looking north and close to the ground. We will all remain together and bar this window and the door. 
But first, Nob and I will fetch your luggage. While Strider was gone, Frodo gave Merry a rapid account of all that had happened since supper. Merry was still reading and pondering Gandalf's letter when Strider and Nob returned. Well, masters, said Nob, I've ruffled up the clothes and put a bolster down the middle of each bed, and I made a nice in an imitation of your head with a brown woolen map, Mr. Bag Underhill, sir, he added with a grin. <laughs> Pippin laughed. Very lifelike, he said. But what will happen when they have penetrated the disguise? We shall see, said Strider. Let us hope to hold the fort till morning. Good night to you, said Nob, and went off to take his part in the watch on the doors. Their bags and gear they piled on the parlor floor. They pushed a low chair against the door and shut the window. Peering out, Frodo saw that the night was still clear. The sickle, the hobbit's name for the plow or great bear, was swinging bright above the shoulders of Bree Hill. He then closed and barred the heavy inside shutters and drew the curtains together. Strider built up the fire and blew out all the candles. The hobbits lay down on their blankets with their feet towards the hearth, and Strider settled himself in the chair against the door. They talked for a little, for Mary still had several questions to ask. <laughs> Jumped over the moon, chuckled Mary as he rolled himself in his blanket. Very ridiculous of you, Frodo. But I wished I'd been there to see. The worthies of Bree will be discussing it a hundred years hence. I hope so, said Strider. Then they all fell silent, and one by one, the hobbits dropped off to sleep. As they prepared for sleep in the inn at Bree, darkness lay on Buckland. A mist strayed in the dells and along the river bank. The house at Crick Hollow stood silent. Fatty Bolger opened the door cautiously and peered out. A feeling of fear had been growing on him all day, and he was unable to rest or go to bed. There was a brooding threat in the breathless night air. As he stared out into the gloom, a black shadow moved under the trees. The gate seemed to open of its own accord and close again without a sound. Terror seized him. He shrank back, and for a moment he stood trembling in the hall. Then he shut and locked the door. The night deepened. There came the soft sound of horses led with stealth along the lane. Outside the gate they stopped and three black figures entered like shades of night creeping across the ground. One went to the door, one to the corner of the house on either side, and there they stood, as still as the shadows of stones while the night went slowly on. The house and the quiet trees seemed to be waiting breathlessly. There was a faint stir in the leaves, and a cock crowed far away. The cold hour before dawn was passing. The figure by the door moved. In the dark, without a moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. Open! In the name of Mordor! Said a voice, thin and menacing. At a second blow, the door yielded and fell back. With timbers burst and rock broken, the black figures passed swiftly in. At that moment... Among the trees nearby, a horn rang out. 
It rent the night like fire on a hilltop. Fatty Bolger had not been idle. As soon as he saw the dark shapes creep from the garden, he knew that he must run for it or perish. And run he did. Out of the back door, through the garden and over the fields. When he reached the nearest house, more than a mile away, he collapsed on the doorstep. No! No, no, no! He was crying. No, not me! I haven't got it! It was some time before anyone could make out what he was babbling about. At last they got the idea that enemies were in Buckland. Some strange invasion from the old forest. And then they lost no more time. The brandy bucks were blowing the horn call of Buckland that had not been sounded for a hundred years, not since the white wolves came in fell winter when the brandy wine was frozen over. Awake! Awake! Far away, answering horns were heard. The alarm was spreading. The black figures fled from the house. One of them let fall a hobbit cloak on the step as he ran. In the lane, the noise of hoofs broke out and gathering to a gallop, went hammering away into the darkness. All about Crick Hollow there was the sound of horns blowing, and voices crying and feet running. But the black riders rode like a gale to the north gate. Let the little people blow, Sauron would deal with them later. Meanwhile they had another errand. They knew now that the house was empty, and the ring had gone. They rode down the guards at the gate and vanished from the shire. early night, Frodo woke from deep sleep. Suddenly, as if some sound or presence had disturbed him, he saw that Strider was sitting alert in his chair. His eyes gleamed in the light of the fire, which had been tended and was burning brightly, but he made no sign of movement. Frodo soon went to sleep again, but his dreams were again troubled with the noise of wind and of galloping hooves. The wind seemed to be curling round the house and shaking it, and far off he heard a horn blowing wildly. He opened his eyes and heard a cock crowing lustily in the inn-yard. Strider had drawn the curtains and pushed back the shutters with a clang. The first grey light of day was in the room, and a cold air was coming through the open window. As soon as Strider had roused them all, he led the way to their bedrooms. When they saw them, they were glad that they had taken his advice. The windows had been forced open and were swinging, and the curtains were flapping. The beds were tossed about and the bolsters slashed and flung upon the floor. The brown mat was torn to pieces. Strider immediately went to fetch the landlord. Poor Mr. Butterbur looked sleepy and frightened. He had hardly closed his eyes all night, so he said, but he had never heard a sound. Oh, never has such a thing happened in my time, he cried, raising his hands in horror. Guests unable to sleep in their beds and good boasters ruined and all. What are we coming to? Dark times, said Strider. But for the present you may be left in peace when you have got rid of us. We will leave at once. Never mind about breakfast. A drink and a bite standing will have to do. We shall be packed in a few minutes. Mr. Butterbur hurried off to see that their ponies were got ready and to fetch them a bite. But very soon he came back in dismay. The ponies had vanished. The stable doors had all been opened in the night, and they were gone. Not only Mary's ponies, but every other horse and beast in the place. Frodo was crushed by the news. How could they hope to reach Rivendell on foot, pursued by mounted enemies? They might as well set out for the moon. Strider sat silent for a while, looking at the hobbits, as if he was weighing up their strength and courage. 
Ponies should not help us to escape horsemen, he said at last, thoughtfully, as if he guessed what Frodo had in mind. We should not go much slower on foot, not on the roads that I mean to take. I was going to walk in any case. It is the food and stores that trouble me. We cannot count on getting anything to eat between here and Rivendell, except what we take with us. We ought to take plenty to spare, for we may be delayed, or forced to go round about, far out of the direct way. How much are you prepared to carry on your backs? As much as we must, said Pippin with a sinking heart, but trying to show that he was tougher than he looked. Oh, I can carry enough for two, said Sam defiantly. Can't anything be done, Mr. Butterbur? asked Frodo. Can't we get can't we get a couple of ponies in the village, or even one just for the baggage? I don't suppose we could hire them, but we might be able to buy them. He added doubtfully, wondering if he could afford it. Oh, I doubt it, said the landlord unhappily. The two or three riding ponies that there were in Bree were stabled in my yard. They're gone. As for other animals, horses, ponies, for trot or what not, there are very few of them in Bree, and they won't be for sale. But I'll do what I can. I'll route out Bob and send him round as soon as may be. Yes, said Strider reluctantly. You had better do that. I'm afraid we shall have to try to get one pony at least. But so ends all hope of starting early slipping away quietly. We might as well have blown a horn to announce our departure. That was part of their plan, no doubt. There is one crumb of comfort, said Mary, and more than a crumb, I hope. We can have breakfast while we wait and sit down to it. Let's get hold of Nob. In the end, there was more than three hours' delay. Bob came back with the report that no horse or pony was to be got for love or money in the neighborhood, except one. Bill Fernie had one that he might possibly sell. A poor old half-starved creature he is, said Bob, but he won't part with it for less than thrice it's worth, seeing how you're placed not if I knows Bill Fernie. Bill Fernie, said Frodo. Isn't there some trick? Wouldn't the beast boat back to him with all our stuff or help in tracking us or something? I wonder, said Strider, but I cannot imagine any animal running home to him once it got away. I fancy this is only an afterthought of kind Master Fernie's, just a way of increasing his profits from the affair. The chief danger is that the poor beast is probably at death's door. But there does not seem to be any choice. What does he want for it? Bill Fernie's price was twelve silver pennies, and that was indeed at least three times the pony's value in some parts. It proved to be a bony, underfed, and dispirited animal, but it did not look like dying just yet. Mr. Butterbur paid for it himself, and offered Mary another eighteen pence at some compensation for the lost animals. He was an honest man. And well off, as things were reckoned in Bree. But thirty silver pennies was a sore blow to him, and being cheated by Bill Fernie made it harder to bear. As a matter of fact, he came out on the right side in the end. It turned out later that only one horse had been actually stolen. The others had been driven off, or had bolted in terror, and were found wandering in different corners of the Bree land. Mary's ponies had escaped altogether, and eventually, having a good deal of sense, they made their way to the down in search of Fatty Lumpkin. So they came under the care of Tom Bombadil for a while, and were well off. But when news of the events at Bree came to Tom's ears, he sent them to Mr. Butterbur, who thus got five good beasts at a very fair price. They had to work harder in Bree, but Bob treated them well, so on the whole they were lucky. They missed a dark and dangerous journey, but they never came to Rivendell. However, in the meanwhile, for all Mr. Butterbur knew, his money was gone for good or for bad. And he had other troubles, for there was a great commotion as soon as the remaining guests were astir and heard the news of the raid on the inn. 
The southern travellers had lost several horses and blamed the innkeeper loudly, until it became known that one of their own number had also disappeared in the night. None other than Bill Fernie's squint-eyed companion. Suspicion fell on him at once. If you pick up with a horse knife and bring him to my house, said Butterbur angrily, you ought to pay for all the damage yourselves and not come shouting at me. Go and ask Fernie where your handsome friend is. But it appeared that he was nobody's friend, and nobody could recollect when he had joined their party. After their breakfast, the hobbits had to repack and get together further supplies for the longer journey they were now expecting. It was close on ten o'clock before they at last got off. By that time, the whole of Bree was buzzing with excitement. Frodo's vanishing trick, the appearance of the black horseman, the robbing of the stables, and not least the news that Strider the ranger had joined the mysterious hobbits, made such a tale as would last for many uneventful years. Most of the inhabitants of Bree and Staddle, and many even from Combe and Archet, were crowded in the road to see the travellers start. The other guests in the inn were at the doors or hanging out of the windows. Strider had changed his mind, and he decided to leave Bree by the main road. Any attempt to set off across country at once would only make matters worse. Half the inhabitants would follow them to see what they were up to, and to prevent them from trespassing. They said farewell to Nob and Bob, and took leave of Mr. Butterbur with many thanks. I hope we shall meet again someday, when things are merry once more, said Frodo. I should like nothing better than to stay in your house in peace for a while. They tramped off, anxious and downhearted, under the eyes of the crowd. Not all the faces were friendly, nor all the words that were shouted, but Strider seemed to be held in awe by most of the Breelanders, and those that he stared at shut their mouths and drew away. He walked in front with Frodo, next came Mary and Pippin, and last came Sam, leading the pony, which was laden with as much of their baggage as they had heart to give it. But already it looked less dejected, as if it approved of the change in its fortunes. Sam was chewing an apple thoughtfully. He had a pocket full of them, a parting present from Nob and Bob. Apples for walking and a pipe for sitting, he said. But I reckon I'll miss them both before long. The hobbits took no notice of the inquisitive heads that peeped out of doors or popped over walls and fences as they passed. But as they drew near to the further gate... Frodo saw a dark, ill-kept house behind a thick hedge, the last house in the village. In one of the windows he caught a glimpse of a sallow face with sly, slanting eyes, but it vanished at once. So that's where the southerner's hiding, he thought. He looks more like half a goblin. Over the hedge, another man was staring boldly. He had heavy black brows and dark, scornful eyes. His large mouth curled in a sneer. He was smoking a short black pipe. As they approached, he took it out of his mouth and spat. Morning, Longshanks, he said. Oh, Furley, found some friends at last. Strider nodded, but did not answer. Morning, my little friends, he said to the others. I suppose you know who you've taken up with. Let's stick it not Strider, that is. I've heard other names not so pretty. Watch out tonight, and you, Sammy. Okay, we'll treat him, my poor old pony. Bah! He spat again. Sam turned quickly. And you, Fernie, he said. Put your ugly face out of sight or it will get hurt. With a sudden flick, quick as lightning, an apple left his hand and hit Bill Square on the nose. He ducked too late, and curses came from behind the hedge. 
waste of a good apple, said Sam regretfully, and strode on. At last they left the village behind. The escort of children and stragglers that had followed them got tired and turned back at the south gate. Passing through, they kept on along the road for some miles. It bent to the left, curving back into its eastward lines as it rounded the feet of Bree Hill, and then it began to run swiftly downwards into wooden country. To their left, they could see some of the houses and hobbit holes of Staddle on the gentler southeastern slopes of the hill. Down in a deep hollow away north of the road, there were wisps of rising smoke that showed where Combe lay. Archit was hidden in the trees beyond. After the road had run down some way and had left Bree Hill, standing tall and brown behind, they came to a narrow track that led off towards the north. This is where we leave the open and take to cover, said Strider. Not a shortcut, I hope, said Pippin. Our last shortcut through woods nearly ended in disaster. Ah, but you've not got me with you then, laughed Strider. My cut's short or long. Don't go wrong. He took a look up and down the road. No one was in sight. And he led the way quickly down towards the wooded valley. His plan, as far as they could understand it without knowing the country, was to go towards Archit at first, but to bear right and pass it on the east, and then to steer as straight as he could over the wild lands to Weathertop Hill. In that way they would, if all went well, cut off a great loop of the road, which further on bent southwards to avoid the Midgewater marshes, but, of course, they would have to pass through the marshes themselves, and Strider's description of them was not encouraging. However, in the meanwhile, walking was not unpleasant. Indeed, if it had not been for the disturbing events of the night before, they would have enjoyed this part of the journey better than any up to that time. The sun was shining clear, but not too hot. The woods in the valley were still leafy and full of color, and seemed peaceful and wholesome. Strider guided them confidently among the many crossing paths, Although left to themselves, they would soon have been at loss. He was taking a wandering course with many turns and doublings to put off any pursuit. The Fernie will have watched where we left the road for certain, I said. Though I don't think he will follow us himself. He knows the land round here well enough, but he knows that he is not a match for me in the wood. It is what he may tell others that I am afraid of. I don't suppose they are far away. If they think we have made for Archit, so much the better. Whether because of Strider's skill or for some other reason, they saw no sign and heard no sound of any other living thing all that day. Neither two-footed, except birds, nor four-footed, except one fox and a few squirrels. The next day they began to steer a steady course eastwards. And still all was quiet and peaceful. On the third day out from Bree, they came out of the Chetwood. The land had been falling steadily, ever since they turned aside from the road, and they now entered the wide, flat expanse of country much more difficult to manage. They were far beyond the borders of the Breeland, out in the pathless wilderness, and drawing near to the Midgewater marshes. The ground now became damp, and in places boggy, and there and there they came upon pools, and wide stretches of reeds and rushes filled with the warbling of little hidden birds. They had to pick their way carefully to keep both dry-footed and on their proper course. At first they made fair progress, but as they went on, their passage became slower and more dangerous. The marshes were bewildering and treacherous, and there was no permanent trail even for rangers to find through their shifting quagmires. The flies began to torment them, and the air was full of clouds of tiny midges that crept up their sleeves in breeches and into their hair. 
I'm being eaten alive, cried Pippin. Midgewater! There are more witches than water! What do they live on when they can't get Hobbit? Asked Sam, scratching his neck. They spent a miserable day in this lonely and unpleasant country. Their camping place was damp, cold, and uncomfortable, and the biting insects would not let them sleep. There were also abominable creatures haunting the reeds and tussocks, that from the sound of them were evil relatives of the cricket. There were thousands of them, and they squeaked all around, neek, breek, neek, breek, increasingly all the night, until the hobbits were nearly frantic. The next day, the fourth, was little better, and the night almost as comfortless. Though the Nikabrikas, as Sam called them, had been left behind, the midges still pursued them. As Frodo lay tired but unable to close his eyes, it seemed to him that far away there came a light in the eastern sky. It flashed and faded many times. It was not the dawn, for that was still some hours off. What is the light? He said to Strider, who had risen and was standing, gazing ahead into the night. I do not know, Strider answered. It is too distant to make out. It is like lightning that leaps up from the hilltops. Frodo lay down again. But for a long while he could still see the white flashes, and against them the tall dark figure of Strider, standing silent and watchful. At last he passed into an uneasy sleep. They had not gone far from the fifth day when they left the last straggling pools and reed beds of the marshes behind them. The land before them began steadily to rise again. Away in the distance eastward they could now see a line of hills. The highest of them was at the right of the line, and a little separated from the others. It had a conical top, slightly flattened at the summit. That is where the top, said Strider. The old road, which we have left far away to our right, runs to the south of it, and passes not far from its foot. We might reach it by noon tomorrow if we go straight towards it. I suppose we had better do so. What do you mean? asked Frodo. I mean, when we do get there, it is not certain what we shall find. It is close to the road. But surely we were hoping to find Gandalf there. Yes, but hope is faint. If he comes this way at all, he may not pass through Bree, and so he may not know what we are doing. And anyway, unless by luck we arrive almost together, we shall miss one another. It will not be safe for him or for us to wait there long. If the riders fail to find us in the wilderness, they are likely to make for Weathertop themselves. It commands a wide view all around. Indeed, there are many birds and beasts in this country that could see us as we stand there from that hilltop. Not all the birds are to be trusted, and there are other spies more evil than they are. The hobbits looked anxiously at the distant hills. Sam looked up into the pale sky, fearing to see hawks or eagles hovering over them with bright, unfriendly eyes. Oh, you do make me feel uncomfortable and lonesome, Strider, he said. What do you advise us to do? asked Frodo. I think answered Strider slowly, as if he was not quite sure. I think the best thing is to go as straight eastward from here as we can, to make for the line of hills, not for Weathertop. There we can strike a path, I know, that runs at their feet. It will bring us to Weathertop from the north, and less openly. Then we shall see what we shall see. All that day they plodded along until the cold and early evening came down. 
The land became drier and more barren, but mists and vapors lay behind them on the marshes. A few melancholy birds were piping and wailing until the round red sun sank slowly into the western shadows. Then an empty silence fell. The hobbits thought of the soft light of a sunset glancing through the cheerful windows of Bag End far away. At the day's end they came to a stream that wandered down from the hills to lose itself in the stagnant marshland, and they went up along its banks while the night lasted. It was already night when at last they halted and made their camp under some stunted older trees by the shores of the stream. Ahead there loomed now against the dusky sky the bleak and treeless backs of the hills. That night they set a watch, and Strider, it seemed, did not sleep at all. The moon was waxing, and in the early night hours a cold grey light lay on the land. Next morning they set out again soon after sunrise. There was a frost in the air, and the sky was a pale clear blue. The hobbits felt refreshed as if they had a night of unbroken sleep. Already they were getting used to much walking on the short commons. Shorter at any rate than what in the shire they could have thought barely enough to keep them on their legs. Pippin declared that Frodo was looking twice the hobbit than he had been. Very odd, said Frodo, tightening his belt, considering there is actually a good deal less of me. I hope the thinning process will not go on indefinitely or I shall become a wraith. Do not speak of such things, said Strider quickly and with surprising earnestness. The hills drew nearer. They made an undulating ridge, often rising almost to a thousand feet, and here and there falling again to low clefts or passes leading into the eastern land beyond. Along the crest of the ridge the hobbits could see what looked to be the remnants of green-brown walls and dikes, and in the clefts there still stood the ruins of old works of stone. By night they had reached the feet of the westward slopes, and there they camped. It was the night of the 5th of October, and they were six days out from Bree. In the morning they found, for the first time since they had left the Chetwood, a track plain to see. They turned right and followed it southwards. It ran cunningly, taking a line that seemed chosen so as to keep as much hidden as possible from view, both of the hilltops above and of the flats to the west. It dived into dells and hugged steep banks, and where it passed over flatter and more open ground on either side of it, there were lines of large boulders and hewn stones that screened the travellers almost like a hedge. "'I wonder who made this path and what for?' said Mary, as they walked along one of these avenues where the stones were unusually large and closely set. "'I'm not sure that I like it. It has a, well, a rather barrow-whitish look. Is there any barrow on Weathertop?' No, there is no barrow on Weathertop, nor on any of these hills, answered Strider. The men of the West did not live here, though in their latter days they defended the hills for a while against the evil that came out of Angmar. This path was made to serve the forts along the walls, but long before, in the first day of the Northern Kingdom, they built a great watchtower on Weathertop. Amonsul, they called it. It was buried and broken, and nothing remains of it now but a tumbled ring like a rough crown on the old hill's head. Yet once it was tall and fair, it is told that Elendil stood there, watching for the coming of Gil-galad out of the west, in the days of the last alliance. The hobbits gazed at Strider. It seemed that he was learned in old lore, as well as in the ways of the wild. Who was Gil-galad? asked Mary, but Strider did not answer, and seemed to be lost in thought. Suddenly, a low voice murmured, Gilgalad was an elven king Of him the harpers sadly sing The last whose realm was fair and free Between the mountains and the sea 
His sword was long, his lance was keen, his shining helm afar was seen. The countless stars of heaven's field were mirrored in his silver shield. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say. For into darkness fell his star, in Mordor where the shadows are. The others turned in amazement, for the voice was Sam's. Don't stop, said Mary. That's all I know, stammered Sam, blushing. I, I learned it from Mr. Bilbo when I was a lad. He used to tell me tales like that. Knowing how I was always one for hearing about elves, it was Mr. Bilbo who taught me my letters. He was mighty book-learned, was dear old Mr. Bilbo, and he wrote poetry. He wrote what I've just said. He did not make it up, said Strider. It is part of the lay that is called the Fall of Gilgalad, which is an ancient tongue. Bilbo must have translated it. I never knew that. There was a lot more, said Sam. It's all about Mordor. I didn't learn that part. It gave me shivers. I never thought I should be going that way myself. Going to Mordor, <laughs> cried Pippin. I hope he won't come to that. Do not speak that name so loudly, said Strider. It was already midday when they drew nearer the southern end of the path, and saw before them in the pale clear light of the October sun a grey-green bank leading up like a bridge on the northward slope of the hill. They decided to make for the top at once, while the daylight was broad. Concealment was no longer possible, and they could only hope that no enemy or spy was observing them. Nothing was to be seen moving on the hill. If Gandalf was anywhere about, there was no sign of him. On the western flank of Weathertop, they found a sheltered hollow, at the bottom of which there was a bowl-shaped dell with grassy sides. There they left Sam and Pippin with the pony and their packs and luggage. The other three went on. After half an hour's plodding climb, Strider reached the crown of the hill. Frodo and Mary followed, tired and breathless. The last slope had been steep and rocky. On the top they found, as Strider had said, a wide ring of ancient stonework, now crumbling or covered with age-long grass. But in the center, a cairn of broken stones had been piled. They were blackened as if with fire. About them the turf was burned into the roots, and all within the ring the grass was scorched and shriveled, as if flames had swept the hilltop. But there was no sign of any living thing. Standing upon the rim of the ruined circle, they saw all around below them a wide prospect, for the most part of lands empty and featureless, except for patches of woodland away to the south, beyond which they caught here and there the glint of distant water. There ran like a ribbon the old road, coming out of the west and winding up and down until it faded behind a ridge of dark land to the east. Nothing was moving on it. Following its line eastward with their eyes, they saw the mountains. The nearer foothills were brown and somber. Behind them stood taller shapes of grey, and behind those again were high white peaks glimmering among the clouds. Well, here we are, said Mary. And very cheerless and uninviting it looks. There is no water and no shelter, and no sign of Gandalf. But I don't blame him for not waiting if he ever came here. I wonder, said Strider, looking around thoughtfully. Even if he was a day or two behind us at Bree, he could have arrived here first. He can ride very swiftly when need presses. Suddenly he stooped and looked at the stone on the top of the khan. It was flatter than the others and whiter, as if it had escaped the fire. He picked it up and examined it, turning it with his fingers. Mm, this has been handled recently, he said. 
What do you think of these marks? On the flat underside, Frodo saw some scratches. There seems to be a stroke, a dot, and three more strokes, he said. The stroke on the left might be a G-rune, with thin branches, said Strider. It might be a sign left by Gandalf, though one cannot be sure. The scratches are fine, and they certainly look fresh, but the marks might mean something quite different, and have nothing to do with us. Rangers use runes, and they come here sometimes. What could they mean, even if Gandalf made them? asked Merry. I should say, answered Strider, that they stood for G3, and were a sign that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd. That is three days ago now. It will also show that he was in a hurry and danger was at hand, so that he had no time and did not dare to write anything longer or plainer. If that is so, we must be wary. I wish we could feel sure that he made these marks, whatever they may mean, said Frodo. It would be a great comfort to know that he was on the way, in front of us or behind us. Perhaps, said Strider. For myself, I believe that he was here, and he was in danger. There have been scorching flames here, and now the light that we saw three nights ago in the eastern sky comes back to my mind. I guess that he was attacked on this hilltop, but with what result I cannot tell. He is here no longer, and we must now look after ourselves and make our own way to Rivendell, as best we can. How far is Rivendell? asked Mary, gazing around wearily. The world looked wild and wide from Withertop. I do not know if the road has ever been measured in miles beyond the Forsaken Inn, a day's journey east of Bree, answered Strider. Some say it is so far, and some say otherwise. It is a strange road, and folk are glad to reach their journey's end, whether the time is long or short. But I know how long it would take me on my own feet. With fair weather and no ill fortune, twelve days from here to the ford of Bruinen, where the road crosses the loud water that runs out of Rivendell. We have at least a fortnight's journey before us, and I do not think that we shall be able to use the road. A fortnight, said Frodo. A lot may happen in that time. It may, said Strider. They stood for a while silent on the hilltop, near its southward edge. In that lonely place, Frodo for the first time fully realized his homelessness and danger. He wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. He stared down at the hateful road, leading back westward to his home. Suddenly, he was aware that two black specks were moving slowly along it, going westward, and looking again, he saw that three others were creeping eastward to meet them. He gave a cry and clutched Strider's arm. He said, pointing downwards. At once, Strider flung himself on the ground behind the ruined circle. Pulling Frodo down beside him, Merry threw himself alongside. What is it? He whispered. I do not know, but I fear the worst, answered Strider. Slowly, they crawled up to the edge of the ring again, and peered through a cleft between two jagged stones. The light was no longer bright, for the clear morning had faded and clouds creeping out from the east had now overtaken the sun as it began to go down. They could all see the black specks, but neither Frodo nor Merry could make out their shapes for certain. Yet something told them that there, far below, were black riders assembling on the road beyond the foot of the hill. Yes, said Strider, whose keener sight left him in no doubt. The enemy is here. Hastily, they crept away and slipped down the north side of the hill to find their companions. Sam and Peregrine had not been idle. They had explored the small dell and surrounding slopes. Not far away, they found the spring of clear water in the hillside, and near it, footprints not more than a day or two old. In the dell itself, they found recent traces of a fire and some signs of a hasty camp. 
There were some fallen rocks on the edge of the dell nearest to the hill. Behind them, Sam came upon a small stone of firewood neatly stacked. I wonder if old Gandalf has been here, he said to Pippin. Whoever it was put this stuff here meant to come back, it seems. Strider was greatly interested in these discoveries. I wish I had waited and explored the ground down here myself, he said, hurrying off the spring to examine the footprints. It is just as I feared, he said when he came back. Sam and Pippin have trampled the soft ground and the marks are spoiled or confused. Rangers have been here lately. It is they who left the firewood behind. But there are also several newer tracks that were not made by rangers. At least one set was made, only a day or two ago, by heavy boots. At least one. I cannot now be certain, but I think there were many booted feet. He paused and stood in ancient thought. Each of the hobbits saw in his mind a vision of the cloaked and booted riders. If the horsemen had already found the dell, the sooner Strider led them somewhere else, the better. Sam viewed the hollow with great dislike, now that he had heard news of their enemies on the road only a few miles away. Had we better clear out quick, Mr. Strider? He asked impatiently. It is getting late, and I don't like the hole. It makes my heart sing somehow. Yes, we certainly must decide what to do at once, answered Strider, looking up and considering the time and the weather. Well, Sam, he said at last, I do not like this place either. But I cannot think of anywhere better than we could reach before nightfall. At least we are out of sight for the moment, and if we moved we should be much more likely to be seen by spies. All we could do would be to go right out of our way, back north on this side of the line of hills, where the land is all much the same as it is here. The road is watched, but we should have to cross it if we tried to take cover in the thickness away to the south. On the north side of the road beyond the hills the country is bare and flat for miles. Can riders see? asked Mary. I mean, they seem usually to have used their noses rather than their eyes, smelling for us. Smelling is the right word. At least in the daylight. But you made us lie down flat when you saw them down below. And now you talk of being seen, if, if we move. I was too careless on the hilltop, answered Strider. I was very anxious to find some sign of Gandalf, but it was a mistake for three of us to go up and stand there for so long. For the black horses can see, and the riders can use men and other creatures as spies, as, as we found at Bree. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys. And in the dark they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared. And at all times they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Senses, too, there are, other than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours much more keenly. Also, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. Is there no escape then? said Frodo, looking round wildly. If I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Strider laid his hand on his shoulder. There is still hope, he said. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. There is little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. Sauron can put fire to his evil uses, as he can all things, but these riders do not love it, and fear those who wield it. Fire is our friend in the wilderness. Maybe, muttered Sam, but it's also a good way of saying here we are, as I can think of Bar shouting. Down in the lower and most sheltered corner of the dell they lit a fire, and prepared a meal, 
the shades of evening began to fall and it grew cold. They were suddenly aware of great hunger, for they had not eaten anything since breakfast, but they dared not make more than a frugal supper. The lands ahead were empty of all save birds and beasts, unfriendly places deserted by all the races of the world. Rangers passed at times beyond the hills, but they were few and did not stay. Other wanderers were rare and of evil sort. Trolls might stray down at times out of the northern valleys of the misty mountains. Only to the road would travelers be found. Most often dwarves, hurrying along, on business of their own, and with no help and few words to spare for strangers. I don't see how our food can be made to last, said Frodo. We've been careful enough in the last few days, and this supper is no feast, but we have used more than we ought. If we have two weeks still to go, and perhaps more... There is food in the wild, said Strider, berry, root, and herb, and I have some skill as a hunter at need. You need not be afraid of starving before winter comes, but gathering and catching food is long and weary work, and we need haste. So tighten your belts, and think with hope of the tables of Elrond's house. The cold increased as darkness came on. Peering out from the edge of the dell, they could see nothing but a grey land, now vanishing quickly into shadow. The sky above had cleared again, and was slowly filled with twinkling stars. Frodo and his companions huddled around the fire, wrapped in every garment and blanket they possessed, but Strider was content with a single cloak, and sat a little apart, drawing thoughtfully at his pipe. As night fell and the light of the fire began to shine out brightly, he began to tell them tales to keep their minds from fear. He knew many histories and legends of long ago, of elves and men, and the good and evil deeds of the elder days. They wondered how old he was, and where he had learned all this lore. Tell us of Gilgalad, said Merry suddenly, when he paused at the end of a story of the elf kingdoms. Do you know any more of that old lay that you spoke of? I do indeed answered Strider. So also does Frodo, for it concerns us closely. Merry and Pippin looked at Frodo, who was staring into the fire. I know only the little that Gandalf has told me, said Frodo slowly. Gilgalad was the last of the great elf kings of Middle-earth. Gilgalad is starlight, in their tongue. With Elendil, the elf friend, he went to the land of Mor- No, said Strider, interrupting. I do not think that tale should be told now with the servants of the enemy at hand. If we went through to the house of Elrond, you may hear it there, told in full. Then tell us some other tale of the old days, begged Sam. A tale about elves before the fading time. I would dearly like to hear some more about elves. The dark seems to press around so close. I will tell you the tale of Tinuviel, said Strider. In brief, for it is a long tale which the end is not known and there are none now except Elrond that remember it aright, as it was told of old. It is a fair tale, though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle-earth, and yet it may lift up your hearts. He was silent for some time, and then he began not to speak, but to chant softly. The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbels tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen, of stars in shadow shimmering. Tinuviel was dancing there, to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair, and in her raiment glimmering. There Beren came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves and saw in wonder flowers of gold, 
upon her mantle and her steeds, and her hair like shadow following. Enchantment healed his weary feet, that over hills were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened strong and fleet, and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods in Welven home she slightly fled on dancing feet, and left him lonely, still to roam, in the silent forest listening. He heard there oft the flying sound of fleet as light as linden leaves, or music welling underground, in hidden hollows quavering. Now withered lay the hemlock leaves, and one by one with sighing sound, whispering fell the beech's leaves, in the wintry woodland wavering. He sought her ever, wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn. By light of moon and ray of star, in frosty heavens shivering. Her mantle glinted in the moon, as on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. When river passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring, like rising dark and falling rain, and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring, about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance and sing, upon the grass untroubling. Again she fled, but swift he came, to Nuviel, to Nuviel. He called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. One moment stood she, and a spell. His voice laid on her, Beren came, and doom fell on to Nuviel. That in his arms lay glistening. As Beren looked into her eyes, within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Tenuviel the elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair, and arms like silver glimmering. Long was the way that fate them bore, ere stony mountains cold and grey, through folds of iron and darkling door, and woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away, in the forest singing sorrowless. Strider sighed and paused before he spoke again. <sighs> that is called Anthenoth among the elves, but is hard to remember in our common speech. But this is but a rough echo of it. It tells of the meeting of Beren, son of Barahir and Luthien Tinuviel. Beren was a mortal man, but Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves upon Middle-earth, when the world was young, and she was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. As the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light. In those days the great enemy, of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant, dwelt in Angband in the north. And the elves of the west, coming back to Middle-earth, made war upon him to regain the Silmarils which he had stolen. And the fathers of men aided the elves. But the enemy was victorious, and Barahir was slain. And Beren, escaping through great peril, came over the mountains of terror into the kingdom of Thingol in the forest of Neldoreth. There he beheld Luthien, singing and dancing in a glade beside the enchanted river Esgalduin. And he named her Tinuviel that is the nightingale in the language of the old. Many sorrows befell them afterwards, and they were parted long. 
Tinuvia rescued Beren from the dungeons of Sauron, and together they passed through the great dangers and cast down even the great enemy from his throne and took from his iron crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels, to be the bride price of Luthien to Thingol, her father. Yet at last Beren was slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Anbad, and he died in the arms of Tinuviel. But she chose mortality and to die from the world so that she might follow him, and it is sung that they met again beyond the sundering seas, and after a brief time walking alive once more in the green woods, together they passed, long ago, beyond the confines of this world. So it is that Luthien Tenuviel alone of the elf kindred has died indeed and left the world, and they have lost her whom they most loved. But from her lineage of the elf lords of old, descended upon men, there live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that her line shall never fail. Elrond of Rivendell is of that kin, for of Beren and Luthien was born Dior, Dior Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing the White, whom Erendil wedded, he that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow. And of Erendil came the kings of Numenor, that is Westerness. As Strider was speaking, they watched his strange, eager face, dimly lit with the red glow of the wood fire. His eyes shone, and his voice was rich and deep. Above him was a black, starry sky. Suddenly a pale light appeared over the crown at Furthertop behind him. The waxing moon was climbing slowly above the hill that foreshadowed them. And the stars above the hilltop faded. The story ended. The hobbits moved and stretched. Look! said Mary. The moon is rising. It must be getting late. The others looked up. Even as they did so, they saw on the top of the hill something small and dark against the glimmer of the moonrise. It was perhaps only a strange stone or jutting rock shown up by the pale light. Sam and Mary got up and walked away from the fire. Frodo and Pippin remained seated in silence. Strider was watching the moonlight on the hill intently. All seemed quiet and still. But Frodo felt a cold dread creeping over his heart. Now that Strider was no longer speaking, he huddled closer to the fire. At that moment, Sam came running back from the edge of the dell. I don't know what it is, he said, but I suddenly felt felt afraid. I didn't go outside this dell for any money. I felt, I felt that something was creeping up the slope. Did you see anything? Asked Frodo, springing to his feet. No, sir, I saw nothing, but I did not stop to look. I saw something, said Mary. Or I thought I did. Away westwards, where the moonlight was falling on the flats beyond the shadow of the hilltops. I thought there were two or three black shapes. They seemed to be moving this way. Keep close to the fire, with your faces outward, cried Strider. Get some of the longer sticks ready in your hands. For a breathless time, they sat there, silent and alert, with their backs turned to the wood fire, each gazing into the shadows that encircled them. There was no sound of movement in the night. Frodo stirred. Feeling that he must break the silence, he longed to shout aloud. Hush! whispered Strider. What's that? gasped Pippin at the same moment. Over the lip of the little dell, on the side away from the hill, they felt, rather than saw, a shadow rise. One shadow or more than one. They strained their eyes, and the shadows seemed to grow. Soon there could be no doubt. Three or four tall black figures were standing there on the slope, looking down on them. So black were they that they seemed like black holes in the deep shade behind them. 
Little thought that he heard the faint hiss as a venomous breath and felt a thin, piercing chill. Then the shape slowly advanced. Terror overcame Pippin and Merry, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. Sam shrank to Frodo's side. Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold, but his terror was followed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the Baron, nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield. Not with the hope of escape or of doing anything, either good or bad, he simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He could not speak. He felt Sam looking at him, as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn towards him. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while, but the resistance became unbearable. And at last he slowly drew out the chain and slipped the ring on the forefinger of his left hand. Immediately, though everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes became terribly clear. He was able to see beneath their black wrappings. There were five tall figures, two standing on the lip of the dell, three advancing, with their white faces burned keen and merciless eyes. Under their mantles were long grey robes, upon their grey hairs were helms of silver, and their haggard hands were swords of steel. Their eyes fell on him and pierced him as they rushed towards him. Desperate, he drew his own sword, and it seemed to him that it flickered red as if it was a firebrand. Two of the figures halted. The third was taller than the others. His hair was long and gleaming, and on his helm was a crown. In one hand he held a long sword, and in the other a knife. Both the knife and the hand that held it glowed in a pale light. He sprang forward and bore down on Frodo. At that moment, Frodo threw himself forward on the ground, and he heard himself crying aloud. At the same time, he struck at the feet of his enemy. A shrill cry rang out in the night, and he felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder. Even as he swooned, he caught, as through a swirling mist, a glimpse of Strider leaping out of the darkness, with a flaming brand of wood in either hand. With a last effort, Frodo, dropping his sword, slipped the ring from his finger and closed his right hand tight upon it. When Frodo came to himself, he was still clutching the ring desperately. He was lying by the fire, which was now piled high and burning brightly. His three companions were bending over him. What has happened? Where is the Pale King? He asked wildly. They were too overjoyed to hear him speak to answer for a while, nor did they understand his question. At length, he gathered from Sam that they had seen nothing but the vague shadowy shapes coming toward them. Suddenly, to his horror, Sam found that his master had vanished, and at that moment a black shadow rushed past him, and he fell. He heard Frodo's voice, but it seemed to come from a great distance, or from under the earth, crying out strange words. They saw nothing more until they stumbled over the body of Frodo, lying as if dead, face downwards on the grass with his sword beneath him. Strider ordered them to pick him up and lay him near the fire. And then he disappeared. That was now a good while ago. Sam plainly was beginning to have doubts again about Strider, but while they were talking, he returned, appearing suddenly out of the shadows. They started, and Sam drew his sword and stood over Frodo, but Strider knelt down swiftly at his side. I am not a black rider, Sam, he said gently, nor in league with him. I have been trying to discover something for other movements, but I have found nothing. 
cannot think why they have gone and do not attack again, but there is no feeling of their presence anywhere at hand. When he heard what Frodo had to tell, he became full of concern and shook his head and sighed. Then he ordered Pippin and Merry to heat as much water as they could in their small kettles and to bathe the wound with it. Keep the fire going well and keep Frodo warm, he said. Then he got up and walked away and called Sam to him. I think I understand things better now, he said in a low voice. They seem only to have been five of the enemy. Why they were not all there, I do not know. But I don't think they expected to be resisted. They have drawn off for the time being, but not far, I fear. They will come again another night, if we cannot escape. They are only waiting, because they think that their purpose is almost accomplished, and that the ring cannot fly much further. I fear, Sam, that they believe your master has a deadly wound that will subdue him to their will. We shall see. Sam choked with tears. Don't despair, said Strider. You must trust me now. Your Frodo is made of sterner stuff than I had guessed, though Gandalf hinted that it might prove so. He is not slain, and I think he will resist the evil power of the wound longer than his enemies expect. I will do all I can to help and heal him. Guard him well while I'm away. He hurried off and disappeared again into the darkness. Frodo dozed, though the pain of his wound was slowly growing, and a deadly chill was spreading from his shoulder to his arm and side. His friends watched over him, warming him and bathing his wound. The night passed slowly and wearily. Dawn was growing in the sky, and the dell was filling with grey light when Strider at last returned. Look, he cried, and stooping he lifted from the ground a black cloak that had lain there hidden by the darkness. A foot above the lower hem there was a slash. This was a stroke of Frodo's sword, he said. The only hurt that it did to his enemy, I fear, for it is unharmed. But all blades perish that pierce the dreadful king. More deadly to him was the name of Elbereth. And more deadly to Frodo was this. He stooped again and lifted up a long, thin knife. There was a cold gleam in it. As Strider raised it, they saw that near the end its edge was notched and the point was broken off. But even as he held it up in the growing light, they gazed in astonishment. For the blade seemed to melt and vanished like a smoke in the air, leaving only the hilt in Strider's hand. Alas, he cried, it was this accursed knife that gave the wound. Few now have the skill in healing to match such evil weapons, but I will do what I can. He sat down on the ground and taking the dagger hilt laid it on his knees, and he sang over it a slow song in a strange tongue. Then setting it aside he turned to Frodo and in a soft tone spoke words the others could not catch. From the pouch at his belt he drew out the long leaves of a planet. These leaves, he said, I have walked far to find. For this plant does not grow in the bare hills, but in the thickets away south in the road I found it in the dark by the scent of its leaves. He crushed a leaf in his fingers, and it gave out a sweet and pungent fragrance. It is fortunate that I could find it, for it is a healing plant that the men of the West brought to Middle-earth. Athalas, they name it, and it grows now sparsely and only near places where they dwelt or camped of old. And it is not known in the north except for some of those who wander in the wild. It has great virtues, but over such a wound as this its healing powers may be small. He threw the leaves into boiling water and bathed Frodo's shoulder. The fragrance of the steam was refreshing, and those that were unhurt felt their minds calmed and cleared. The herb had also some power of the wound, for Frodo felt the pain and also the sense of frozen cold lessen in his side, but the life did not return to his arm and he could not raise or use his hand. 
he bitterly regretted his foolishness and reproached himself for weakness of will, for he now perceived that in putting on the ring he obeyed not his own desire, but the commanding wish of his enemies. He wondered if he would remain maimed for life, and how they would now manage to continue their journey. He felt too weak to stand. The others were discussing this very question. They quickly decided to leave Weathertop as soon as possible. I think now, said Strider, that the enemy has been watching this place for some days. If Gandalf ever came here, then he must have forced to ride away, and he will not return. In any case, we are in great peril here after dark, since the attack of last night, and we can hardly meet greater danger wherever we go. As soon as the daylight was full, they had some hurried food and packed. It was impossible for Frodo to walk, so they divided the greater part of their baggage among the four of them, and put Frodo on the pony. In the last few days, the poor beast had improved wonderfully. It already seemed fatter and stronger, and had begun to show an affection for its new masters, especially for Sam. Bill Finney's treatment must have been very hard, for the journey in the wild to seem so much better than its former life. They started off in a southerly direction. This would mean crossing the road, but it was the quickest way to more wooded country. And they needed fuel, for Strider said that Frodo must be kept warm, especially at night, while fire would be some protection for them all. It was also his plan to shorten their journey by cutting across another great loop of the road. East beyond Weathertop it changed its course and took a wide bend northwards. They made their way slowly and cautiously round the southwestern slope of the hill and came in a little while to the edge of the road. There was no sign of the riders, but even as they were hurrying across they heard far away two cries. <gasps> A cold voice calling and a cold voice answering. Trembling, they sprang forward and made for the thickets that lay ahead. The land before them sloped away southwards, but it was wild and pathless. Bushes and stunted trees grew in dense patches with wide barren spaces in between. The grass was scanty, coarse and grey, and the leaves in the thickets were faded and falling. It was a cheerless land, and their journey was slow and gloomy. They spoke little as they trudged along. Frodo's heart was grieved as he watched them walking beside him with their heads down, and their backs bowed under their burdens. Even Strider seemed tired and heavy-hearted. Before the first day's march was over, Frodo's pain began to grow again, but he did not speak of it for a long time. Four days passed, without the ground or the scene changing much, except that behind them Weathertop slowly sank, and before them the distant mountains loomed a little nearer. Yet since that far cry, they had seen and heard no sign that the enemy has marked their flight or followed them. They dreaded the dark hours, and kept watch in pairs by night, expecting that at any time to see black shapes stalking in the grey night, dimly lit by the cloud-veiled moon. But they saw nothing, and heard no sound but the sight of withered leaves and grass. Not once did they feel the sense of present evil that had assailed them before the attack in the dell, it seemed too much to hope that the riders had already lost their trail again. Perhaps they were waiting to make some ambush in a narrow place. At the end of the fifth day, the ground began once more to rise slowly out of the wild shallow valley into which they had descended. Strider now turned their course again northeastwards, and on the sixth day they reached the top of a long, slow climbing slope, and saw far ahead a huddle of wooden hills. Away below them they could see the road sweeping round the feet of the hills, and to their right a grey river gleamed pale in the thin sunshine. In the distance they glimpsed yet another river in a stony valley half-veiled in mist. I'm afraid we must go back to the road here for a while, said Strider. We have now come to the river Horwell, that the elves call Mathethel. It falls down out of the Etten Moors. 
The troll fells north of Rivendell and joins the loud water away in the south. Some call it the Grey Flood after that. It is a great water before it finds the sea. There is no way over it below its sources in the Etten Moors except by the last bridge on which the road crosses. What is that over the river that we can see far away there? asked Mary. That is Loudwater, the Bruinen of Rivendell, answered Strider. The road runs along the edge of the hills for many miles from the bridge to the ford of Bruinen, but I have not yet thought how we shall cross that water. One river at a time. We shall be fortunate indeed if we do not find the last bridge held against us. Next day, early in the morning, they came down again to the borders of the road. Sam and Strider went forward, but they found no sign of any travellers or riders. Here, under the shadow of the hills, there had been some rain. Strider judged that it had fallen two days before, and had washed away all footprints. No horsemen had passed since then, as far as he could see. They hurried along with all the speed they could make, and after a mile or two they saw the last bridge ahead, at the bottom of a short steep slope. They dreaded to see black figures waiting there, but they saw none. Strider made them take cover in a thicket at the side of the road, while he went forward to explore. Before long, he came hurrying back. I can see no sign of the enemy, he said, and I wonder very much what that means, but I have found something very strange. He held out his hand and showed a single pale green jewel. I found it in the mud in the middle of the bridge, he said. It is a beryl, an elf stone. Whether it was set here or let fall by chance, I cannot say, but it brings hope to me. I will take it as a sign that we may pass the bridge, but beyond that, I dare not keep to the road without some clearer token. At once they went on again. They crossed the bridge in safety, hearing no sound but the water swirling against its three great arches. A mile further on they came to a narrow ravine that led away northward through the steep lands on the left of the road. Here Strider turned aside, and soon they were lost in a somber country of dark trees winding among the fields of sullen hills. The hobbits were glad to leave the cheerless land and the perilous road behind them, but this new country seemed threatening and unfriendly. As they went forward, the hills about them steadily rose. Here and there, upon heights and ridges, they caught glimpses of ancient walls of stone and the ruins of towers. They had an ominous look. Frodo, who was not walking, had time to gaze ahead and to think. He recalled Bilbo's account of his journey and the threatening towers on the hills north of the road in the country near the Trollswood, where his first serious adventure had happened. Frodo guessed that they were now in the same region, and wondered if by chance they would pass near the spot. Who lives in this land? he asked. And who built these towers? Is it troll country? No, said Strider. Trolls do not build. No one lives in this land. Men once dwelt here, ages ago, but none remain now. They became an evil people, as legends tell, for they fell under the shadow of Aingmar. But all were destroyed in the war that brought the North Kingdom to its end. But that is now so long ago that the hills have forgotten them, though a shadow still lies on the land. Where did you learn such tales if all the land is empty and forgetful? asked Peregrine. The birds and beasts do not tell tales of that sort. The heirs of Elendil do not forget all things past, says Strider, and many more things that I can tell are remembered in Rivendell. Have you often been to Rivendell? said Frodo. Mm, I have, said Strider. I dwelt there once, and still I return when I may. There my heart is, but it is not my fate to sit in peace, even in the fair house of Elrond. 
The hills now began to shut them in. The road behind held on its way to the river Bruinen, but both were now hidden from view. The travelers came into a long valley, narrow, deeply cloven, dark and silent. Trees with old and twisted roots hung over cliffs and piled up behind two mounting slopes of pine wood. The hobbits grew very weary. They advanced slowly, for they had to pick their way through a pathless country encumbered by fallen trees and tumbled rocks. As long as they could, they avoided climbing for Frodo's sake, and because it was, in fact, difficult to find any way up out of the narrow dales. They had been two days in this country when the weather turned wet. The wind began to blow steadily out of the west and pour the water of the distant seas on the dark heads of the hills in fine, drenching rain. By nightfall, they were all soaked, and their camp was cheerless. They could not get any fire to burn. The next day, the hills rose still higher and deeper before them, and they were forced to turn away northward, out of their course. Strider seemed to be getting anxious. They were nearly ten days out from Reathertop, and their stock of provisions was beginning to run low. It went on raining. That night they camped on the stony shelf with a rock wall behind them, in which there was a shallow cave, a mere scoop in the cliff. Frodo was restless. The cold and wet had made his wound more painful than ever, and the ache and sense of deadly chill took away all sleep. He lay tossing and turning and listening fearfully to the stealthy night noises. Wind in chinks of rock, water dripping, a crack. A sudden rattling fall of a loosened stone. He felt that black shapes were advancing to smother him. But when he sat up, he saw nothing but the back of Strider, sitting hunched up, smoking his pipe, and watching. He lay down again, and passed into an uneasy dream, in which he walked on the grass in his garden in the Shire, but it seemed faint and dim, less clear than the tall black shadows that stood looking over the hedge. In the morning, he woke to find that the rain had stopped. The clouds were still thick, but they were breaking, and pale strips of blue appeared between them. The wind was shifting again. They did not start early. Immediately after their cold and comfortless breakfast, Strider went off alone, telling the others to remain under the shelter of the cliff until he came back. He was going to climb up, if he could, and get a look at the lie of the land. When he returned, he was not reassuring. We have gone too far to the north, he said. And we must find some way to turn back southwards again. If we keep on as we are going, we shall get up to the Ettendale, as far north of Rivendell. And that is troll country, and little known to me. We could perhaps find our way through and come round to Rivendell from the north, but it would take too long, for I do not know the way, and our food would not last. So somehow or other, we must find the ford of Bruinen. The rest of that day they spent scrambling over rocky ground. They found a passage between two hills that led them into a valley running southeast, the direction that they wished to take. But towards the end of the day they found their road again barred by a bridge of high land. Its dark edge against the sky was broken into many bare points like teeth of a blunted saw. They had a choice between going back or climbing over it. They decided to attempt to climb, but it proved very difficult. Before long, Frodo was obliged to dismount and struggle along on foot. Even so, they often despaired of getting their pony up, of finding a path for themselves, burdened as they were. The light was nearly gone, and they were all exhausted. When at last, they reached the top. They had climbed on to a narrow saddle between two higher points, and the land fell steeply away again. 
Only a short distance ahead, Frodo threw himself down and lay on the ground, shivering. His left arm was lifeless, and his side and shoulder felt as if icy claws were laid upon them. The trees and rocks about him seemed shadowy and dim. We cannot go any further, said Mary to Strider. I'm afraid this has been too much for Frodo. I'm dreadfully anxious of him. What are we to do? You think they'll be able to cure him in Rivendell, if we ever get there? We shall see, answered Strider. There is nothing more that I can do in the wilderness, and it is chiefly because of this wound that I am so anxious to press on. But I agree that we can go no further tonight. What's the matter with my master? asked Sam in a low voice, looking appealingly at Strider. His wound was small, and it's, and it's really closed. There's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. Frodo has been touched by the weapons of the enemy, said Strider. And there is some poison or evil at work that is beyond my skill to drive out. But do not give up hope, Sam. Night was cold up on the high ridge. They lit a small fire down under the gnarled roots of an old pine that hung over a shallow pit. It looked as if stone had once been quarried there. They sat huddled together. The wind blew chill through the pass, and they heard the treetops lower down moaning and sighing. Frodo lay half in a dream, imagining that endless dark wings were sweeping by above him, and that on the wings rode pursuers that sought him in all the hollows of the hills. The morning dawned bright and fair. The air was clean and the light pale and clear in a rain-washed sky. Their hearts were encouraged, but they longed for the sun to warm their cold, stiff limbs. As soon as it was light, Strider took Mary with him and went to survey the country from the height to the east of the pass. The sun had risen and was shining brightly when he returned with more comforting news. They were now going more or less in the right direction. If they went on, down the further side of the ridge, they would have the mountains on their left. Somewhere ahead, Strider had caught a glimpse of the loud water again, and he knew that, though it was hidden from view, the road to the ford was not far from the river and lay on the side nearest to them. We must make for the road again, he said. We cannot hope to find a path through these hills. Whatever danger may be said it, the road is our only way to the ford. As soon as they had eaten, they set out again. They climbed slowly down the southern side of the ridge, but the way was much easier than they had expected, for the slope was far less steep on this side, and before long Frodo was able to ride again. Bill Fernie's poor old pony was developing an unexpected talent for picking out a path and for sparing its rider as many jolts as possible. The spirits of the party rose again. Even Frodo felt better in the morning light. But every now and again, a mist seemed to obscure his sight, and he passed his hands over his eyes. Pippin was a little ahead of the others. Suddenly he turned around and called to them. There is a path here, he cried. When they came up with him, they saw that he had made no mistake. There were clearly the beginnings of a path that climbed with many windings out of the woods below and faded away on the hilltop behind. In places it was now faint and overgrown, or choked with fallen stones and trees, but at one time it seemed to have been much used. It was a path made by strong arms and heavy feet. Here and there old trees had been cut or broken down, and large rocks cloven or heaved aside to make a way. They followed the track for some while, for it offered much the easiest way down, but they went cautiously, and their anxiety increased as they came into the dark woods, and the path grew plainer and broader. Suddenly, coming out of a belt of fir trees, it ran steeply down a slope, 
and turned sharply to the left around the corner of a rocky shoulder of a hill. When they came to the corner, they looked around and saw that the path ran on over a level strip under the face of a low cliff overhung with trees. In the stony wall, there was a door hanging crookedly ajar upon one great hinge. Outside the door, they all halted. There was a cave or rock chamber behind, but in the gloom inside, nothing could be seen. Strider, Sam, and Mary, pushing it with all their strength, managed to open the door a little wider. And then Strider and Mary went in. They did not go far, for on the floor lay many old bones, and nothing else was to be seen near the entrance except some great empty jars and broken pots. Ooh, ooh. Surely this is a troll hole if ever there was one," said Pippin. "Come out, you two, and let us get away. Now we know who made the path, and we had better get off it quick." There is no need, I think," said Strider, coming out. "It is certainly a troll hole." But it seems to have been long forsaken. I don't think we need be afraid. But let us go on down warily, and we shall see. The path went on again from the door, and turning to the right again across the level space, plunged down a thick wooden slope. Pippin, not liking to show Strider that he was still afraid, went on ahead with Merry. Sam and Strider came behind, one on each side of Frodo's pony, for the path was now broad enough for four or five hobbits to walk abreast. But they had not gone very far before Pippin came running back, followed by Merry. They both looked terrified. There are trolls! Pippin panted. Down in a clearing in the woods, not far below. We've got a sight of them through the tree trunks. They're very large. You will come and look at them," said Strider, picking up a stick. Frodo said nothing, but Sam looked scared. The sun was now high and shone down through the half-stripped branches of the trees and lit the clearing with bright patches of light. They halted suddenly on the edge and peered through the tree trunks, holding their breath. There stood the trolls, three large trolls. One was stooping, and the other two stood staring at him. Strider walked forward unconcernedly. <clears throat> Get up, old stone. He said and broke his stick upon the stooping troll. Nothing happened. There was a gasp of astonishment from the hobbits, and then even Frodo laughed. <laughs> well, he said, we are forgetting our family history. These must be the very three that were caught by Gandalf quarrelling over the right way to cook thirteen dwarves in one hobbit. I had no idea they were anywhere near the place," said Pippin. He knew the story well. Bilbo and Frodo had told it often. But as a matter of fact, he had never more than half believed it. Even now, he looked at the stone trolls with suspicion, wondering if some magic might not suddenly bring them to life again. You are forgetting not only your family history, but all you ever knew about trolls," said Strider. "It is broad daylight with a bright sun, and yet you come back trying to scare me with a tale of live trolls waiting for us in this glade. In any case, you might have noticed that one of them has an old bird's nest behind his ear, and would be a most unusual ornament for a live troll." <laughs> They all laughed. Frodo felt his spirits reviving. The reminder of Bilbo's first successful adventure was heartening. The sun too was warm and comforting, and the mist before his eyes seemed to be lifting a little. They rested for some time in the glade and took their midday meal right under the shadow of the troll's large legs. Won't somebody give us a bit of a song while the sun is high? Said Merry when they had finished. We haven't had a song or tale for days. Not since Weathertop," 
said Frodo. The others looked at him. Don't worry about me, he added. I feel much better, but I don't think I could sing. Perhaps Sam could dig something out of his memory. Come on, Sam, said Mary. There's more stored in your head than you let on about. Oh, I, I don't know about that, said Sam. But how would this suit? It ain't what I call proper poetry, but you understand me. Just a bit of nonsense. But these old images here brought it to my mind. Standing up with his hands behind his back as if he was at school, he began to sing to an old tune. Troll, um... Trolls sat alone in a seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he had gnawed it near, for meat was hard to come by, done by, gone by. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone and meat was hard to come by. Up came Tom with his big boots on, said he to Troll, pray what is yon? For it looks like the shin on my uncle Tim. As should be lying in graveyard, caveyard, paveyard. This many a year has Tim been gone, and I thought he were lying in graveyard. <laughs> My lad said, Troll, this bone I stole. But what be bones that lie in a hole? Thy uncle was dead as a lump o' lead. Afore I found his chin bone, tin bone, thin bone. He can spare a share of a poor old troll, for he don't need his shin bone. Said Tom, I don't see why the likes of thee without axe and leaves should go making free. With the shank of the shin, oh my father's kin, so hand the old bone over, rover, trover. Though dead he be, it belongs to he, so hand the old bone over. For a couple of pins, says Troll and Gringe, I'll eat thee too and gnaw thy shins. A bit of fresh meat will go down sweet. I'll try my teeth on thee now. He now, see now. I'm tired o' gnawing at old bones and skins. I've mind to dine on thee now. <laughs> but just as he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands as hold of naught. Before he could mind, Tom slipped behind and gave him the boot to larn him. Warn him, darn him. A bump of the boot on a seat, Tom thought, would be the way to larn him. But harder than the stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone, as well as your boot on the mountain's root. For the seat of a troll don't feel it, peel it, heal it. Old troll laughed when he heard Tom groan, and he knew his toes could feel it. <laughs> Tom's leg is game since home he came, and his bootless foot is lasting lame. But Troll don't care, and he's still there, with the bone he boned from his owner. Donor, boner. Troll's old seat is still the same, and the bone that he boned from his owner. Hey! hey. <laughs> well, that's a warning to us all, laughed Mary. It is as well as you used a stick, but not your hand, Strider. Where'd you come by that, Sam? asked Pippin. I've never heard those words before. Sam muttered something inaudible. It's out of his own head, of course, said Frodo. I'm learning a lot about Sam Gamgee on this journey. First he was a conspirator, now he's a jester. He'll end up by becoming a wizard, or a warrior. Oh, I, I hope not, said Sam. I don't want to be neither. 
In the afternoon, they went on down the woods. They were probably following the very track that Gandalf, Bilbo, and the dwarves had used many years before. After a few miles, they came out on the top of a high bank above the road. At this point, the road had left the Hallwell far behind in its narrow valley, and now clung close to the feet of the hills, rolling and winding eastward among the woods and heather-covered slopes towards the ford in the mountains. Not far down the bank, Strider pointed out a stone in the grass. On it, roughly cut and now much weathered, could still be seen dwarf rooms and secret marks. There, said Mary. That must be the stone that marked the place where the troll's gold was hidden. How much of it is left of Bilbo's share, I wonder, Frodo? Frodo looked at the stone and wished that Bilbo had brought home no treasure more perilous or less easy to part with. Um, none at all, he said. Bilbo gave it all away. He told me he did not feel it was really his, as it came from robbers. The road lay quiet under the long shadows of early evening. There was no sign of any other travellers to be seen. As there was now no other possible course for them to take, they climbed down the bank and, turning left, went off as fast as they could. Soon a shoulder of hills cut off the light of the fast westering sun. A cold wind flowed down to meet them from the mountains ahead. They were beginning to look out for a place off the road where they could camp for the night, when they heard a sound that brought sudden fear back into their hearts: the noise of hoofs behind them. They looked back. But they could not see far because of the many windings and rollings of the road. As quickly as they could, they scrambled off the beaten way and up into the deep heather and bilberry patch, and thick-growing hazels. As they peered out from among the bushes, they could see the road, faint and grey in the failing light, some thirty feet below them. The sound of hoofs drew nearer. They were going fast, with a light clippity clippity clip. Then faintly, as if it was blown away from them by the breeze, they seemed to catch a dim ringing, as of small bells tingling. That does not sound like a black rider's horse," said Frodo, listening intently. The other hobbits agreed hopefully that it did not, but they all remained full of suspicion. They had been in fear of pursuit for so long that any sound from behind them seemed ominous and unfriendly. But Strider was now leaning forward, stooped to the ground, with a hand to his ear, and a look of joy on his face. The light faded, and the leaves on the brushes rustled softly. Clearer and nearer now, the bells jingled. And clippity clip came the quick trotting feet. Suddenly, into view below, came a white horse, gleaming in the shadows, running swiftly. In the dusk, its head stole flickered and flashed, as if it were studded with the gems like living stars. The rider's cloak streamed behind him, and his hood was thrown back. His golden hair flowed shimmering in the wind of his speed. To Frodo, it appeared that the white light was shining through the form and raiment of the rider. As if through a thin veil, Strider sprang from hiding and dashed down towards the road, leaping with a cry through the heather. But even before he had moved or called, the rider had reined his horse and halted, looking up towards the thicket where they stood. When he saw Strider, he dismounted and ran to meet him, calling out, "His speech and clear ringing voice left no doubt in their hearts. The rider was of elven folk. No others that dwelt in the wide world had voices so fair to hear." But there seemed to be a note of haste or fear in his call, and they saw that he was now speaking quickly and urgently to Strider. Soon Strider beckoned to them. The hobbits left the bushes and hurried down to the road. <laughs> This is Glorfindel, who dwells in the house of Elrond," said Strider. "Hail and well met at last," said the elf lord to Frodo. "I was sent from Rivendell to look for you. 
We feared that you were in danger upon the road. Then Gandalf has reached Rivendell, cried Frodo joyfully. No, we had not when I departed, but that was nine days ago, answered Glorfindel. Elrond received news that troubled him. Some of my kindred, journeying in your land beyond the Baranduin, learned that things were amiss and sent messages as swiftly as they could. They said that the nine were abroad, and you were astray, bearing a great burden without guidance. For Gandalf had not returned. There are few, even in Rivendell, that can ride openly against the nine. But such as there were, Elrond sent out north, west, and south. It was thought that you might run far aside to avoid pursuit and become lost in the wilderness. It was my lot to take the road, and I came to the bridge to Mithaithel and left a token there. Nigh on seven days ago. Three of the servants of Sauron were upon the bridge, but they withdrew, and I pursued them westward. I came also upon two others, but they turned away southward. Since then I searched for your trail. Two days ago I found it, and found it over the bridge, and today I marked where you descended from the hills again. But come, there is no time for further news. Since you are here, we must risk the peril of the road and go. There are five behind us, and when they find your trail upon the road, they will ride after us like the wind, and they are not all. Where the other four may be, I do not know. I fear that we may find the ford is already held against us. While Glorfindel was speaking, the shades of evening deepened. Frodo felt a great weariness come over him. Ever since the sun began to sink, the mist before his eyes had darkened, and he felt that a shadow was coming between him and the faces of his friends. Now pain assailed him, and he felt cold. He swayed, clutching at Sam's arm. My master's sick and wounded, said Sam angrily. He can't go on riding at nightfall. He needs rest. Glorfindel caught Frodo as he sank to the ground, and taking him gently in his arms, he looked in his face with grave anxiety. Briefly, Strider told of the attack on their camp on the weathertop, and of the deadly knife. He drew out the hilt, which he had kept, and handed it to the elf. Glorfindel shuddered as he took it, but he looked intently at it. There are evil things written on this hilt, he said, though maybe your eyes cannot see them. Keep it, Aragorn, till we reach the house of Elrond. But be wary, and handle it as little as you may. Alas, the wounds of this weapon are beyond my skill to heal. I will do what I can. All the more do I urge you now to go on without rest. He searched the wound on Frodo's shoulder with his fingers, and his face grew graver, as if what he learned disquieted him. But Frodo felt the chill lessen in his side and arm. A little warmth crept down from his shoulder to his hand, and the pain grew easier. The dusk of evening seemed to grow lighter about him, as if a cloud had been withdrawn. He saw his friends' faces more clearly again, and the measure of new hope and strength returned. You shall ride on my horse, said Glorfindel. I will shorten the stirrups up to the saddle skirts, and you must sit as tight as you can. But you need not fear. My horse will not let any rider fall that I command him to bear. His pace is light and smooth, and if danger presses too near, he will bear you away with a speed that even the black steeds of the enemy cannot rival. No, he will not, said Frodo. I shall not ride him. If I am to be carried off to Rivendell or anywhere else, leaving my friends behind in danger. Glorfindel smiled. I doubt very much, he said, if your friends would be in danger if you were not with them. The pursuit would follow you and leave us in peace, I think. It is you, Frodo, and that which you bear that brings us all in peril. To that Frodo had no answer, and he was persuaded to mount Glorfindel's white horse. The pony was laden instead with the great part of the other's burdens, so that they now marched lighter, and for a time made good speed. But the hobbits began to find it hard to keep up with the swift, tireless feet of the elf. On he led them, into the mouth of darkness. 
and still on under the deep clouded night. There was neither star nor moon. Not until the grey of dawn did he allow them to halt. Pippin, Mary, and Sam were by that time nearly asleep in their stumbling legs, and even Strider seemed by the sag of his shoulders to be weary. Frodo sat upon the horse in a dark dream. They cast themselves down in the heather a few yards from the roadside, and fell asleep immediately. They seemed hardly to have closed their eyes when Glorfindel, who had set himself to watch while they slept, awoke them again. The sun had now climbed far into the morning, and the clouds and mists of the night were gone. Drink this, said Glorfindel to them, pouring for each in turn a little liquor from his silver-studded flask of leather. It was clear as spring water and had no taste, and it did not feel either cool or warm in the mouth, but strength and vigor seemed to flow into all their limbs as they drank it. Eaten after that draught, the stale bread and dried fruit, which was now all they had left, seemed to satisfy their hunger better than many a good breakfast in the Shire had done. They had rested rather less than five hours when they took to the road again. Glorfindel still urged them on, and only allowed two brief halts during the day's march. In this way they covered almost twenty miles before nightfall, and came to a point where the road bent right and ran down towards the bottom of the valley, now making straight for the Bruinen. So far there had been no sign or sound of pursuit that the hobbits could see or hear, but often Glorfindel would halt and listen for a moment. If they lagged behind, a look of anxiety clouded his face. Once or twice he spoke to Strider in the elf tongue, but however anxious their guides might be, it was plain that the hobbits could go no further that night. They were stumbling along dizzy with weariness and unable to think of anything but their feet and legs. Frodo's pain had redoubled, and during the day things about him faded to shadows of ghostly grey. He almost welcomed the coming of night, for then the world seemed less pale and empty. The hobbits were still weary when they set out again early next morning. There were many miles yet to go between them and the ford, and they hobbled forward at the best pace they could manage. Our peril will be greater just ere we reach the river, said Glorfindel, for my heart warns me that the pursuit is now swift behind us, and other dangers may be waiting by the ford. The road was still running steadily downhill, and there was now in places much grass at either side, in which the hobbits walked when they could, to ease their tired feet. In the late afternoon they came to a place where the road went suddenly under the dark shadow of tall pine trees, and then plunged into a deep cutting with steep moist walls of redstone. Echoes ran along as they hurried forward, and there seemed to be a sound of many footfalls following their own. All at once, as if through a gate of light, the road ran out again from the end of the tunnel into the open. There, at the bottom of the sharp incline, they saw before them a long, flat mile, and beyond that the ford of Rivendell. On the further side was a steep brown bank, threaded by a winding path, and behind that the tall mountains climbed, shoulder above shoulder, and peak beyond peak, into the fading sky. There was still an echo as of following feet in the cutting behind them, a rushing noise as if a wind were rising and pouring through the branches of the pines. One moment Glorfindel turned and listened. Then he sprang forward with a loud cry. Fly! Fly! The enemy is upon us! The white horse leaped forward. The hobbits ran down the slope. Glorfindel and Strider followed as rear guard. They were only halfway across the flat when suddenly there was a noise of horses galloping. Out of the gate in the tree that they had just left rode a black rider. He reined his horse in and halted, swaying in his saddle. Another followed him, and then another, and then again two more. Ride forward, ride! cried Glorfindel to Frodo. He did not obey at once, 
for a strange reluctance seized him. Checking the horse to a walk, he turned and looked back. The riders seemed to sit upon their great steeds like threatening statues upon a hill, dark and solid. While all the woods and land above them receded as if into a mist, suddenly he knew in his heart that they were silently commanding him to wait. Then at once fear and hatred awoke in him. His hand left the bridle and gripped the hilt of his sword, and with the red flash he drew it. Ride on! Ride on! cried Glorfindel, and then loud and clear he called to the horse in the elf tongue. Norolim! Norolim Asphaloth! At once the white horse sprang away and sped like the wind along the last lap of the road. At the same moment the black horses leaped down the hill in pursuit, and from the riders came a terrible cry, such as Frodo had heard filling the woods with horror in the east farthing far away. It was answered, and to the dismay of Frodo and his friends out from the trees and rocks away on the left, four other riders came flying. Two rode towards Frodo, two galloped madly toward the floor to cut off his escape. They seemed to him to run like the wind and to grow swiftly larger and darker as their courses converged with his. Frodo looked back for a moment over his shoulder. He could no longer see his friends. The riders behind were falling back. Even their great steed were no match in speed for the white elf horse of Glorfindel. He looked forward again, and hope faded. There seemed no chance of reaching the ford before he was cut off by the others that had lain in ambush. He could see them clearly now. They appeared to have cast aside their hoods and black cloaks, and they were robed in white and grey. Swords were naked in their pale hands. Helms were on their heads. Their cold eyes glittered they called to him with fell voices. Fear now filled all Frodo's mind. He thought no longer of his sword. No cry came from him. He shut his eyes and clung to the horse's mane. The wind whistled in his ears, and the bells upon the harness rang wild and shrill. A breath of deadly cold pierced him like a spear, as if with a last spurt, with a flash of white fire. The elf horse, speeding as if on wings, passed right before the face of the foremost rider. Frodo heard the splash of water. It foamed above his feet. He felt the quick heave and surge as the horse left the river and struggled up the stony path. He was climbing the steep bank. He was across the ford. But the pursuers were close behind. At the top of the bank, the horse halted and turned about, neighing fiercely. There were nine riders at the water's edge below, and Frodo's spirit quailed before the threat of their uplifted faces. He knew of nothing that would prevent them from crossing as easily as he had done, and he felt that it was useless to try to escape over the long uncertain path from the ford to the edge of Rivendell, if once the riders crossed. In any case, he felt that he was commanded urgently to halt. Hatred again stirred in him, but he had no longer the strength to refuse. Suddenly, the foremost rider spurred his horse forward, checked at the water and reared up. With a great effort, Frodo sat upright and brandished his sword. Go back! Go back! He cried. Go back to the land of Mordor! And follow me no more! His voice sounded thin and shrill in his own ears. The riders halted. But Frodo had not the power of Bombadil. His enemies laughed at him with a harsh and chilling laughter. They called. He whispered. Go back. Hurry. Hurry. 
cried with deadly voices, and immediately their leader urged his horse forward into the water, followed closely by two others. I know Bereth and Lucy in the fair, said Frodo with a last effort, lifting up his sword. You shall have life as a ring, nor me. Then the leader, who was now half across the ford, stood up menacing in his stirrups and raised up his hand. Frodo was stricken dumb. He felt his tongue cleave to his mouth and his heart laboring. His sword broke and fell out of his shaking hand. The elf horse reared and snorted. The foremost of the black horses had almost set foot upon the shore. At that moment, there came a roaring and a rushing. A noise of loud waters rolled many stones. Dimly Frodo saw the river below him rise, and down along its course there came a plumed cavalry of waves. White flames seemed to Frodo to flicker on their crest, and he half fancied what he saw amid the water white riders upon white horses with frothing manes. The three riders that were still in the midst of the ford were overwhelmed. They disappeared, buried suddenly under angry foam. Those that were behind drew back in dismay. With his last failing senses, Frodo heard cries, and it seemed to him that he saw, beyond the riders that hesitated on the shore, a shining figure of white light, and behind it ran small shadowy forms waving flames, and flared red in the grey mist that was falling over the world. The black horses were filled with madness, and leaping forward in terror they bore their riders into the rushing flood. Their piercing cries were drowned in the roaring of the river as it carried them away. Then Frodo felt himself falling, and the roaring and confusion seemed to rise and engulf him together with his enemies. He heard and saw no more. Frodo woke and found himself lying in bed. At first he thought that he had slept late, after a long unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory. Or perhaps he had been ill, but the ceiling looked strange. It was flat, and it had dark beams richly carved. He lay a little while longer, looking at patches of sunlight on the wall, and listening to the sound of waterfall. Where am I? And what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. In the house of Elrond. And it is ten o'clock in the morning, said a voice. It is the morning of October the 24th, if you want to know. Gandalf! cried Frodo, sitting up. There was the old wizard, sitting in a chair by the open window. 
Yes, he said. I am here. And you are lucky to be here too, after all the absurd things you have done since you left home. Frodo lay down again. He felt too comfortable and peaceful to argue, and in any case he did not think he would get the better of any argument. He was fully awake now, and the memory of his journey was returning. The disastrous shortcut through the old forest, the accident at the prancing pony, and his madness in putting on the ring in the dell under the weathertop. While he was thinking of all these things and trying in vain to bring his memory down to his arriving in Rivendell, there was a long silence broken slowly by the soft puffs of Gandalf's pipe as he blew white smoke rings out the window. Uh, where is Sam? Frodo asked at length. And are the others all right? Yes, they are all safe and sound, answered Gandalf. Sam was here until I sent him off to get some rest about half an hour ago. What happened at the ford? said Frodo. It all seemed so dim somehow and... And it still does. Yes, it would. You are beginning to fade, answered Gandalf. The wound was overcoming you at last. A few more hours and you would have been beyond our aid. But you have some strength in you, my dear Hobbit, as you showed in the barrow. That was touch and go, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. You seem to know a great deal already, said Frodo. I have not spoken to the others about the barrow. At first it was too horrible, and afterwards there were other things to think about. How do you know about it? You have talked long in your sleep, Frodo, said Gandalf gently. And it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory. Do not worry. Though I said absurd just now, I did not mean it. I think well of you, and of the others. It is no small feat to have come so far, and through such dangers, still bearing the ring. <laughs> we should never have done it without Strider, said Frodo. But we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. I was delayed, said Gandalf. And that nearly proved our ruin. And yet I am not sure. It may have been better so. I wish you would tell me what happened. A whole in good time. You are not supposed to talk or worry about anything today. By Elrond's orders. But talking would stop me thinking and wondering, which are quite as tiring, said Frodo. I'm wide awake now, and I remember so many things that want explaining. Why were you delayed? You ought to tell me that at least. You will soon hear all you wish to know, said Gandalf. We shall have a council, as soon as you are well enough. At the moment I will only say that I was held captive. You? cried Frodo. Yes, I, Gandalf the Grey, said the wizard solemnly. There are many powers in this world, for good or for evil. Some are greater than I am. Against some I have not yet been measured. But my time is coming. The Morgor Lord and his black riders have come forth. War is preparing. Then you knew of the riders already? B before I met them? Yes, I knew of them. Indeed, I spoke of them once to you, for the black riders are oh, the ringwraiths. The nine servants of the Lord of the Rings. But I did not know that they had arisen again, or I should have fled with you at once. I heard news of them only after I left you in June. But that story must wait. For the moment we have been saved from disaster. By Aragorn. Yes, said Frodo. It was Strider that saved us. 
Yet I was afraid of him at first. Sam never quite trusted him, I think. Not at any rate until we met Glorfindel. Gandalf smiled. I have heard all about Sam, he said. He has no more doubts now. Oh, I am glad, said Frodo, for I have become very fond of Strider. Well, fond is not the right word. I mean, he is dear to me, though he is strange and grim at times. In fact, he reminds me often of you. I didn't know that any of the big people were like that. I thought, well, that they were just big and rather stupid. Kind and stupid like Butterbur, or stupid and wicked like Bill Fernie. But then we don't know much about men in the Shire, except perhaps the Brelanders. You don't know much even about them if you think old Barleyman is stupid, said Gandalf. He is wise enough on his own ground. He thinks less than he talks, and slower, yet he can see through a brick wall in time, as they say in Bree. But there are a few left in Middle-earth like Aragorn, son of Arathorn. The race of kings from over the sea is nearly at an end, and maybe that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure. What? Do you really mean that Strider is one of the people of the old kings? said Frodo in wonder. I thought they had all vanished long ago. I thought he was only a ranger. Only a ranger? cried Gandalf. My dear Frodo, that is just what rangers are. The last remnant in the north of the great people. The men of the west. They have helped me before, and I shall need their help in the days to come. But we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. I suppose not, said Frodo. But so far my only thought has been to get here, and I hope that I shan't have to go any further. It's very pleasant just to rest. I have had a month of exile and adventure, and I find that has been as much as I want. He fell silent and shut his eyes. After a while he spoke again. I have been reckoning, he said, but I can't bring the total up to October the 24th. It ought to be the 21st. We, we must have reached the ford by the 20th. You have walked and reckoned more than is good for you, said Gandalf. How do the side and shoulder feel now? I don't know, Frodo answered. They don't feel at all, which is an improvement, but... He made an effort. I can, I can move my arm again a little. Yes, yes, it's coming back to life. It's not cold, he added, touching his left hand with his right. Good said Gandalf. It is mending fast. You will soon be sound again. Elrond has cured you. He has tended you for days, ever since you were brought in. Days? said Frodo. Well, four nights and three days, to be exact. The elves brought you from the ford on the night of the twentieth, and that is where you lost count. We have been terribly anxious, and Sam has hardly left your side, day or night, except to run messages. Elrond is a master of healing, but the weapons of our enemy are deadly. To tell you the truth, I had very little hope, for I suspected that there was some fragment of the blade still in the closed wound, but it could not be found until last night. The Elrond removed a splinter. It was deeply buried, and it was working inwards. Frodo shuddered, remembering the cruel knife with notched blade that had vanished in Strider's hands. Don't be alarmed, said Gandalf. It is gone now. It has been melted. And it seems that hobbits fade very reluctantly. I have known strong warriors of the big people who would quickly have been overcome by that splinter which you bore for seventeen days. 
What would they have done to me? asked Frodo. What were the riders trying to do? They tried to pierce your heart with a Morgul knife which remains in the wound. If they had succeeded, you would have become like they are, only weaker and under their command. You would have become a wraith under the dominion of the Dark Lord and he would have tormented you for trying to keep his ring. If any greater torment were possible than being robbed of it and seeing it on his hand. Thank goodness I did not realize the horrible danger, said Frodo faintly. I was mortally afraid, of course, but if I had not known more, I would not have dared even to move. It is a marvel that I escaped. Yes, fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf. Not to mention courage, for your heart was not touched and only your shoulder was pierced. And that was because you resisted to the last. But it was a terribly narrow shave, so to speak. You were in gravest peril while you wore the ring. For then you were in half the wraith world yourself, and they might have seized you. You could see them, and they could see you. I know, said Frodo. They were terrible to behold. But why could we all see their horses? Because they are real horses, just as the black robes are real robes that they wear to give shape to their nothingness when they have dealings with the living. Then why do these black horses endure such riders? All other animals are terrified when they draw near, even the elf horse of Glorfindel. The dogs howl and the geese scream at them. Because these horses are born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord and Mordor. Not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. There are orcs and trolls. There are wags and werewolves. And there have been and still are many men, warriors and kings, that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway. And their number is growing daily. What about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Yes, at present, until all else is conquered. The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. And here in Rivendell, there live still some of his chief foes, the elven-wise lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the ring race, for those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm live at once in both worlds, and against both the seen and the unseen they have great power. I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Glorfindel, then? Yes, you saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side, one of the mighty of the firstborn. He is an elf lord of a house of princes. Indeed, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. There is power, too, of another kind in the Shire, but all such places will soon become islands under siege. If things go on as they are going, the Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. Still, he said, standing suddenly up and sticking out his chin while his beard went stiff and straight like bristling wire, we must keep up our courage. You will soon be well if I do not talk you to death. You are in Rivendell, and you need not worry about anything for the present. I haven't any courage to keep up, said Frodo. But I'm not worried at the moment. Just give me news of my friends and tell the end of the affair at the ford. As I keep on asking and I shall be content for the present. After that I shall have another sleep, I think. But I shall be able to close my eyes until you have finished the story for me. Gandalf moved his chair to the bedside and took a good look at Frodo. The colour had come back to his face and his eyes were clear and fully awake and aware. He was smiling and there seemed to be little wrong with him. But to the wizard's eye there was a faint change. 
just a hint, as it were, of transparency about him, and especially about the left hand that lay outside upon the coverlet. Still, that must be expected, said Gandalf to himself. He is not half through yet, and to what he will come in the end not even Elrond can foretell. Not to evil, I think. He may become like a glass filled with a clear light for eyes to see that can. You look splendid, he said aloud. I will risk a brief tale without consulting Elrond, but quite brief, mind you, and then you must sleep again. This is what happened, as far as I can gather. The riders made straight for you, as soon as you fled. They did not need the guidance of their horses any longer. You had become visible to them, being already on the threshold of their world. And also the ring drew them. Your friends sprang aside off the road, or they would have been ridden down. They knew that nothing could save you if the white horse could not. The riders were too swift to overtake, and too many to oppose. On foot, even Glorfindel and Aragorn together could not withstand all the nine at once. When the ring race swept by, your friends ran up behind. Close to the ford, there is a small hollow beside the road, masked by a few stunted trees. There they hastily kindled fire, for Glorfindel knew that a flood would come down if the riders tried to cross, and then he would have to deal with any that were left on his side of the river. The moment the flood appeared, he rushed out, followed by Aragorn and the others with flaming brands. Caught between fire and water, and seeing an elf lord revealed in his wrath, they were dismayed, and their horses were stricken with madness. Three were carried away by the first assault of the flood. The others were now hurled into the water by their horses and overwhelmed. And is that the end of the Black Riders? asked Frodo. No, said Gandalf. Their horses must have perished, and without them they are crippled. But the Ringwraiths themselves cannot be so easily destroyed. However, there is nothing more to fear from them at the present. Your friends cross after the flood has passed, and they found you lying on your face at the top of the bank, with a broken sword under you. The horse was standing guard beside you. You were pale and cold, and they fear that you are dead, or worse. Elrond's folk met them, carrying you slowly towards Rivendell. Who made the flood? asked Frodo. Elrond commanded it, answered Gandalf. The river of this valley is under his power, and it will rise in anger when he has great need to bar the ford. As soon as the captain of the ring race strode into the water, the flood was released. If I may say so, I added a few touches of my own. You may not have noticed, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders, and there were many rolling and grinding boulders. For a moment I was afraid that we let loose too fierce a wrath, and the flood would get out of hand and wash you all away. There is great vigour in the waters that come down from the snows of the misty mountains. Yes. It, it all comes back to me now, said Frodo. The, the tremendous roaring. I thought I was drowning, with my friends and enemies and all. But now we are safe. Gandalf looked quickly at Frodo, but he had shut his eyes. Yes, you are all safe for the present. Soon there will be feasting and merrymaking to celebrate the victory at the ford of Bruinen, and you will all be there in places of honour. Splendid said Frodo. It is wonderful that Elrond and Glorfindel and such great lords, not to mention Strider, would take so much trouble and show me so much kindness. Well, there are many reasons why they should, said Gandalf, smiling. I am one reason. The ring is another. You are the ring-bearer, and you are the heir of Bilbo, the ring-finder. Oh, dear Bilbo, 
said Frodo sleepily. I wonder where he is. I wish he was here and could hear all about it. It would it would have made him laugh. The cow jumped over the moon and the poor old troll. With that, he fell fast asleep. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house. Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear and sadness. As the evening drew on, Frodo woke up again and he found that he no longer felt the need to rest or sleep but had a mind for food and drink and probably for singing and storytelling afterwards. He got out of bed that his arm was already nearly as useful again as it ever had been. He found laid ready clean garments of green cloth that fitted him excellently. Looking in a mirror, he was startled to see a much thinner reflection of himself than he remembered. It looked remarkably like the young nephew of Bilbo who used to go tramping with his uncle in the Shire, but the eyes looked out at him thoughtfully. Yes, you have seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of the looking glass, he said in his reflection. But now for a merrymaking. He stretched out his arms and whistled a tune. At that moment, there was a knock on the door, and Sam came in. He ran to Frodo and took his left hand, awkwardly and shyly. He stroked it gently, and then he blushed and turned hastily away. Hello, Sam, said Frodo. It's warm, said Sam. But meaning your hand, Mr. Frodo. It has felt so cold through the long nights, but glory and trumpets, he cried, turning around again with shining eyes and dancing on the floor. It's fine to see you up and yourself again, sir. Gandalf asked me to come and see if you were ready to come down, and I thought he was joking. I am ready, said Frodo. Let's go and look for the rest of the party. I can take you to them, sir, said Sam. It's a big house, this, and very peculiar. Always a bit more to discover, and no knowing what you'll find around a corner. An elf, sir. Elves here and elves there. Some like kings, terrible and splendid, and some merry as children. And the music and the singing, not that I have had the time and heart for much listening since we got here, but I'm getting to know some of the ways of the place. I know what you've been doing, Sam, said Frodo, taking his arm. But you shall be merry tonight, and listen to your heart's content. Come on, guide me round the corner. Sam led him along several passages and down many steps, and out into a high garden above the steep bank of the river. He found his friends sitting in a porch on the side of the house looking east. Shadows had fallen in the valley below, but there was still a light on the faces of the mountains far above. The air was warm, the sound of running and falling water was loud, and the evening was filled with the faint scent of trees and flowers, as if summer still lingered in Elrond's gardens. cried Pippin, springing up. Here is our noble cousin. Make way for Frodo, Lord of the Ring. Hush, said Gandalf from the shadows at the back of the porch. Evil things do not come into this valley, but all the same we should not name them. The Lord of the Rings is not Frodo, but the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor, whose power is again stretching out over the world. We are sitting in a fortress. Outside it is getting dark. Gandalf has been saying many cheerful things like that. Pippin. He thinks I need keeping in order, but it seems impossible somehow to feel gloomy or depressed in this place. I feel I could sing. If I knew the right song for the occasion, <laughs> I feel like singing myself. 
laughed Frodo. Though at any moment I feel more like eating and drinking. Ha! That will soon be cured, said Pippin. You've shown your usual cunning in getting up just in time for a meal. More than a meal, a feast, said Merry. As soon as Gandalf reported you were recovered, the preparations began. He had hardly finished speaking when they were summoned to the hall by the ringing of many bells. The hall of Elrond's house was filled with folk, elves for the most part, though there were few guests of other sorts. Elrond, as was his custom, sat in a great chair at the end of the long table upon the dais. And next to him, on the one side, sat Glorfindel, and on the other side sat Gandalf. Frodo looked at them in wonder, for he had never before seen Elrond, of whom so many tales spoke. And as they sat upon his right hand and his left, Glorfindel and even Gandalf, whom he thought he knew so well, were revealed as lords of dignity and power. Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two, but his long white hair, his sweeping silver beard, and his broad shoulders made him look like some wise king of ancient legend. His aged face, under the great snowy brows of his dark eyes, was set like coals that could leap suddenly into a fire. Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was of shining gold. His face fair and young, and fearless and full of joy. His eyes were bright and keen, and his voice like music. On his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. The face of Elrond was ageless, neither old nor young. Though in it was written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful, his hair was dark as the shadows of twilight, and upon it was set a circlet of silver. His eyes were grey as a clear evening, and in them was a light. Like the light of stars, venerable he seemed as a king crowned with many winters, and yet hale as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. He was the Lord of Rivendell, and mighty among both elves and men. In the middle of the table, against the woven cloths upon the wall, there was a chair under a canopy, and there sat a lady fair to look upon. And so like was she in form of womanhood to Elrond that Frodo guessed that she was one of his close kindred. Young she was, and yet not so. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes, grey as a cloudless night. Yet queenly she looked. And thought and knowledge were in her glance, as of one who has known many things that the years bring. Above her brow, her head was covered with a cap of silver lace netted with small gems, glittering white. But her soft grey raiment had no ornament save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. So it was that Frodo saw her, whom few mortals had yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond. With whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Undomiel, for she was the even star of her people. Long she had been in the land of her mother's kin, in Lorien, and was but lately returned to Rivendell to her father's house. But her brothers, Eladan and Elrohir, were now upon errantry, for they rode often far afield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Such loveliness in living thing Frodo has never seen before, nor imagined in his mind, 
and he was both surprised and abashed to find that he had a seat at Elrond's table among all these folk so high and fair. Though he had a suitable chair and was raised upon several cushions, he felt very small and rather out of place, but that feeling quickly passed. The feast was merry and the food all that his hunger could desire. It was some time before he looked about him again or even turned to his neighbors. He looked at first to his friends. Sam had begged to be allowed to wait on his master, but he had been told that for this time he was a guest of honor. Frodo can see him now, sitting with Pippin and Merry at the upper end of one of the side tables close to the die. He could see no sign of Strider. Next to Frodo on his right sat a dwarf of important appearance, richly dressed. His beard, very long and forked, was white, nearly as white as the snow-white cloth of his garments. He wore a silver belt, and round his neck hung a chain of silver and diamonds. Frodo stopped eating to look at him. Welcome and well met, said the dwarf, turning towards him. Then he actually rose from his seat and bowed. Gloin, at your service, he said and bowed still lower. Frodo Baggins at your service and your families, said Frodo correctly, rising in surprise and scattering his cushions. Am I right in guessing that you are the Gloin of one of the twelve companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield? Quite right answered the dwarf, gathering up the cushions and courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. And I do not ask, for I have already been told that you are the kinsman and adopted heir of our friend Bilbo the Renowned. Allow me to congratulate you on your recovery. Thank you very much, said Frodo. You have had some very strange adventures, I hear, said Gloin. I wonder greatly what brings four hobbits on so long a journey. Nothing like it has ever happened since Bilbo came with us, but perhaps I should not inquire too closely since Elrond and Gandalf do not seem disposed to talk of this. I think we will not speak of it, at least not yet, said Frodo politely. He guessed that even in Elrond's house, the matter of the ring was not one for casual talk, and in any case he wished to forget his troubles for a time. But I am equally curious, he added, to learn what brings so important a dwarf from the Lonely Mountain. Gloin looked at him. If you have not heard, I think we will not yet speak of that either. Master Elrond will summon us all here long, I believe, and and then we shall all hear many things. But there is much else that may be told. Throughout the rest of the meal they talked together. But Frodo listened more than he spoke, for the news of the Shire, apart from the ring, seemed small and far away, and unimportant. While Gloin had much to tell of events in the northern regions of Wilderland, Frodo learned that Grimbeon the Old, son of Beon, was now the lord of many sturdy men, and to their land between the mountains and Mirkwood neither orc nor wolf dared to go. Indeed, said Gloin. If it were not for the Beornings... The passage from Dale to Rivendell would long ago have become impossible. They are valiant men and keep open the high pass and the ford of Carrock. Ah, but their toes are high, he added with a shake of his head. And like Bairn of old, they are not over-fond of dwarves. Still, they are trusty, and that is much in these days. Nowhere are there any men so friendly to us as the men of Dale. They are good folk from the Bardings. The grandson of Bard the Bowman rules them. Grandson of Bane, son of Bard. He is a strong king, and his realm now reaches far south and east of Esgroth. And what of your own people? asked Frodo. 
There is much to tell, good and bad, said Gloin. Yet it is mostly good. We have so far been fortunate, though we do not escape the shadow of these times. If you really wish to hear of us, I will tell you tidings gladly, or stop me when you are weary. Dwarves' tongues run on when speaking of their handiwork, they say. And with that, Gloin embarked on a long account of the doings of the dwarf kingdom. He was delighted to have found so polite a listener, but Frodo showed no sign of weariness and made no attempt to change the subject. But actually, he soon got rather lost among the strange names of people and places that he had never heard of before. He was interested, however, to hear that Dane was still king under the mountain, and was now old, having passed his 250th year, venerable and fabulously rich. Of the ten companions who had survived the battle of five armies, seven were still with him. Dwalin, Gloin, Dori, Nori, Biffer, Bofur, and Bombur. Bombur was now so fat that he could not move himself from his couch to his chair and table, and it took six young dwarves to lift him. And what has become of Balin and Ori and Oin? asked Frodo. A shadow passed over Gloin's face. You do not know, he answered. It is largely on account of Balin that I have come to ask the advice of those that dwell in Rivendell. But tonight, let us speak of merrier things. Loin began then to talk of the works of his people, telling Frodo about their great labors in Dale and under the mountain. We have done well, he said. But in metalwork we cannot rival our fathers, many of whose secrets are lost. We make good armor and keen swords, but we cannot again make mail or blade to match those that were made before the dragon came. Only in mining and building have we surpassed the old days. You should see the waterways of Dale, Frodo, and the mountains and the pools. You should see the stone-paved roads of many colors, and the halls and cavernous streets under the earth with arches carved like trees and the terraces and towers upon the mountain sides. Then you would see that we have not been idle. I will come to see them if ever I can, said Frodo. How surprised Bilbo would have been to see all the changes in the desolation of Smog. Loin looked at Frodo and smiled. You were very fond of Bilbo, were you not? He asked. <laughs> yes answered Frodo. I would rather see him than all the towers and palaces in the world. At length the feast came to an end. Elrond and Arwen rose and went down the hall, and the company followed them in due order. The doors were thrown open, and they went across a wide passage and through the other doors, and came into a further hall. In it were no tables, but a bright fire was burning in a great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side. Frodo found himself walking with Gandalf. It is the Hall of Fire, said the wizard. Here you will hear many songs and tales, if you can keep awake. But except on high days, it usually stands empty and quiet. And people come here to wish for peace and thought. There is always a fire here, and all year round. But there is little other light. As Elrond entered and went towards the seat prepared for him, elvish minstrels began to make sweet music. Slowly the hall filled and Frodo looked with delight upon the many fair faces that were gathered together. The golden firelight played upon them and shimmered in their hair. 
Suddenly, he noticed not far from the further end of the fire a small dark figure seated on a stool with his back propped against a pillar. Beside him on the ground was a drinking cup and some bread. Frodo wondered whether he was ill, if people were ever ill in Rivendell, and had been unable to come to the feast. His head seemed sunk in sleep on his breast, and a fold of his dark cloak was drawn over his face. Elrond went forward and stood beside the silent figure. Awake, little master, he said with a smile. Then, turning to Frodo, he beckoned to him. Now at last the hour has come that you have wished for, Frodo, he said. Here is a friend that you have long missed. The dark figure raised its head and uncovered its face. Bilbo! cried Frodo with sudden recognition, and he sprang forward. <laughs> Hello, Frodo, my lad, said Bilbo. So you've got here at last. I hoped you would manage it. Well, well. So all this feasting is in your honor, I hear. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Why weren't you there? cried Frodo. And why haven't I been allowed to see you before? Because you were asleep. I've seen a good deal of you. I've sat at your side with Sam each day. But as for the feast, I don't go in for such things much now. And I had something else to do. What are you doing? Why, sitting and thinking. I do a lot of that nowadays. And this is the best place to do it in, as a rule. Wake up indeed, he said, cocking an eye on Elrond. There was a bright twinkle in it and no sign of sleepiness that Frodo could see. Wake up! I was not asleep, Master Elrond. If, if you all want to know, you have all come out of your feast too soon, and you have disturbed me in the middle of making up a song. I was stuck over a line or two, and I was thinking about them. But now I don't suppose I shall ever get them right. There will be such a deal of singing that that the ideas will be driven clean out of my head. I shall have to get my friend the Dunedan to help me. Where is he? Elrond laughed. <laughs> he shall be found, he said. Then you two shall go in a corner and finish your task, and we will hear it and judge it before we end our merrymaking. Messengers were sent to find Bilbo's friend, though none knew where he was or why he had not been present at the feast. In the meanwhile, Frodo and Bilbo sat side by side, and Sam came quickly and placed himself near them. They talked together in soft voices, oblivious of the mirth and music in the hall about them. Bilbo had not much to say for himself. When he had left Hobbiton, he had wandered off aimlessly, along the road or in the country on either side, but somehow he had steered all the time towards Rivendell. I got here without much adventure, he said. And after a rest, I went on with the dwarves to Dale, my last journey. I shan't travel again. Old Barlin had gone away. Then I came back here, and here I have been. I have done this and that. I have written some more of my book, and, of course, I make up a few songs. They sing them occasionally, just to please me, I think. <laughs> For, of course, they aren't really good enough for Rivendell. And I listen, and I think. Time doesn't seem to pass here. It just is. A remarkable place, altogether. I hear all kinds of news from, from over the mountains and out from the south, but hardly anything from the Shire. I heard about the Ring, of course. Gandalf had been here often. 
Not that he has told me a great deal. He has become closer than ever these last few years. The Dunedan has told me more. Fancy that ring of mine causing such a disturbance. It is a pity that Gandalf did not find out more sooner. I could have brought the thing here myself long ago without so much trouble. I have thought several times of going back to Hobbiton for it. But I am getting old. Gandalf and Elrond, I mean. They seem to think that the enemy was looking high and low for me, and would make mincemeat of me if he caught me tottering about in the wild. And Gandalf said, The ring has passed on, Bilbo. It would not do good to you or to others if you tried to meddle with it again. Odd sort of remark. Just like Gandalf. But he said he was going after you, so I let things be. I am frightfully glad to see you safe and sound. He paused and looked at Frodo doubtfully. Uh, have you got it here? He asked in a whisper. I can't help feeling curious, you know. After all, I, I've heard. I should very much like just to peep at it again. Yes, I've got it, answered Frodo, feeling a strange reluctance. It, it looks just the same as it ever did. Well, uh, I should just like to see it for a moment, said Bilbo. When he had dressed, Frodo found that while he slept, the ring had been hung about his neck on a new chain, light but strong. Slowly he drew it out. Bilbo put out his hand, but Frodo quickly drew back the ring. To his distress and amazement, he found that he was no longer looking at Bilbo. A shadow seemed to have fallen between them. And through it he found himself eyeing a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony groping hands. He felt a desire to strike him. The music and singing round them seemed to falter, and a silence fell. Bilbo looked quickly at Frodo's face and passed his hands across his eyes. I, I understand now, he said. Put it away. I am sorry. Sorry you've come in for this burden. Sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. Well, it can't be helped. I wonder if it's any good trying to finish my book. But don't let's worry about it now. Let's have some real news. Tell me about the Shire. Frodo hid the ring away, and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The light and music of Rivendell was about him again. Bilbo smiled and laughed happily. Every item of news from the Shire that Frodo could tell, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, was of the greatest interest to him, from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. They were so deep in the doings of the Four Farthings that they did not notice the arrival of a man, clad in dark green cloth. For many minutes he stood looking down at them with a smile. Suddenly Bilbo looked up. Oh. Ah! There you are at last, Dunedan! He cried. Strider! Said Frodo. <laughs> you seem to have a lot of names. Well, Strider is one that I haven't heard before anyway. Said Bilbo. What do you call him that for? <laughs> they call me that in Bree, 
said Strider, laughing. And that is how I was introduced to him. And, and why do you call him Dunedan? asked Frodo. The Dunedan, said Bilbo. He is often called that here. But I thought you knew enough Elvish at least to know Dunedan, man of the West, Numenorian. But this is not the time for lessons. He turned to Strider. Where have you been, my friend? Why weren't you at the feast? The Lady Arwen was there. Strider looked down at Bilbo gravely. I know, he said. But often I must put mirth aside. Eladan and Elroy here have returned out of the wild unlooked for. And they had tidings that I wished to hear at once. Well, my dear fellow, said Bilbo, now you've heard the news, can't you spare me a moment? I want your help in something urgent. Elrond says this song of mine is to be finished before the end of the evening, and I am stuck. Let's go off in a corner and polish it up. Strider smiled. Come on, then. Let's hear it. Frodo was left to himself for a while, for Sam had fallen asleep. He was alone and felt rather forlorn. Although all about him the folk of Rivendell were gathered, but those near him were silent, intent upon the music of the voices and the instruments, and they gave no heed to anything else. Frodo began to listen. At first the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell as soon as he began to attend to them. Almost it seemed that the words took shape, and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him. And the firelit hole became like a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air around him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under his shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. There he wandered long in a dream of music that turned into running water, and then suddenly into a voice. It seemed to be the voice of Bilbo, chanting verses, Faint at first, and then clearer ran the words. Arendil was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber felled, in Nimbrethil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made, her prow was fashioned like a swan, and light upon the banners laid, in panoply of ancient kings. It chained rings and armored him. His shining shield was scorched with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragon horn. His arrows shone of ebony. Of silver was his habergion. His scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant. Of adamant his helmet tall. An eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star, he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways, beyond the days of mortal lands. From gnashing of the narrow ice, where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heat and burning waste, he turned in haste and roving still. On starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and past a never sight he saw, of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled. 
From west to east, all errandless, unheralded here, he homeward sped. There flying Elwig came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit. More bright than light of diamond, the fire upon her carcinet. The Silmaril she bound on him, and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless with the burning brow he turned his prow, and in the night, from other world beyond the sea, there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarminel, by paths that seldom mortal goes. His boat it bore with biting breath, as might of death across the grey, and long forsaken seas distressed, from east to west he passed away. Through ever night he back was borne, on black and roaring waves that ran, ere the leagues unlit and founded shores that drowned before the days began, until he heard on strands of pearl, where ends the world the music long, where ever foaming billows roll, the yellow gold and jewels won. He saw the mountain silver rise, where twilight lies upon the knees. Of Valinor and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. A wanderer escaped from night. To heaven white he came at last, to elven home, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass, beneath the hill of Ilmarin. A glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion, a mirrored on the shadow mere. He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and sages old him marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. They clothed him, they clothed him then in elven white, and seven knights before him sent, as through the Calakirian, to hidden land forlorn he went. He came into the timeless halls, where shining fall and countless years and endless reigns the elder king. In Ilmarin on mountain sheer, and words unheard were spoken then of folk of men and elven kin, beyond the world where visions showed forbid to those that dwell therein. A ship then new they built for him, of mithril and of elven glass. With shining prow, no shave and oar, nor sail he bore on silver mast. The Silmaril as lantern light, and banner bright with living flame, to gleam thereon by Elbereth. Herself was set who hither came, and wings immortal made for him, and laid on him undying doom, to sail the shoreless skies and came behind the sun and light of moon. From Everevens softy hills, where softly silver mountains fall, his wings him bore a wandering light, beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journey, and burning as an island star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wander ere the waking dawn, where grey the northern waters run. And over middle, and over middle earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping soul, of women and of elven maids in elder day, in years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade and orbid star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are, forever still a herald on, an errand that would never rest, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifier of westerness.
The chanting ceased. Frodo opened his eyes and saw that Bilbo was seated on his stool in a circle of listeners, who were smiling and applauding. Now we had better have it again, said an elf. Bilbo got up and bowed. Oh, I am flattered, Lindia, he said. But it would be too tiring to repeat it all. <laughs> Not too tiring for you, the elves answered, laughing. You know you are never tired of reciting your own verses. But really, we cannot answer your question at one hearing. What? cried Bilbo. You can't tell which parts were mine and which were the Dune and Anne's. It is not easy for us to tell the difference between two mortals, said the elf. <laughs> Nonsense, Lindir, snorted Bilbo. If you can't distinguish between a man and a hobbit, your judgment is poorer than I imagined. They're as different as peas and apples. Maybe. The sheep other sheep have no doubt appear different laughed Lindia. Or to shepherds, but mortals have not been our study. We have other business. Oh, I, I won't argue with you, said Bilbo. I am sleepy after so much music and singing. I'll leave you to guess if you want to. He got up and came towards Frodo. <sighs> well, that's over, he said in a low voice. It went off better than I expected. I don't often get asked for a second hearing. What did you think of it? I'm not going to try and guess, said Frodo, smiling. <laughs> you needn't, said Bilbo. As a matter of fact, it was all mine, except that Aragorn insisted on, on my putting in a green stone. He seemed to think it important. I don't know why. Otherwise, he obviously thought the whole thing rather above my head, and he, he said that if I had the cheek to make verses about Erendil in the house of Elrond, it was my affair. <laughs> I suppose he was right. I don't know, said Frodo. It seemed to me to fit somehow, though I can't explain. I was half asleep when you began. It seemed to follow on form something that I was dreaming about. I didn't understand that it was really you speaking until near the end. It is difficult to keep awake here until you get used to it, said Bilbo. Not that hobbits would ever acquire quite the elvish appetite for music and poetry and tales. <laughs> they seem to like them as much as food. No more. They will be going on for a long time yet. What do you say to slipping off for some more quiet talk? Can we? said Frodo. Of course. This is merry-making, not business. Come and go as you like, as long as you don't make a noise. They got up and withdrew quietly into the shadows, and made for the doors. Sam they left behind, fast asleep, still with a smile on his face. In spite of his delight in Bilbo's company, Frodo felt a tug of regret as they passed out of the Hall of Fire. Even as they stepped over the threshold, a single clear voice rose in song. Frodo halted for a moment, looking back. Elrond was in his chair, and the fire was on his face like summer light upon the trees. Near him sat the Lady Arwen. To his surprise, Frodo saw that Aragorn stood beside her. His dark cloak was thrown back, and he seemed to be clad in elven mail, and a star shone on his breast. They spoke together, and then suddenly it seemed to Frodo that Arwen turned towards him, and the light of her eyes fell on him from afar and pierced his heart. He stood still, enchanted while the sweet syllables of the elvish song fell like clear jewels of blended word and melody.
is the song of Elberith, said Bilbo. They will sing that and other songs of the Blessed Realm many times tonight. Come on. He led Frodo back to his own little room. It opened on to the gardens and looked south across the ravine of the Bruinen. There they sat for some time, looking through the window at the brightest stars above the steep climbing woods, and talking softly. They spoke no more of the small news of the Shire far away, nor of the dark shadows and perils that encompassed them, but of the fair things they had seen in the world together, of the elves, of the stars, of trees, and the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. At last there came a knock on the door. Uh, begging your pardon, said Sam, putting in his head. Uh, begging your pardon, I was just wondering if you'd be wanting anything. And begging yours, Sam Gamgee, replied Bilbo. I guess you mean that it is time your master went to bed. Oh, well, sir, there, there is a council early tomorrow, I hear, and he only got up today for the first time. <laughs> Quite right, Sam, laughed Bilbo. You can trot off and tell Gandalf that he has gone to bed. Good night, Frodo. Bless me. But it has been good seeing you again. There are no folk like hobbits, after all, for real good talk. I'm getting very old, and I begin to wonder if I should ever live to see you. Your chapters of our story. Good night. I'll take a walk, I think, and look at the stars of Elbereth in the garden. Sleep well. Next day, Frodo woke early, feeling refreshed and well. He walked along the terraces above the loud-flowing Bruin and watched the pale, cool sun rise above the far mountains and shine down, slanting through the thin silver mist. The dew upon the yellow leaves was glimmering, and the woven nets of gossamer twinkled on every bush. Sam walked beside him, saying nothing but sniffing the air, and looking now and again with wonder in his eyes at the great heights in the east. The snow is white upon their peaks. On a seat cut in the stone beside a turn, in the path they came upon Gandalf and Bilbo deep in talk. Hello, good morning, said Bilbo. Feel ready for the great council? I feel ready for anything, answered Frodo. But most of all, I should like to go walking today and explore the valley. I should like to get into those pine woods up there. He pointed away far up the side of Rivendell to the north. You may have a chance later, said Gandalf, but we cannot make any plans yet. There is much to hear and decide today. Suddenly, as they were walking, a single clear bell rang out. That is the warning bell of the Council of Elrond, cried Gandalf. Come along now. Both you and Bilbo are wanted. Frodo and Bilbo followed the wizard quickly along the winding path back to the house. Behind them, uninvited and for the moment forgotten, trotted Sam. Gandalf led them to the porch where Frodo had found his friends in the evening before. The light in the clear autumn morning was now glowing in the valley. The noise of bubbling waters came up from the foaming riverbed. Birds were singing and a wholesome peace lay on the land. To Frodo, his dangerous flight and the rumors of the darkness growing in the world outside already seemed only the memories of a troubled dream. But the faces that were turned to meet them as they entered were grave. Elrond was there, and several others were seated in silence about him. Frodo saw Glorfindel and Gloin, and in a corner alone Strider was sitting, clad in his old travel-worn clothes again. 
Elrond drew Frodo to a seat by his side and presented him to the company, saying, Here, my friends, is the hobbit Frodo, son of Drogo. Few have ever come hither through greater peril or on an errand more urgent. He then pointed out the name those whom Frodo had not met before. There was a younger dwarf at Glowing's side, his son Gimli. Beside Glorfindel there were several other counselors of Elrond's household, of whom Eristor was the chief, and with him was Galdor, an elf from the Grey Havens who had come on an errand from Círdan, the shipwright. There was also a strange elf clad in green and brown, Legolas, a messenger from his father, Thranduil, the king of the elves of northern Mirkwood. And seated a little apart was a tall man with a fair and noble face, dark-haired and grey-eyed, proud and stern of glance. He was cloaked and booted as if for a journey on horseback, and indeed, though his garments were rich and his cloak was lined with fur, they were stained with long travel. He had a collar of silver in which a single white stone was set. His locks were shorn about his shoulders. On a baldric he wore a great horn tipped with silver that now was laid upon his knees. He gazed at Frodo and Bilbo with sudden wonder. Here, said Elrond, turning to Gandalf, is Boromir. A man from the south. He arrived in the grey morning and seeks for counsel. I have bidden him to be present, for here his questions will be answered. Not all that was spoken and debated in the council need now be told. Much was said of the events in the world outside, especially in the south, and in the wide lands east of the mountains. Of these things Frodo had already heard many rumors, but the tale of Gloin was new to him. And when the dwarf spoke, he listened attentively. It appeared that amid the splendor of their works of hand, the hearts of the dwarves of the lonely mountain were troubled. It is now many years ago, said Gloin, that a shadow of disquiet fell upon our people. Whence it came, we did not at first perceive. Words began to be whispered in secret. It was said that we were hemmed in a narrow place, and that greater wealth and splendor would be found in a wider world. Some spoke of Moria, and the mighty works of our father that are called in our tongue Khazad-dûm. And they declared that now at last we had the power and numbers to return. Gloin sighed. Moria, Moria, wanderers of the northern world. Too deep we delved there, and woke the nameless fear. Long have his vast mansions laid empty since the children of Durin fled. But now we spoke of it again with longing, and yet with dread, for no dwarf has dared to pass the doors of Khazad-dûm for many lives of kings, save Thror only, and he perished. At last, however, Balin listened to the whispers and resolved to go, and though Dane did not leave willingly, he took with him Ori and Oin, and many of our folk, and they went away south. That was nigh on thirty days ago. For a while we had news that it seemed good. Messages reported that Moria had been entered and a great work begun there. Then there was silence. And no word has ever come from Moria since. Then about a year ago, a messenger came to Dane. But not from Moria. From Mordor. A horseman in the night who called Dane to his gate. The Lord Sauron the Great, so he said, wished for our friendship. 
rings he would give for it, such as he gave of old, and he asked urgently concerning hobbits, of what kind they were, and where they dwelt. For Sauron knows, said he, that one of these was once known to you at a time. At this we were greatly troubled, but we gave no answer. And then his fell voice was lowered, and he would have sweetened it if he could. As a small token, only of your friendship, Sauron asks this, he said, that you should find this thief. Such was his word. And get from him, willing or no, a little ring, the least of rings, that once he stole. It is but a trifle that Sauron fancies, and an earnest of your goodwill. Find it, and the three rings that the dwarf sires possessed of old shall be returned to you, and the realm of Moria shall be yours forever. Find only news of the thief, whether he still lives and where, and you shall have great reward and lasting friendship from the Lord. Refuse, and things will not seem so well. Do you refuse? At that his breath came like a hiss of snakes, and all that stood by shuddered, but Dane said, I say neither ye nor nay. I must consider this message and what it means under its fair cloak. Consider well, but not too long, said he. The time of my thought is my own to spend, answered Dane. For the present, said he, and rode into the darkness. Heavy have the hearts of our chieftains been since that night. We needed not the fell voice of the messenger to warn us that his words held both menace and deceit. For we knew already that the power that was re-entered Mordor has not changed, and ever it betrayed us of old. Twice the messenger has returned, and has gone unanswered. The third and last time, so he says, is soon to come, before the ending of the year. And so I have sent at last my Dane to warn Bilbo that he is sought by the enemy, and to learn, if may be, why he desires this ring, this least of rings. Also we crave the advice of Elrond, for the shadow grows and draws nearer. We discover that messengers have come also to King Brandindale, and that he is afraid. We fear that he may yield. Already war is gathering on its eastern borders. If we make no answer, the enemy may move men of his rule to assault King Brand and Dane also. You have done well to come, said Elrond. You will hear today all that you need in order to understand the purposes of the enemy. There is naught that you can do other than to resist, with hope or without it. But you do not stand alone. You will learn that your trouble is but part of the trouble of all the western world. The ring. What shall we do with the ring? The least of rings, the trifle as Sauron fancies. That is the doom that we must deem. That is the purpose for which you are all called hither. Called, I say. Though I have not called you to me, strangers from distant lands, you have come and are here met, in this very nick of time, by chance as it may seem. Yet it is not so. Believe, rather, that it is so ordered that we, who sit here, and none others, must now find counsel for the peril of the world. Now, therefore, things shall be openly spoken that have been hidden for all but a few until this day. At first, so that all may understand what is the peril. 
The tale of the ring shall be told from the beginning even to this present. And I will begin that tale, though others shall end it. Then all listened while Elrond in his clear voice spoke of Sauron and the rings of power, and their forging in the second age of the world long ago. A part of his tale was known to some there, but the full tale to none. And many eyes were turned to Elrond in fear and wonder as he told of the elven smiths of Eregion and their friendship with Moria, and their eagerness for knowledge by which Sauron ensnared them. For in that time he was not yet evil to behold, and they received his aid and grew mighty in craft, whereas he learned all their secrets and betrayed them, and forged secretly in the mountain of fire the One Ring to be their master. But Celebrimor was aware of him, and hid the three which he had made, and there was war. And the land was laid waste, and the gate of Moria was shut. Then through all the years that followed he traced the ring, but since that history is also recounted, even as Elrond himself set it down in his books of lore, it is not here recalled. For it is a long tale, full of deeds great and terrible, and briefly though Elrond spoke, the sun rode up the sky, and the morning was passing ere he ceased. Of Numenor he spoke, its glory and its fall, and the return of the kings of men to Middle-earth, out of the deeps of the sea, borne upon the wings of storm. Then Elendil the Tall and his mighty sons, Isildur and Anarion, became great lords, and the north realm they made in Arnor, and the south realm in Gondor above the mountains of Anduin. But Sauron of Mordor assailed them, and they made the last alliance of elves and men, and the host of Gil-galad and Elendil were mustered in Arnor. Thereupon Elrond paused a while inside. I remember well the splendor of their banners, he said. It recalled to me the glory of the elder days, and the host of Beleriand, so many great princes and captains were assembled. And yet not so many, not so fair, as when Thangorodrim was broken. And the elves deemed that evil was ended forever. And it was not so. You remember, said Frodo, speaking his thought aloud in his astonishment. But, uh, but, but I, I thought... He stammered as Elrond turned towards him. But I, I, I thought that the fall of Gilgalad was a long age ago. So it was indeed, answered Elrond gravely, but my memory reaches back even to the elder days. Erendil was my sire, who was born in Gondolin before its fall, and my mother was Elwig, daughter of Dior, son of Luthien of Doriath. I have seen three ages in the west of the world, and many defeats, and many fruitless victories. I was the herald of Gil-galad, and marched with his host. I was at the Battle of Dargolan before the Black Gate of Mordor, where we had the mastery. For the spear of Gil-galad and the sword of Elendil, Iglos and Narsil, none could withstand. I beheld the last combat on the slopes of Arodruin, where Gil-galad died and Elendil fell, and Narsil broke beneath him. But Sauron himself was overthrown, and Isildur cut the ring from his hand and the hilt shard of his father's sword, and took it for his own. At this, the stranger Boromir broke in. So this is what became of the ring, 
he cried. If ever such a tale was told in the South, it has long been forgotten. I have heard of the great ring of him that we do not name, but we believe that it perished from the world in ruin of its first realm. Isildur took it. That is tidings indeed. Alas, yes, said Elrond. Isildur took it, as should not have been. It should have been cast then into Rodruin's fire nigh at hand, where it was made. But few marked what Isildur did. He alone stood by his father in that last mortal conquest. By Gilgalad, only Círdan stood, and I. But Isildur would not listen to our counsel. This I will have as a weirguild for my father and my brother, he said. And therefore, whether we would or no, he took it to treasure it. But soon he was betrayed by it to his death. And so it is named in the north Isildur's Bane. Yet death maybe was better than what else might have befallen him. Only to the north did these tidings come, and only to a few. Small wonder it is that you have not heard them, Boromir. From the ruin of the Gladden Fields where Isildur perished, three men only came ever back over the mountains after long wandering. One of these was Othtar, the esquire of Isildur, who bore the shards of the sword of Elendil, and he brought them to Valandil, the heir of Isildur, who being but a child had remained here in Rivendell. But Narsil was broken and its light extinguished, and it has not yet been forged again. Fruitless did I call the victory of the last alliance? Not wholly so. Yet it did not achieve its end. Sauron was diminished but not destroyed. His ring was lost but not unmade. The dark tower was broken but its foundations were not removed, for they were made with the power of the ring. And while it remains, they will endure. Many elves and many mighty men and many of their friends had perished in the war. Anarion was slain, and Isildur was slain, and Gilgalad and Elendil were no more. Never again shall there be any such league of elves and men, for men multiply, and the firstborn decrease. And the two kindreds were estranged. And ever since that day the race of Numenor has decayed, and the span of their years has lessened. In the north after the war and the slaughter of the Gladdenfields, the men of Westerness were diminished, and their city of Anuminas beside Lake Evendim fell into ruin. And the heirs of Valandil removed and dwelt at Fornost on the nine north downs. And that now too is desolate. Men call it Dead Men's Dyke. And they fear to tread there, for the folk of Arnor dwindled, and their foes devoured them. And their lordship passed, leaving only green mounds in the grassy hills. In the south the realm of Gondor long endured, and for a while its splendor grew, recalling somewhat of the might of Numenor ere it fell. High towers that people built, and strong places, and havens of many ships, and the winged crown of the kings of men was held in awe by folk of many tongues. Their chief city was Osgiliath, citadel of the stars, through the midst of which the river flowed. And Minas Ithil they built, tower of the rising moon, eastward upon a shoulder of the mountains of shadow, and westward at the feet of the white mountains. Minas Anor they made, tower of the setting sun. There in the courts of the king grew a white tree, 
from the seed of that tree which Isildur brought over the deep waters, and the seed of that tree before came from Eresea. And before that out of the uttermost west in the day before days when the world was young. But the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, the line of Meneldil, son of Anarion, failed, and the tree withered, and the blood of the Numenorians became mingled with that of lesser men. Then the watch upon the walls of Mordor slept, and dark things crept back to Gorgoroth. And on a time evil things came forth, and they took Minas Ithil, and abode in it, and they made it into a place of dread. And it is called Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. Then Minas Anor was named anew Minas Tirith, the Tower of God. And these two cities were ever at war. But Osgiliath, which lay between, was deserted, and in its ruins shadows walked. So it has been for many lives of men. But the lords of Minas Tirith still fight on, defying our enemies, keeping the passage of the river from Argonath to the sea. And now the part of the tale that I shall tell is drawn to its close. For in the days of Isildur the ruling ring passed out of all knowledge, and the three were released from its dominion. But now, in its latter day, they are in peril once more. For to our sorrow the one has been found. Others shall speak of its fighting, for in that I played small part. He ceased, but at once Boromir stood up, tall and proud, before them. Give me leave, Master Elrond, said he, first to say more of Gondor. For verily from the land of Gondor I am come, and it will be well for all to know what passes there. For few, I deem, know of our deeds, and therefore guess little of their peril if we should fail at last. Believe not that in the land of Gondor the blood of Numenor is spent, nor all its pride and dignity forgotten. By our valor, the wild folk of the east are still restrained, and the terror of Morgul kept at bay. And thus alone are peace and freedom maintained in the lands behind us, bulwark of the west. But if the passage of the river should be won, what then? Yet that hour maybe is not far away. The nameless enemy has arisen again. Smoke rises once more from a road ruin that we call Mount Doom. The power of the black land grows and we are hard beset. When the enemy returned, our folk were driven from Ithilien, our fair domain east of the river, though we kept a foothold there and strength of arms. But this very year, in the days of June, sudden war came upon us out of Mordor, and we were swept away. We were outnumbered, for Mordor has allied itself with the Easterlings and the cruel Haradrim. But it was not by numbers that we were defeated. A power was there that we have not felt before. Some said it could be seen like a great black horseman, a dark shadow under the moon. Wherever he came, a madness filled our foes, but fear fell on our boldest, so that horse and man gave way and fled. Only a remnant of our eastern force came back, destroying the last bridge that still stood amid the ruins of Osgiliath. I was in that company that held the bridge, until it was cast down behind us. Four only were saved by swimming, my brother and myself and two others. But still we fight on, holding all the west shores of Anduin, and those who shelter behind us give us praise, if ever they hear our name, much praise but little help. Only from Rohan now will any men ride to us when we call. In this evil hour I have come on an errand over many dangerous leagues to Elrond. A hundred and ten days I have journeyed all alone, 
But I do not seek allies in war. The might of Elrond is in wisdom, not in weapons, it is said. I come to ask for counsel and the unraveling of hard words. For on the eve of the sudden assault, a dream came to my brother in a troubled sleep, and afterwards a like dream came off to him again, and once to me. In that dream I thought the eastern sky grew dark, and there was a growing thunder, but in the west a pale light lingered, and out of it I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying, Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token, that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall awaken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Of these words we could understand little, and we spoke to our father, Denethor, lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lord of Gondor. This only would he say, that Imladris was of old the name among the elves for a far northern dale, where Elrond the half-elven dwelt, greatest of law masters. Therefore, my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for it in Ladris. But since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Loth was my father to give me leave, and long have I wandered by roads forgotten, seeking the house of Elrond, of which many had heard, but few knew where it lay. And here in the house of Elrond more shall be made clear to you, said Aragorn, standing up. He cast his sword upon the table that stood before Elrond, and the blade was in two pieces. Here is the sword that was broken. And who are you? And what have you to do with Minas Tirith? asked Boromir, looking in wonder at the lean face of the ranger and his weather-stained cloak. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, said Elrond, and he has descended through many fathers from Isildur, Elendil's son of Minas Ithil. He is the chief of the Dúnedain in the north. And few are now left of that book. Then it belongs to you and not to me at all, cried Frodo in amazement, springing to his feet as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. It does not belong to either of us, said Aragorn, but it has been ordained that you should hold it for a while. Bring out the ring, Frodo, said Gandalf solemnly. The time has come. Hold it up and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. There was a hush, and all turned their eyes on Frodo. He was shaken by a sudden shame and fear, and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring, and a loathing of its touch. He wished he was far away. The ring gleamed and flickered as he held it up before them in his trembling hand. Behold, Isildur's bane, said Elrond. Boromir's eyes glinted as he gazed at the golden thing. The halfling! He muttered. Is then the tomb of Minas Tirith come at last? But why then should we seek a broken sword? The words were not the doom of Minas Tirith, said Aragorn. But doom and greater deeds are indeed at hand. For the sword that was broken is the sword of Elendil that broke beneath him when he fell. It has been treasured by his heirs when all other heirlooms were lost. For it was spoken of old among us that it should be made again when the ring Isildur's bane was found. Now you have seen the sword that you have sought. What would you ask? Do you wish for the house of Elendil to return to the land of Gondor? I was not sent to beg any boon, but to seek only the meaning of a riddle, answered Boromir proudly. Yet we are hard-pressed, 
and the sword of Elendil would be a help beyond our hope, if such a thing indeed could be returned from the shadow of the past. He looked again at Aragorn, and doubt was in his eyes. Frodo felt Bilbo stare impatiently at his side. Evidently, he was annoyed on his friend's behalf. Standing suddenly up, he burst out. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Not very good, perhaps. But to the point. If you need more beyond the word of Elrond... If that was worth a journey 110 days to hear, you'd best listen to it. He sat down with a snort. <laughs> I made that up myself, he whispered to Frodo. <laughs> For the Dunedan, a long time ago, when he first told me about himself, I almost wished that my adventures were not over, and that, and that I could go with him when his day comes. Aragorn smiled at him, and then turned to Boromir again. For my part, I forgive your doubt, he said. Little do I resemble the figures of Elendil and Isildur as they stand carven in their majesty in the holds of Denethor. I am but the heir of Isildur, not Isildur himself. I have had a hard life, and the leagues that lie between here and Gondor are a small part in the count of my journeys. I have crossed many mountains and many rivers, and trodden many plains, even to the far countries of Rune and Harad where the stars are strange. But my home, such as I have, is in the north. For here the heirs of Balandil have ever dwelt in long line, unbroken from the father unto son for many generations. Our days have been darkened, and we have dwindled. But ever the sword was passed to a new keeper. And this is why I say to you, Boromir, ere I end, lonely men we are, rangers of the wild, hunters, but hunters ever for the servants of the enemy. For they are found in many places, not in Mordor only. If Gondor, Boromir, has been a stalwart tower, we have played another part. Many evil things there are that your strong walls and bright swords do not stay. You know little of the lands beyond your bounds. Peace and freedom, do you say? The North would have known them little but for us. Fear would have destroyed them. But when dark things come from the houseless hills or creep from sunless woods, they fly from us. What roads would any dare to tread? What safety would there be in quiet lands, or in the homes of simple men at night, if the Dunedan were asleep, or were all gone into the grave? And yet less thanks have we than you. Travellers scowl at us, and countrymen give us scornful names. Strider I am to one fat man who lives within a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart or lay his little town in ruin if we were not guarded ceaselessly. Yet we would not have it otherwise. If simple folk are free from care and fear, simple they will be, and we must be secret to keep them so. That has been the task of my kindred, while the years have lengthened and the grass has grown. But now the world is changing once again. A new hour comes. Isildur's bane is found. Battle is at hand. The sword shall be reforged. I will come to Minas Tirith. Isildur's bane is found, you say, said Boromir. I have seen a bright ring in the halfling's hand, but Isildur perished ere this age the world began, they say. How do the wise know that this ring is his? 
And how has it passed down the years until it's brought hither by so strange a messenger? That shall be told, said Elrond. But not yet, I beg, master, said Bilbo. Already the sun is climbing to noon, and I feel the need of something to strengthen me. I had not named you, said Elrond, smiling. But I do so now. Come, tell us your tale. And if you have not yet cast your story into verse, you may tell it in plain words. The briefer, the sooner shall you be refreshed. Hmm? Very well, said Bilbo. I will do as you bid. But I will now tell the true story. And if some here have heard me tell it otherwise, he looked sidelong at Gloin, I ask them to forget it and forgive me. I only wish to claim the treasure as my very own in those days and to be rid of the name of thief that was put on me. But perhaps I understand things a little better now. Anyway, this is what happened. To some there, Bilbo's tale was totally new, and they listened with amazement while the old hobbit, actually not at all displeased, recounted his adventure with Gollum at full length. He did not omit a single riddle. He would have given also an account of his party and disappearance of the Shire, if he had been allowed. But Elrond raised his hand. Well told, my friend, he said. But that is enough at this time. For the moment it suffices to know that the ring passed to Frodo, your heir. Let him now speak. Less willingly than Bilbo, Frodo told of all his dealings with the ring from the day that it passed into his keeping. Every step of his journey from Hobbiton to the ford of Bruinen was questioned and considered, and everything that he could recall concerning the Black Riders was examined. At last he sat down again. Not bad, Bilbo said to him. You would make a good story of it, if they hadn't kept on interrupting. I tried to make a few notes, but we shall have to go over it all again together sometime, if I am to write it up. There are whole chapters of stuff before you even got here. Yes, it made quite a long tale answered Frodo. But the story still does not seem complete to me. I still want to know a good deal, especially about Gandalf. Galdor of the Havens, who sat nearby, overheard him. You speak for me also, he cried, and turning to Elrond he said, The wise may have good reason to believe that the halfling's trove is indeed the great ring of long debate. Unlikely, though, that may seem to those who know less. But may we not hear some proofs? And I would ask this also. What of Saruman? He is learned in the lore of the rings, yet he is not among us. What is his counsel if he knows the things that we have heard? The question you ask, Galdor, are bound together, said Elrond. I had not overlooked them, and they shall be answered. But these things it is the part of Gandalf to make clear, for it is the place of honor, and in all this matter he has been the chief. Some, Galdor, said Gandalf, we think the tidings of Gloin and the pursuit of Frodo proof enough that the halfling's trove is a thing of great worth to the enemy. Yet it is a ring. What then? The nine the Nazgul keep, the seven are taken or destroyed. At this Gloin stirred, but did not speak. The three we know of. What then is this one that he desires so much? There is indeed a wide waste of time between the river and the mountain, between the loss and the finding, but the gap in the knowledge of the wise has been filled at last, yet too slowly, 
for the enemy has been close behind, closer even than I feared. And well it is that not until this year, this very summer as it seems, did he, did he learn the full truth. Some here will remember that many years ago I myself dared to pass the doors of the necromancer in Dol Guldur, and secretly explored his ways, and found thus that our fears were true. He was none other than Sauron, our enemy of old, at length taking shape and power again. Some too will remember also that Saruman dissuades us from open deeds against him, and for long we watched him only. Yet at last, as his shadow grew, Sauron yielded, and the council put forth its strength and drove the evil out of Mirkwood. And that was the very year of the finding of the ring. A strange chance, if chance it was. But we were too late, as Elrond foresaw. Sauron also had watched us, and he had long prepared against our stroke, governing Mordor from afar through Minas Morgul, where his nine servants dwelt until all was ready. Then he gave way before us, but only feigned to flee, and soon after came to the Dark Tower and openly declared himself. Then for the last time the council met, for now we had learned that he was seeking ever more eagerly for the One. We feared then that he had some news of it that we knew nothing of. But Saruman said nay, and repeated what he had said to us before, that the One would never again be found in Middle-earth. At the worst, said he, our enemy knows that we have it not, and that it still is lost. But what was lost may yet be found, he thinks. Fear not, his hope will cheat him. Have I not earnestly studied this matter? Into Anduin the Great it fell, and long ago while Sauron slept it was rolled down into the river to the sea. There let it lie until the end. Gandalf fell silent, gazing eastward from the porch to the far peaks of the misty mountains, at whose great roots the peril of the world had so long laid hidden. He sighed. There I was at fault, he said. I was lulled by the words of Saruman the Wise. We were all at fault, said Elrond, and but for your vigilance the darkness maybe would already be upon us. But say on. From the first my heart misgave me, against all reason that I knew, said Gandalf, and I desired to know how this thing came to Gollum, and how long he had possessed it. So I set to watch for him, guessing that he would ere long come forth from his darkness to seek for his treasure. He came, but he escaped and was not found. And then, alas, I let the matter rest, watching and waiting only, as we have too often done. Time passed with many cares until my doubts were awakened again to sudden fear. Whence came the hobbit's ring? What, if my fear was true, should be done with it? Those things I must decide, but I spoke yet of my dread to none, knowing the peril of an untimely whisper if it went astray. In all the long wars with the Dark Tower, treason has ever been our greatest foe. That was seventeen years ago. Soon I became aware that spies of many sorts, even beasts and birds, were gathered around the Shire. And my fear grew. I called for help from the Dunedain, and their watch was doubled. And I opened my heart to Aragorn, the heir of Isildur. And I, said Aragorn, counseled that we should hunt for Gollum. Too late though it may seem, and since it seemed fit that Isildur's heir should labor to repair Isildur's fault, I went with Gandalf on a long and hopeless search. Then Gandalf told how they had explored the whole length of Wilderland, down even to the Mountains of Shadow and the Fences of Mordor. There we had rumors of him, and we guessed that he dwelt here long in the Dark Hills. 
but we never found him. And at last I despaired, and in my despair I thought again of a test that might make the finding of Gollum unneeded. The ring itself might tell if it were the one. The memory of words at the council came back to me, words of Saruman, half-heeded at the time. I heard them now clearly in my heart. The nine, the seven, and the three, he said, had each their proper gem. Not so the one. It was round and unadorned, as it were one of the lesser rings, but its maker set marks upon it that the skilled maybe could still see and read. What those marks were he had not said. Who now would know? The maker? And Saruman? But great though his law may be, it must have a source. What hands, if Sauron's ever held this thing, ere it was lost? The hand of Isildur alone. With that thought, I forsook the chase, and passed swiftly to Gondor. In former days, the members of my order had been well received there, but Saruman most of all. Often he had been for long the guest of the lords of the city. Less welcome did the lord Denethor show me than of old, and grudgingly he permitted me to search among his hoarded scrolls and books. If indeed you look only, as you say, for records of ancient days and the beginnings of the city, read on, he said. For to me what was is less dark than what is to come, and that is my care. But unless you have more skill even than Saruman, who has studied here long, you will find naught that is not well known to me, who am master of the lore of the city. So said Denethor. And yet there lie in his hordes many records that few now can read, even for the lore masters, for their script and tongues have become dark to later men. And Boromir, there lies in Minas Tirith still, unread I guess, by any save Saruman and myself since the kings failed, a scroll that Isildur made himself. For Isildur did not march away straight from the war in Mordor, as some have told the tale. Some in the north, maybe, Boromir broke in. All I know in Gondor is that he went first to Minas Anor and dwelt a while with his nephew Melindil, instructing him, before he committed to him the rule of the South Kingdom. In that time he planted there the last sapling of the white tree in memory of his brother. But in that time he also made this scroll, said Gandalf, and that is not remembered in Gondor, it would seem, for this scroll concerns the ring, and thus wrote Isildur therein, The great ring shall go to be an heirloom of the North Kingdom. But records of it shall be left in Gondor, where also dwell the heirs of Elendil. Lest a time come when the memory of these great matters shall grow dim. And after these words, Isildur described the ring such as he found it. It was hot when I first took it, hot as a gleed, and my hand was scorched, so that I doubt if ever again I shall be free of the pain of it. Yet even as I write, it is cooled, and it seemeth to shrink, though it loseth neither its beauty nor its shape. Already the writing upon it, which at first was as clear as red flame, fadeth and is now only barely to be read. It is fashioned in an elven script of Eregion, for they have no letters in order for such subtle work. But the language is unknown to me. I deem it to be a tongue of the black land, since it is foul and uncouth. What evil it saith I do not know. But I trace here a copy of it, lest it fade beyond recall. The ring misseth maybe the heat of Sauron's hand, which was black and yet burned like fire. And so Gilgalad was destroyed, and maybe were the gold made hot again, the writing would still be refreshed. But for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. Of all the works of Sauron, the only fair. It is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. When I read these words, my quest was ended, for the trace writing was indeed as Isildur guessed, in the tongue of Mordor and the servants of the tower. 
what was said therein was already known. For in the day that Sauron first put on the one, Celebrimor, maker of the three, was aware of him, and from afar he heard him speak these words, and so his evil purposes were revealed. At once I took my leave of Denethor, but even as I went northwards, messages came to me out of Lorien, that Aragorn had passed that way, and that he had found the creature called Gollum. Therefore I went first to meet him and hear his tale. Into what deadly perils he had gone alone I dare not guess. There is little need to tell of them said Aragorn. If a man must needs walk in sight of the Black Gate, or tread the deadly flowers of Mogul Vale, then perils he will have. I, too, despaired at last, and I began my homeward journey, and then, by fortune, I came suddenly on what I sought, the marks of soft feet beside a muddy pool. But now the trail was fresh and swift, and it led not to Mordor but away. Along the skirts of the dead marshes, I followed it, and then I had him, lurking by a stagnant mere, peering in the water as the dark eve fell. I caught him. Gollum. He was covered with green slime. He will never love me, I fear, for he bit me, and I was not gentle. Nothing more did I ever get from his mouth than the marks of his teeth. I deemed it the worst part of all my journey. The road back, watching him day and night, making him walk with a halter on his neck, gagged, until he was tamed by lack of drink and food, driving him ever towards Mirkwood. I brought him there at last and gave him to the elves, for we had agreed that this should be done, and I was glad to be rid of his company, <laughs> for he stank. For my part, I hoped never to look upon him again, but Gandalf came and endured long speech with him. Yes, long and weary, said Gandalf, but not without profit. For one thing, the tale he told of his loss agreed with that which Bilbo had now told openly for the first time, but that had mattered little since I had already guessed it. But I learned then first that Gollum's ring came out of the great river, nigh to the gladden fields. And I learned also that he had possessed it long, many lives of his small kind. The power of the ring had lengthened his years far beyond their span. But that power only the great rings wield. And if that is not proof enough, Galdor, there is another test that I spoke of. Upon this very ring, which you have here reported may still be read, if one has the strength of will to set the golden thing in the fire a while, that I have done, and this I have read. Ashnaz Dumbatuk! Ashnaz Dumbatuk! Ashnaz Dumbatuk! Agbolzumbishi Krippatuk! The change in the wizard's voice was astounding. Suddenly it became menacing, powerful. Harsh as stone. A shadow seemed to pass over the high sun, and the porch for a moment grew dark. All trembled, and the elves stopped their ears. Never before has any voice dared to utter the words of that tongue in a miladris, Gandalf the Grey, said Elrond as the shadow passed and the company breathed once more. And let us hope that none will ever speak it here again, answered Gandalf. Nonetheless, I do not ask your pardon, Master Elrond. For if that tongue is not soon to be heard in every corner of the West, then let all put doubt aside that this thing is indeed that what the wise have declared. The treasure of the enemy, fraught with all his malice, and in it lies a great part of his strength of old. Out of the black years come the words of that smiths of Aragion heard, and they knew that they had been betrayed. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them.
Know also, my friends, that I learned more yet from Gollum. He was sloth to speak, and his tale was unclear. But it is beyond all doubt that he went to Mordor. And there, all that he knew was forced from him. Thus the enemy knows now that the one is found. And it was long in the Shire, and since his servants have pursued it almost to our door, he soon will know. Already he may know, even as I speak, that we have it here. All sat silent for a while, until at length Boromir spoke. He is a small thing, you say, this Gollum? Small but great in mischief. What became of him? To what doom did you put him? He is in prison, no worse, said Aragorn. He had suffered much. There is no doubt that he was tormented and the fear of Sauron lies black on his heart. Still, I am glad that he is safely kept by the watchful elves of Mirkwood. His malice is great and gives him a strength hardly to believe in one so lean and withered. He could work much mischief still, if he were free. And I do not doubt that he was allowed to leave Mordor on some evil errand. Alas! Alas! cried Legolas, and in his fair elvish face there was great distress. The tidings that I was sent to bring must now be told. They are not good, but only here have I heard now how evil they may seem to this company. Smeagol, who is now called Gollum, has escaped. Escaped? cried Aragorn. That is ill news indeed. We shall all rue it bitterly, I fear. How came the folk of Thranduil to fail in their trust? Not through the lack of watchfulness, said Leolas, but perhaps through overkindness. And we fear that the prisoner had aid from others, and that more is known of our doings that we could wish. We guarded this creature day and night, but Gandalf's bidding, much though we wearied of the task. But Gandalf bade us hope still of his cure, and we had not the heart to keep him ever in dungeons under the earth, where he would fall back into his old black thoughts. You are less tender to me, said Gloin with a flash of his eyes as old memories were stirred of his imprisonment in the deep places of the Elven King's halls. Now oh, come, said Gandalf, pray do not interrupt my good Gloin. That was a regrettable misunderstanding. Long set right. If all the grievances that stand between elves and dwarves are to be brought up here, we may as well abandon this council. Gloin rose and bowed, and Legolas continued. In the days of fair weather we led Gollum through the woods, and there was a high tree standing alone, far from the others which he liked to climb. Often we let him mount up to the highest branches until he felt the free wind, but we set a guard at the tree's foot. One day he refused to come down, and the guards had no mind to climb after him. He had learned the trick of clinging two bows with his feet, as well as with his hands, so they sat by the tree far into the night. It was that very night of summer, yet moonless and starless, that orcs came on us at unawares. We drove them off after some time. They were many and fierce, but they came from over the mountains and were unused to the woods. When the battle was over, we found that Gollum was gone, and his guards were slain or taken. It then seemed plain to us that the attack had been made for his rescue, and that he knew of it beforehand. How that was contrived, we cannot guess, but Gollum is cunning, and the spies of the enemy are many. The dark things that were driven out of the year of the dragon's fall have returned in greater numbers, and Mirkwood is again an evil place, save where our realm is maintained. We have failed to recapture Gollum. We came on his trail among those of many orcs, and it plunged deep into the forest going south. But ere long it escaped our skill, and we dared not continue the hunt, for we were drawing nigh to Dol Guldur, and that is a very evil place. We do not go that way. Well, well... 
He is gone, said Gandalf. We have no time to seek for him again. We must do what we will, but he may play a part yet that neither he nor Sauron have foreseen. And now I will answer Galdor's other questions. What of Saruman? What are his counsels to us in this need? This tale I must tell in full, for only Elrond has heard it yet, and that in brief. But it will bear on all that we must resolve. It is the last chapter in the tale of the ring, so far as it has yet gone. At the end of June I was in the Shire, but a cloud of anxiety was on my mind, and I rode to the southern borders of the little land, for I had a foreboding of some danger, still hidden from me but drawing near. Their messages reached me telling me of war and defeat in Gondor, and when I heard of the Black Shadow a chill smote my heart. But I found nothing save a few fugitives from the south, yet it seemed to me that on them sat a fear of which they would not speak. I turned then east and north, and journeyed along the greenway, and not far from Bree I came upon a traveller, sitting on a bank beside the road with his grazing horse beside him. It was Radagast the Brown, who at one time dwelt at Roscobel, near the borders of Mirkwood. He is one of my order, but I had not seen him for many a year. Gandalf! He cried. I was seeing you, but I'm a stranger in these parts. All I knew that there's you might be found in the wild region with the uncouth name of Shire. Your information was correct, I said. But do not put it that way, if you meet any of the inhabitants. You are near the borders of the Shire now. And what do you want with me? It must be pressing. You were never a traveller unless driven by great need. I have urgent errand, he said. My news is evil. Then he looked about him, as if the hedges might have ears. Nazgul, he whispered. The nine are abroad again. They have crossed the river secretly and are moving westward. They have taken the guise of riders in black. I knew then what I dreaded without knowing it. The enemy must have some great need or purpose, said Radagast. But what it is that makes him look to those distant and desolate parts, I cannot guess. What do you mean? said I. I have been told that wherever they go, the riders ask for news of a land called Shire. The Shire, I said. For even the wise might fear to withstand the Nine when they are gathered together under their fell chieftain. A great king and sorcerer he was of old, and now he wields a deadly fear. Who told you and who sent you? I asked. Saruman the White, answered Radagast, and he told me to say that if you feel the need, he will help, but you must seek his aid at once, or it will be too late. And that message brought me hope, for Saruman the White is the greatest of my order. Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts and birds, and especially his friends. But Saruman has long studied the arts of the enemy himself, and thus we have often been able to foresaw him. It was by the devices of Saruman that we drove him from Dol Guldur. It might be that he had found some weapons that would drive back the Nine. I will go to Saruman, I said. Then you must go. Now, said Radagast. For I have wasted time in looking for you, and the days are running short. I was told to find you before midsummer, and that is now here. Even if you set out from this spot, you will hardly reach him before the Nine discover the land that they seek. 
I myself shall turn back at once. And with that, he mounted and would have ridden straight off. Stay a moment, I said. We shall need your help, and the help of all things that we will give it. Send out messages to all the beasts and birds that are your friends, to bring news of anything that bears on this battle to Saruman and Gandalf. Let messages be sent to Orthanc. I will do that, he said, and he rode off as if the night burned. I could not follow him then and there. I had ridden very far already that day, and I was as weary as my horse, and I needed to consider matters. I stayed the night in Bree, and decided that I had no time to return to the Shire. Never did I make a greater mistake. However, I wrote a message to Frodo, and trusted to my friend the innkeeper to send it to him. I rode away at dawn, and I came at long last to the dwelling of Saruman. That is far south in Isengard, in the end of the Misty Mountains, not far from the Gap of Rohan. And Boromir will tell you that it is a great open vale that lies between the Misty Mountains and the northernmost foothills of Ered Nimrais, the White Mountains of his home. But Isengard is a circle of sheer rocks that enclose a valley as if with a wall. And in the midst of that valley is a tower of stone called Orthanc. It was not made by Saruman, but by the men of Numenor long ago, and it is very tall and has many secrets, yet it looks not to be a work of craft. It cannot be reached save by passing the circle of Isengard, and in that circle there is only one gate. Right one evening I came to the gate, like a great arch in the wall of rock, and it was strongly guarded. But the keepers of the gate put on the watch for me and told me that Saruman awaited me. I rode under the arch, and the gate closed silently behind me. And suddenly, I was afraid, though I knew no reason for it. But I rode to the foot of Orthanc, and came to the stair of Saruman. And there, he met me and led me up to his high chamber. He wore a ring on his finger. So, you have come, Gandalf, he said to me gravely. But in his eyes there seemed to be a white light, as if a cold laughter was in his heart. Yes, I have come, I said. I have come for your aid, Saruman the White. And that title seemed to anger him. <laughs> have you indeed, Gandalf the Grey? He scoffed. For aid? It has seldom been heard of that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid. One so cunning and so wise. Wandering about the lands, and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. I looked at him and wondered. But if I am not deceived, said I, things are now moving which require the union of all our strength. That may be so, he said. But the thought is late in coming to you. How long, I wonder, have you concealed from me, the head of the council, a matter of greatest import? What brings you now from your lurking place in the Shire? The nine have come forth again, I answered. They have crossed the river, so Radagast said to me. <laughs> Radagast the Brown, laughed Saruman, and he had no longer concealed his scorn. Radagast the Bird Tamer, Radagast the Simple, Radagast the Fool. Yet he had just the wit to play the part that I set him. For you have come, and that was all the purpose of my message. And here you will stay, Gandalf the Grey, and rest from journeys. For I am Saruman the Wise, Saruman Ringmaker, Saruman of many colors. I looked then and saw that his robes, which had seemed white, were not so, 
of a woven of all colors, and if you move, they shimmered and changed hue so that the eye was bewildered. I liked white better, I said. White, he sneered. It serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed. The white page can be overwritten. And the white light can be broken. In which case it is no longer white, said I. And he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. You need not speak to me as to one of the fools that you take for friends, said he. I have not brought you hither to be instructed by you, but to give you a choice. He drew himself up, and then began to declaim, as if he were making a speech long rehearsed. The elder days are gone. The middle days are passing. The younger days are beginning. The time of the elves is over, but our time is at hand. The world of men, which we must rule, but we must have power. Power to order all things as we will, for that good which only the wise can see. And listen, Gandalf, my old friend and helper, he said, coming near and speaking now in a softer voice. I said we, for we it may be, if you will join with me. A new power is rising. Against it, the old allies and policies will not avail us at all. There is no hope left in elves or dying Numenor. This, then, is one choice before you, before us. We may join with that power. It would be wise, Gandalf. There is hope that way. Its victory is at hand. And there will be rich reward for those that aid it. As the power grows, its proved friends will also grow, and the wise, such as you and I, may with patience come at last to direct its courses, to control it. We can bide our time. We can keep our thoughts in our hearts, deploring maybe evils done by the way, but approving the high and ultimate purpose. Knowledge, rule, order, all the things that we have so far striven in vain to accomplish, hindered rather than helped by her weak or idle friends. There need not be, there would not be, any real change in our designs, only in our meetings. Saruman, I said, I have heard speeches of this kind before, but only in the mouths of the emissaries sent from Mordor to deceive the ignorant. I cannot think that you brought me so far only to weary my ears. He looked sidelong and paused a while, considering. Well, I see that this wise cause does not commend itself to you, he said. Not yet? Not if some better way can be contrived? He came and laid his long hand on my arm. And why not, Gandalf? he whispered. Why not? The ruling ring. If we could command that, then the power would pass to us. That is in truth why I brought you here. For I have many eyes in my service, and I believe that you know where this precious thing now lies. Is it not so? Or why do the nine ask for the shire? 
And what is your business there? As he said this, a lust which he could not conceal shone suddenly in his eyes. Saruman, I said, standing away from him. Only one hand at a time can wield the one. And you know that well. So do not trouble to say we. But I could not give it. I would not even give news of it to you, now that I learn your mind. You were head of the council, but you have unmasked yourself at last. Well, the choices are, it seems, to submit to Sauron or to yourself. I will take neither. Have you others to offer? He was now cold and perilous. Yes, he said. I did not expect you to show wisdom, even in your own behalf. But I gave you the chance of aiding me willingly, and so saving yourself much trouble and pain. The third choice is to stay here. Until the end. Until what end? Until you reveal to me where the one may be found. I may find means to persuade you, or until it is found in your despite, and the ruler has time to turn to larger matters. To devise, say, a fitting reward for the hindrance and insolence of Gandalf the Grey. That may not prove to be one of the lighter matters, said I. He laughed at me, for my words were empty, and he knew it. They took me, and they sent me alone on the pinnacle of Orthanc, in the place where Saruman was accustomed to watch the stars. There is no descent save by a narrow stair of many thousand steps, and the valley below seems far away. I looked on it and saw that, whereas it had once been green and fair, it was now filled with pits and forges. Wolves and orcs were housed in Isengard, for Saruman was mustering a great force on his own account, in rivalry of Sauron, and not in his service yet. Over all his works a dark smoke hung and wrapped itself about the size of Orthanc. I stood alone, on an island in the clouds, and I had no chance of escape, and my days were bitter. I was pierced with cold. I had but little room in which to pace to and fro, brooding on the coming of the riders of the north. That the nine had indeed arisen, I felt assured, apart from the words of Saruman which might be lies. Long here I came to Isengard, and I had heard tidings by the way that could not be mistaken. Fear was ever in my heart for my friends in the Shire, but I still had some hope. I hoped that Frodo had set forth at once, as my letter had urged, and that he had reached Rivendell before the deadly pursuit began. And both my fear and my hope proved ill-founded, for my hope was founded on a fat man in Bree, and my fear was founded on the cunning of Sauron. But fat men who sell ale have many calls to answer, and the power of Sauron is still less than fear makes it. But in the circle of Isengard, trapped and alone, it was not easy to think that the hunters before whom all have fled or fallen would falter in the Shire far away. I saw you, cried Frodo. You were walking backwards and forwards. The moon shone in your hair. Gandalf paused, astonished, and looked at him. It was only a dream, said Frodo. It suddenly came back to me. I had quite forgotten it. It came some time ago, after I left the Shire, I think. Then it was late in coming, said Gandalf. As you will see, I was in an evil plight, and those who know me will agree that I have seldom been in such need, and do not bear such misfortune well. Gandalf the Grey, caught like a fly in a spider's treacherous web. Yet even the most subtle spiders may leave a weak thread. 
At first I fear that Saruman no doubt intended that Radagast had also fallen. Yet I had caught no hint of anything wrong in his voice, or in his eye at our meeting. If I had, I should have never gone to Isengard, or I should have gone more warily. So Saruman guessed, and he had concealed his mind and deceived his messenger. I would have been useless in any case to try and win over the honest Radagast to treachery. He sought me in good faith, and so persuaded me. That was the undoing of Saruman's plot, for Radagast knew no reason why he should not do as I asked, and he rode away towards Mirkwood, where he had many friends of old. And the eagles of the mountains went far and wide, and they saw many things, the gathering of wolves, and the mustering of orcs, and the nine riders going hither and thither in the lands. And they heard news of the escape of Gollum, and they sent a messenger to bring these tidings to me. So it was that when summer waned, there came a night of moon, and why here the wind lord, swiftest of the great eagles, came and looked forward to Orthanc, and he found me, standing on the pinnacle. Then I spoke to him, and he bore me away before Saruman was aware. I was far from Isengard, here the wolves and orcs issued from the gate to pursue me. How far can you bear me? I said to Gwai. Many leagues, said he. Not to the ends of the earth, and was sent to bear tidings and burdens. Then I must have stayed on land, I said. And the steeds are passing swift, for I have never had such need of haste before. Then I will bear you to Edoras, where the Lord of Warhand sits in his homes, he said. And that is not very far off. And I was glad, for the Riddermark of Rohan, the Rohirrim, the horse lords well. There are no horses like those that are bred in that great vale between the misty mountains and the white. Are the men of Rohan still to be trusted, do you think? I said to Guy here, for the treason of Saruman had shaken my faith. They paid tribute to horses, he answered, and sent many yearly to Mordor, or so it is said. But they are not yet under the yoke. If Saruman had become evil, as you say, then their doom cannot be long delayed. He set me down in the land of Rohan, near Dawn, and now I have lengthened my tale over long. The rest must be more brief. In Rohan I found evil already at work, the lies of Saruman, and the king of the land would not listen to my warnings. He bade me take a horse and be gone. And I chose one much to my liking, but little to his. I took the best horse in his land, and I have never seen the like of him. Then he must be a noble beast indeed, said Aragorn. And it grieves me more than many tidings that might seem worse to learn that Sauron levies much tribute. It was not so, and last I was in that land. Nor is it now, I will swear, said Boromir. It is a lie that comes from the enemy. I know the men of Rohan, true and valiant, our allies, dwelling still in the lands that we gave them long ago. The shadow of Mordor lies on distant lands, answered Aragorn. Saruman has fallen under it. Rohan is beset. Who knows what you will find there, if ever you return? Not this at least, said Boromir. For they will buy their lives with horses. They love their horses next to their kin, and not without reason, for the horses of the Riddermark come from the fields of the north, far from the shadow, and their race, as of their masters, is descended on the free days of old. True indeed, said Gandalf. And there is one among them that might have been foaled in the morning of the world. The horses of the Nine cannot vie with him, tireless, swift as the flowing wind. Shadowfax, they called him. By day his coat glistens like silver, and by night it is like a shade, and he passes unseen. Light is his footfall. Never before had any man mounted him, 
but I took him and I tamed him. And so speedily he bore me that I reached the sire when Frodo was on the Barrow Downs, though I set out from Rohan only when he set out from Hobbiton. But fear grew in me as I rode. Ever as I came north I heard tidings of the riders, though I gained on them day by day. They were ever before me. They had divided their forces, I learned. Some remained on the eastern borders not far from the Greenway, and some invaded the Shire from the south. I came to Hobbiton and Frodo had gone, but I had words with old Gamgee. Many words, and few to the point. He had much to say about the shortcomings of the new owners of Bag End. I came to buy changes, said he. Not at my time of life, at least of all changes for the worst. Changes for the worst, he repeated many times. Worst is a bad word, I said to him, and I hope you do not live to see it. But amidst his talk I gathered at last that Frodo had left Hobbiton less than a week before, and that a black horseman had come to the hill the same evening. Then I rode on in fear. I came to Buckland and found it in uproar, as busy as a hive of ants that had been stirred with a stick. I came to the house of Crickhollow, and it was broken, open, and empty. But on the threshold there lay a cloak that had been Frodo's. Then for a while hope left me, and I did not wait to gather news, or I might have been comforted. But I rode on the tail of the riders. It was hard to follow, for it went many ways. And I was at a loss. But it seemed to me that one or two had ridden towards Bree. And that way I went, for I thought of words that might be said to the innkeeper. What a burr they call him, I thought I. If this delay was his fault, I will melt all the butter in him. I will roast the old fool over a slow fire. He expected no less when he saw my face. He fell down flat and began to melt on the spot. Oh, what did you do to him? cried Frodo in alarm. He was very kind to us and did all that he could. Gandalf laughed. <laughs> Don't be afraid, he said. I did not bite, and I barked very little. So overjoyed was I by the news that I got out of him when he stopped quaking that I embraced the old fellow. How it happened I could not then guess, but I learned that you had been in Bree the night before and had gotten off in that morning with Strider. Strider! I cried, shouting for joy. Yes, sir, I'm afraid so, sir, said Butterbur, mistakingly. He got at them, in spite of all I could do, and they took up with him. They behaved very queer all the time they were here. Willful, you might say. Ass! Fool! Thrice-worthy and beloved Parliament, said I. It's the best news I've heard since Midsummer. It's worth a gold piece at the least. May your beard be laid under enchantment of surpassing excellence for seven years said I. Now I can take a night's rest. Uh, the first since I have forgotten when. So I stayed there that night, wondering much what had become of the riders. For only of two had there yet been any news in Bree, it seemed. But in the night we heard more. Five at least came from the west, and they threw down the gates and passed through Bree like a howling wind. And the Bree folk are still shivering and expecting the end of the world. I got up before dawn and went after them. I did not know, but it seems clear to me that this was what happened. Their captain remained in secret away south of Bree, while two rode ahead through the village, and four more invaded the Shire. But when these were foiled in Bree and at Crick Hollow, they returned to their captain with tidings, and so left the road unguarded for a while, except by their spies. The captain then sent some eastward straight across the country, and he himself with the rest rode along the road in great wrath. 
I got up to Weathertop like a game, and I reached it before sundown on my second day from Bree. And they were there before me. They drew away from me, for they felt the coming of my anger, and they dared not face it while the sun was still in the sky. But they closed round at night, and I was besieged on the hilltop in the old ring of Amonsul. I was hard put to it indeed. Such light and flame cannot have been seen on Weathertop since the four beacons of old. At sunrise I escaped and fled towards the north. I could not hope to do more. It was impossible to find you, Frodo, in the wilderness, and it would have been folly to try with all the nine at my heels. So I had to trust to Aragorn, but I hoped to draw some of them off, and yet reach Rivendell ahead of you and send out help. Four riders did indeed follow me, but they turned back after a while and made for the ford, it seems. That helped a little, for there were only five, not nine, when your camp was attacked. I reached here at last by a long, hard road up the Horwell and through the Ettenmoors, and down from the north. It took me nearly fourteen days from Weathertop, for I could not ride among the rocks of the Trollfells, and Shadowfax departed. I sent him back to his master, but a great friendship has grown between us. And if I have need, he will come at my call. But so it was that I came to Rivendell, only three days before the ring, and news of its peril had already been brought here. Which proved well indeed. And that, Frodo, is the end of my account. May Elrond and the others forgive the length of it, but such a thing has not happened before, that Gandalf broke tryst and did not come when he promised. An account to the ring-bearer of so strange an event was required, I think. Well, the tale is now told. From first to last. Here we all are, and here is the ring. But we have not yet come any nearer to our purpose. What shall we do with it? There was a silence. At last Elrond spoke again. This is grievous news concerning Saruman, he said. But we trusted him, and he is deep in all our counsels. It is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy. For good or ill, that such falls and betrayals, alas, have happened before. Of the tales that we have heard, this day the tale of Frodo was most strange to me. I have known few hobbits save Bilbo here, and it seemed to me that he is perhaps not alone and singular as I thought him. The world has changed much since I last was on the westward roads. The Barrowites we know by many names, and of the old forest many tales have been told. All that now remains is but an outlier of its northern march. Time was when a squirrel could go from tree to tree what now is the Shire to Dunland, west of Isengard. In those lands I journeyed once, and many tidings, wild and strange, I knew. But I had forgotten Bombadil. If indeed this is still the same that walked in the woods and hills long ago, and even was older than the old. That was not then his name. Ayarwine Benadar, we called him. Oldest and fatherless. But many another name he has since been given by older folk. Thorn by the dwarves. Oraud by northern men and other names beside. He is a strange creature, but maybe I should have summoned him to our council. He would not have come, said Gandalf. Could we still not send messages to him and to obtain his help? asked Elastor. It seems that he has power even of the ring. No, I should not put it so, said Gandalf. Say rather that the ring has no power over him. He is his own master. But he cannot alter the ring himself, nor break its power over others. And now he is withdrawn into a little land, 
within bounds that he has set. Though none can see them, waiting perhaps for a change of days, and he will not step beyond them. But within those bounds nothing seems to dismay him, said Eristor. Would he not take the ring and keep it there forever harmless? No, said Gandalf, not willingly. He might do so if all the free folk of the world begged him, but he would not understand the need. And if he were ever given the ring, he would soon forget it, or most likely throw it away. Such things have no hold on his mind. He would be a most unsafe guardian, and that alone is answer enough. But in any case, said Glorfindel, to send the ring to him would only postpone the day of evil. He is far away. We could not now take it back to him, unguessed, unmarked by any spy. And even if we could, soon or late, the Lord of the Rings would learn of its hiding place and would bend all his power towards it. Could that power be defied by Bombadil alone? I think not. I think that in the end, if all else is conquered, Bombadil will fall, last as he was first, and then night will come. I know little of the Ardwine save the name, said Galdor, but Glorfindel, I think, is right. Power to defy our enemy is not in him, unless such power is in the earth itself, and yet we see that Sauron cannot torture and destroy the very hills. What power still remains lies with us, here in Imladris, or with Círdan at the Havens, or with Lorien. But have they the strength? Have we here the strength to withstand the enemy, the coming of Sauron at the last, when all else is overthrown? I have not the strength, said Elrond, neither have they. Then if the ring cannot be kept from him forever by strength, said Glorfindel, two things only remain for us to attempt. To send it over the sea, or destroy it. But Gandalf has revealed to us that we cannot destroy it by any craft that we here possess, said Elrond. And they who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it. For good or ill, it belongs to Middle-earth. It is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. Then said Glorfindel. Let us cast it into the deeps, and so make the lies of Saruman come true. For it is clear now that even at the council his feet were already on crooked path, and he knew that the ring was not lost forever, but wished for us to think so. For he began to lust for it for himself. Yet oft in lies truth is hidden. In the sea it would be safe. Not safe forever, said Gandalf. There are many things in the deep waters, and seas and lands may change. And it is not our part here to take thought only for a reason, or for a few lives of men, or for a passing of age of the world. We should seek a final end of this menace, even if we do not hope to make one. And that we shall not find on roads to the sea, said Galdor. If the return to Iarwine we thought too dangerous, then flight to the sea is now fraught with gravest peril. My heart tells me that Sauron will expect us to take the western way, when he learns what has befallen. He soon will. The nine have been unhorsed, indeed, but that is but a respite ere they find new steeds, and swifter. Only the waning might of Gondor stands now between him and a march in power along the coast into the north. And if he comes, assailing the White Towers and the Havens, hereafter the elves may have no escape from the lengthening shadows of Middle-earth. Long yet will that march be delayed, said Boromir. Gondor wanes, you say, but Gondor stands and even the end of its strength is still very strong. And yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the Nine, said Galdor. In other roads he may find that Gondor does not guard. 
Then, said Aristor, there are but two courses, as Glorfindel already has declared, to hide the ring forever or to unmake it. But both are beyond our power. Who will read its riddle for us? None here can do so, said Elrond gravely. At least none can foretell what will come to pass if we take this road or that. But it seems to me now clear which is the road that we must take. The westward road seems easiest. Therefore it must be shut. It will be watched. Too often the elves have fled that way. Now at this last we must make a hard road. A road unforeseen. There lies our hope, if hope it be. To walk into peril. To Mordor. We must send the ring to the fire. Silence fell again. Frodo, even in that fair house, looking upon a sunlit valley filled with the noise of clear waters, felt a dead darkness in his heart. Boromir stirred, and Frodo looked at him. He was fingering his great horn and frowning. At length he spoke. I do not understand all this, he said. Saruman is a traitor. But did he not have a glimpse of wisdom? Why do you speak ever of hiding and destroying? Why should we not think that the great ring has come into our hands to serve us in the very hour of need? Wielding it, the free lords of the free may surely defeat the enemy. That is what he most fears, I deem. The men of Gondor are valiant, and they will never submit. But they may be beaten down. Valinor needs first strength, and then a weapon. Let the ring be your weapon if it has much power as you say. Take it and go forth to victory. Alas, no, said Elrond. We cannot use the ruling ring. That we now know too well. It belongs to Sauron, and was made by him alone, and is altogether evil. Save only those who have already a great power of their own. Before them it holds an even deadlier peril. The very desire of it corrupts the heart. Consider Saruman. If any of the wise should with this ring overthrow the Lord of Mordor, using his own arts, he would then set himself on Sauron's throne, and yet another Dark Lord would appear. And that is another reason why the ring should be destroyed. As long as it is in the world, it will be a danger even to the wise, for nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. I fear to take the ring to hide it. I will not take the ring to wield it. Nor I, said Gandalf. Boromir looked at them doubtfully, but he bowed his head. So be it, he said. Then in Gondor we must trust to such weapons as we have. And at least while the wise ones guard this ring, we will fight on. Mayhap the sword that was broken may still stem the tide. But the hand that wields it has inherited not an heirloom only, but the sinews of the kings of men. Who can tell, said Aragorn, that we will put it to the test one day. May the day not be too long delayed, said Boromir. For though I do not ask for aid, we need it. It would comfort us to know that others fought also with all the means that they have. Then be comforted said Elrond, for there are other powers and realms that you know not, and they are hidden from you. 
Anduin the Great flows past many shores ere it comes to Argonath and the gates of Gondor. Still, it might be well for all, said Gloin the Dwarf, if all these strengths were joined, and the powers of each were used in league. Other rings there may be less treacherous that might be used in our need. The seven are lost to us if Balin has not found the Ring of Thror, which was the last. Alt has been heard of it since Thror perished in Moria. Indeed, I may now reveal that it was partly in hope to find that ring that Balin went away. Balin will find no ring in Moria, said Gandalf. Thror gave it to Thrain, his son, but not Thrain to Thorin. It was taken with torment from Thrain in the dungeons of Dol Guldur. I came too late. Alas! cried Gloin. When will the day come of our revenge? But still there are the three. What of the three rings of the elves? Very mighty rings, it is said. Do not the elf lords keep them? Yet they too were made by the Dark Lord long ago. Are they idle? I see elf lords here. Will they not say? The elves returned no answer. Did you not hear me, Gloin? said Elrond. The three were not made by Sauron, nor did he ever touch them. But of them it is not permitted to speak. So much only in this hour of doubt I may now say. They are not idle, but they were not made as weapons of war or conquest. That is not their power. Those who made them did not desire strength or domination or hoarded wealth, but understanding, making, and healing. To preserve all things unstained, these things the elves of Middle-earth have in some measure gained, though with sorrow. But all that has been wrought by those who wield the three will turn to their undoing, and their minds and hearts will become revealed to Sauron if he regains the one. It would be better if the three had never been. That is his purpose. But what then would happen if the ruling ring were destroyed as your counsel? Asked Loin. We do not know for certain, answered Elrond sadly. Some hope that the three rings, which Sauron has never touched, would then become free, and their rulers might heal the hurts of the world that he has wrought. But maybe when the one has gone, the three will fail, and maybe fair things will fade and be forgotten. And that is my belief. Yet all the elves are willing to endure this chance, said Glorfindel. If by the power of Sauron may be broken and the fear of its dominion be taken away forever. Thus we return once more to the destroying of the ring, said Erastor. And yet we come no nearer. What strength have we for the finding of the fire in which it was made? That is the path of despair. Of folly, I would say, if the long wisdom of Elrond did not forbid me. Despair or folly, said Gandalf. It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. It is wisdom to recognize necessity when all other courses have been weighed, though as folly it may appear to those who cling to false hope. Yet let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy, for he is very wise, and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice where the only measure that he knows is desire. Desire for power. And so he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter that any will refuse it. 
that having the ring, we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning. At least for a while, said Elrond. The road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet, such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Very well, very well, Master Elrond, said Bilbo suddenly. Say no more. It is plain enough what you are pointing at. Bilbo, the silly hobbit, started this affair. And Bilbo better finish it. Or himself. It was very comfortable here and getting on with my book. If you want to know, I was just writing an ending for it. I had thought of putting... And he lived happily ever afterwards to the end of his days. It is a good ending. And none the worse for having been used before. Now I shall have to alter that. It does not look like coming true. And anyway, there will evidently have to be several more chapters if I live to write them. It is a frightful nuisance. When ought I to start? Boromir looked in surprise at Bilbo, but the laughter died on his lips when he saw that all the others regarded the old hobbit with grave respect. Only Glowin smiled, but his smile came from old memories. Of course, my dear Bilbo, said Gandalf. If you had really started this affair, you might be expected to finish it. But you know well enough now that starting is too great a claim for any, and that only a small part is played in great deeds by any hero. You need not bow, though the word was meant. And we do not doubt that under jest you are making a valiant offer, but one beyond your strength, Bilbo. You cannot take this thing back. It has passed on. If you need my advice any longer, I should say that your part is ended, unless as a recorder. Finish your book, and leave the ending unaltered. There is still hope for it. But get ready to write a sequel when they come back. Bilbo laughed. <laughs> I have never known you give me pleasant advice before, he said. <laughs> as all your unpleasant advice had been good, I wonder if this advice is not bad. Still... I don't suppose I have the strength or, or luck left to deal with the ring. It has grown, and I have not. But tell me, what do you mean by they? The messengers who are sent with the ring. Exactly. And, and who are they to be? That seems to me what this council has to decide, and all that it has to decide. Elves may thrive on speech alone, and dwarves endure great weariness, but I am only an old hobbit. And I miss my meal at noon. Can't you think of some names now? Or put it off till after dinner? No one answered. The noon bell rang. Still, no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces. But they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might after all never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. 
At last, with an effort, he spoke, and wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring," he said. "Though I do not know the way." Elrond raised his eyes and looked at him, and Frodo felt his heart pierced by the sudden keenness of the glance. If I understand all right, all that I have heard," he said, "I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way." No one will. This is the hour of the Shire folk, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or, if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? But it is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. I do not lay it on you. But if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. And though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Beren himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. Huh. But you won't send him off alone, surely, Master? Cried Sam, unable to contain himself any longer, and jumping up from the corner where he had been quietly sitting on the floor. No, indeed," said Elrond, turning towards him with a smile. "You, at least, shall go with him. It is hardly possible to separate you from him, even when he is summoned to a secret council, and you are not." Sam sat down, blushing and muttering. <laughs> "A nice pickle we have landed ourselves in, Mister Frodo," he said, shaking his head. Later that day, the hobbits held a meeting of their own in Bilbo's room. Merry and Pippin were indignant that they heard that Sam had crept into the council and had been chosen as Frodo's companion. It's most unfair," said Pippin. Instead of throwing him out and clapping him in the chains, Elrond goes and rewards him of his cheek. Rewards," said Frodo. "I can't imagine a more severe punishment. You are not thinking what you're saying." Condemned to go on this hopeless journey, a reward? Yesterday I dreamed that my task was done, and I could rest here, a long while, perhaps for good. I don't wonder," said Mary, "and I wish you could. But we are envying Sam, not you. If you have to go, then it will be a punishment for any of us to be left behind, even in Rivendell. We have come a long way with you and been through some stiff times." We want to go on. That's what I meant," said Pippin. "We hobbits ought to stick together, and we will. I shall go unless they chain me up. There must be someone with intelligence in the party. Then you certainly will not be chosen, Peregrine Took," said Gandalf, looking in through the window, which was near the ground. "But you are all worrying yourselves unnecessarily. Nothing is decided yet." "Nothing decided," cried Pippin. Then what were you all doing? You were all shut up for hours talking," said Bilbo. There was a deal of talk, and everyone had an eye opener. 
Even old Gandalf. I think Legolas' bit of news about Gollum caught even him on the hop, though he passed it off. Oh, you were wrong, said Gandalf. You were inattentive. I had already heard of it from Gwai here. If you want to know, the only real eye-openers, as you put it, were you and Frodo. And I was the only one that was not surprised. <laughs> well, anyway, said Bilbo, nothing was decided beyond choosing poor Frodo and Sam. I was afraid all the time that it might come to that, if I was let off. But if you ask me, Elrond will send out a fair number when the reports come in. Have they started yet, Gandalf? Yes, said the wizard. Some of the scouts have been sent out already. More will go tomorrow. Elrond is sending elves, and they will get in touch with the rangers, and maybe with Thranduil's folk in Mirkwood. And Aragorn has gone with Elrond's sons. We shall have to scour the lands all around for many long leagues before any move is made. So cheer up, Frodo. You will probably make quite a long stay here. Ah. Ah, said Sam gloomily. We'll just wait long enough for winter to come. That can't be helped, said Bilbo. It's, it's your fault partly, Frodo, my lad, insisting on waiting for my birthday. <laughs> a funny way of honouring it. I can't help thinking. Not the day I would have chosen for letting the SBs into back end. But there it is. You can't wait now till spring. And you can't go till the reports come back. When winter first begins to bite, and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. But that, I am afraid, will be just your luck. I am afraid it will, said Gandalf. We can't start until we have found out about the riders. I thought they were all destroyed in the flood, said Merry. You cannot destroy ringwraiths like that, said Gandalf. The power of their master is in them, and they stand or fall by him. We hope that they were all unhorsed and unmasked, and so made for a while less dangerous. But we must find out for certain. In the meantime, you should try and forget your troubles, Frodo. I do not know if I can do anything to help you. But I will whisper this in your ears. Someone said that intelligence should be needed in your party. He was right. I think I shall come with you. So great was Frodo's delight at this announcement that Gandalf left the window sill, where he had been sitting, and took off his hat and bowed. <laughs> I only said, I think I shall come. Do not count on anything yet. In this matter, Elrond will have much to say, and your friend the Strider. Which reminds me... I want to see Elrond. I must be off. Uh, how long do you think I shall have here? Said Frodo to Bilbo when Gandalf had gone. Oh, I, I don't know. I can't count days in Rivendell, said Bilbo. But quite long, I should think. We can have many a good talk. What about helping me with my book and making a start on the next? Have you thought of an ending? Mm, yes, several. And all are dark and unpleasant, said Frodo. Oh, that won't do, said Bilbo. Books ought to have good endings. How, how would this do? And they all settled down and lived together happily ever after. It will do well if it ever comes to that, said Frodo. Ah, and where will they live? That's what I always wonder. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. 
But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. So the days slipped away, as each morning dawned bright and fair, and each evening followed cool and clear. But autumn was waning fast. Slowly the golden light faded to pale silver, and the lingering leaves fell from the naked trees. A wind began to blow chill from the misty mountains to the east. The hunter's moon waxed round in the night sky and put to flight all lesser stars. But low in the south one star shone red. Every night as the moon waned again, it shone brighter and brighter. Frodo could see it from his window, deep in the heavens, burning like a watchful eye that glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. The hobbits had been nearly two months in the house of Elrond, and November had gone by with the last shreds of autumn, and December was passing when the scouts began to return. Some had gone north beyond the springs of the Horwell into the Etten Moors, and others had gone west. With the help of Aragorn and the rangers had searched the lands far down the Grey Flood, as far as Tharbad. There the old north road crossed the river by a ruined town. Many had gone east and south, and some of these had crossed the mountains and entered Mirkwood, while others had climbed the pass at the source of the Gladden River, and had come down into the Wilderland and over the Gladden Fields, and so at length had reached the old home of Radagast at Roscobel. Radagast was not there, and they had returned over the high path that was called the Dimril Stair. The sons of Elrond, Eladan, and Elrohir were the last to return. They had made a great journey, passing down the Silver Lode into a strange country, but of their errand they would not speak to any save to Elrond. In no region had the messengers discovered any signs of tidings of the riders or other servants of the enemy. Even from the eagles of the Misty Mountains they had learned no fresh news. Nothing had been seen or heard of Gollum, but the wild wolves were still gathering, and they were hunting again far up the great river. Three of the black horses had been found at once drowned in the flooded ford. On the rocks of the rapids below, its searchers discovered the bodies of five more, and also a long black cloak, slashed and tattered. Of the black riders no other trace was to be seen, and nowhere was their presence to be felt. It seemed that they had vanished from the north. Eight out of nine are accounted for at the least, said Gandalf. It is rash to be too sure. Yet I think that we may hope now that the ring race was scattered, and have been obliged to return as best they could to their master in Mordor, empty and shapeless. If that is so, it will be some time before they can begin the hunt again. Of course, the enemy has other servants, but they will have to journey all the way up to the borders of Rivendell before they can pick up our trail. And if we are careful, that will be hard to find. But we must delay no longer. Elrond summoned the hobbits to him. He looked gravely at Frodo. The time has come, he said. If the ring is to set out, it must go soon. But those who go with it must not count on their errand being aided by war or force. They must pass into the domain of the enemy far from aid. Do you still hold to your words, Frodo, that you will be the ring-bearer? I do, said Frodo. I will go with Sam. Then I cannot help you much, not even with counsel, said Elrond. I can foresee very little of your road, and how your task is to be achieved I do not know. 
The shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains and draws nigh even to the borders of the Grey Flood, and under the shadow all is dark to me. You will meet many foes, some open and some disguised, and you may find friends upon your way when you least look for it. I will send out messages such as I can contrive to those whom I know in the wide world, but so perilous are the lands now become that some may well miscarry, or come no quicker than yourself, and I will choose you companions to go with you, as far as they will or fortune allows. The number must be few, since your hope is in speed and secrecy. Had I a host of elves in armor of the elder days, it would avail little, save to arouse the power of Mordor. The company of the ring shall be nine, and the nine walkers shall be set against the nine riders that are evil. With you and your faithful servant, Gandalf will go, for this shall be his great task, and may be the end of his labors. For the rest, they shall represent the other free peoples of the world, elves, dwarves, and men. Legolas shall be for the elves, and Gimli, son of Gloin, for the dwarves. They are willing to go at least to the passes of the mountains, and maybe beyond. For men, you shall have Aragorn, son of Arathorn, for the ring of Isildur concerns him closely. Strider! cried Frodo. Yes, he said with a smile. I ask leave once again to be your companion, Frodo. Oh, I would have begged you to come, said Frodo. Only I thought you were going to Minas Tirith with Boromir. I am, said Aragorn. And the sword that was broken shall be reforged ere I set out to war. But your road and our road lie together for many hundreds of miles. Therefore, Boromir will also be in the company. He is a valiant man. There remain two more to be found, said Elrond. These I will consider. Of my household I may find some that it seems good to me to send. But that will leave no place for us, cried Pippin in dismay. We do not want to be left behind. We want to go with Frodo. That is because you do not understand and cannot imagine what lies ahead, said Elrond. Neither does Frodo, said Gandalf, unexpectedly supporting Pippin. Nor do any of us see clearly. It is true that if these hobbits understood the danger, they would not dare to go, but they would still wish to go, or wish that they dared, and be ashamed and unhappy. I think, Elrond, that in this matter it would be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom. Even if you chose for us an elf lord, such as Glorfindel, he could not storm the Dark Tower, nor open the road to the fire by the power that is in him. You speak gravely, said Elrond. But I am in doubt. The Shire, I forebode, is not free now from peril, and these two I had thought to send back there as messengers, to do what they could, according to their fashion of their country, to warn the people of their danger. In any case, I judge that the younger of these two, Peregrine Took, should remain. My heart is against his going. Then, Master Elrond, you'll have to lock me in prison, or send me home tied in a sack, said Pippin, for otherwise I shall follow the company. Let it be so, then. You shall go, said Elrond, and he sighed. Now the tale of nine is filled. In seven days the company must depart. The sword of Elendil was forged anew by Elvish smiths, and on its blade was traced a device of seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun. And about them was written many runes, for Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again, 
The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold. And its edge was hard and keen, and Aragorn gave it a new name, and called it Anduril, Flame of the West. Aragorn and Gandalf walked together or sat speaking of their road and the perils they would meet, and they pondered the storied and figured maps and books of lore that were in the house of Elrond. Sometimes Frodo was with them, but he was content to lean on their guidance, and he spent as much time as he could with Bilbo. In those last days the hobbits sat together in the evening in the Hall of Fire, and there among many tales they had told in full the lay of Beren and Luthien, and the winning of the great jewel. But in the day, while Merry and Pippin were out and about, Frodo and Sam were to be found with Bilbo in his own small room. Then Bilbo would read passages from his book, which still seemed very incomplete, or scraps of his verses, or would take notes of Frodo's adventures. On the morning of the last day, Frodo was alone with Bilbo, and the old hobbit pulled out from under his bed a wooden box. He lifted the lid and fumbled inside. Ah, ah here is your sword, he said, but it was broken, you know. I took it to keep it safe, but I'd forgotten to ask if the smiths could mend it. No time now. So I thought perhaps you would care to have this, don't you know? He took from the box a small sword in an old shabby leather scabbard. Then he drew it, and its polished and well-tended blade glittered suddenly, cold and bright. This is Sting, he said, and thrust it with little effort deep into a wooden beam. <laughs> Take it if you like. I shan't want it again, I expect. Frodo accepted it gratefully. Oh, so here is this, said Bilbo, bringing out a parcel which seemed to be rather heavy for its size. He unwound several folds of old cloth and held up a small shirt of mail. It was close woven of many rings, as subtle almost as linen, cold as ice, and harder than steel. It shone like moonlit silver and was studded with white gems. It was a belt of pearl and crystal. It's a pretty thing, isn't it? said Bilbo, moving it in the light. And useful. It is my dwarf mail that Thorin gave me. I got it back from Mikkel Delvig before I started, and packed it with my luggage. I brought all the mementos of my journey away with me, except the ring. But I did not expect to use this, and I don't need it now, except to look at it sometimes. You hardly feel any weight when you put it on. I should look... well, I don't think I should look right in it, said Frodo. Just what I said myself, said Bilbo. But never mind about looks. You can wear it under your outer clothes. Come on, you must share this secret with me. Don't tell anybody else. But I should feel happier if I knew you were wearing it. I have a fancy it would turn even the knives of the Black Riders. He ended in a low voice. Very well, I will take it, said Frodo. Bilbo put it on him and fastened Sing upon the glittering belt. And then Frodo put over the top his old weather-stained breeches tunic and jacket. Hmm, just a plain hobbit you look, said Bilbo. But there is more about you now that appears on the surface. <sighs> Good luck to you. He turned away and looked out of the window, trying to hum a tune. I cannot thank you as I should, Bilbo, for this and for all your past kindnesses, said Frodo. <laughs> Don't try, said the old hobbit, turning around and slapping him on the back. Ow! <laughs> he cried. <laughs> you are too hard now to slap. But there you are. Hobbits must stick together, and especially Bagginses. All I ask in return is, take as much care of yourself as you can, and bring back all the news you can, 
and any old songs and tales you can come by. I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. I should like to write the second book if I am spared. He broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. I sit by the fire and think of all that I have seen of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. I sit by the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I will never know. But all the while I sit and think of times there were before, I listen of returning feet and voices at the door. It was a cold grey day near the end of December. The east wind was streaming through the bare branches of the trees and seething in the dark pines on the hills. Ragged clouds were hurrying overhead, dark and low. As the cheerless shadows of the early evening began to fall, the company made ready to set out. They were to start at dusk, for Elrond counseled them to journey under cover of night as often as they could, until they were far from Rivendell. You should fear the many eyes of the servants of Sauron, he said. I do not doubt that the news of the discomfiture of the riders has already reached him, and he will be filled with wrath. Soon now his spies on foot and wing will be abroad in the northern lands. Even of the sky above you must beware as you go on your way. The company took little gear of war, for their hope was in secrecy, not in battle. Aragorn had Anduril, but no other weapon. And he went forth clad only in rusty green and brown, as a ranger of the wilderness. Boromir had a long sword, in fashion like Anduril, but of less lineage. And he bore also a shield, and his war horn. Loud and clear it sounds in the valleys of the hills, he said. And then let all the foes of Gondor flee. Putting it to his lips, he blew a blast, and the echoes leapt from rock to rock. And all that heard that voice in Rivendell sprang to their feet. Slow should you be to win that horn again, Boromir, said Elrond, until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Maybe, said Boromir. But always I have let my horn cry at setting forth, and though thereafter we may walk in the shadows, I will not go forth as a thief in the night. Gimli the dwarf alone wore openly a short shirt of steel rings, for dwarves make light of burdens, and in his belt was a broad-bladed axe. Legolas had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. The younger hobbits wore the swords that they had taken from the barrow, but Frodo took only Sting, and his mail coat, as Bilbo wished, remained hidden. Gandalf bore his staff, but girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, the mate of Orchrist that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the lonely mountain, 
All were furnished by Elrond with thick warm clothes, and they had jackets and cloaks lined with fur. Spare food and clothes and blankets and other needs were laden on a pony, none other than the poor beast that they had brought from Bree. The stay in Rivendell had worked a great wonder of change on him. He was glossy and seemed to have the vigor of youth. It was Sam who had insisted on choosing him, declaring that Bill, as he called him, would pine if he did not come. <laughs> that animal can nearly talk, he said, and would talk if he stayed here much longer. He gave me a look as plain as Mr. Pippin could speak it. If you don't let me go with you, Sam, I'll follow you on my own. So Bill was going as the beast of burden, yet he was the only member of the company that did not seem depressed. Their farewells had been said in the great hall by the fire, and they were only waiting now for Gandalf, who had not yet come out of the house. A gleam of firelight came from the open doors, and soft lights were glowing in many windows. Bilbo, huddled in a cloak, stood silent on the doorstep beside Frodo. Aragorn sat with his head bowed to his knees. Only Elrond knew fully what this hour meant to him. The others could be seen as grey shapes in the darkness. Sam was standing by the pony, sucking his teeth and staring moodily into the gloom where the river roared stonily below. His desire for adventure was at its lowest ebb. Bill, my lad, he said. You oughtn't to have took up with us. You could have stayed here and, and ate the best hay till the new grass comes. Bill switched his tail and said nothing. Sam eased the pack on his shoulders and went over anxiously in his mind all the things that he had stowed it in, wondering if he had forgotten anything. His chief treasure, his cooking gear, and the little box of salt that he always carried and refilled when he could. A good supply of pipeweed, but not near enough, I'll warrant. Flint and tinder... Wooden hose, linen, various small belongings of his masters that Frodo had forgotten and Sam had stowed to bring them out in triumph when they were called for. He went through them all. Rope, he muttered. And only last night you said to yourself, Sam, what about a bit of rope? You'll want it. Well, I'll want it. Can't get it now. At that moment Elrond came out with Gandalf and he called the company to him. This is my last word, he said in a low voice. The ring-bearer is setting out on the quest of Mount Doom. On him alone is any charge laid, neither to cast away the ring, nor to deliver it to any of the servant of the enemy, nor indeed to let any handle it, save members of the company and the council, and only then in gravest need. The others go with him as free companions, to help him on his way. You may tarry or come back, or turn aside to other paths as chance allows. The further you go, the less easy it will be to withdraw. Yet no oath, no bond is laid to go further than you will. For you do not yet know the strength of your hearts, and you cannot foresee what each may meet upon the road. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens, said Gimli. Maybe, said Elrond. But let him not vow to walk in the dark who has not seen nightfall. Its ward word makes strengthen quaking heart, said Gimli. Oh, break it, said Elrond. Look not too far ahead, but go now with good hearts. Farewell, and may the blessing of elves and men and all free folk 
go with you. May the stars shine upon your faces. Good, 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 good luck, cried Bilbo, stuttering in the cold. I don't suppose you will be able to keep a diary, Frodo, my lad, but I shall expect a full account when you get back. And, and don't be too long. Farewell. Many others of Elrond's household stood in the shadows and watched them go, bidding them farewell with soft voices. There was no laughter, and no song or music. At last, they turned away and faded silently into the dusk. They crossed the bridge and wound slowly up the long, steep paths that led out to the cloven vale of Rivendell, and they came at length to the high moor where the wind hissed through the heather. Then, with one glance at the last homely house twinkling below them, they strode away far into the night. At the ford of Bruinen, they left the road and, turning southwards, went on by narrow paths among the folded lands. Their purpose was to hold this course west of the mountains for many miles and days. The country was much rougher and more barren than the green vale of the great river and wilderland on the other side of the range, and their going would be slow, but they hoped in this way to escape the notice of unfriendly eyes. The spies of Sauron had hitherto seldom been seen in this empty country, and the paths were little known except to the people of Rivendell. Gandalf walked in front, and with him went Aragorn, who knew this land even in the dark. The others were in file behind, and Legolas, whose eyes were keen, was the rear guard. The first part of their journey was hard and dreary, and Frodo remembered little of it, save the wind. For many sunless days an icy blast came from the mountains in the east, and no garments seemed able to keep out its searching fingers. Though the company was well clad, they seldom felt warm, either moving or at rest. They slept uneasily during the middle of the day, in some hollow of the land, or hidden under the tangled thorn bushes that grew in thickets in many places. In the late afternoon, they were roused by the watch and took their chief meal cold and cheerless as a rule, for they could seldom risk the lighting of a fire. In the evening they went on again, always as nearly southward as they could find a way. At first it seemed to the hobbits that although they walked and stumbled until they were weary, they were creeping forwards like snails and getting nowhere. Each day the land looked much the same as it had the day before, yet steadily the mountains were drawing nearer. South of Rivendell they rose ever higher and bent westwards and about the feet of the main range there was tumbled an ever-wider land of bleak hills and deep valleys filled with turbulent waters. Paths were few and winding, and led them often only to the edge of some sheer fall, or down into treacherous swamps. They had been a fortnight on the way when the weather changed. The wind suddenly fell and then veered round to the south. The shift-flowing clouds lifted and melted away, and the sun came out, pale and bright. There came a cold, clear dawn at the end of a long, stumbling night march. The travellers reached a slow ridge crowded with ancient holly trees whose grey-green trunks seemed to have been built out of the very stone of the hills. Their dark leaves shone and their berries glowed red in the light of the rising sun. Away in the south, Frodo could see the dim shapes of lofty mountains that seemed now to stand across the paths that the company was taking. At the left of this high range rose three peaks, 
The tallest and nearest stood up like a tooth, tipped with snow. Its great bare northern precipice was still largely in the shadow, but where the sunlight slanted upon it, it glowed red. Gandalf stood at Frodo's side and looked out under his hand. We have done well, he said. We have reached the borders of the country that men call Holin. Many elves lived here in happier days when Eregion was its name. Five and forty leagues as a crow flies we have come, though many long miles further our feet have walked. The land and the weather will be wilder now, but perhaps all the more dangerous. Dangerous or not, a real sunrise is mighty welcome, said Frodo, throwing back his hood and letting the morning light fall on his face. But the mountains are ahead of us, said Pippin. We must have turned eastwards in the night. No, said Gandalf, but you see further ahead in the clear light. Beyond those peaks, the range bends round southwest. There are many maps in Elrond's house, but I suppose you never thought to look at them. Yes, I did. Sometimes, said Pippin. But I don't remember them. Frodo has a better head for that sort of thing. I need no map, said Gimli, who had come up with Legolas and was gazing out before him with a strange light in his deep eyes. Hmm. There is the land where our fathers worked of old. And we have wrought the image of those mountains into many works of metal and of stone. And into many songs and tales. They stand tall in our dreams. Baraz! Zirak! Shathur! Only once before I have seen them from afar in waking life. But I know them and their names. For under them lies Khazad-dûm, the Dwerodelf, that is now called the Black Pit. Moria in the elvish tongue. Yonder stands Barazinbar, the Red Horn, cruel Karadras. And beyond him are Silvertine and Cloudyhead, Celebdil, the White, and Fanuihol, the Grey, that we call Zirakzigil. And Bundushathur. There the misty mountains divide, and between their arms lies the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget. Azanulbizar, the Dimrildale, which the elves call Nandu Hirion. It is for the Dimrildale that we are making, said Gandalf. If we climb the pass that is called Redhorn Gate, under the far side of Caradras, we shall come down by the Dimrild stair into the deep vale of the dwarves. There lies the Mirrormere. And there the river Silverlode rises in its icy springs. Dark is the water of Keled Zaram, said Gimli, and cold are the springs of Kibil Nala. My heart trembles at the thought that I may see them soon. May you have joy in the sight, my good dwarf, said Gandalf. But whatever you may do, we at least cannot stay in that valley. We must go down the Silverlode into the secret woods, and so to the great river... And then... He paused. Yes? And where then? Asked Mary. To the end of the journey. In the end. Said Gandalf. We cannot look too far ahead. Let us be glad that the first stage is safely over. I think we will rest here. Not only today, but tonight as well. There is a wholesome air about Holin. Much evil must befall a country before it wholly forgets the elves, if once they dwelt there. That is true, said Legolas, but the elves of this land were of a race strange to us in the Sylvan folk, 
and the trees and grass do not now remember them. Only I hear the stones lament them. Deep they delved us, there they wrought us, high they builded us, but they are gone. They are gone. They sought the havens long ago. That morning they lit a fire in a deep hollow shrouded by great bushes of holly, and their supper breakfast was merrier than it had been since they set out. They did not hurry to bed afterwards, for they expected to have all the night to sleep in, and they did not mean to go on again until the evening of the next day. Only Aragorn was silent and restless. After a while, he left the company and wandered on to the ridge. There he stood in the shadow of a tree, looking out southwards and westwards, with his head posed as if he was listening. Then he returned to the brink of the dell and looked down at the others laughing and talking. What's the matter, Strider? Mary called up. What are you looking for? Do you miss the east wind? No, indeed, he answered. But I miss something. I have been in the country of Holland for many reasons. No folk dwell here now, but many other creatures live here at all times, especially birds. Yet now all things but you are silent. I can feel it. There is no sound of for miles about us, and your voices seem to make the ground echo. I do not understand it. Gandalf looked up with a sudden interest. Well, what do you guess is the reason? he asked. Is there more in it that surprise at seeing four hobbits, not to mention the rest of us, where people are so seldom seen or heard? I hope that it is, answered Aragorn. But I have a sense of watchfulness and of fear that I have never had here before. Then we must be more careful, said Gandalf. If you bring a ranger with you, it is well to pay attention to him, especially if the ranger is Aragorn. We must stop talking aloud. Rest quietly and set the watch. It was Sam's turn that day to take the first watch, but Aragorn joined him. The others fell asleep. Then the silence grew until even Sam felt it. The breathing of the sleepers could be plainly heard. The swish of the pony's tail and the occasional movements of his feet became loud noises. Sam could hear his own joints creaking if he stirred. Dead silence was around him, and over all hung a clear blue sky as the sun rode up to the east. Away in the south a dark patch appeared, and grew, and drove north like flying smoke in the wind. What's that, Strider? It don't look like a cloud, said Sam in a whisper to Aragorn. He made no answer. He was gazing intently at the sky. But before long Sam could see for himself what was approaching. Flocks of birds, flying at great speed, were wheeling and circling, and traversing all the land as if they were searching for something, and they were steadily drawing nearer. Light, light and still, hissed Aragorn, putting Sam down into the shade of a holly bush for a whole regiment of birds had broken away suddenly from the main host and came flying low straight towards the ridge. Sam thought they were a kind of crow of large size. As they passed overhead in so dense a throng that their shadow followed them darkly over the ground below, one harsh croak was heard. Not until they had dwindled into the distance, north and west, and the sky was again clear, would Aragorn rise. Then he sprang up and went and wakened Gandalf. Regiments of the Black Crows are flying over all the land between the mountains and the Grey Flood, he said. And they have passed over Holland. 
They're not natives here, they are Krabine, out of Fanghorn in Dunland. I do not know what they are about. Possibly there is some travel away south from which they are fleeing, but I think they are spying out the land. I have also glimpsed many hawks flying high up in the sky. I think we ought to move again this evening. Holding is no longer wholesome for us. It is being watched. And in that case is the Red Horn Gate, said Gandalf. And how we can get over there without being seen, I cannot imagine. But we will think of what when we must. As for moving, as soon as it is dark, I am afraid that you are right. Luckily, our fire made little smoke and had burned low before the Kreban came, said Aragorn. It must be put out and not lit again. Well, if that isn't a plague and a nuisance, said Pippin. The news, no fire, and a move again by night had been broken to him as soon as he woke in the late afternoon. All because a pack of crows. I had looked forward to a real good meal tonight, something hot. Well, you can go on looking forward, said Gandalf. There may be many unexpected feasts ahead for you. For myself, I would like a pipe to smoke in comfort and warmer feet. However, we are certain for one thing at any rate. It will get warmer as we get south. Too warm, I shouldn't wonder, muttered Sam to Frodo. But I'm beginning to think it's time we got a sight of that fiery mountain and saw the end of the road, so to speak. I thought at first that this here Redhorn, or whatever its name is, might be it. Till Gimli spoke his piece. A fair jawcracker dwarf language must be. Maps conveyed nothing to Sam's mind, and all distances in these strange lands seemed so vast that he was quite out of his reckoning. All that day the company remained in hiding. The dark birds passed over now and again, but as the westerning sun grew red, they disappeared southwards. At dusk, the company set out, and turning now half east, they steered their course towards Caradras, which far away still glowed faintly red in the last light of the vanishing sun. One by one, white stars sprang forth as the sky faded. Guided by Aragorn, they struck a good path. It looked to Frodo like the remains of an ancient road that had once been broad and well-planned, from Holland to the mountain pass. The moon, now at the full, rose over the mountains and cast a pale light in which the shadows of stones were black. Many of them looked to have been worked by hands, though now they lay tumbled and ruinous in a bleak, barren land. It was the cold, chill hour before the first stir of dawn, and the moon was low. Frodo looked up at the sky. Suddenly, he saw or felt a shadow pass over the high stars, as if for a moment they faded and then flashed out again. He shivered. Did you see anything pass over? He whispered to Gandalf, who was just ahead. No, but I felt it, whatever it was. He answered. It may be nothing, only a wisp of cloud. Was moving fast then, muttered Aragorn, and not with the wind. Nothing further happened that night, but the next morning dawned even brighter than before. But the air was chill again. Already the wind was turning back towards the east. For two more nights they marched on, climbing steadily but ever more slowly as their road wound up into the hills, and the mountains towered up nearer and nearer. On the third morning, Caradras rose before them, a mighty peak, tipped with snow like silver. But with sheer naked sides, dull red as if stained with blood. There was a black look in the sky, 
and the sun was one. The wind had gone now round to the northeast. Gandalf snuffed the air and looked back. Winter deepens behind us, he said quietly to Aragorn. The heights away north are wither than they were. Snow is lying far down their shoulders. Tonight we shall be on our way high up towards the Red Horn Gate. We may well be seen by watchers on that narrow path, and waylaid by some evil. But the weather may prove a more deadly enemy than any. What do you think of your course now, Aragorn? Frodo overheard these words and understood that Gandalf and Aragorn were continuing some debate that had begun long before. He listened anxiously. I think no good of our course from beginning to end as you know well, Gandalf, answered Aragorn, and perils known and unknown will grow as we go on, but we must go on, and it is no good our delaying the passage of the mountains. Further south there are no passes till one comes to the gap of Rohan. I do not trust that way since your news of Saruman. Who knows which side now the marshals of the horse lords serve? Who knows indeed, said Gandalf, but there is another way, and not by the pass of Caradras. A dark and secret way that we have spoken of. But let us not speak of it again, not yet. Say nothing to the others, I beg, not until it is plain that there is no other way. We must decide before we go further, answered Gandalf. And let us weigh the matter in our minds while the others rest and sleep, said Aragorn. In the late afternoon, while the others were finishing their breakfast, Gandalf and Aragorn were aside together and stood looking at Caradras. Its sides were now dark and sullen, and its head was in grey cloud. Frodo watched them, wondering which way the debate would go. When they returned to the company, Gandalf spoke, and he knew that it had been decided to face the weather and the high pass. He was relieved. He could not guess what was the other dark and secret way, but the very mention of it had seemed to fill Aragorn with dismay, and Frodo was glad that it had been abandoned. From signs that we have seen lately, said Gandalf, I fear that the Red Horn Gate may be watched, and also I have doubts of the weather that is coming up behind. Snow may come. We must go with all the speed that we can. Even so, it will take us more than two marches before we reach the top of the pass. Dark will come early this evening. We must leave as soon as you can get ready. I will add a word of advice, if I may, said Boromir. I was born under the shadow of the White Mountains, and know something of the journey in the high places. We shall meet bitter cold, if no worse, before we come down on the other side. It will not help us to keep so secret that we are frozen to death. When we leave here, where there are still a few trees and bushes, each of us should carry a faggot of wood, as large as he can bear. And Bill could take a bit more, couldn't you, lad? said Sam. The pony looked at him mournfully. Very well, said Gandalf, but we must not use the wood. Not unless it is a choice between fire and death. The company set out again, with good speed at first, but soon their way became steep and difficult. The twisting and climbing road had in many places almost disappeared, and was blocked with many fallen stones. The night grew deadly dark under great clouds. A bitter wind swirled among the rocks. By midnight they had climbed to the knees of the great mountains. The narrow path now wound under a sheer wall of cliffs to the left, above which the grim flanks of Caradras towered up invisible in the gloom. On the right was a gulf of darkness where the land fell suddenly into a deep ravine. Laboriously, they climbed the sharp slope and halted for a moment at the top. Frodo felt a soft touch on his face. 
He put up his arm and saw the dim white flakes of snow settling on his sleeve. They went on, but before long the snow was falling fast, filling all the air and swirling into Frodo's eyes. The dark bent shapes of Gandalf and Aragorn only a pace or two ahead could hardly be seen. I don't like this at all, panted Sam just behind. Snow's all right on a fine morning, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. I wish this, I wish this lot would go off to Hobbiton. Folk might welcome it there. Except on the high moors of the North Farthing, a heavy fall was rare in the Shire, and was regarded as a pleasant event and a chance for fun. No living hobbit, save Bilbo, could remember the fell winter of 1311, where white wolves invaded the Shire over the frozen brandywine. Gandalf halted. Snow was thick on his hood and shoulders. It was already ankle-deep about his boots. It is as I feared, he said. What do you say now, Aragorn? That I feared it too, Aragorn answered. But less than other things. I knew the risk of snow, though it seldom falls heavily so far south, save high up in the mountains. But we are not high yet. We are still far down. There are paths that are usually open all the winter. I wonder if this is the contrivance of the enemy, said Boromir. They say in my land he can govern the storms in the mountains of shadow that stand upon the borders of Mordor. He has strange powers and many allies. His arm has grown long indeed, said Gimli, if he can draw snow down from the north to trouble us here three hundred leagues away. His arm has grown long, said Gandalf. While they were halted, the wind died down, and the snow slackened until it almost ceased. They stamped on again. But they had not gone more than a furlong when the storm returned with fresh fury. The wind whistled and the snow became a blinding blizzard. Soon even Boromir found it hard to keep going. The hobbits bent nearly double, toiled along behind the taller folk. But it was plain that they could not go much further. If the snow continued, Frodo's feet felt like lead. Pippin was dragging behind. Even Gimli, stout as any dwarf could be, was grumbling as he trudged. company halted suddenly, as if they had come to an agreement without any words being spoken. They heard eerie noises in the darkness around them. It may have been only a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall, but the sounds were those of shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. Stones began to fall from the mountainside, whistling over their heads or crashing into the path beside them. Every now and again they heard a dull rumble a great boulder rolled down from hidden heights above. We cannot go further tonight, said Boromir. And those call it the wind who will. There are faint voices on the air, and these stones are aimed at us. I do call it the wind, said Aragorn. But that does not make what you say untrue. There are many evil and unfriendly things in the world that have little love for those that go on two legs, and yet are not in league with Sauron, but have purposes of their own. Some have been in this world longer than he. Aradras was called the Cruel and had an ill name, said Gimli, long years ago when rumor of Sauron had not been heard in these lands. It matters little who is the enemy if we cannot beat off the attack, said Gandalf. But what can we do? cried Pippin miserably. He was leaning on Merry and Frodo, and he was shivering. 
Either stop where we are or go back, said Gandalf. It is no good going on. Only a little higher, if I remember rightly. This path leaves the cliffs and runs into the wide shallow through the bottom of a long, hard slope. We should have no shelter here from now, or stones, or anything else. And it is no good going back while the storm holds, said Aragorn. We have passed no place on the way up that offered more shelter than this cliff that we are under now. Shelter, muttered Sam. If this is shelter, then one wall and no roof make a house. The company now gathered together as close to the cliff as they could. It faced southwards, and near the bottom it leaned out a little, so that they hoped it would give them more protection from the northerly wind and from the falling stones. But eddying blasts swirled round them from every side, and the snow flowed down in ever denser clouds. They huddled together with their backs to the wall. Bill the pony stood patiently but dejectedly in front of the hobbits, and screened them a little. But before long, the drifting snow was above his hocks, and it went on mounting. If they had no larger companions, the hobbits would soon have been entirely buried. A great sleepiness came over Frodo. He felt himself sinking fast into a warm and hazy dream. He thought a fire was heating his toes, and out of the shadows on the other side of the hearth, he heard Bilbo's voice speaking. I don't think much of your diary, he said. No storms on January the 12th. There was no need to come back and report that. But I wanted to rest and sleep, Bilbo. Frodo answered with an effort, and he felt himself shaken. He came back painfully to wakefulness. Boromir had lifted him off the ground out of a nest of snow. This will be the death of the halflings, Gandalf! said Boromir. It is useless to sit here until the snow goes over our heads. We must do something to save ourselves! Give them this! said Gandalf, searching for his pack and drawing out a leathern flask. Just a mouthful each, for all of us. It is very precious. It is fully born of the cordial of Inbladris. Elrond gave it to me at our parting. Pass it round! As soon as Frodo had swallowed a little of the warm and fragrant liquor, he felt a new strength of heart, and the heavy drowsiness left his limbs. The others also revived and found fresh hope and vigor. But the snow did not relent. It whirled about them thicker than ever, and the wind blew louder. What do you say to fire? asked Boromir suddenly. The choice seems near now between fire and death, Gandalf. Doubtless we have hidden from all unfriendly eyes when the snow has covered us, but that will not help us. You may make a fire if you can, answered Gandalf. If there are any watchers that endure this storm, then they can see us fire and know. As though they had brought wood and kindlings by the advice of Boromir, it passed the skill of elf or even dwarf to strike a flame that would hold amid the swirling wind to catch the wet fuel. At last, reluctantly, Gandalf himself took a hand. Picking up a faggot, he held it aloft for a moment, and then with a word of command, Now, then it lays, Herman! He thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. At once, a great spout of green and blue flame sprang out, and the wood flared and sputtered. If there are any to see, then I at least am revealed to them, he said. I have written Gandalf is here in signs that all can read, from Rivendell to the mouths of Anduk. But the company cared no longer for the watchers or unfriendly eyes. Their hearts would rejoice to see the light of the fire. The wood burned merrily, though all around it the snow hissed, and pools of slush crept under their feet. They warmed their hands gladly at the blaze. 
There they stood, stooping in a circle around the little dancing and blowing flames. A red light was on their tired and anxious faces. Behind them the night was like a black wall. But the wood was burning fast and the snow still fell. The fire burned low and the last faggot was thrown on. The night is getting old, said Aragorn. The dawn is not far off. If any dawn can pierce these clouds, said Gimli. Boromir stepped out of the circle and stared up into the blackness. The snow is growing less, he said, and the wind is quieter. Frodo gazed warily at the flakes still falling out of the dark to be revealed white for a moment in the light of the dying fire, but for a long time he could see no sign of their slackening. Then suddenly, as sleep was beginning to creep over him again, he was aware that the wind had indeed fallen, and the flakes were becoming larger and fewer. Very slowly, a dim light began to grow. At last, the snow stopped altogether. As the light grew stronger, it showed a silent, shrouded world. Below their refuge were white humps and domes and shapeless deeps beneath which the path that they had trodden was altogether lost. But the heights above were hidden in great clouds, still heavy with the threat of snow. Gimli looked up and shook his head. Caradras has not forgiven us, he said. He has more snow yet to fling at us if we go on. The sooner we go back and down, the better. To this all agreed, but their retreat was now difficult. It might well prove impossible. Only a few paces from the ashes of their fire, the snow lay many feet deep, higher than the heads of the hobbits. In places it has been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff. If Gandalf would go before us with a bright flame, he might melt a path for you, said Legolas. The storm had troubled him little, and he alone of the company remained still light of heart. <laughs> if elves could fly over mountains, they might fetch the sun and to save us, answered Gandalf. But I must have something to work on. I cannot burn snow. Well said Boromir. When heads are at a loss, bodies must serve, as we say in my country. The strongest of us must seek a way. See, though all is snow-clad, our path as we came up turned about that shoulder of rocks down yonder. It was where the first snow began to burden us. If we could reach that point, maybe it would prove easier beyond. It is no more than a furlong off, I guess. Then let us force a path hither, you and I, said Aragorn. Aragorn was the tallest of the company, but Boromir, little less in height, was broader and heavier in build. He led the way, and Aragorn followed him. Slowly they moved off, and they were soon toiling heavily. In places the snow was breast high, and often Boromir seemed to be swimming or burrowing in his great arms rather than walking. Legolas watched them for a while with a smile upon his lips, and then he turned to the others. Hmm. The strongest must seek away, say you. But I say, let a plowman plow, but choose an otter for swimming, and for running, light over grass and leaf, or over snow, an elf. <laughs> With that he sprang forth nimbly, and then Frodo noticed, as if for the first time, though he had long known it, that the elf had no boots, but wore only light shoes, as he always did, and his feet made little imprint in the snow. Farewell he said to Gandalf. I go to find the sun. 
Then, swift as a runner over the firm sand, he shot away, and quickly overtaking the toiling men. With a wave of his hand, he passed them, and sped into the distance, and vanished round the rocky turn. The others waited, huddled together, watching until Boromir and Aragorn dwindled into black specks in the whiteness. At length, they too passed from sight. The time dragged on. The clouds lowered, and now a few flakes of snow came curling down again. An hour, maybe, went by, though it seemed far longer. And then at last they saw Legolas coming back. At the same time, Boromir and Aragorn reappeared round the bend far behind him, and came labouring up the slope. Well, cried Legolas as he ran up, I have not brought the sun. She is walking in the blue fields in the south, and a little wreath of snow on this redhorn hillock troubles her not at all. But I have brought back a gleam of good hope for those who are doomed to go on feet. There is the greatest midrift of all just beyond the turn, and there our strong men were almost buried. They despaired until I returned and told them that, that the drift was a little wider than a wall, and on the other side the snow suddenly grows less, while further down it is no more than a white coverlet to cool a hobbit's toes. Ah! Mm. It is as I said, growled Gimli. It was no ordinary storm. It is the ill will of Caradras. He does not love elves and wars. And that drift was laid to cut off our escape. But happily, your Caradras has forgotten that you have been with you, said Boromir, who came up at that moment. And doughty men too, if I may say it, though lesser men with spades might have served you better. Still we have thrust a lane through the drift, and for that all here may be grateful who cannot run as light as elves. But how are we to get down there even if you've cut through the drift? said Pippin, voicing the thoughts of all the hobbits. Have hope, said Boromir. I am weary, but I still have some strength left, and Aragorn too. We will bear the little folk. The others, no doubt, will make shift to thread the path behind us. Come, Master Peregrine, I will begin with you. He lifted up the hobbit, cling to my back. I shall need my arms, he said and strode forward. Aragorn with Merry came behind. Pippin marveled at his strength, seeing the passage that he already forced with no other tool than his great limbs. Even now, burdened as he was, he was widening the track for those who followed, thrusting the snow aside as he went. They came at length to the great drift. It was flung across the mountain path like a sheer and sudden wall and its crest, sharp as if shaped with knives, reared up more than twice the height of Boromir. But through the middle a passage had been beaten, rising and falling like a bridge. On the far side, Merry and Pippin were set down, and there they waited with Legolas for the rest of the company to arrive. After a while, Boromir returned carrying Sam. Behind in the narrow but now well-trodden track came Gandalf, leading Bill with Gimli, perched among the baggage. Last came Aragorn carrying Frodo. They passed through the lane. But hardly had Frodo touched the ground when with a deep rumble there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. The spirit half blinded the company as they crouched against the cliff. When the air cleared again, they saw that the path was blocked behind them. Enough, enough! cried Gimli. We are departing as quickly as we may! And indeed with the last stroke the malice of the mountain seemed to be expended as if Caradras was satisfied that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. The threat of snow lifted. The clouds began to break and the light grew broader. As Legolas had reported, they found that the snow became steadily more shallow as they went down, 
so that even the hobbits could trudge along. Soon they all stood once more on the flat shelf, at the head of the steep slope where they had felt the first flakes of snow the night before. The morning was now far advanced. From the high place they looked back westwards over the lower lands. Far away in the tumble of country that lay at the foot of the mountain was the dell from which they had started to climb the pass. Frodo's legs ached. He was chilled to the bone and hungry, and his head was dizzy. And he thought of the long and painful march downhill. Black specks swam before his eyes. He rubbed them, but the black specks remained. In the distance below him, but still high above the lower foothills, dark dots were circling in the air. (laughs) The birds again! said Aragorn, pointing down. That cannot be helped now, said Gandalf. Whether they are good or evil or have nothing to do with us at all, we must go down at once. Not even on the knees of Caradras will we wait for another nightfall. A cold wind flowed down behind them as they turned their backs on the Redhorn Gate and stumbled wearily down the slope. Caradras had defeated them. It was evening, and the grey light was again waning fast when they halted for the night. They were very weary. The mountains were veiled in deepening dusk, and the wind was cold. Gandalf spared them one more mouthful each of the Miruvor of Rivendell. When they had eaten some food, they had called a council. We cannot, of course, go again tonight, he said. The attack on the Red Horn Gate has tired us out. And we must rest here for a while. And then where are we to go? asked Frodo. We still have our journey and our errand before us, answered Gandalf. We have no choice but to go on, or to return to Rivendell. Pippin's face brightened visibly at the mere mention of returning to Rivendell. Merry and Sam looked up hopefully, but Aragorn and Boromir made no sign. Frodo looked troubled. I wish I was back there, he said. But how can I return without the shame? Unless there is indeed no other way. And we are already defeated. You are right, Frodo, said Gandalf. To go back is to admit defeat. And to face worse, defeat to come. If we go back now, then the ring must remain there. We shall not be able to set it out again. The sooner or later Rivendell will be besieged. And after a brief and bitter time, it will be destroyed. The ring race are deadly enemies. But we are only shadows yet of the power and terror that they will possess if the ruling ring was on their master's hand again. Then we must go on if there is a way, said Frodo with a sigh. Sam looked back into the gloom. There is a way that we may attempt, said Gandalf. I thought from the beginning, when I first considered this journey, that we would try it. But it is not a pleasant way, and I have not spoken of it to the company before. Aragorn was against it, until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. If it is a worse road than the Redhorn Gate, then it must be evil indeed, said Merry. But you had better tell us about it, and let us know of the worst at once. The road that I speak leads to the mines of Moria, said Gandalf. Only Gimli lifted up his head. A smoldering fire was in his eyes. When all the others, a dread fell at the mention of that name. 
Even to the hobbits it was a legend of vague fear. The road may lead to Moria, but how can we hope that it will lead through Moria? said Aragorn darkly. It is a name of ill omen, said Boromir. Nor do I see the need to go there. If we cannot cross the mountain, let us journey southward until we come to the Gap of Rohan, where men are friendly to my people, taking the road that I followed on my way hither. Or we might pass by and cross the Eisen into Langstrad and Lebanon, and so come to Gondor from the regions nigh to the sea. Things have changed since you came north, Boromir, answered Gandalf. Did you not hear what I told you of Saruman? With him I may have business of my own ere all is over, but the ring must not come near Isengard, if that can be by any means prevented. The Gap of Rohan is closed to us while we go with the bearer. As for the longer road, we cannot afford the time. We might spend a year in such a journey, and we will pass through many lands that are empty and harborless. Yet they would not be safe. The watchful eyes of both Saruman and the enemy are on them. When you came north, Boromir, you were in the enemy's eyes only one stray wanderer from the south and a matter of small concern to him. His mind was busy with the pursuit of the ring. But you return now as a member of the ring's company, and you are in peril as long as you remain with us. The danger will increase with every league that we go south under the naked sky. Since our open attempt on the mountain pass, our plight has become most desperate, I fear. I see now little hope if we do not soon vanish from sight for a while and cover our tail. Therefore, I advise that we should go neither over the mountains nor around them, but under them. That is a road, at any rate, that the enemy will least expect us to take. We do not know what he expects, said Boromir. We may watch all roads, likely and unlikely, but in that case to enter Moria would be to walk into a trap, hardly better than knocking at the gates of the Dark Tower itself. The name of Moria is Black. You speak of what you do not know when you liken Moria to the stronghold of Sauron, answered Gandalf. I alone of you have ever been to the dungeons of the Dark Lord, and only in his older and lesser dwellings in Dol Guldur. Those who pass the gates of Baradur do not return. But I do not lead you into Moria if there were no hope of coming out again. If there are orcs there, it may prove ill for us, that is true. But most of the orcs of the Misty Mountains were scattered and destroyed in the Battle of the Five Armies. The eagles report that orcs are gathering again from afar, but there is hope that Moria is still free. There is even a chance that the dwarves are there, and in some deep hall of its father's Balin son of Hunden may be found. However it may prove, one must tread the path that need chooses. I will tread the path with you, Gandalf, said Gimli. I will go and look into the halls of Durin, whatever may wait there, if you can find the doors that are shut. Good, Gimli, said Gandalf. You encourage me. We will seek the hidden doors together, and we will come through. In the ruins of the dwarves, a dwarf's head will be less easy to bewilder than elves or men or hobbits. Yet it will not be the first time I have been to Moria. I sought there long for Thrain, son of Thror, after he was lost. I passed through, and I came out again alive. I too once passed the Dimbril Gate, said Aragorn quietly. But though I also came out again, this memory is still very evil. I do not wish to enter Moria a second time. And I don't wish to enter it even once, said Pippin. Nor me, muttered Sam. Of course not, said Gandalf. Who would? But the question is, who will follow me if I lead you there? I will, said Gimli eagerly. I will, said Aragorn heavily. 
You followed my lead almost to disaster in the snow, and I have said no word for blame. I will follow your lead now, if this last warning does not move you. It is not of the ring nor of us others that I am thinking now, but of you, Gandalf. And I say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. I will not go, said Boromir. Not unless the vote of the whole company is against me. What do Legolas and the little folk say? The ring-bearer's voice surely should be heard. I do not wish to go to Moria, said Legolas. The hobbit said nothing. Sam looked at Frodo. At last, Frodo spoke. I do not wish to go, he said. But neither do I wish to refuse the advice of Gandalf. I beg that there should be no vote until we are slept on it. Gandalf will get the votes easier in the light of the morning than in this cold blue. How the wind howls. At these words, all fell into silent thought. They heard the wind hissing among the rocks and trees, and there was a howling and wailing round them in the empty spaces of the night. Suddenly, Aragorn leapt to his feet. How the wind howls, he cried. It is howling of wolf voices. The wargs have come to the west of the mountains. Need we wait until morning then, Sindyanov? It is as I said. The hunt is up. Even if we live to see the dawn, who now will wish to journey south by night with the wild wolves on his tail? How far is Moria? asked Boromir. There was a door southwest of Caradas, some fifteen miles as the crow flies, and maybe twenty as the wolf runs, answered Gandalf grimly. Then let us start as soon as the light of tomorrow, if we can. The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. True said Aragorn, loosening his sword in his sheath. But where the wag howls, there also the orc prowls. I wish I'd taken Elrond's advice, muttered Pippin to Sam. I'm no good after all. There is not enough of the breed of Brandoblast to roar in me. These howls freeze my blood. I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. My heart's right down to my toes, Mr. Pippin, said Sam. We aren't it yet, and there are some stout folk here with us. Whatever it may be in store for old Gandalf... I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. For their defense, the company climbed on top of the small hill under which they had been sheltering. It was crowned with a knot of old and twisted trees about which lay a broken circle of boulder stones. In the midst of this, they lit a fire. For there was no hope that darkness and silence would keep their trail from discovery by the hunting packs. Round the fire they sat, and those that were not on guard dozed uneasily. Poor Bill the Pony trembled and sweated where he stood. The howling of the wolves was now all around them, sometimes nearer and sometimes further off. In the dead of night, many shining eyes were seen peering over the bow of the hill. Some advanced almost to the ring of stones. At a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen, halted, gazing at them. A shuddering howl broke from him. As if he were a captain summoning his pack for the assault. Gandalf stood up and strode forward, holding his staff aloft. Listen, Hound of Sauron! He cried. Gandalf is here! Fly if you value your foul skin! I will shrivel you from tail to stout if you come within this ring! The wolf snarled and sprang towards them in a great leap. At that moment there was a sharp twang. Legolas had loosened his bow, and there was a hideous leap, and the leaping shape thudded to the ground. The elvish arrow had pierced his throat. 
The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. Gandalf and Aragorn strode forward, but the hill was deserted. The hunting packs had left. All about them, the darkness grew silent, and no cry came on the sighing wind. The night was old, and westwards the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. A great host of wargs had gathered silently and now was attacking them from every side at once. Lay fuel on the fire! Sighed Gandalf to the hobbit. Draw your blades and stand back to back. In the leaping light, as a fresh wood blazed up, Frodo saw many gray shapes spring over the ring of stones. More and more followed. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. With a great sweep, Boromir hewed the head off another. Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his warp axe. The bow of Legolas was singing. In the wavering firelight, Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. He rose up, a great menacing shape like the monument of some ancient king's stone set upon a hill. Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. They gave back before him. High in the air, he tossed the blazing brand. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Now run in the farming. Now run in cow wrath. There was a roar and a crackle, and the tree above him burst into a leaf and bloom of blinding flame. The fire leapt from treetop to treetop. The whole hill was crowned with a dazzling light. The swords and knives of the defenders shone and flickered, the last arrow of Legolas kindled in the air as it flew and plunged burning into the heart of a great wolf chieftain. All the others fled. Slowly the fire died till nothing was left but folding ash and sparks. A bitter smoke curled from above the burned tree stumps and blew darkly from the hill as our first light of dawn came dimly in the sky. Their enemies were routed and did not return. What did I tell you, Mr. Pippin? Said Sam, sheathing his sword. Those won't get him. Now that's an eye-opener, no mistake. Nearly singed the hair off my head. When the full light of the morning came, no signs of the wolves were to be found. And they looked in vain for the bodies of the dead. No trace of the fight remained, but the charred trees and the arrows of Legolas lying on the hilltop. All were undamaged, save one of which only the point was left. It is as I feared, said Gandalf. These were no ordinary wolves, hunting for food in the wilderness. Let us eat quickly and go. That day the weather changed again, almost as if it was at the command of some power that had no longer any use for snow, since they had retreated from the pass. A power that wished now to have a clear light in which things that moved in the wild could be seen from far away. The wind had been turning through north to northwest during the night, and now it failed. The clouds vanished southwards and the sky was opened, high and blue. As they stood upon the hillside ready to depart, a pale sunlight gleamed over the mountain tops. We must reach the doors before sunset, said Gandalf, or I fear we shall not reach them at all. It is not far, but our path may be winding, for here Aragorn cannot guide us. He has seldom walked in this country. And only once have I been under the west wall of Moria. And that wasn't long ago. 
There it lies, he said, pointing away southeastwards to where the mountain sides fell sheer into the shadow at their feet. In the distance could be dimly seen a line of bare cliffs, and in their midst, taller than the rest, one great grey wall. When we left the pass, I led you southwards and not back to our starting point, as some of you may have noticed. It is well that I did so. For now, we have several miles less to cross, and haste is needed. Let us go. I do not know which to hope, said Boromir grimly. That Gandalf will find what he seeks, or that coming to the cliff we shall find the gates lost forever. All choices seem ill, and to be caught between wolves and the wall the likeliest chance. Lead on. Gimli now walked ahead by the wizard's side. So eager was he to come to Moria. Together they led the company back towards the mountains. The only road of old to Moria from the west had lain along a course of a stream, the Siranon, that ran out from the feet of the cliffs near where the doors had stood. But either Gandalf was astray, or else the land had changed in recent years, for he did not strike the stream where he looked to find it, only a few miles southward from their start. The morning was passing towards noon, and still the company wandered and scrambled in a barren country of red stones. Nowhere could they see any gleam of water or hear any sound of it. All was bleak and dry. Their hearts sank. They saw no living thing, and not a bird was in the sky. But what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land, none of them cared to think. Suddenly Gimli, who had pressed on ahead, called back to them. He was standing on a knoll and pointing to the right. Hurrying up, they saw below them a deep and narrow channel. It was empty and silent, and hardly a trickle of water flowed among the brown and red-stained stones of its bed. But on the near side there was a path, much broken and decayed, that wound its way among the ruined walls and paving stones of an ancient high road. Ah! Here it is at last, said Gandalf. This is where the stream ran. Siralon, the gate stream, they used to call it. But what has happened in the water I cannot guess. It used to be swift and noisy. Come, we must hurry on. We are late. The company were footsore and tired, but they trudged doggedly along the rough and winding track for many miles. The sun turned from at noon and began to go west. After a brief halt and a hasty meal, they went on again. Before them, the mountains frowned, but their path lay in a deep trough of land, and they could see only the higher shoulders and the far eastward peaks. At length, they came to a sharp bend. There, the road, which had been veering southwards between the brink of the channel and the steep fall of the land to the left, turned and went due east again. Rounding the corner, they saw before them a low cliff some five fathoms high, with a broken and jagged top. Over it a trickling water dripped, through a wide cleft that seemed to have been carved out by a fall that had once been strong and full. Indeed, things have changed, said Gandalf. There is no mistaking the place. There is all that remains of the stair falls. If I remember it right, there was a flight of steps cut in the rock at this side. But the main road wound away left and climbed with several roots up to the level ground at the top. There used to be a shallow valley beyond the falls right up to the walls of Moria. And the Cyrilon flowed through it with the road beside it. Let us go and see what things are like now. 
They found the stone steps without difficulty, and Gimli sprang swiftly up them, followed by Gandalf and Frodo. When they reached the top, they saw that they could go no further that way, and the reason for the drying up of the gate stream was revealed. Behind them, the sinking sun filled the cool western sky with glimmering gold. Before them stretched a dark, still lake. Neither sky nor sunset was reflected on its sullen surface. The Cyrenon had been dammed and had filled all the valley. Beyond the ominous water were reared vast cliffs, their stern faces pallid in the fading light, final and impassable. No sign of gate or entrance, not a fissure or crack could Frodo see in the frowning stone. Here are the walls of Moria, said Gandalf, pointing across the water. And there the gate stood once upon a time, the elven door at the end of the road from Holland, by which we have come. But this way is blocked. None of the company, I guess, will wish to swim in this gloomy water at the end of the day. It has an unwholesome look. Well, we must find a way around the northern edge, said Gimli. The first thing for the company to do is to climb up the, by the main path and see where that will lead us. Even if it were no lake, we could not get our baggage pony up this stair. But in any case, we cannot take the poor beast into the mines, said Gandalf. The road under the mountain is a dark road, and there are places narrow and steep which he cannot tread, even if we can. Oh, poor old Bill, said Frodo. I had not thought of that. And poor Sam, I wonder what he will say. I am sorry, said Gandalf. Poor Bill has been a useful companion, and it goes to my heart to turn him adrift now. I would have traveled lighter and brought no animal, least of all this one that Sam is fond of, if I had it my way. I feared all along that we should be obliged to take this road. The day was drawing to its end, and cold stars were glinting in the sky above the sunset when the company, with all the speed they could, climbed up the slopes and reached the side of the lake. In breath it looked to be no more than two or three furlongs at the widest point. How far it stretched away southward they could not see in the failing light. But its northern end was no more than half a mile from where they stood, and between the stony ridges that enclosed the valley and the water's edge there was a rim of open ground. They hurried forward, for they had still a mile or two to go before they could reach the point of the far shore that Gandalf was making for, and then he had still to find the doors. When they came to the northernmost corner of the lake, they found a narrow creek that barred their way. It was green and stagnant, thrust out like a slimy arm towards the enclosing hills. Gimli strode forward, undeterred, and found that the water was shallow, no more than ankle-deep at the edge. Behind him, they walked in file, threading their way with care, for under the weedy pools were sliding and greasy stones, and footing was treacherous. Frodo shuddered with disgust at the touch of the dark, unclean water on his feet, as Sam, the last of the company, led Bill up on the dry ground. On the far side, there came a soft sound, a swish, followed by a plop, as if a fish had disturbed the still surface of the water. Turning quickly, they saw ripples, black edged with shadow in the waning light. Great rings were widening outwards from a point afar out in the lake. There was a bubbling noise, and then silence. The dusk deepened, and the last gleams of the sunset were veiled in cloud, and over this he passed his hands to and fro, muttering words under his breath. 
Then he stepped back. Look, he said. Can you see anything now? The moon now shone over upon the... The moon now shone upon the gray face of the rock, but they could see nothing else for a while. Then slowly on the surface, where the wizard's hands had passed, faint lines appeared, like slender veins of silver running in the stone. At first they were no more than pale as gossamer threads, so fine that they only twinkled fitfully where the moon caught them. But steadily they grew broader and clearer, until their design could be guessed. At the top, as high as Gandalf could reach, was an arc of interlacing letters in an elvish character. Below, though the threads were in places blurred or broken, the outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Beneath these again were two trees, each bearing crescent moons. More clearly than all else were shown forth in the middle of the door a single star with many rays. Ah! Oh, here are the emblems of Durin! cried Gimli. And there is the tree of the high elves, said Legolas. And the star of the house of Fëanor, said Gandalf. They are wrought in Ithildin that mirrors only starlight and moonlight, and sleeps until it is touched by one who speaks words now long forgotten in Middle-earth. It is long since I heard them, and I thought deeply before I could recall them to my mind. But what does the writing say? asked Frodo, who was trying to decipher the inscription of the Ark. On the arch... I thought I knew all the elf letters, but I cannot read these. The words are in the elven tongue of the west of Middle-earth in the elder days, answered Gandalf. But they do not say anything of importance to us. They say only, the doors of Durin, Lord of Moria, speak, friend, and enter. And underneath, small and faint is written, I, Navi, made them. Celebrimor of Holland drew these signs. What does that mean, speak, friend, and enter? asked Merry. That is plain enough, said Gimli. If you're a friend, you speak the password, and the doors will open, and you can enter. Yes, said Gandalf. These doors are probably governed by words. Some dwarf gates will open only at special times or for particular persons, and some have locks and keys that are needed when all the necessary times and words are known. These doors have no key. In the days of Durin, they were not secret. They usually stood open and door words sat there, but if they were shut, any who knew the opening word could speak it and pass in. At least so is it recorded, is it not, Gimli? It is, said the dwarf. But what the word was is not remembered. Narvi and his craft and all his kindred have vanished from the earth. But do you know the word, Gandalf? asked Boromir in surprise. No, said the wizard. The others looked dismayed. Only Aragorn, who knew Gandalf well, remained silent and unmoved. Then what was the use of bringing us to this accursed spot? cried Boromir glancing back with a shudder at the dark water. You told us that you had once passed through the mines. How could that be if you did not know how to enter? The answer to your first question, Boromir, said the wizard, is that I do not know the word yet. But we shall soon see. And, he added with a glint in his eyes under his bristling brows, you may ask what is the use of my deeds when they are proved useless. As for your other question... Do you doubt my tale, or have you no wits left? I did not enter this way. I came from the east. If you wish to know, I will tell you that these doors open outwards. From the inside, you may thrust them open with your hands. From the outside, nothing will move them save the spell of command. They cannot be forced inwards. What are you going to do, then? 
asked Pippin, undaunted by the wizard's bristling brows. Knock on the doors with your head, Peregrine Took, said Gandalf. But if that does not shatter them, I'm allowed a little peace from foolish questions. I will seek for the opening words. I once knew every spell in all the tongues of elves or men or orcs that was ever used for such a purpose. I can still remember ten score of them without searching in my mind, but only a few trials, I think, will be needed. And I shall not have to call on Gimli for words of the secret dwarf tongue that they teach to none. The opening words were in Elvish, like the writing on the Ark. That seems certain. He stepped up from the rock again and lightly touched with his staff the silver star in the middle beneath the sign of the anvil. He said in a commanding voice. The silver lines faded, but the blank grey stone did not stir. Many times he repeated these words in different order or varied them. Then he tried other spells, one after another, speaking now faster and louder, now soft, slow. Then he spoke many single words of elvish speech. Nothing happened. The cliff towered into the light. The countless stairs were kindled and the wind blew cold. And the doors stood fast. Again Gandalf approached the wall and lifting up his arms he spoke in tones of command and rising wrath. Edro! Edro! He cried and struck the rock with his staff. Open! Open! He shouted and followed it with the same command in every language that had ever been spoken in the west of Middle-earth. Then he threw his staff on the ground and sat down in silence. At that moment, from far off, the wind bore to their listening ears the howling of wolves. Bill the Pony started in fear, and Stam sprang to his side and whispered softly to him. Do not let him run away, said Boromir. It seems that we shall need him still, if the wolves do not find us. How I hate this foul pool. He stooped, and picking up a large stone, he cast it into the dark water. The stone vanished with a soft slap, but at the same instant there was a swish and a bubble. Great rippling rings formed on the surface out beyond where the stone had fallen, and they moved slowly towards the foot of the cliff. Why did you do that, Boromir? said Frodo. I hate this place too, and I'm afraid. I don't know of what. Not of wolves, or the dark behind the doors, but something else. I'm afraid of the pool. Don't disturb it. I wish we could get away, said Mary. Why doesn't Gandalf do something quick? said Pippin. Gandalf took no notice of them. He sat with his head bowed either in despair or in anxious thought. The mournful howling of the wolves was heard again. The ripples on the water grew and came closer. Some were already lapping on the shore. With a suddenness that startled them all, the wizard sprang to his feet. He was laughing. I have it, he cried. Of course, of course, absurdly simple, like most riddles when you see the answer. Picking up his staff, he stood before the rock and said in a clear voice, Melon! The star shone briefly and faded again. Then, silently, a great doorway was outlined, though not a crack or joint had been visible before. Slowly it divided in the middle and swung outwards, inch by inch, until both doors lay back against the wall. 
Through the opening, a shadowy stair could be seen climbing steeply up, but beyond the lower steps the darkness was deeper than the night. The company stared in wonder. I was wrong after all, said Gandalf, and Gimli too. Mary, of all people, was on the right track. The opening word was inscribed on the archway all the time. The translation could have been, say, friend, and enter. I had only to speak the Elvish word for friend, and the doors opened. Quite simple. <laughs> ah, too simple for a learned lawmaster in these suspicious days. Ah, those were happier times. Now, let us go. He strode forward and set his foot on the lowest step. But at that moment, several things happened. Frodo felt something seize him by the ankle, and he fell with a cry. Bill the pony gave a wild neigh of fear, and turned tail and dashed away along the lakeside into the darkness. Sam leaped after him, and then, hearing Frodo's cry, he ran back again, weeping and cursing. The others swung around and saw the waters of the lake seething as if a host of snakes were swimming up from the southern end. Out from the water, a long, sinuous tentacle had crawled. It was pale green and luminous and wet. Its fingered end had hold of Frodo's foot and was dragging him into the water. Sam, on his knees, was now slashing at it with a knife. The arm let go of Frodo, and Sam pulled him away, crying out for help. Twenty other arms came rippling out. The dark water boiled, and there was a hideous stench. Into the gateway! Up the stairs! Quick! shouted Gandalf, leaping back, rousing them from the horror that seemed to have rooted all but Sam to the ground where they stood. He drove them forward. They were just in time. Sam and Frodo were only a few steps up and Gandalf had just begun to climb. When the groping tentacles withered across a narrow shore and fingered the cliff wall on the doors, one came wriggling over the threshold glistening in the starlight. Gandalf turned and paused. If he was considering what word would close the gate again from within, there was no need. Many coiling arms seized the door on either side, and with horrible strength swung them round. With a shattering echo, they slammed, and all life was lost. A noise of rendering and crashing came dully through the ponderous stone. Sam, clinging to Frodo's arm, collapsed on a step in the black darkness. Poor old Bill, he said in a choking voice. Poor old Bill, wolves and snakes. But the snakes were too much for him. I had to choose, Mr. Frodo. I had to come with you. They heard Gandalf go back down the steps and thrust his staff against the doors. There was a quiver in the stone and the stairs trembled, but the doors did not open. Well, well, said the wizard. The passage is blocked behind us now. And there is only one way out. On the border side of the mountains. I feel from the sounds that boulders have been piled up and the trees uprooted and thrown across the gate. I am sorry, for the trees were beautiful and had stood long. I felt that something horrible was near from the moment I let my foot first touch the water, said Frodo. What was the thing? Or were there many of them? I do not know, answered Gandalf. But the arms were all guided by one purpose. Something has crept or has been driven out of dark waters under the mountains. There are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world. He did not speak aloud his thought that whatever it was that dwelt in the lake, it had seized on Frodo first among the company. Boromir muttered under his breath, 
but the echoing stone magnified the sound to a hoarse whisper that all could hear. In the deep places of the world, and thither we are going against my wish, who will lead us now in this deadly dark? I will, said Gandalf, and Gimli shall walk with me. Follow my staff. As the wizard passed on ahead up the great steps, he held his staff aloft and from its tip there came a faint radiance. The wide stairway was sound and undamaged, two hundred steps they counted, broad and shallow. And at the top they found an arched passage with a level floor leading on into the dark. Let us sit and rest and have something to eat, here on the landing, since we can't find a dining room, said Frodo. He had begun to shake off the terror of the clutching arm, and suddenly he felt extremely hungry. The proposal was welcomed by all, and they all sat down on the upper steps, dim figures in the gloom. After they had eaten, Gandalf gave them each a third sip of the Miravore of Rivendell. It will not last much longer, I'm afraid, he said, but I think we will need it after the horror of that gate, and unless we have great luck, we shall need all that is left before we see the other side. Go carefully with the water, too. There are many streams in the wells and the mines, but they should not be touched. We may not have a chance of filling our skins and bottles till we come down to Dale. How long is that going to take us? asked Frodo. I cannot say, answered Gandalf. It depends on many chances. But going straight without mishap or losing our way, we shall take three or four marches, I expect. It cannot be less than forty miles from the west door to east gate, in a direct line, and the road may wind much. After only a brief rest, they started on their way again, all the eager to get the journey over as quickly as possible, and were willing, as tired as they were, to go on marching still for several hours. <coughs> Gandalf walked in front as before. In his left hand he held up his glimmering staff the light of which just showed the ground before his feet. In his right he held his sword, glamdering. Behind him came Gimli, his eyes glinting in the dim light as he turned his head from side to side. Behind the dwarf walked Frodo, and he had drawn the short sword, Sting. No gleam came from the blades of Sting nor of glamdering, and that was of some comfort. For being the work of elvish smiths in the elder days, these swords shone with a cold light, if any orcs were near at hand. Behind Frodo went Sam, and after him Legolas, and the young hobbits in Boromir. In the dark at the rear, grim and silent, walked Aragorn. The passage twisted round a few turns and then began to descend. It went steadily down for a long while before it became level once again. The air grew hot and stifling, but it was not foul and at times they felt currents of cooler air upon their faces, issuing from the half-guessed openings in the walls. There were many of these. In the pale ray of the wizard's staff, Frodo caught glimpses of stairs and arches, and of other passages and tunnels sloping up or running steeply down, or opening blankly dark on either side. It was bewildering beyond hope of remembering. Gimli aided Gandalf very little, except by his stout courage. At least he was not, as were most of the others, troubled by the mere darkness in itself, 
Often the wizard consulted him at points where the choice of way was doubtful, but it was always Gandalf who had the final word. The mines of Moria were vast and intricate beyond the imagination of Gimli, Gloin's son. Dwarf of the mountain race though he was. To Gandalf, the far-off memories of a journey long before were now a little help. But even in the gloom and despite all windings of the road, he knew whither he wished to go, and he did not falter, as long as there was a path that led towards his goal. Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. There was a pause longer than usual, and Gandalf and Gimli were whispering together. The others were crowded behind, waiting anxiously. Do not be afraid. I have been with him on many a journey, if never on one so dark. And there are tales of Rivendell of greater deeds of his than, than any that I have seen. He will not go astray, if there is any path to find. He has led us here against our fears, and he will lead us out again. At whatever cost to himself, he is surer of finding the way home in blind night than the cats of Queen Baruthiel. It was well for the company that they had such a guide. They had no fuel nor any means of making torches. In the desperate scramble at the doors, many things had been left behind. Without any light, they could soon have come to grief. There were not only many roads to choose from, there were also many places, holes and pitfalls, and dark wells beside the path in which their passing feet echoed. There were fissures and chasms in the walls and floor, and every now and then a crack would open right before their feet. The widest was more than seven feet across, and it was long before Pippin could summon enough courage to leap over the dreadful gap. The noise of churning water came up from far below, as if some great mill wheel was turning in the depths. Rope, muttered Sam. I knew I'd want it if I hadn't got it. As these dangers became more frequent, their march became slower. Already they seemed to have been tramping on, on endlessly into the mountain's roots. They were more than weary. And yet there seemed no comfort in the thought of halting anywhere. Frodo's spirits had risen for a while after his escape, and after food and a draught of the cordial, but now a deep uneasiness, growing to dread, crept over him again. Though he had been healed in Rivendell of the knife stroke, that grim wound had not been without effect. His senses were sharper and more aware of things that could not be seen. One sight of change that he soon had noticed was that he could see more in the dark than any of his companions, save perhaps Gandalf. And he was, in any case, the bearer of the ring. It hung upon his chain against his breast, and at whiles it seemed a heavy weight. He felt the certainty of evil ahead and of evil following, but he said nothing. He gripped tighter on the hilt of his sword and went on doggedly. The company behind him spoke seldom, and then only in hurried whispers. There was no sound but of the sound of their own feet, the dull stump of Gimli's dwarf boots, the heavy tread of Boromir, the light step of Legolas, the soft, scarce-heard patter of hobbit feet, and in the rear the slow, firm footfalls of Aragorn with his long stride. When they halted for a moment, they heard nothing at all unless it were occasionally a faint trickle and drip of unseen water. Yet Frodo began to hear, or to imagine that he heard, something else. Like the faint fall of soft bare feet, it was never loud enough or near enough for him to feel certain that he heard it, but once it had started it had never stopped while the company was moving. 
but it was not an echo, for when they halted, it pattered on for a little all by itself, and then grew still. It was after nightfall when they had entered the mines. They had been going for several hours with only brief halts, when Gandalf came to his first serious check. Before him stood a wide dark arch opening into three passages, all led in the same general direction, eastwards, but the left-hand passage plunged down, while the right hand climbed up, and the middle way seemed to run on, smooth and level, but very narrow. I have no memory of this place at all, said Gandalf, standing uncertainly under the arch. He held up his staff in the hope of finding some marks or inscription that might help his choice, but nothing of the kind was to be seen. I am too weary to decide, he said, shaking his head. And I expect that you are all weary as I am. Oh, Aria, we had better halt here before what is left of the night. You know what I mean. In here it is ever dark, but outside the late moon is riding westward, and the middle night has passed. Poor old Bill, said Sam. I wonder where he is. I hope those wolves haven't gotten yet. To the left of the great arch they found a stone door. It was half-closed, but swung back easily to a gentle thrust. Beyond there seemed to lie a wide chamber cut in the rock. Steady, steady, cried Gandalf as Merry and Pippin pushed forward, glad to find a place where they could rest with at least some feeling of shelter than in the open passage. Steady, you do not know what is inside yet. I will go first. He went in cautiously, and the others filed behind. There, he said, pointing with his staff to the middle of the floor. Before his feet they saw a large round hole like the mouth of a well. Broken and rusty chains lay at the edge and trailed down to the black pit. Fragments of stone lay near. One of you might have fallen in and still be wondering when you are going to strike the bottom, said Aragorn to Mary. Let the guide go first while you have one. It seems to have been a guard room made for the watching of the three passages, said Gimli. That hole was plainly a well for the guard's use, covered with a stone lid. But the lid is broken. We must all take care in the dark. Pippin felt curiously attached by the well. While the others were unrolling blankets and making beds against the walls of the chamber, as far as possible from the hole in the floor, he crept to the edge and peered over. A chill air seemed to strike his face, rising from invisible depths. Moved by a sudden impulse, he groped for a loose stone and let it drop. He felt his heart beat many times before there was any sound. Then far below, as if the stone had fallen into deep water in some cavernous place, there came a plonk, very distant, but magnified and repeated in the hollow shaft. What's that? cried Gandalf. He was relieved when Pippin confessed what he had done, but he was angry, and Pippin could see his eye glinting. Fool of a duke, he growled. This is a serious journey, not a hobbit walking party. Tell yourself in next time, and then you will be of no further usance. Now be quiet. Nothing more was heard for several minutes, but then there came out of the depths faint knocks. Tom tap tap tom. They stopped. And when the echoes had died away, they were repeated. Tap tom tom tap 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 tom. 
They sounded disquietly like signals of some sort. But after a while, the knocking died away and was not heard again. That was a sound of a hammer. Or I have never heard one, said Gimli. Yes, said Gandalf, and I do not like it. It may have nothing to do with Peregrine's foolish stone, but probably... Something has been disturbed that would have been better left quiet. Pray do nothing of the kind again. Let us hope that we shall get some rest without further trouble. You, Pippin, can go on the first watch as a reward. He growled as he rolled himself in a blanket. Pippin sat miserably by the door in the pitch dark. But he kept on turning round, feeling that some unknown thing would crawl up from out of the well. He wished he could cover the hole, if only with a blanket, but he dared not move. Or go near it. Even though Gandalf seemed to be asleep. Actually, Gandalf was awake, though lying still and silent. He was deep in thought, trying to recall every memory of his former journey in the mines, and considering anxiously the next course that he should take. A false turn now might be disastrous. After an hour, he rose up and came over to Pippin. Get into a corner and have a sleep, my lad, he said in a kindly tone. You won't sleep, I expect. I cannot get a wink, so I may as well do the watching. I know what is the matter with me, he muttered as he sat down by the door. I need a smoke. I have not tasted it since the morning before the snowstorm. The last thing that Pippin saw, as sleep took him, was a dark glimpse of the old wizard huddled on the floor, shielding a glowing chip in his gnarled hands between his knees. The flicker for a moment showed his sharp nose, and the puff of smoke. It was Gandalf who roused them all from sleep. He had sat and watched all alone for about six hours, and had let the others rest. And in the watches I have made up my mind, he said. I do not like the feel of the middle way, and I do not like the smell of the left-hand way. There is a foul air down there, where I have no guide. I shall take the right-hand passage. It is time we began to climb up again. For eight dark hours, not counting two brief halts, they marched on, and they met no danger and heard nothing, and saw nothing but the faint gleam of the wizard's light, bobbing like a will-o'-the-wisp in front of them. The passage they had chosen wound steadily upwards. As far as they could judge, it went in great mounding curves, and as it rose it grew loftier and wider. There were now no openings to other galleries or tunnels on either side, and the floor was level and sound, without pits or cracks. Evidently they had struck what once had been an important road, and they went forward quicker than they had done on their first march. In this way they advanced some fifteen miles, measured in a direct line east, though they must have actually walked twenty miles or more. As the road climbed upwards, Frodo's spirits rose a little, but he still felt oppressed. And still at times he heard, or thought he heard, away behind the company and beyond the fall, a patter of their feet, a following footstep that was not an echo. They had marched as far as the hobbits could endure without a rest, and all were thinking of a place where they could sleep. When suddenly the walls to right and left vanished, they seemed to have passed through some arched doorway into a black and empty space. 
there was a great draught of warmer air behind them, and before them the darkness was cold on their faces. They halted and crowded anxiously together. Gandalf seemed pleased. I chose the right way, he said. At last we are coming to the habitable parts, and I guess that we are not far now from the eastern side. But we are high up, a good deal higher than the Dimril Gate, unless I am mistaken. From the feeling of the air, we must be in a wide hall. I will now risk a little real light. He raised his staff, and for a brief instant there was a blaze like a flash of lightning. Great shadows sprang up and fled, and for a second they saw a vast roof far above their heads, upheld by many mighty pillars hewn of stone. Before them, and on either side, stretched a huge empty hall, its black walls, polished and smooth as glass, flashed and glittered. Three other entrances they saw, dark black arches, one straight before them eastward and one on either side. Then the light went out. That is all that I shall venture on for the present, said Gandalf. There used to be great windows on the mountainside and shafts leading out to the light in the upper reaches of the mines. I think we have reached them now, but it is night outside again, and we cannot tell until morning. If I am right, tomorrow we may actually see the morning peeping in, but in the meanwhile we had better go on no further. Let us rest if we can. Things have gone well so far, and the greater part of the dark road is over, but we are not through yet. And it is a long way down to the gate that opened to the world. The company spent that night in the great cavernous hall, huddled close together in a corner to escape the draught. There seemed to be a steady inflow of chill air through the eastern archway. All about them as they lay hung in the darkness, hollow and immense, and they were all oppressed by the loneliness and vastness of the Dolvin halls and endlessly branching stairs and passages. The wildest imaginings that dark rumour had ever suggested to the hobbits fell altogether short of the actual dread and wonder of Moria. There must have been a mighty crowd of dwarves here at one time, said Sam, and every one of them busier than badgers for five hundred years to make all this, and most in hard rock too. What did they do it all for? They didn't live in these darksome holes, surely. These are not holes, said Gimli. This is the great realm and city of the Dwarodelf, and of old it was not darksome, but full of light and splendor, as is still remembered in our songs. <clears throat> he rose, and standing in the dark he began to chant in a deep voice, while the echoes ran away into the roof. The world was young, the mountains green, no strain yet on moon was seen, no words were lain on stream or stone. When Durin woke and walked alone, he named the nameless hills and dells. He drank from yet untasted wells. He stooped and looked in, mirror mirror, and saw a crown of stars appear, as gems upon a silver thread, above the shadow of his head. The world was fair, the mountains tall. In elder days before the fall, of mighty kings in Argothrond and Gondolin, who now beyond the western seas have passed away, 
the world was fair in Durin's day. A king he was on Carvin throne, in many pillared halls of stone, with golden roof and silver floor, and runes of power upon the door. The light of sun and star and moon, in shining lamps of crystal hewn, undimmed by cloud or shade of night, there shone forever fair and bright. There hammer on the anvil smote, there chisel clove and graver wrote, there forged was blade and bound was hilt, the delver mined, the mason built, there burial pearl and opal pale, and metal wrought like fish's mail. Buckler and corslet, axe and sword, and shining spears were laid in hoard. Unwearied then were Durin's folk, beneath the mountain's music woke. The harpers harped, the minstrels sang, and at the gates the trumpets rang. The world is grey, the mountains old, the forge's fire is ashen cold. No sharp is rung, no hammer falls, the darkness dwells in Durin's halls. The shadow lies upon his tomb, in Moria, in Khazad Doom. But still in sunken stars appear, in dark and windless mirror mirror, there lies his crown in water deep, till Durin wakes again from sleep. Huh. I like that, said Sam. I should like to learn it. In Moria, in Khazad Doom. But it makes the darkness seem heavier, thinking of all those lamps. Are there piles and jewels and gold lying about here still? Gimli was silent. Having sung his song, he would say no more. Piles of jewels? said Gandalf. No, the orcs have often plundered Moria. There is nothing left in the upper halls, and since the dwarves fled, no one dares to seek the shafts and treasuries down in the deep places. They are drowned in water, or in a shadow of fear. Then what do the dwarves want to come back for? asked Sam. For Mithril, answered Gandalf. The wealth of Moria was not in gold and jewels, the toys of the dwarves, nor in iron, their servant. Such things they found here, it is true, especially iron, but they did not need to delve for them. All things that they desired they could obtain in traffic, for here alone in the world was found Moria silver, or true silver as some has called it. Mithril is the elvish name. The dwarves have a name which they do not tell. Its worth was ten times that of gold. And now it is beyond price, for little is left above ground, and even the orcs dare not delve here for it. The loads lead away north towards Caradras, and down to darkness. The dwarves tell no tale, but even as Mithril was the foundation of their wealth, so also it was their destruction. They delve too greedily and too deep and disturb that from which they fled, Durin's bane. Of what they brought to light, the orcs have gathered nearly all, and given it tribute to Sauron, who covets it. Mithril, all folk desired it. It could be beaten like copper, 
and polished like glass, and the dwarves could make of it a metal, light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like that of common silver, but the beauty of Mithril did not tarnish or grow dim. The elves dearly loved it, and among many uses they made of it, Ithildin, Star Moon, which you saw upon the doors. Bilbo had a corset of Mithril rings that Thorin gave him. I wonder what has become of it. Gathering dust still in Mickledelvig Matham House, I suppose. What? cried Gimli, startled out of his silence. A corset of Moria silver! That was a kingly gift! Yes, said Gandalf. I never told him, but its worth was greater than the valley of the whole Shire, and everything in it. Frodo said nothing, but he put his hand under his tunic and touched the rings of his mail shirt. He felt staggered to think that he had been walking about with the price of the Shire under his jacket. Had Bilbo known? He felt no doubt that Bilbo knew quite well. It was indeed a kingly gift. But now his thoughts had been carried away from the dark mines to Rivendell, to Bilbo, and to Bag End, in the days while Bilbo was still there. He wished with all his heart that he was back there, and in those days, mowing the lawn, or pottering among the flowers, and that he had never heard of Moria, or Mithril, or the Ring. A deep silence fell. One by one the others fell asleep. Frodo was on guard. As if it were a breath that came through the unseen doors out of deep places, dread came over him. His hands were cold and his brow damp. He listened. All his mind was given to listening and nothing else for two slow hours, but he heard no sound, not even the imagined echo of a footfall. His watch was nearly over, when far off, where he guessed that the western archway stood, he fancied what he could see two pale points of light, almost like luminous eyes. He started. His head had nodded. I must have nearly fallen asleep on guard, he thought. I was on the edge of a dream. He stood up and rubbed his eyes, and remained standing, peering into the dark, until he was relieved by Legolas. When he lay down, he quickly went to sleep, but it seemed to him that the dream went on. He heard whispers, and saw the two pale points of light approaching, slowly. He woke and found that the others were speaking softly near him, and that a dim light was falling on his face. High up above the eastern archway, through a shaft near the roof, came a long, pale gleam, and across the hall, through the northern arch, light also glimmered faint and distantly. Frodo sat up. Good morning, said Gandalf. For morning it is again at last. I was right, you see. We are high up on the eastern side of Moria. Before today is over, we ought to find the great gates and see the waters of Miramir lying in the Dimbledale before us. <laughs> I shall be glad, said Gimli. I have looked on Moria, and it is very great. But it has become dark and dreadful, and we have found no sign of my kindred. I doubt now that Balin ever came here. After they had breakfasted, Gandalf decided to go on again at once. We are tired, but we shall rest better when we are outside, he said. I think that none of us will wish to spend another night in Moria. No, indeed, said Boromir. Which way shall we take? Yonder eastward arch? Maybe, said Gandalf, but I do not know yet exactly where we are, unless I am quite astray. 
is that we are above and to the north of the great gates, and it may not be easy to find the right road down to them. The eastern arch would probably prove to be the way that we must take, but before we make up our minds, we ought to look about us. Let us go towards that light in the north door. If we could find a window, it would help, but I fear that the light comes only down deep shafts. Following his lead, the company passed under the northern arch. They found themselves in a wide corridor. As they went along it, the grimmer grew stronger, and they saw that it came through a doorway on their right. It was high and flat-topped, and the stone door was still upon its hinges, standing half open. Beyond it was a large square chamber. It was dimly lit, but to their eyes, after so long a time in the dark, it seemed dazzlingly bright, and they blinked as they entered. Their feet disturbed a deep dust upon the floor, and stumbled upon things lying in the doorway whose shapes they could not at first make out. The chamber was lit by a wide shaft high in the further eastern wall. It slanted upwards, and, far above, a small square patch of blue sky could be seen. The light of the shaft fell directly on a table in the middle of the room, a single oblong block, about two feet high, upon which was laid a great slab of white stone. like a tomb, muttered Frodo, and, and bent forwards with a curious sense of foreboding to look more closely at it. Gandalf came quickly to his side. On the slab ruins were deeply graven. These are Daron's ruins, such as we use of old in Moria, said Gandalf. Here is written in the tongues of men and dwarves. Balin, son of Fundin, lord of Moria. He is dead then, said Frodo. I feared it was so. Gimli cast his hood over his face. The company of the ring stood silent beside the tomb of Balin. Frodo thought of Bilbo and his long friendship with the dwarf, and of Balin's visit to the Shire long ago. In that dusty chamber in the mountains it seemed a thousand years ago, and on the other side of the world. At length they stirred and looked up, and began to search for anything that would give them the tidings of Balin's fate, or show that what had become of his folk. There was another smaller door on the other side of the chamber, under the shaft. By both the doors they could now see that many bones were lying, and among them were broken swords and axe heads and cloven shields and helms. Some of the swords were crooked, orc scimitars with blackened blades. There were many recesses cut in the rock of the walls, and in them were large iron-bound chests of wood. All had been broken and plundered, but beside the shattered lid of one there lay the remains of a book. It had been slashed and stabbed and partly burned, and it was so stained with black and other dark marks like old blood that little of it could be read. Gandalf lifted it carefully, but the leaves crackled and broke as he laid it on the slab. He pored over it for some time without speaking. Frodo and Gimli, standing at his side, could see, as he gingerly turned the leaves, that they were written by many different hands in runes, both of Moria and of Dale, and here and there in Elvish script. At last Gandalf looked up. It seems to be a record of the fortunes of Balin's folk, he said. I guess that it began with their coming to Dale nigh on thirty years ago. The pages seem to have numbers referring to the years after their arrival. 
The top page is marked one, three. So at least two are missing from the beginning. Listen to this. We drove out orcs from the great gate and guard. I think the next word is blurred and burned. Probably room. We slew many in the bright, I think, sun in the dale. Floy was killed by an arrow. He slew the great. Then there is a blur followed by Floy under grass near Mirror Mirror. The next line or two I cannot read. Then comes, we have taken the twenty-first hole of North End to dwell in. There is, I cannot read what. A shaft is mentioned. Then Barlin has set up his seat in the chamber of Mazarbul. The chamber of records, said Gimli. I guess that is where we now stand. Well, I can read no more for a long way, said Gandalf. Except the word gold and Durin's axe and something helm. Then, Barlin is now lord of Moria. That seems to end the chapter. After some stars, another hand begins, and I can see we found true silver, and later the word well-forged. And then something... I have it. Mithril. And the last two lines... Oin to seek for the upper armories of third deep. Something go westwards. A blur to Holland Gate. Gandalf paused and set a few leaves aside. There are several pages of the same sort, rather hastily written, some damaged, he said. But I can make little of them in this light. Ah, there must be a number of leaves missing because they begin to be numbered five. The fifth year of the colony, I suppose. Let me see. No, no, they are too cut and stained. I cannot read them. We might do better in the sunlight. Wait, there is something. A large, bold hand using an elvish script. That would be Orin's hand, said Gimli, looking over the wizard's arm. He could write well and speedily, and often use the elvish characters. I fear he had ill tidings to record in that fair hand, said Gandalf. The first clear word is sorrow, but the rest of the line is lost unless it ends in Esther. Yes, it must be Yester, followed by Day, being the 10th of November, Barlin, Lord of Moria fell in Dimril Dale. He went alone to look in Miramir. An orc shot him from behind a stone. We slew the orc, but many more up from east up the silver load. The remainder of the page is so blurred that I can hardly make anything out. But I think I can read, We have barred the gates, and then can hold them long if, and then perhaps horrible, and suffer. Poor Barlin. He seems to have kept the title that he took for less than five years. I wonder what happened afterwards. But there is no time to puzzle out the last few pages. Here is the last page of all. He paused and sighed. This is grim reading, he said. I fear their end was cruel. Listen. We cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken